Tarzan wasn't a ladies' man. He'd just come along and scoop him up under his arm like that. Quick as a cat in the jungle. But Clark Kent, now there was a real gent. He would not be caught sitting around in no jungle scheme, dumb as an ape doing nothing. Superman never made any money, 'cause even the world from Solomon Grundy. Sometimes I dispel the world will never see another. Hello and welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, episode number 63, where we go back, back to, the, to past the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. Today we're looking at the death of Superman with special attention paid to Superman Volume 2, number 75. And you can pick us up every Sunday morning on chrisandreggie.podbean.com or from iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, and by relentlessly pounding on your container wall. Ooh. Yikes. Yeah, so this is uh, the 25th anniversary, right? Do I have my math correct this year? It's crazy, isn't it? Doesn't it's like, I know. you ever go to like a forum where people write like posts just to make you feel old? Well, yeah. Uh, this is <laughs> this it. time it's us. Want to feel old? Uh, they, this is a 25, <laughs> you know, that's like a kid born this year, obviously, yeah, they would be uh, an adult now. By, uh, old enough to have kids, yeah. Some or... standards. Uh, yeah, so we're going to go through for the next three weeks, at least. At uh, least. The death, the funeral, the return, all the, all the good things that come around with uh, uh, Superman. I don't want to uh, reveal everything yet, but today <laughs> we're going to concentrate on just the deadening of Superman. But we're going to start mm-hmm. off a little preamble here. Certainly, we're going to talk about what uh, might have been, because uh, the death was not always in the cards here. Uh, this was really a uh, a love story <laughs> that uh, really began with John Byrne's run on uh, the Man of Steel miniseries, that six issues that ran from October through December 1986. And uh, that featured Lois Lane becoming a little bit more lovey to Clark Kent, did not so much uh, scheming and trying to you know discover secret identities and all that. Right. Uh, this run would be continued uh, a bit with uh, Roger Stern taking over after after burnout. Burn left. <laughs> Go figure. Um, now, this would all culminate in the story arc, Crisis of the Crypt, Crypt, Crimson Kryptonite, all Ks, yeah. uh, that ran through uh, Superman Volume 249, Adventures of Superman 472, Starman number 28, Action Comics number 659, and uh, Superman Volume 2 number 50. This was November through December 1990 cover date. Yeah, uh, this, by the way, that arc is often lovingly referred to as Superman colon KKK, so yeah. may- maybe not the best uh, title of things, but that's fine. <laughs> that's where he landed in uh, in, in Germany. Right, right? exactly. Yeah. Uh, no, this is a, a story where Lex Luthor and Mr. Migziez Pitalik conspire to leave Superman powerless. It turns out that plain old Clark Kent is as much as a, of a selfish do-gooder when he He's super-powered, and Lois is uh, quite the fan. She digs it. Uh, The story concludes, as we said, in Superman Volume 2, Issue 50, where Clark gets his powers back, proposes to Lois Lane, and she accepts. 
Uh, a few months later, in Action Comics issue 662, this is February 1991, Clark actually reveals his dual identity to Lois. You know, since they're engaged and all, it uh, stands to reason that it should be done. Yeah, uh, I, I, think, I think that was a good call. That really does not seem like Clark to have a duplicitous marriage for too long like that. But I think it's yeah. interesting that he got his powers back, but it's it seemed to have almost no... He, he, you know, his proposing to her was incidental to that. You know, yeah. he, he already loved her, and she loved him, and, you know, him getting his, whether he got his powers back or not, that's how he wanted to be. So, mm-hmm. beautiful thing. But then a TV show happened. It was Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman. This was a series aired on ABC from September 12th, 1993 to June 14th, 1997. It was about Lois Lane and Clark Kent's growing romantic relationship and it was always intended to culminate in their marriage, or they figured that they would. Uh, the yeah. actual original title for the program was to be Lois Lane's Daily Planet. So you see, this wasn't going to be a superhero show. It was really more about the human relationship between Lois and Clark. Yep. Uh, Warner Brothers learned that DC Comics was planning a similar plot in the, line, in the Superman comic books. And as a result, Warner Brothers and the Superman writing staff and DC came together and reached an agreement that Lois and Clark wedding arc in the comic book would be put on hold to resume once the Lois and Clark TV show finally reaches wedding episode, whenever that would be. Yeah, they didn't care if they would do it at the same time. They just didn't want the comic doing it first. Right. Uh, and upon hearing this, Superman editorial and writing staff, they, as you might imagine, were not terribly thrilled uh, having this entire year's worth of stories shelved at the last mm-hmm. minute. Uh, they also uh, were a bit annoyed that, you know, they didn't know when Lois and Clark would marry them. It could be, you know, two or three seasons like they were told, or it could have been five right. or six seasons if they decided to moonlight or, it or whatever. It, it could be 20 seasons, you know, if it was a huge popular be. show. They might have wanted to keep it going. So, yeah, there was no Certainly. guarantee about it. Yeah, so the people who put in all the effort to mapping this out might have never gotten to write the comic. I mean, they could have, they could have jumped to Marvel. They could, they could have fallen ill. Who knows? Right. Um, so you know, if Lois and Clark decided to keep them apart, that's as long as DC would have to do it as well. Uh, Jeanette Kahn uh, asked the Superman creative team if they could come up with another story of equal or greater significance that would be just as satisfying for the writers, artists, and the readers. Uh, Adventures of Superman writer Jerry Ordway is said to have uttered, let's just kill him. Uh, this is something that Ordway would jokingly say at every single Superman summit when they would, you know, get stuck. Or I think he would uh, come in and they would have, like, whiteboards all over the walls. And in the very last one, he would write, Superman dies every single time. There you go. <laughs> like a, <laughs> now, uh, a flow chart where the end is yep. always Superman dies. Yeah, Yeah, the old Levitt's paradigm. Uh, <laughs> now, uh, editor Mike Carlin uh, started to like the idea even though it was, you know, meant as a joke. Uh, Carlin says, The world was taking Superman for granted, so we literally said, let's show the world what it would be like without Superman. So there was an announcement to this effect. It was in the New York Newsday, which is a newspaper familiar to Chris and I. That was a Long Island newspaper. This is the one that my parents always got, and I liked it uh, as a kid. because around 1989 or 90, they started to have full-color comics. Mm-hmm. You remember that at all? Anyway, uh, I do. <laughs> but anyway, on a day where obviously nothing else happened, it was reported in the New York Newsday that DC Comics was planning to kill Superman. William S. McTernan reported an irresistible force is going to meet an immovable object in November, and something's going to give. Superman will meet his demise. Doomsday is mentioned and named, although referred to as an escapee from a comic insane asylum. Mm-hmm. Uh, the editor, Mike Carlin, who we'll meet in a moment and learn more about, 
would describe Doomsday in the same article. Uh, he is an unstoppable force. Some of us think he is a force of nature. Some of us think he is a man-made creation. Some of us think he is an occult horror. Perhaps having a little fun with the Lois and Clark Michigas, Don Thompson, which was a co-editor of Comics Buyer's Guide, was quoted in the piece saying, Superman's death is being done for the same reason that a TV series will throw in a wedding, to give ratings a boost. Hmm. Well, since New York News Day already spoiled our big bed, let's meet Big yeah. <laughs> His first appearance... It kind of depends. Yeah. <laughs> uh, some, including some price guides and even the great and powerful wiki, cite uh, Superman, the Man of Steel, number 18, November 1992, as his first appearance. Others, including other wikis and price guides, cite Superman, the Man of Steel, number 17, October 1992, where we get to see his fist as his first appearance. But none of them mention Man of Steel, number 16, where you see his eyelash. I know and it. And last floats into the scene. <laughs> now, now, if only Wizard Magazine was still around to tell us what's up, yeah. or to hike up the price of whichever book they happen to have a bunch of in their collections. Right, yeah. Uh, like that issue of uh, Panic in the Sky that they seem to really want to go up. Sure. Um, now, created by the uh, the whole Superman brain trust at the time, though it's uh, generally agreed on that Doomsday is a Dan Jurgens character. Uh, rather than using someone from Superman's regular cast of bad guys, who were mostly at this point dudes in suits or lab coats, uh, Jurgens wanted to wrap this arc up with a massive slugfest, with a hulking beast of a character. Uh, Jurgen cites the, the working title for the story arc as the inspiration for the character's name. Uh, Doomsday for Superman was in their notes, which caused him to ask, why not call him Doomsday? Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> he was uh, basically created to be a force of nature to take Superman out, but his story would become far more complicated in the years that followed, and uh, maybe we'll touch on that a bit later down the line. Yeah, I'll tell you, for a character that was supposed to be a one-time you know, yeah. Superman foil, we sure have gotten to hang out with Doomsday in many incarnations since, but that's uh, <laughs> not relevant to here. But uh, there's another person also starring in this story. You might have heard of him. His name is Superman. Oh, and yeah. we'll say a little bit about him. The first Superman was the Ubermensch. This was German for Overman or Superman. This is a concept in the philosophy of Friedrich Nietzsche. In his 1883 book, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, Thustra, uh, Nietzsche has a character, has his character Zarathustra posit the Ubermensch as a goal for humanity to set for itself. Uh, in 1930, a novel featuring a character with several of the super attributes Superman would display was published. It was called the It was called Gladiator by Philip Wiley. In it, a scientist gives a serum consisting of a new plasm to biology to his still unborn son. Hugo Danner is born with powers far beyond those of mortal men. We got super strength and vulnerability, all that good stuff that we know about. Uh, Hugo says, "I can do things, Dad. It kind of scares me. I can jump higher in a house." I can run faster in a train. He later say, I'm, a, I'm like a man made of iron. During this time, from all accounts, horrible novel, uh, Hugo keeps his power secret. Mm -hmm. uh, Cleveland, Ohio-based science fiction fans Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster would create the fanzine titled Science Fiction, The Advanced Guard of Future Civilization. That was in 1933. In 1983, Siegel said... I wrote some science fiction stories and submitted them to Amazing Stories and Science Wonder Stories. They were rejected. Refusing to accept defeat, I went into the fanzine business, mostly to get those rejected stories seen by readers. My first fanzine was entitled Cosmic Stories. 
It was typewritten. Later, with Joe Schuster as art editor and with myself as editor, I published the fanzine Science Fiction. It was published on a mimeograph machine in of Glenville High School, where I was a reluctant student. In quotes. Now, in this publication, of which there were only five issues produced, is the story The Reign of the Superman, penned by Siegel and drawn by Schuster. This is an illustrated story, though, not a panel-by-panel comic book story. Uh, a mad scientist named Professor Ernest Smalley randomly recruits vagrant Bill Dunn from a breadline to participate in an experiment in exchange for a real meal and a new suit. When Smalley's experimental potion grants Dunn telepathic powers, the man becomes intoxicated by his power and seeks to rule the entire world. Eventually, the power wears off and Dunn is back on the breadline. Uh, Dunn is the Superman. He's bald and more reminiscent of the way Lex Luthor would look much later on. Also in 1983, Siegel said, In the January 1933 issue of Science Fiction appeared a story I had written in 1932 entitled The Reign of the Superman. I used the pseudonym Herbert S. Fine, which combined the name of a cousin of mine together with my mother's maiden name. After the publication of Reign of the Superman, it occurred to me that a different version of Superman could be the basis of an extremely powerful and successful comic book. And so I had originated, together with Joe Schuster, the comic book, The Superman, back in 1933. And let's, let's learn a little bit about that. Uh, Siegel and Schuster redeveloped their Superman idea, so the character was a hero instead of a villain. They initially tried pitching it as a comic strip to several newspapers, but were unsuccessful, as we, as we discussed in our, uh, what was it, our first uh, issue episode, the, uh, the Comics Code, uh, a lot yep. of the... A lot of the creators would rather be syndicated in the strips. Than... Oh, that was that was the dream was to be syndicated. Yes. Yeah. In in the ghetto of comic books. Um, now, in 1983, Siegel would say a Chicago publisher was interested, but he did not follow through and publish the Superman. Brokenhearted, Joe tore up and burned all of the original pit drawings pages except its cover. Joe was terribly discouraged. He got a part-time job as a grocery store's delivery boy. Another job carrying a heavy box and selling ice cream bars on the streets. Well, he had to do something. Uh, sure. But obviously it wasn't totally destroyed because Siegel was able to send some, uh, whatever was left of it, to National mm. Comics, uh, which was, we know better than today, as DC Comics in New York, where it languished in a drawer. Sheldon Mayer credits himself with getting the first Superman story published, uh, working in National as a production person at the time. He saw Siegel and Schuster's pages and suggested they would be popular. However, this story is apocryphal. The story is apocryphal <laughs> and has not never been confirmed by anyone besides Shelley Mayer. So take I've heard there's other people too that claim to have had a hand in this publishing of Superman, but we don't know. Yeah, that's a that's a very convenient story to tell later. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, when National had difficulty deciding on an appropriate cover for a new magazine that they called Action Comics, someone, perhaps Mayor, pulled out the Superman proposal, showing him lifting a car with his hands. Harry Donenfeld allegedly called it ridiculous, but still decided to later put it on the cover. Uh, he would write Siegel and Schuster and ask them if they could put together a 13-page story for Action Comics number one. Siegel and Schuster hurriedly cut and pasted their newspaper strip into comic book form and sent it off. And from that spring, Action Comics number in that spring, Action Comics number one hit the stands. This was cover dated June 1938. It wasn't an immediate hit, but by Action Comics number four, it was selling like gangbusters. Astounded by this, Don Enfeld is reported as having gone down to his local newsstand and asked a kid, "Why are you reading this one?" Uh, pointing to Action Comics. 
And the kid replied, because it's the one that has Superman in it, mister. Yep, and then he uh, told him, get cheese off, there. Get out of my face, yeah. Mark, you know, whatever he said. <laughs> now, of course, this is the end of the uh, fellow that wrote Gladiator. The, uh, the author of Gladiator, Wiley, upon seeing Superman, threatened Siegel with a lawsuit around 1940 uh, on grounds of plagiarism. However, it was never filed. The Ubermensch concept was too common a reference point for Wiley to discount. Siegel claimed to have never read Gladiator until Wiley threatened the lawsuit. However, per Gerard Jones' book Men of Tomorrow, Siegel had apparently written a capsule review of Wiley's novel in a fanzine years before Superman made his debut. Jones would say, pretty much everybody agrees that Siegel must have read it. Hugo Danner himself would eventually appear in DC Comics, uh, Young All-Stars number 10, March 1988 marks his first appearance. He's revealed to be the father of, of the father for Arn Iron Monroe, the post-crisis replacement for Superman during the Golden Age. Uh, he was written and created by Roy and Dan Thomas, who, as we know, love their literary Easter eggs. The cover of Young Stars number one, June 1987, even as Iron Monroe in the familiar Superman breaking chains pose, originally done by uh, Neil Adams. Mm-hmm. Worth mentioning because who knows if we will again Marvel Comics published an adaptation of Gladiator In Marvel Preview number 6 That was winter 1976 cover date Written by Hey it was Roy Thomas Who, who, How about who could that? have thought it Wow. <laughs> <laughs> now uh, famously Siegel and Schuster Sold the rights to national periodicals For Superman for $130 And a contract to supply the publisher with material uh, they worked on the on the comic books for a short time, quickly jumping to a Superman comic strip that debuted on January 16, 1939, uh, though Schuster would farm his duties out to assistants by 1940, and that would run until 1966. But let's talk about the more contemporary Superman. Right, our Superman. <laughs> yes. Now, who doesn't know him? He's a muscular dude in a skin-tight costume of blue, yellow, and red that is faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, and can leap higher than the tallest building. In truth, Superman's origins and specs manifested and change over time. Based on the stuff from the comic strip, the radio show in 1940, the movie serial in 1948, and the eventual television show in 1952. Not to mention that during the Silver Age, Superman would often manifest a power in one issue and then not have it the following sure. issue. Yep. <laughs> Why not? Uh, also, uh, different creators have represented his strength and power set vastly differently. Yeah, which which is somewhat true for every uh, character in comics. But Superman, absolutely, Superman maybe went through more variances than others, having been around for so long. <laughs> so, uh, pre-crisis, the story went like this: that baby Cal L was sent by parents Jor L and Lara from their dying planet Krypton in an experimental rocket destined for planet Earth. It reached a farm in Kansas while Kal-El was still a baby and found by a childless couple, John and Martha Kent. Martha decides to name the baby Clark, which is her maiden name. After a brief stint in an orphanage where baby Kal-El displays tremendous strength and power, even lifting a crib over his head, yep. the Kents adopt Kal-El formally and raise him as their own. Kal-El Clark grows up as Superboy, a young man with the same powers set at, <laughs> as Superman, which are... Flight, super speed, invulnerability with two exceptions, x-ray vision, which can double as heat vision, super intelligence, and super senses. Now, after graduating Metropolis University, where he played football, Cal L. Clark uh, moves to Metropolis City and gets a job as Clark Kent, reporting for the newspaper, The Daily Planet. He loves co-worker Lois Lane, who only has eyes for Superman. 
And uh, Superman treats her like a dingus. Pretty much all the time. <laughs> all the time. Uh, <laughs> Superman's X-ray vision cannot penetrate lead. Uh, he, is in, he is vulnerable to two things. It's magic and radioactive meteorites resulting from his exploded home planet that we call kryptonite. Uh, there are, in the pre-crisis, several types and colors of kryptonite, each with their own unique properties and uh, results. And some of them only show up once. You know, you never know what you're going to get. <laughs> yes. but, uh, now that then there was... A, a, things changed, obviously, after Christ on Infinite Earths in 1985, and he was given a kind of a reboot. Helmed by John Byrne, starring starting in the Man of Steel number one, October 1986 cover. Uh, it's this Superman we'll be seeing in the issues that we're about to discuss. So in this story, Kal-El is still rocketed from an exploding Krypton to Earth, but he is the only one. There's no Crypto or Supergirl. He arrives in a birthing matrix rather than as a tot, making the argument that he had been born on Earth. Uh, also, Krypton is a much more science-oriented planet, despite the refusal of Jor-El's warnings about the fate of Krypton. It's a more sterile-looking, movie-esque Krypton, kind of big spires, and uh, basically it copies the Donner movies, more or less. Kal-El still lands in Kansas, still picked up by John and Martha Kent. Uh, Kal-El Clark's powers manifest over time, though, beginning at puberty, so there never is a Superboy. Uh, Superman, as a man, can fly, he has X-ray vision and super sense, but he's not completely invulnerable. Still really strong, though. He can be knocked out by other similarly strong enemies, as we are about to see and what we're going to read. Uh, for another example of his lessons powers, at one point, Superman exiled himself to space. And during this time, he required a breathing apparatus to survive outside of Earth's atmosphere. Now, as mentioned, he still loves him some Lois Lane. And uh, when Clark reveals he's Superman, she loves him too. Hey. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he's also vulnerable to magic and kryptonite, but only green kryptonite. The other kryptonites are gone, except for that crimson kryptonite, which was uh, a Mixespitalic addition. Right. A fifth dimension dealie. Uh, now, all of this will continue to change drastically throughout the years, even to today. So it might not be worth committing. Any of it right. to your memory. Exactly. Uh, it, what, what is today might not be tomorrow. Well, probably won't be tomorrow. Uh, let's hop in and meet our creative team, starting with Mike Carlin, the editor. Uh, he was born October 6, 1958, presumably somewhere in the United States. He attended the High School of Art and Design in New York City and started as an intern at DC Comics during the summer of 1974. Uh, but he would be hired on it by Marvel Comics as a writer and artist for their humor title, Crazy Magazine. He would work on issues 72, 74, 80, and 82 through 92. And that was between the years of 1981 and 1982. He would work under Mark Gruenwald as an assistant editor and even had a short run as writer on Captain America. Those would be issues 301 through 306, cover dates January through June 1985. He would return to DC Comics on his birthday in 1986 and would ultimately become the group editor over the Superman titles. And in the fall of 1992, he would oversee the very story we're about to discuss. Hey, and now we, we, in, in this first, we're going to talk about the comics series that are involved in this uh, story about the death of Superman. First one is the Superman, the Man of Steel. This is the fourth ongoing Superman title. It was launched with the cover date July 1991, by which point the Superman line was already several months into the triangle numbering era. This was sort of a, the comic had one number, then there was a triangle number to keep you up with the series. Mm -hmm. 
happening between the com- you had to be there folks i can't talk to kind of <laughs> hard to describe it made perfect sense though at the time so it, it uh, does it's not really that complicated uh, we mentioned this book first this book first as it generally was the lead-off issue for the month in the first week of the month the series first high profile crossover event was panic in the sty sky uh, getting ahead of ourselves this series would run for 134 issues not including an issue zero and an issue one million wrapping up with its March 2003 issue. And uh, starting the creative team for Man of Steel, we have Louise Simonson, born Mary Louise Alexander on September 26, 1946, in Atlanta, Georgia. I remember thinking that her maiden name was Jones because that's what many of her early uh, credits are, mm. but uh, that's actually from a uh, her first marriage. Um, now, Louise would famously model for Bernie Wrightson for the cover of House of Secrets number 92. It was cover dated June, July 1971, the issue that featured the first appearance of Swamp Thing. If, uh, if you're familiar with Swamp Thing, you've seen the cover. Oh, yeah. Uh, she's, like, brushing her hair while some sort of creature crawls in through a window. It, it's the Swamp Thing, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to spoil it. Uh, now, her professional comics career would begin in 1974 at Warren Publishing, where she worked as an editor. And later, senior editor for titles such as Eerie, Creepy, and Vampirella. And it's around this time that she met future husband Walter Simonson, and they got married in 1980. Uh, after leaving Warren in 1979, she moved over to Marvel Comics, where she became editor for Uncanny X-Men, and that's a position that she held for four years. Uh, when New Mutants launched in 1983, she would edit that as well. Uh, she also edited some licensed titles, including Star Wars and Indiana Jones. She would leave the editor's chair in 1983 to try her hand at the writing side of things. She she would create Power Pack, a team of young heroes, uh, like like really young, like nine, prepubescent yeah. heroes. Yeah, yes. <laughs> now, this series launched in August 1984 cover and ran for 62 issues and uh, featured a fellow we're uh, about to talk about in the artist chair for much of its run. That's right. Uh, Louise also wrote a Spider-Man Power Pack PSA that focused on sexual abuse, and this established that Peter Parker was molested as a child. Not sure if that's still or was ever considered canon, but who knows, especially now I couldn't really tell you what's canon in Spider-Man. Uh, in 1986, Simonson wrote a fill-in issue of X-Factor, which was never published. However, her interest in the title and the characters led to her taking over the title when Bob Layton left. She, along with Jackson, Jackson Gweiss, more on him in a bit, co-created the a character Apocalypse in her very first issue on the title. She, along with her husband Walt Simonson, transitioned Warren Worthington from his angel persona into the blue-skinned, razor-winged Horseman of Apocalypse Archangel. Her run in the title lasted from issue number 6, that was July 1986 cover, to number 64, March 1991 cover date, and included crossover tie-ins for The Mutant Massacre, Fall of the Mutants, Inferno, and one of Chris's favorites to say, The Extinction Agenda. Indeed. Uh, Louise would take over writing duties from Chris Claremont on the title. She once edited New Mutants with issue number 55, September 1987 cover. She remained in the title until issue number 97, that was January 1991. And along with Rob Liefeld, introduced the character Cable in New Mutants number 87, that was in March 1990. Like the other tenured X-Books writers, uh, Bob Harris would thumb his nose at Simonson and side with the artists on all things creative, so she, like the other tenured X-Books writers, walked for Marvel. And she, and like some of the other writers, found themselves at DC. Uh, her first DC Comics work would be Superman, The Man of Steel, number one, which a year and a half of its run would take part in the very story we're about to discuss. Mm-hmm. How about that? Now, 
Across the table from Louise is John Bogdanov. He was born May 7, 1958 in Albany, New York. He says, my failure as a child to stay airborne when jumping off the neighbor's carport with a towel tied around my neck after numerous sustained attempts led me to try drawing instead. So the superhero uh, gig was not for him. No. Uh, one of his earliest memories is cutting a TV screen into a cardboard box and doing drawings of George Reeves' Superman and Fleischer's Popeye on a roll of butcher's paper and then running that paper through the box across the screen. It's a very bad. creative kid. Too bad his family didn't have a television. That's really that's, that's kind of sad, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> he continues to say, when I was 12 or so, Jack Kirby started doing his fourth world opus at DC, even though he was writing and drawing the whole a whole comic book each week. They couldn't come out fast enough for me. I had to start making up and drawing my own adventures. Uh, she, he, would in, he would attend the School of Visual Arts. His first comics work was Alpha Flight, issue number 32, March 1986, cover date for Marvel Comics. He would become the regular artist for Louise Simonson written Power Pack with issue 22, May 1986, and he would stick around there for four years. Uh, he would work on various other Marvel projects, including miniseries Exterminators and Fantastic Four vs. the X-Men. And he started at DC Comics with... Superman, the Man of Steel, number one in 1991. Uh, worth mentioning, because I don't think we will again, John has a son named Cal L. Bogdanov. Yeah, that's pretty uh, serious fandom right there when you name him. Indeed. It. Didn't even name his kid Clark. You know, he, Not he, Clark. He could have yeah. went the Clark route, but he decided Cal L. would be better. Now, the third ongoing Superman title, Superman Volume 2, was launched directly out of John Byrne's post-crisis revamp of the character in his uh, miniseries, The Man of Steel, October, December. Uh, 1986 cover dates. The series would become the flagship Superman title written by initially by John Byrne, and then it was largely self-contained until the triangle numbering took hold. We mentioned this book second as it generally came out the second week of the month, and is the second chapter in the story we're about to discuss. Getting ahead of ourselves, though, Superman Volume 2 would run until issue 226, which was the Infinite Crisis crossover issue. Now on to the creative team, which is one man, Dan Jerkins. Uh, he was born June 27, 1959 in Ortonville, Minnesota. The first comic book Dan bought with his own money was Superman number 189. This is August 1966 cover date. Uh, he went to the store looking for a Batman comic. But they were sold out, and considering this is uh, 1966, is probably a reason for that. Yeah. Uh, Dan says, in fact, of course, this is in the midst of the Batman TV craze and wonderful DC go-go checks era. And those go-go checks, uh, you know them if you see them. It's right. those, the, the checkerboard on top of the, the top uh, of okay. them. It's like a whole a whole era of DC is denoted by those checks. Yep, easy to see from the uh, from the street, I guess. Right. Uh, he would graduate from Minneapolis College of Art and Design in 1981. His first professional comic work was for DC Comics, penciling The Warlord, number 63. This is cover dated November 1982. He was hired due to a recommendation of Warlord creator Mike Grell, who was impressed by Jurgen's work after being shown his portfolio at a convention. In 1984, Jurgens was the artist for the Sun Devils maxi-series that ran from July 1984 through June 1985 cover with writers Jerry Conway and Roy Thomas. He would begin scripting from Conway's plots with issue number 8, it's February 1985, and then fully took over the writing duties on the title with issue number 10, that was April 1985 cover. Also in 1985, Jurgens created the character Booster Gold, who first appeared in... 
Booster Gold number one. Mm. This is February 1986 cover date. Got a nice busy year there. Absolutely. Uh, his first work on Superman was as a penciler for the Adventures of Superman Annual number one, 1987. In 1988, Jurgens provided pencil art for the Dead Man short stories, which were written by Mike Barron in the short lived anthology Action Comics Weekly from issues 601 to 612. Jurgens had a run as artist on Green Arrow with writer Mark Grell from 1988 to 1990. And in 1989, Jurgens began working full-time on the Superman character when he took over the writing penciling of the monthly The Adventures of Superman comic. Uh, Jurgens was the penciler of the 1991 limited series Armageddon 2001 and co-created the hero Wave Rider with Archie Goodwin. Jurgens helped light writer Louise Simonson and artist John Bogdanov launch a new Superman title, Superman, The Man of Steel, in July 1991, and he assumed the writing penciling of the main Superman comic book with issue number 57, that was also in July 1991, cover. Mm. Now uh, we're going to talk about the book that comes out the third week of the month. This is the second ongoing title, The Adventures of Superman, which started its life as Superman. That's a <laughs> Superman Volume 1, way back in uh, cover dated June 1939. Uh, it's final, in quotes, issue, uh, which is issue 423, September 1986, cover date, would feature the first half of Alan Moore's Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow. The following issue, number 124, January 1987, cover date would feature the new George Reeves television series inspired adventures of dot 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 title uh, basically because John Byrne wanted to start his run with a brand yeah. new number one yeah, sure <laughs> and as mentioned we mentioned this book third because it was the third each month uh, adventures of Superman would run until issue 649 April 2006 cover date and that's an infinite crisis crossover with uh, the the I was going to say something must have happened around then, I guess. Something might have happened, yeah. <laughs> the following month with issue 650, May 19, I'm sorry, May 2006, The Adventures of was dropped, and the series reclaimed it's no longer in use. Adjectiveless Superman title. Uh, Superman would run until issue 714, October 2001, before being flushed. For the new 52. As of this recording, Superman Volume 4 is being released bi-weekly from DC Comics. That's right. Uh, so let's talk about the creative team here. It's Jerry Ordway, born November 28, 1957. He attended Milwaukee Technical High School, where he took a three-year course in commercial art. He had a fanzine called OK Comics, drawn almost entirely by Jerry and co-written with his friend Dave Kula. Who published some other? Who published some work and other fanzines at this time? Both of them joined the studio in 1976 as a typographer. Worked his way up. By the late 1970s, he was a commercial printer painter for the same studio and also submitted covers for fanzines and prozines, including the Comics Journal. Did covers for Western Publishing's Golden Books on Young Reader Marvel Books and Superheroes Golden Beginning Stamp Book 1979 or Stamp Book 79 is really what it's called. At a 1980 Chicago Comic-Con, DC held a talent search, and Ordway submitted some of his professional work for review. He was given work and, for a time, worked for the art studio and freelance as an inker, working on pencils by Carmine Infantino, Trevor Von Eden, as well as Joe Staten and Dave Cockrum. 
He would com- he would quit the commercial studio in February 1981 to go freelance full-time. He shared a new studio with other artists, including Pat Broderick and Al Vey. Uh, his first drawing gig was his All-Star Squadron, beginning with an insert preview in Justice League of America number 193. This is cover dated August 1981, back when they included those bonus books. Uh, he co-created, along with uh, Roy Thomas, Infinity Incorporated. They appeared first in All-Star Squadron number 25, September 1983 cover date. During the mid-80s, Ordway provided covers and occasional artwork to titles from a, num- a number of different comics companies. Uh, companies included uh, Wendy and Richard Peeney's Warp Graphics, AC Comics, Charlton Comics, Paragon Publications, and Fan Turn Pro Marty Green. Uh, whatever that is. Sure. <laughs> now he produced um, Munden's Bar for First Comics. This is a backup in Grimjack issues one. I'm sorry, two through sixty nine. This is September 1984 through April 1990 cover. He also provided pencils and inks on an issue of Thunder Agents. That was issue five in 1984. For Eclipse Comics, Ordway provided pencils for a short epilogue story in Mark Ivanier's DM Agents. This is issue number 18, January 1985. He would ink over uh, George Perez's pencils on the 12th part Crisis on Infinite Earths. This is April 1985 through March 1986. And uh, you can hear all about that in the archives. Right. For about 12 hours. Uh, <laughs> now, Ordway inked uh, Superman artist Wayne Boring's pencils for a retelling of the definitive Golden Age Superman origin story that was written by Roy Thomas in Secret Origins Number 1. This is April 1986 cover date, and he considers that a particular favorite. He drew Adventures of Superman under... Uh, under words from Marv Wolfman, uh, part of the burn-led revamp of Superman post-crisis. Um, eventually, Wolfman left the book. Byrne showed up for a while to fill in, uh, but uh, Ordway would finish it out as writer and artist. Uh, Ordway was the penciler and anchor for DC Comics adaptations of the 1989 Batman film. He jumped from Adventures of Superman into Superman Volume 2. Uh, he wrote and penciled issues 34, August 1989 through 55, May 1991. Uh, he would come back uh, to do Adventures of Superman and uh, be part of the event we're about to discuss. Yeah, and uh, the other fellow, of course, we're going to talk about is Tom Grummet. Born 1959 in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada. Began at DC Comics doing finishes for George Perez on New Titans with issue number 58, September 1989. In an interview with Justin Francoeur, right? I'm, mm-hmm, I think so. Over in DC in the 80s.com, a good friend of the show, Tom said, mm-hmm. My experience was with working with Marv was George Perez had come back to the book for issue 50. This was a big deal. Work progressed for a few months that way until George got into a car accident. With But with recovery and pain medication and who knows what, I don't even know, he felt that he was unable to continue on the book, but he would do layouts. So the job was offered to me, working from George's layouts, I would pencil the book. I worked that way through the Lonely Place of Dying story arc, where Tim Drake became Robin, so there was a crossover with the Batman books at that point. I would get the layouts from George and the scripts from Marv, I would work away on these things, and then finally George decided to just leave the book entirely. Hopefully because he felt it was in good hands. So he left me behind with Marv. I'm a new guy, and suddenly I'm working with Marv Wolfman, and it's all me. (laughs) So uh, he hung around on New Titans after Perez left and would provide art for the Titans Hunt era of the title. His first work on Superman was in Action Comics number 665. That was a May 1991 cover date, and joined Adventures of Superman with issue number 480. 
a July 1991 cover date, and stuck around for the story we're about to discuss soon. Indeed, we promise. Uh, <laughs> the fourth and final title was actually the first Superman title, Action Comics, that launched way back in June 1938. Following Crisis on Infinite Earths and the cancellation of World's Finest Comics and DC Comics Presents, Action Comics found itself the Superman team-up book. And these team-up issues were issues 584 through 599, uh, cover dated January 87 through April 88. With issue number 601, May 1988, Action Comics was renamed Action Comics Weekly. It became an anthology series featuring weekly serials of Green Lantern, Wild Dog, Secret Six, Black Hawks, Black Canary, Nightwing, Dead Man, the whole bunch of characters got some battle time here. Uh, with issue 643, cover dated July 1989, the weekly was dropped, and the title became just a regular old monthly Superman book again. <laughs> uh, we mentioned this book fourth because it was the anchor of the Superman line, shipping at the end of the month or sometimes the very beginning of the following month. Action Comics would initially run until nine, issue number 904, October 2011, when its legacy was flushed for the New 52. Action Comics Volume 2 ran for 52 issues between November 2011 and July 2016. DC's, the DC's Rebirth Initiative returned legacy numbering to Action Comics with the August 2016 issue, number 957. But the damage is done. I know. Come on, publishers. You can't. You know. You can't go back. That's why they yeah. making the choice to reboot. It, it, it's a choice. You, you, you know. You got to stick the landing. You can't take. You can't turn back on it. Anyway, mm-hmm. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> now, if uh, if DC stays on target with their biweekly shipping, Action Comics will ship its one thousandth issue in March 2018. And I, you know, I'm pretty sure that. Uh, definitely in the Superman line, they have not missed. They've been bi shipping, bi weekly shipping Superman and action, and they haven't missed yeah. once. I don't think I don't they've think. missed once, yeah. Uh, DC really has been good with uh, some of their comics with this sure. incredibly increased schedule, so take that for what it is. Uh, creative team here we got Roger Stern. He was born September 17th, 1950, in Noblesville, Indiana. In the early 1970s, published a fanzine CPL, which was Contemporary Pictorial Literature, which was one of the first publications to showcase John Byrne's work. CPL was originally Bob Layton's Sad Sales Catalog, and we talk about that a little more in the Charlton episode, I think. Mm-hmm. By the mid 19 by the mid 70s, worked with Charlton to produce the sanctioned fanzine Charlton Bullseye, which featured exclusive art and unpublished stories from Charlton. Wrote a few pieces for Foom, which was the uh, Marvel house zine, became an assistant editor at Marvel in 1976. Became the writer for the spectacular Spider-Man with issue number 43, that was in June 1980 cover. Took over the Amazing Spider-Man with issue 224, January 82 cover. Co-created West Coast Avengers with Bob Hall. In 1987, he got into an argument with the editor Mark Gruenwald and was fired from the Avengers, so he began freelancing for DC on Action Comics. He created The Eradicator, for instance. Wrote the novelization of The Death and Life of Superman in 1993, which made the New York Times bestseller list. And uh, would work on the title we're going to talk about today. (laughs) Certainly. Uh, Now, across the table, we have Jackson Geis. We have Jackson, quote, Butch Geis. He was born June 27, 1961, in Chattanooga, Tennessee. It's a fun name. That's a fun city to say. Yeah. Uh, All those words are fun. Butch Geis, I love it. It's all good. (laughs) He uh, came up through the North Carolina fanzine scene of the early 1980s that I never knew existed. His uh, first professional credited work was in the independent title, the Crusaders, number one, November 1982, cover date. Uh, 
His first uncredited work was ghosting a uh, over Pat Broderick in uh, for a ROM annual, ROM annual number one. This was a uh, cover dated 1982 for Marvel Comics. Uh, throughout the 80s, he did lots of Marvel work, including penciling X Factor and New Mutants. He worked with Mike Barron on Badger for First Comics. Over at DC, he was the initial artist for Flash, Volume 2, the post-crisis Wally West one. He would hang around there for the first 11 issues. Famously, back at Marvel, Geis drew the cover for Doctor Strange number 15, March 1990 cover date, that featured the likeness of Amy Grant, who, being a Christian singer, wasn't terribly keen to be on the cover of such an occulty book. Uh, she and Marvel would ultimately settle out of court but the exact details are unknown, and none of our business, I guess. Sure. <laughs> now, guys, moved back to DC with Action Comics issue seven. I'm sorry, six seventy six, April nineteen ninety two cover date, and would stick around for the story we promise we're about to talk about. Yeah, it is imminent, folks. But first, before we talk about the issues in question. There were issues before the issues in question mm-hmm. that are important to mention. Uh, we like to call this the fist. Yes. Uh, in the month leading up to the Doomsday storyline, this was cover date uh, November 1992, each issue ended with a one-page scene of a fist punching its way through a prison wall of sorts. It was kind of some sort of a wall. Mm-hmm. Uh, Superman, the Man of Steel, number 17, introduced the scene with a caption that read, Somewhere else, and three panels of a green glove fist pounding against a wall. The final panel was from outside the prison, where you can hear the echoing of the pounding within. The final caption reads, Doomsday is coming. The following week, Superman number 73 opened its scene with the caption, Unrelentingly, followed by another three panels of punching. By now, the green gloves have been shredded, revealing craggy protuberances on the knuckles. The final panel was, again, from the outside. However, by now, Doomsday's spiked knuckles have perforated the prison. The final caption again reads, Doomsday is coming. Next week, Adventures of Superman number 496 opens its scene with unstoppably, dot, 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 followed by still more panels of punching. Uh, by this point, the entire fist is visible. The final panel, again from the outside, features the same holes from earlier. However, by now, the entire framework has begun to bow. The final caption is, dot, 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 doomsday is coming. <laughs> Uh, finally, the following week, Action Comics 685 scene begins with unbelievably dot dot dot, followed by three more punchy panels. However, this time we end with the fist crooming all the way through the prison. Final caption reads, Doomsday is here. He's coming and he's here. And, you know, you got to take into context, you know, there was a lot of hype kind of circulating this thing. Certainly. Uh, Newsday had done their article. Uh, by now, other media had picked up that this was going to happen. So we were really looking at these panels for any evidence. Any hint. Yeah. Anything. I remember seeing the bony protuberances and just sort of like letting my mind go nuts on that. Like, what could that mean? What is that about? Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, we're going to tell you what it's about right now. In uh, mm-hmm. Superman, <laughs> the Man of Steel, number 18, December 1992, cover date. Titled Doomsday Part 1, written by Louise Simonson, penciled by John Bogdanove, uh, inks by Dennis Yanke, colors by Glenn Whitmore, letterer was Bill Oakley. This is triangle number uh, 45-1992. Cover features the green-clad Doomsday punching his way through some wreckage. Released October 13, 1992 for $1.25. The issue opens someplace on Earth, and we immediately join our old friend, the fist, it crangs, crooms, crackooms, and finally, 
Crack-a-dooms its way to freedom. That was the uh, the final <laughs> thing that had to do, right? That was the secret. That's it. The secret thing. Uh, we see that the fist is attached to a giant creature wrapped head to toe in green. There are red lenses, red lenses of sorts where its eyes would be and are, and his right arm is tied behind his back. On the opposing page, we see Superman flying upward, creating a sort of odd mirror image with this beast. Now, this really isn't a doomsday story, per se, uh, despite the title. This is actually wrapping up a story on the Underworlders. Uh, we join a young boy named Keith, who's trying to find his missing mother, and also get a message to Superman. He buys a can of glow-in-the-dark yellow spray paint from Fleischer Paints. Selling a teenage boy a can of spray paint? Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. That's very no. normal. <clears throat> now, to be fair, the old man behind the counter asks him if he plans to spray paint the subway. Oh, well. And he... He even cocks his eyebrow at him. Yeah, so. really? Are you sure? All right. Yeah, he did it. <laughs> he did his due diligence. And, and you know, and so we join Keith that evening, where he heads down to the subway and proceeds to spray paint yellow arrows everywhere. <laughs> uh, the following day, at the Daily Planet, Lois finds a note in Clark's mailbox from a certain young man who needs some super assistance. Not because he knows that Clark is, you know, but. Uh, he knows that Clark happens to have a talent for getting a hold of Superman. Yeah, that's a common uh, Superman trope, you know. <laughs> Clark Clark has the inside scoop on Superman, even though they're never seen together. But anyway, yeah. uh, <laughs> since Clark isn't in, Lois decides she'll follow up instead. I mean, what could possibly go wrong with that? Nothing. Before leaving, she leaves a note on Clark's computer. I'm not sure if prehistoric email or BBS, or maybe she just opened a new document in Word. Perfect, that was a thing. In 1992, right. right? Something like that. We don't know what the, how she did it, but she probably just probably just typed it right into DOS and, and let it go. <laughs> uh, we check back with our green-clad Goliath, and he gets in touch with nature by crushing a tiny bird that landed in his hand with a blorch. This really seems to tickle the big guy's uh, funny pun here. I mean, it's a classic, Chris. You know, so, yeah. some things are just funny. And as we'll come True. to find out, this is sort of the way he communicates with all nature. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, back at the planet, Clark finally arrives just in time for a power outage. Looks like the underworlders are at it again. As luck would have it, this is uh, just as Lois arrives at the location on the note meant for Superman. She's attacked from behind and delivers one hell of a kick to her pursuer. Unfortunately, he looks to be made out of stone, and she hurts her foot. And uh, also, she's captured, so there's, that happens too. Yes. Now, Keith watches the entire thing unfold while he hides away in, above in some pipes. Elsewhere, Doomsday punches a tree. <laughs> that night, that night, Superman is on patrol, and he sees a young fella spray-painting a Superman logo in a basketball court. He drops in to chat Keith up and learns all about what happened to that reporter lady. Underground, the Underworlders are riding a giant drill through the bedrock. Uh, Chris, I think you mean bad rock. Oh, no, not him, not oh, him. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Superman shows up lickety-split and takes the Underworlders down with all that, without all that much effort. Uh, turns out there was this old hippie among the Underworlders who uh, Lois appears to take a liking to, and he becomes uh, the Daily Planet's informal Underworld correspondent. And looking at him, I hope that that gig comes with a formal dental plan. Uh, the issue wraps up with the green-clad beastie walking across a highway right into the path of an ongoing tr oncoming truck. Which he effortly, effortlessly, he ever, I can't even say effortlessly. <laughs> he it does takes it with less effort, effort than you. <laughs> yes, he effortlessly flips this truck. And he also has one hand tied behind his back even. Wow. Uh, the trucker, a uh, trucker CBs into the state troopers. And it's a call that's overheard by Oberon of the Justice League America. Mm, 
maybe they should get involved. And they maybe. do. Yeah, in Justice League of America number 69, December 1992 cover date. This is titled Down for the Count, writing in pencils by Dan Jurgens, inks by Rick Burchett, colors by Gene D'Angelo, and letters by Willie Schubert. Cover features the Justice League attempting to fight Doomsday in front of a red background. I don't want to give everything away here, but they're not looking like they're doing too well. No. Uh, this was released October 20th, 1992 for $1.25. We open on the Justice League cleaning up in the wake of Doomsday crossing the street. Our roll call includes Booster Gold, Maxima, Blue Beetle, Fire, Ice, Guy Gardner, and the Marsh... Uh, uh, Bloodwind. Bloodwind, Bloodwind, yeah. yeah. Uh, back in Metropolis, the Cat Grant show is on the air, starring Cat Grant. Hey! With special guest Superman. Oh, from here, the story splits. Every page is broken into two different ongoing narratives here. The top panels on each page feature the Superman interview, and all below follow the Justice League as they pursue Doomsday. Up top, Superman claims that he agreed to be on the show to help to get Americans to trust the superheroes. While down below, Maxima attempts to make psychic content with the Big Bad and finds nothing more than death and bloodlust. Now, as Superman yaks, Doomsday makes friends with a deer by crushing its throat. (laughs) That's how he makes friends, Chris. That's all it is. It is, it is. (laughs) (laughs) Who am I to judge? Uh, Then he spies Blue Beetle's bug craft hovering above, and so he picks up a chunk of tree and hurls it skyward, destroying the craft. The leaguers uh, all fall, but help each other to land safely. He just wanted to make friends with the craft also. Sure. Uh, Superman answers some questions in regards to his relatively recent decision to join the Justice League. Elsewhere, on Cat Grant show, elsewhere, Doomsday stops some more traffic. Guy Gardner gets a visual on the beast and lunches at him, and uh, it goes very poorly for Mr. Gardner. (laughs) Uh, Doomsday grabs him by the back of his bowl cut and slams him face first into the pavement. And there was a here that I, I saw. I, these were my first DC comics. I, n- I never really read DC uh-huh. at this point. And uh, I remember uh, how the faces, uh, Jorgens would draw faces with bruises on them. Yeah. And I'd never seen that done at Marvel. So it, it was very odd to see. It, it, it's, it was rare in comics in general. But yeah, yeah. You, you see them getting beaten up and they, they look affected by this. Indeed. And then later on, you'll see, we see a lot of affecting of these fighting. <laughs> we sure do. Uh, now, elsewhere, we see that the Superman interview is being played in a classroom. And this is where we meet <laughs> Mitch. Good old Mitch. Now, he'd, rather, he'd much rather Ms. Grant had Guy Gardner on as a guest. And uh, right now, I'm pretty sure Guy feels exactly the same way. Uh, the League continues getting their butt kicked all over the place, including Bloodwind getting sent through a factory where he gets lit on fire, which is important for a reveal that occurs later on and has nothing to do with the Doomsday storyline. Right, we won't get into it, but uh, he's Martian Manhunter. That's what it is. Oh! Anyway, uh, while Superman <laughs> chats about facing off against be- beings capable of killing him, Hmm. Doomsday lays waste to the Blue Beetle, smashing his head into just about every surface imaginable. When news of what's going down with the League hits the airwaves, the Cat Grant show cuts to a news break. Superman rushes off to Ohio to see if he can pitch in, just when Ice informs Booster Gold that she believes the Blue Beetle to be dead. And so, Booster starts blasting Doomsday, and that doesn't work very well for him. Doomsday wallops Gold with a pow and sends him flying like... Seriously, he flies for miles. You know, he yeah. kind of, kind of like the old. Uh, he just kind of like flies off to the sky and ding. You know, you don't even yeah. see anything where he lands. But no, but Superman catches him. Uh, this issue ends with Booster explaining the situation, ending with 
I'm telling you right now, it's like Doomsday is here. Hmm. Very good, Booster. Yes, we jump to the next part. Superman Volume 2, number 74, cover dated December 1992. Uh, Countdown to Doomsday is the title. Words and pencils by Dan Jurgens. Finishes by Brett Breeding. Colors by Glenn Whitmore. Letters by John Costanza. This has a triangle number of 46 for 1992. Uh, cover features Superman fighting Doomsday alongside the Justice League. Well, Guy Gardner, anyway. The rest yeah. of the team has been knocked out. Uh, this was released October 20th, 1992, for $1.25. We rejoin the Justice League as Ice and Maxima have gathered around a downed and prone Blue Beetle. They follow Doomsday as he continues his path of rage, headed right towards a residential street. Remember Mitch? Well, here he is again. Skateboarding home, about, about thinking about how awful his mother is for running off his father. To remind us what year it is, when he gets home, we get this exchanged. His mother says, Mitch, dear, is that you? No, it's Axel Rose and the band. Ooh, that's a sick burn, we guess. Right? Uh, I don't the know. band is Guns N' Roses, by the way. I would imagine, you know, yeah. yeah. Uh, so he proceeds to complain that there's no soda in the fling, fling and flying in house and blames his mother and his sickly baby sister for his pop wanting a divorce. The one-sided arguments interrupted by the arrival of Ice right through the kitchen window, and that's Ice the he character, not an yes. actual block of ice. Outside, <laughs> the Mitches see Doomsday holding up their car, and he's still got one hand tied behind his back, by the way. Now, moments later, Booster and Superman arrive, and Doomsday greets the Man of Steel with a punch to the gut, because that's how he makes friends. <laughs> uh, Superman absorbs the shot. Yeah, Mitch's mom says, Whoa, that punch looked like it could have caved in a mountain, and Superman took it! To which Mitch replies, Big deal, the spud was too slow and stupid to duck. Doomsday follows up his ineffective punch with a wildly effective kick, sending Superman flying backwards through the Mitch residence and into a tree. It's kind of like they're playing Grand Theft Auto. You know, you can run over anything, run through buildings, but once you hit a tree, you're done. Yeah, the tree just splinter a little bit. You know, some wood wood <laughs> chugs come out, but it cannot be knocked down. Uh, Superman's temporarily, temporarily out of the way, so Doomsday turns his attention to Booster Gold and beats the holy hell out of him. Just before Doomsday is about to attack and probably kill Mrs. and baby sister Mitch, Superman rushes in with a punch. The League gets their stuff together, and along with Superman, they Care Bear stare the Beast using all their blasty powers at once. It's not terribly effective, but it does rip Doomsday's green outfit. Oh, and it frees that arm that had been tied behind his back, so the assault was sort of a net negative, really. They shouldn't have, so. they could have left him where he was. Yeah. Now Doomsday beats everyone up, then destroys the Mitch home for good measure. He then leaps off for his next stop in his Path of Rage tour, and Superman gives chase. Just as he's about to grab the monster by the ankle, Superman hears Mitch's cries. Oh, no. We have to rush mm -hmm. over to Adventures of Superman number 497, December 1992 cover. Titled Under Fire, written by Jerry Ordway, penciled by Tom Grummet, inked by Doug Hazelwood, colored by Glenn Whitmore, and lettered by Albert de Guzman. Triangle numbering is 47 for 1992. Cover features Superman fe delivering a flying headbutt at Doomsday before an orange background. Released October 27, 1992, again for $1.25. All pages for this issue have four panels. Mm -hmm. Superman and Doomsday tussle in the skies, which ends in with Doomsday pile-driving the beast into a lake. He then decides to head back to check on the Mitches and saves Mama, whose hair 
turns turn black somehow from the fright. Okay. Uh, maybe. And uh, and a baby. And meanwhile, Doomsday jumps out of the drink and right into a helicopter, tearing it to pieces before landing on top of a police car in Kirby County. Superman's in hot pursuit, arriving only moments later, and the fight resumes, with Superman noticing that somehow, Doomsday seems even stronger than before. Uh-oh. Now, back in Metropolis, Lois is at WGBS Studios trying to get hold of Jimmy Olsen for a special assignment. However, he's in the middle of a Turtle Boy taping. Now, Jimmy first became the giant turtle man in Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, number 53, June 1961. Back during the Silver Age, it wasn't terribly unusual for Jimmy to transform into one thing or another, usually in the same issue. Pretty much what he did. Oh, yeah, sure. (laughs) Three stories, that's three transformations. Very simple. During uh, Legion of Three Worlds, the Final Crisis series, there's actually a Hall of Olsons where you see all the transformations. It's pretty great. great. Uh, Now, uh, uh, this Turtle Boy costume looks similar to the giant Turtle Man. However, it also includes a shell, perhaps uh, to be more teenage mutant-y than uh, the earlier. Uh, Now, Cat Grant facilitates Lois' entry onto the closed set just as a doomsday-flavored WGBS news break kicks on. Doomsday's path of rage has crossed from Ohio into New York. Uh-oh. At Lex Towers, Lex Luthor II, this is the red-haired, bearded Australian one from when Lex pretended to be dead and was pretending to be his own son. Remember him? Yeah, that one. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, he and Supergirl, who is also actually not Supergirl, but the protoplasmic Matrix, pretending to be Supergirl because Lex likes it, uh, yeah. they're also, they're also <laughs> watching the news. Supergirl, she goes to, she suggests that she go help her quote-unquote cousin, but Lex tells her he needs her with him. The fight continues with Maxima landing a blow on Doomsday, sending him flying through a supermarket. He returns fire by smashing her with a van, and so she yanks a light pole out of the ground with which a kaboom blows she, Superman, and Doomsday to the winds. As Superman begins to recover, the Guardian putt-putt-putts on his cute motorcycle. <laughs> At this point, Superman realizes that he's going to have to deal with Doomsday alone. And he does so in Action Comics number 684, December 1992 cover date. Doomsday is Near is the title, written by Roger Stern, drawings by Jackson Geis, inks by Dennis Rodier, colored by Glenn Whitmore, lettered by Bill Oakley. It says a triangle number of 48 for 1992. The cover features Superman and Doomsday wrestling in front of a sign which reads, Metropolis, 50 miles. This was released November 3rd, 1992 for a buck and a quarter, and this is the only issue of this run that I actually had to track down. Why? Is there any reason? I don't know. I mean, I, I've told this story a bunch of times that my local dealer had the uh, cover yeah. price plus 20 to hold for us. And uh, I remember the day we went in to buy this one and there were none left on the shelf. And he was positively giddy that I was going to miss out. Wow. And, uh, and he uh, proceeded to laugh at a 12-year-old for not you know, giving him another twenty bucks. Oh, that's nice. That's great. Isn't that pleasant? Yeah, he's the he's the Rob Leefield guy. Too, <laughs> oh, so. great! It's <laughs> also that. Um, didn't take me long though. I just found it the following weekend at uh, the Sunvet Mall because no one ever shops at the Sunvet Mall. <laughs> uh, now each page of this issue has three panels. Uh, so the countdown is on. A news cl- a newscaster declares Blue Beetle as comatose and Booster Gold as seriously injured, while the Guardian attends to Maxima and Superman plans his next move. Superman suggests Guardian take Maxima to the hospital while he follows after Doomsday. 
And we we joined Doomsday, and he's making new friends left and right by <laughs> throwing everybody and everything he meets, cars and trucks included. Superman catches one such vehicle and sets it down safely. From the sky, he can see Doomsday's path of rage. It's as though he's a humanoid tornado. There's nothing but devastation in his wake. Yeah, he's ripping up the ground, everything. It looks looks pretty nasty. <laughs> uh, heading into Midvale, we see Doomsday wreaking havoc at, Le- at a Lexmark department store, where which is likely an analog to, uh, we could say, Walmart, but given the vintage of the issue, it's probably Kmart. Probably. Some Mart, we'll say. Hmm. Uh, inside Doomsday's cleaning house, where when he hears a voice calling to him, yeah, it yells, Hey, you! Yeah, I'm talking to you. Come closer. Doomsday approaches the voice, and we now see that it's emanating from a television advertising the professional wrestling event Warbash92, colon, Get Ready for Blood. You don't want to miss a single moment of the greatest spectacle in the history of professional wrestling, uh huh. I'm talking tag teams, yeah. I'm talking steel cages, uh huh. I'm talking knockdown, drag out grudge matches. Pro wrestling as you've never seen it before. This weekend at the Metropolis Arena, Metropolis Arena, Metropolis Arena. Now, where are you gonna go? To which Doomsday replies, Metropolis. (laughs) Superman (laughs) arrives, and the two takes the fight outside, right through the wall. We join Lois and Jimmy as they hover above in a chopper, and Lois dictates a report into her tape recorder. Back in Metropolis. (laughs) Lex and Supergirl watch the event unfold on television. Supergirl is still chomping to get into the fight, but Lex remains firm that she stay with him. After all, Superman survived worse, right? Back in Midvale, the battle continues to rage, and Doomsday tosses a station wagon Superman's way, knocking him into a diner or a fast food joint of some kind. Where it's business as usual. (laughs) It's like people are just going about their lives getting a Big Mac while Doomsday is destroying their town. This is Thursday, I guess, you know. It is, yeah. In this world. Uh, (laughs) In the time it takes for Superman to recover, Doomsday has learned how to read. There's a street (laughs) sign which reads, Metropolis, 60 miles. Doomsday puts two and two together. He says, Metropolis Warpers. I mean, this is almost like sugar and spike language here, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Really. Superman, who's standing, like, right in front of Doomsday, looks over his shoulder as the Beast recites the name of the next city he will very likely destroy and the name of the next professional wrestling event he very much wants to attend. Superman slams Doomsday into a nearby hillside with such velocity it causes Cadmus's seismic reading tools to go nuts. Superman and Doomsday continue their dance right into Habitat. This is Cadmus's Tree City, first appeared in Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, number 133, October 1970 cover. Uh, that was the first issue of Jack Kirby's run. Mm-hmm. Now, Superman and Doomsday destroy Habitat, with the latter being buried under tons of tree wreckage. Guardian shows up to check on Superman, whose face is all ready to show the pounding he's taken. His left eye looks to be swollen shut. Doomsday escapes from the torrent of trees with a crack-a-doom, KOing the Guardian, and more or less KOing Superman. He bounces off, now ten miles closer to Metropolis. Mm. We're going to hop over to the following month here. Superman, the Man of Steel, number 19, January 93, cover date. Doomsday is here by Louise Simonson and John Bogdanov. This has a triangle number of one for 1993. 
Now the cover is a close-up of a super of a Superman and Doomsday face-off. Superman's face is bloody, but the blood is black and not red. A few issues above his head is a Comics Code Authority stamp. Mm. Oh, go figure. Now this was released November 10th, 1992, for a buck and a quarter. Every page for this issue is only two panels. Doomsday has arrived in Metropolis and he's at a construction site breaking stuff. Superman arrives and takes the fight back to the skies. Nearby, Lois and Jimmy are still in a helicopter looking on. Now, Superman takes Doomsday up into the sky, but Doomsday is able to kick him away. And he lands on his feet, then bounces several stories into some new construction rigging, destroying it. We pop over to Smallville and catch the Kents watching this all go down in the news. Superman digs himself out of some construction debris, and we see that he's bleeding from the mouth. Doomsday now crashes through the ground where he greets our friends, the Underworlders, and kills a whole lot of them. Hmm. The sound effects were used for his Underworlder mauling are splat. So nice. I don't know what they'll tell you about the Underworlders. <laughs> Superman comes up behind Doomsday and locks him in a full Nelson. It's almost like Warbash came early. Nice, and he flies with Doomsday out from the underground. Or he attempts to, along the way, one of Doomsday's feet gets caught in a power line, causing the entire construction site to explode. Lois and Jimmy struggle to stay airborne, and Lex and the second Lex the Second's press conference is interrupted when he finally allows Supergirl to lend her cousin a hand. After all, if Metropolis gets destroyed, what would happen to Lex? Mm-hmm. In the air, Doomsday breaks the full Nelson by elbowing Superman in the side with his craggy elbow bits. Drawn blood and lots of it. Supergirl flies in and gets her protoplasmic face punched right off. She drops to the ground in her sort of amorphous putty-like form. Atop a nearby building, Professor Emil Hamilton, Hamilton and our boy Bibbo yeah. ready a laser cannon to try and take down the beast. They land a blast right in Doomsday's back, which isn't as nearly as effective as they might have hoped. Doomsday drops from the sky, but <laughs> seems to make sure to land right on top of that cannon, which causes yet another explosion. Hey, you know, he does one thing and he does it well, you know, bless he does. his heart. Superman shields some civilians from the blast, including Keith from the opening chapter. And the Metropolis police force decide right now might be the time for them to get involved. And so, led by terrible Dan Turpin and Maggie Sawyer, the entire MPD special crimes unit proceeds to open fire on the monster. And as with every other attempt, uh, it's not wildly successful. Doomsday hurls a squad car at the pesky police. Superman pops back in to continue the fight, landing a shot on the creature's jaw, even chipping off some of its protuberances. Doomsday returns fire by jabbing his spiky knuckles into Superman's gut. Lots of blood here. Uh, it, it gets real bloody, yeah. It sure does. Now, this chapter wraps up with Cadmus's weapons experts, who all look really geeky. Uh, they get involved, and Superman proclaiming that even if it kills him, mm -hmm. Metropolis is where he holds the line. And uh, on the other side of our break, we will... Discuss that very issue, Superman number 75. It's about to close the book on one of its legendary heroes. Jeannie Most reports, can it be true? Superman will die November 18th at the hands of a villain named Doomsday? Up in the sky, it's a bird! It's a plane! It's a corpse. Come mid-November, Superman will be flying, all right. To heaven, his ass will grace his casket rather than his chest. After 54 years, DC Comics has decided to kill off Superman. We'll let the cub reporter who used to work with Clark Kent answer his own question. Hey, whatever happened to Superman anyway? They must be killing him off because he wasn't selling enough comic books. 
The news of Superman's imminent death kept the phones alive at DC Comics. Oh. DC Comics confirms that a character named Doomsday will kill Superman. Why? And after 50 some odd years, to get people to notice, sometimes you have to go to extremes. You see, Superman has an image problem. Did you hear what happened or what's going to happen? No. He's no. going to die. Oh, good. I don't, I'm an anti-Superman fan. I don't like him. He's like a Boy Scout compared to other superheroes. This from a guy who wears a tattoo of a bad guy, the Joker. Teenagers these days prefer more violent characters, ones like the Punisher, Wolverine, the Infinity War. They make Superman's stunts seem dated. More powerful than a locomotive. The news of Superman's imminent demise was greeted not with grief, but as lies. No, they're not going to kill Superman. I think they do it just to get money, and then, like, he's going to revive in two days. There's too much money tied up in Superman for him to stay dead forever. And nobody knows what his uh, Kryptonian physiology is like. And the folks at DC Comics hinted as much, saying there's always hope. We don't know what death means to a Kryptonian. We may find out. And DC Comics says there are no plans to take down the life-size Superman replica in the lobby. But the Man of Steel may be too gentle for today's teenagers. Faster than a speeding bullet. After all, in his entire comic book career, he's only killed three villains. I think he's corny. Yeah, I don't like him. It's a bird! It's a plane! He's kind of a dork. Genie Mo, CNN, New York. Welcome back, everybody. Let's uh, get right to tonight's main event. We're talking Superman Volume 2, number 75, cover date of January 1993. Title, Doomsday, by Dan Jurgens. Has a triangle number of two for the year 1993. Cover features... Well, come on, you know what this you cover know is. is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, this was released November 17th, 1992 for $2.50 for the deluxe version and $1.25 for newsstand. Uh, the deluxe edition came in the famous black bag and it would include a Death of Superman poster featuring all of his prominent cast members and superhero pals walking alongside his casket. A newspaper clipping from the Daily Planet entitled Man of Steel Dies Defending City. A trading card version of the deluxe tomb stone cover, some Death of Superman stamps, and most famously, a black armband. So you can mourn Superman's passing in style and make yourself a target for the Noogie Patrol at school. Which I did. <laughs> now, the countdown is is concluding here. Each page here is a single panel. And we open with Superman and Doomsday locked in combat. Caption reads... The battle has devastated the better part of America, leaving a path of destruction almost as long. Earth's mightiest heroes have already fallen under Doomsday's murderous blitzkrieg. Only one hope, one man remains. Superman says, It stops here, mister. This insanity ends in Metropolis. The camera pans out, revealing the Cadmus weapon experts laying their lasers into the beast and... Daily Planet news copters trying to catch the scoop. Yeah, first Cadmus guy goes, focus your fire on the creature. The other guy says, the weapons boys at Project Cadmus say these shock cannons can take out a tank. And Lois from the chopper says, move in closer. We're broadcasting this live. And yet another Cadmus guy goes, how can we handle this guy when Superman can't? This might really be... Doomsday gets the better of the physical exchange and hoists Superman over his head. Bane style, but this is before there ever was a Bane. Indeed. Superman thinks to himself, have to move faster. 
match Doomsday's speed, or I'm done. First things first, Superman. First, make him let go. Uh, Doomsday hurls Superman's body at the news choppers. Yeah, Lois says, look out, and the pilot says, Too late, Mrs. Lane. Our hydraulic cables have just been sheared in half. Superman thinks to himself, blast. All these onlookers and choppers are complicating matters by getting in the way. He's not kidding. We see a second (laughs) helicopter right there in the background. Pilot of that copter says, it's getting nasty here, Mr. Grant. We better back off. She replies with, no way. We are not going to miss the story of the century. And Superman recovers in midair and grabs Lois's busted chopper. That sounds like a euphemism for something. does, doesn't it? I apologize. Uh, he brings it safely to the ground. And Jimmy Olsen says, Man, I don't believe this. I may be getting the greatest pictures ever, but it's costing us half the city. Yeah, priorities, kid. Lois says, Superman, are you all right? You look so, so... I'd like to get you as far from danger as possible, but I just don't have the time. No telling how many lives Doomsday could take while I'm gone. And Superman lands the helicopter, and Doomsday is still wrecking stuff, while shrugging off constant cannon fire to the back. He's shrugging off that cannon fire like it was nothing! See? He's unstoppable! And then Lois, who's wearing some really 70s-looking shades, says, Please, maybe you should retreat and get help. If Jimmy is right... Wait a minute, we're taking Jimmy's word here? That doesn't seem right, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> Superman replies with, Too late, Lois. The JLA has already fallen, and there are too many innocents in jeopardy right now. It's up to me. Lois and Clark embrace and share what might be their final kiss. Lois says, Clark, I... Just remember, no matter what happens, I'll always love you. Always. Superman leaps back into the fight. But now, Doomsday gets his. Wait... Come back. Please come back. Wow, I don't think I've ever seen the big guy so fired up! Superman smashes into Doomsday headfirst with a bracam. Nobody tears apart my city and gets away with it. I don't care what hole you crawled out of or where you came from. You must have read those those issues with the fist from way back. Probably, huh? But I'm sending you back. Superman spears Doomsday through the bottom story of a skyscraper while helicopters and Cadmus geeks look on. Pilot 2 says, Can you believe that? If this keeps up, we won't have a city left. And Cat goes, Stay close so we can keep up the broadcast. The whole country will want to see Superman kick this creep's butt. Another Cadmus guy goes, I want to keep firing, but it's impossible. They're moving too fast. Yeah, like that's ever stopped the geeks from firing before. Come on. Right? Doomsday recovers, but he pile drives Superman's head into the ground. And he enjoys it. He goes, bah <laughs> <laughs> To which Superman replies, Can't! Oof! Uh, we can see that su- Doomsday is... Do- Doomsday? We can see that Doomsday <laughs> is standing right in front of the Daily Planet building. And we also see Jimmy and Lois standing right in front of him. Doesn't seem wise. No. Stay back, Miss Lane! We don't, we, need, we don't need to get that close to get a decent picture! Now, if you're ever going to listen to Jimmy's advice, now is probably the time. We can't worry about pictures. Superman is in trouble, and I intend to help him. Oh, boy. Uh, Doomsday turns his attention to the pair of planet staffers. He goes, I don't think we're going to get that chance. Grizzly's coming this way. It's a good thing Booster already named him Doomsday. Imagine we had to refer to him as Grizzly. Right. Lois says, move while you can, Jimmy. I'll distract him while you run. 
Now, despite that sounding like a capital plan, luckily, Superman's fist comes from the underground with a scow. And Superman punches Doomsday in the back. Enough, Doomsday. If you want to get your hands on my friends, you're going to have to kill me first. What is he? What does he want? Also, does he know his name is Doomsday? I mean, he didn't just realize everyone's just talking about him, or maybe uh, you know, maybe he read the same issues that uh, Superman read. Superman unloads a torrent of heat vision at Doomsday, which slams him into a wall. Of interest, Superman is standing on a piece of his own torn cape. He wants destruction and death. To stop him, I need to be as every bit as ferocious and unrelenting as he is. But you can't. He wants to kill, and you, you can't. Tell that to the Phantom Zone criminals, Lois. Really? Doomsday knees Superman in the chin, cutting him open once more. Uh, He's been taking that Count Dante correspondence course, I see. I think so. Superman replies with, Bony protrusions, so sharp, he cut me. It's not the first time either. He's kind of getting sliced and diced for a couple of issues here, but uh, they want to mention it now. I I do remember seeing that, though, it was making me realize, wait a second, this is... uh, Serious business. Sure. Uh, the two titans pound away at one another. And Superman thinks to himself, I'm hurt. Bad. Can barely stay conscious. Ugh. Must take him down now. As Doomsday reels backward, Superman stop, stomps the bony protuberance on his left knee, snapping it off with a snack. He appears to have finally hurt the beast. Superman thinks to himself, if those bones are just extensions of his skeleton... Snacked! Yes, I finally managed to hurt him. Superman and Doomsday proceed to start wailing away at each other so hard that every blow causes nearby windows to shatter. Superman thinks, exhausted, have to keep fighting until I drop. Scratch! Or or he does. Damn! Scratch! A passerby says, They hit each other so hard, the windows are shattering. (laughs) Watch out for falling glass! (laughs) Superman lunges in for a double axe handle. He thinks to himself, This is it. Looks like we're both betting everything we've got on this one. For Lois and Jimmy. For this entire city. I've got to put this guy away while I can. Superman lands the axe handle blow right on Doomsday's jaw. At the very same time, Doomsday clobbers the Man of Steel with a mighty left. Captain reads, Like weary boxers who have gone the distance, the combatants collide in one last explosive effort. In the years to come, a few witnesses will tell of the power of these final punches, that they could literally feel the shockwaves. Others will remember the enormous crater that resulted from the sheer force of the blows. But most will remember this sad day. Nearby, Lois and Jimmy look on. In the reflection of Jimmy's camera lens, we can see Superman and Doomsday both falling. As the day the proudest, most noble man they ever knew finally fell. Lois says, no. Caption reads, for those who loved him, one who would call him husband, one who would be his pal. In Smallville, Ma and Pa Kent are holding each other, crying as they watch what had just gone down on television. Or those who would call him son. This is the darkest day they could ever imagine. They raised him to be a hero, to know the value of sacrifice, to know the value of life. Among the bystanders, we see Justice League members Ice and Bloodwind have just arrived. And for those who serve with Superman in the protection of all life, 
comes the shock of failure, the weight of being too late to help. Ice says, We, we didn't make it in time. Bloodwind replies, He must survive. It cannot end like this. But it will. For a city to live, a man had given his all and more. Lois is now cradling Superman's beaten and battered body. Doomsday lay face down in the rubble at his feet. Please hang on. The paramedics will be here any second. Please. Doomsday, is, is he, is he? You stopped him. You saved us all. Now relax until, but it's too late. For this is the day that a Superman died. And Superman's lifeless body falls limp while Lois cries and Joey snaps a few, uh, Jimmy snaps a few opportune pictures. Well, he has a job to do, you know how He it does, is. he yeah. does. Now, uh, the uh, trade collection of this uh, came out pretty rapidly. It yeah. was released December 1st, 1992 for $4.95. And if you hold it up against the light, you see right through every page. <laughs> um, <laughs> now, amazingly, this haven't, hasn't been given a you know six deluxe or absolute treatments. Uh, there are a couple of omnibuses and uh, trade paperback that's still in print. Uh, it gets a new cover design every every now and again. Yeah, there are a handful of cover designs. I, I know it just recently got put back into print with a new... Package, yeah, because but... it had like the bleeding S as like a puzzle right. on the uh, spine. Yeah, I, I think also um, over the years they must have added. They probably put other issues. I don't know. I I I, I think exactly, so. But yeah, it's it's out there if you want to go read it. Yeah, and I know the omnibus isn't and isn't doesn't include everything. No, there there are things missing from the omnibus yep. which uh, caused a little bit of a uproar when it was released. Um, now the death and life of Superman novelization we mentioned earlier by Roger Stern that was released in August 1993, and a book and DVD set was released in 2015. DVD? Well, hmm. yeah, in 2008, an animated version of the death of Superman was put on DVD. It was called Superman colon Doomsday, and outside of an excellent behind the scenes documentary on the comics it was pretty rotten yeah uh that's probably why they're gonna give it another go in the not too distant future they have another doomsday cartoon in the works Lined so, up, yeah. something's going on i don't know now we mentioned earlier or at least it was posited by comics buyers guide that this was a stunt to increase uh sales and uh well, yeah, of course everything is a stunt <laughs> exactly uh, now uh per comicron.com superman number 75 was the top selling comic book of 1992 reportedly bringing in 30 million dollars for wow. comic shops on the day of release, that's a lot of books. Yeah, especially when you're when you're putting a twenty dollar uh, hold limit too. There, that helps <laughs> helps true. the cash flow right there. But okay. <laughs> now, for more context on 1992, the top five books of the year were as follows: uh, one, of course, was Superman 75. Two was Wildcats, Covert Action Team's number one from Image. And you can check out episode number 28 of the Cosmic Treadmill in the archives for our wild discussion. Mm -hmm. uh, number three was Venom, legal, 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 Lethal Enforcer, number one from Marvel. Uh, number four was Spider-Man 2099, number one from Marvel. And number five was Spawn number eight from Image Comics. That was uh, written by Neil Gaiman and will soon be the subject of an episode of Weird Comics History. Yeah. Uh, Comicron data doesn't include a monthly sales figure, nor number of units sold for 1992, only a top 300 books of the year list. So we'll have to get a bit creative in interpret interpreting yeah. this. Uh, Superman the Man of Steel 17, this was the first appearance of Doomsday, does not rank in the top 300, though it did receive a second printing. Superman Volume 2, number 73, did not rank, but it also received a second printing. Uh, and this is in the day, too, where printings were usually about 100,000 minimum. 
Probably. Uh, so this this says you know quite a few comics did exist in the world. And it tells you that you know despite these getting these multiple printings, how healthy the market I was. Know, yeah, they exactly. didn't even rank. They couldn't even yeah. rank. They went through two printings. Uh, anyway, it, it's just how things have changed. Uh, Adventures of Superman number four ninety six also did not rank and didn't get a second printing. Action Comics number 683 did not rank, but it received three printings. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, in, into the Doomsday story uh, proper here, Superman the Man of Steel 18 also does not appear in the top 300, though it received five printings. Wow. Yeah, uh, Justice League America number 69 did not rank either and received four printings. Uh, Superman Volume 274 didn't rank, but received four printings. Wow. Uh, <laughs> Adventures of Superman 497 also didn't rank in the top 300 and had three printings. In the top 300, but you know, I gotta yeah. remember. X Men was real big. X Men Image, <laughs> yeah. I bet I I, I don't look at the list myself, but I have a feeling that's we'd be seeing a lot of that stuff on that list. Yeah, for uh, sure. Action Comics number six eighty four also did not rank, but this received three printings. Superman: The Man of Steel number nineteen was the one hundred ninth top selling book of the year and had three printings. And Superman Volume Two number seventy five, as mentioned, this was the number one selling book of the year and had four printings and multiple versions. Yeah, now we want you to tell us about your kids' college education. Hey. <laughs> now, for many comics enthusiasts and historians, this storyline marked the apex of what they call the speculator bubble. And it was all downhill from here, and uh, there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, just for fun, we figured we'd take a look at the current values of these one-time hotter-than-hell books. And these valuations are courtesy of comicbookrealm.com, and these are graded at near mint. Okay. We have the first appearance of Doomsday's Fist, Superman the Man of Steel number 17. First printing, 30 bucks. Wow. Not bad. Wow. Se- yeah, second printing, $10. Also, not bad. Not bad at all for a buck 25 investment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Superman Volume 2 number 73. The first printing of this is $6. Second printing is $3. The Adventures of Superman number 496. The first and only printing, you can get that for $4 at near mint. Action Comics number 683, first printing is $6, second printing is $8, third printing is $10. Now, why do you think it went up, Chris? Do you think that they got rarer as they went into... I think, uh, that's what I'm thinking. Printings? I think everybody went crazy buying those first printings that they neglected the second and third, and they uh, they, they just wound up in the uh, in the ether. Wow. And uh, we're, we're going to discuss one that's uh, similar right now, mm-hmm. Superman the Man of Steel number 18. First printing goes for $15, second printing 5 third printing 3 fourth printing $10, and the fifth and final printing, 30 bucks. That's just so fascinating. You know, I <laughs> Isn't mean, it? It tells you everything. Like, it's like a snapshot of collecting right there, what yeah. it's all about, really. It's so weird. Now, uh, Justice League America number 69, the first printing is $6. The subsequent three printings, three bucks each. At Superman Volume 2, number 74, first printing is eight bucks. The subsequent three are also $3 each. Adventures of Superman number 497, first printing is $4. The following two printings can both be found for $3 at Mint, near Mint. Now, Action Comics 684, first printing four bucks, second and third printing three bucks. Uh, Superman the Man of Steel number 19, first printing six dollars, second printing five dollars, third printing 15 bucks. Wow, it's really, really <laughs> bizarre. And uh, you can tell these uh, these subsequent printings because there'll be a Roman numeral under the under the um, the issue number. Okay. So you, you can see these at a glance. So if you're ever in a quarter bin and you see a third printing of that with a Roman numeral three, grab it. That's Why not? the 
one to get. And that's, <laughs> that's 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 it's just so interesting, you know. It's like it Isn't really it? is it's about scarcity, you know, and when people are Certainly. running to speculate, those are the issues that there are plenty of in the world, the original printings. Mm-hmm. Uh now we get to the big boy of the series, Superman volume two, number seventy-five. The first printing black bagged you can get today for twenty dollars. First printing unbagged for $5. First printing direct sales with no barcode is $10. The newsstand version is $10 also. Second printing of this is 4 bucks, along with the third printing and fourth printing, same price. The platinum edition, which was the black bagged with like a silver yeah. bloody S, this is uh, $95. There are only 10,000 copies produced of it. The unbagged, the unbagged platinum edition... I mean, come on, who would do that? That's silly. Who would do that? Nobody. Uh, nobody did that. I, you know, maybe some of the, the, the regular ones got un, unbagged, but none of the platinum ones. No. Of course, the, all of these issues, minus Man is still number 17, and the platinum number 75, they're pretty easy to find in the discount bins, and most can be had for the change. You might find under the couch cushions, especially if you're not yeah. looking for near mint. If you're, just, no. if you're just looking for very good, they become much cheaper and much more available. Much more plentiful, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Now, we figured we would wrap up this episode by discussing some of the other times Superman died. Because this wasn't the first time. No, nor the last, actually. But that's not a story. <laughs> True. Now, we're going we're gonna to first discuss Superman number 149. This is cover dated November 1961. Title of the story is The Death of Superman by Jerry Siegel and Kurt Swan. This is initially an imaginary story, now said to have happened on Earth-149. Lex Luthor sets an amazingly elaborate trap for Superman and bombards him with kryptonite rays, (laughs) while all the while forcing his friends to watch him down. It's really messed up. (laughs) Now, Supergirl eventually grabs Luthor and shrinks him down so he could face a judge in the bottle city of Kandor. Uh, Luthor pleads for lenience by offering to restore Kandor to its full size, but they chuck him into the Phantom Zone anyway. Yeah, they decide they're not going. They don't make deals with Luthers. No. <laughs> uh, in Super, Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane, number forty-three. This is August nineteen sixty-three cover date, titled "The Girl Who Mourned for Superman" by Leo Dorfman and Kurt Schaffenberger. Lois Lane is hit by lightning and sent to a parallel Earth where Superman and Lex Luthor are killed in battle. The Superman Emergency Squad shows up. This is the team of Kandorians who all look exactly like Superman. They even, like, pop the cork in their bottle to go come and help him. Uh, One of the Kandorians, maybe even a robot version, takes over for the Earth-43 Superman. Uh, Lois returns to Earth... Whatever, probably Earth One, we're guessing, yeah. maybe, and receives a lecture from Superman, the real one, about being out during a lightning storm. Mm-hmm. Superman issue 188, July 1966. The School for Superman Assassins by Otto Binder and Kurt Swan. The galaxy, the galaxy crimeteers try to figure out a way to kill Superman via kryptonite radio waves. And this is something that they practiced on a Superman android. A member of the crew named Zuniel is finally able to defeat the bot and is given the opportunity to head to Earth and take down the real Steel deal. And he does! Zuniel brings Superman's corpse back home with him to prove his feat, at which time the peace vigilantes... Wait, wait, what? Yeah, the peace vigil. I don't Okay. Is that okay? <laughs> yeah. Uh, the peace vigilantes of Zarya raid the Crimatier headquarters and somehow reactivate the 
dead Superman android. The altruistic android, being based on the real Superman, sacrifices itself to revive the dead Man of Steel. Sure. Why not? Uh, Action Comics number 366, covered in August 1968, we have Substitute Superman by Leo Dorfman and Ross Andrew. This is more a story of how everyone would cope if Superman died in the line of duty. Uh, Basically, Supergirl and five Superman substitutes take over in his wake, and these Superman substitutes turn out to be members of the Justice League standing in until the appropriate replacement from Kandor can be found. So, seeing he's not needed, Superman retires to Aruba and opens a handmade jewelry kiosk. No, I'm like you kidding. do. Yeah. Uh, but really, actually, this the stuff leading up to Superman's return to Earth is more interesting. He dies, but he's saved from cremation by a fire-breathing breathing alien that he saved as Superboy. Then he's sent to a frozen planet where he's cured of Virus X <laughs> by being exposed to white kryptonite, which is made on the Bizarro world. It's like, what, the, what, are, what happened here? <laughs> Such a crazy, weird thing, but all right. That's nuts. Uh, we'll jump ahead a couple years to Action Comics issue 387. This is April 1970. Cover date. Story title is Even a Superman Dies by Carrie Bates and Kurt Swan. The time trapper traps Superman in the distant future, the year 801,970 AD to be exact. He even uh, terraforms and repopulates a barren Earth in the year 1,001,970. A drone powered by Lex Luthor's computerized intelligence sends Superman careening into the future. This makes him wrap around uh, time through the Big Bang, then into the present, where he diverges from the previous timeline. Sure, very convenient. Uh, I, 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 I understood every word of that. Right, it's exactly, you know, it's, it's weird, too, because you do get to see an old Superman, like, when we... And when we start the story, he's got, yep. like, white hair and stuff, but somehow he youngs up again. We don't know. But anyway, uh, sure. <laughs> World's Finest Comics, number two, 207. This was November 1971. A Matter of Light and Death by Len Wein and Dick Dillon. Clark Kent is mind-controlled to retrieve the magical Satan staff, which can kill Superman. Detecting gaps in his memory, Superman asks Batman to do some detecting. Batman discovers that there's a plot, but doesn't stop Superman from being zapped by the Satan staff, and, and Superman's then encased in a golden crystal. Uh, it all turns out to be a plot by Dr. Light, and also Superman isn't dead after all. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> Pretty much how that wraps up. <laughs> now, Justice League of America, number 145, August 1977. This is The Carnival of Souls by Steve Englehart and Dick Dillon. Count Crystal makes a pact with a demon for the power to kill the Justice League, and he kills Superman first while he's on monitor duty. The Phantom Stranger leads the rest of the Justice League into a seance to contact Superman and bring him back from the dead. And making a long story short... It works. Yeah, there's a, there's a little more to it, but that's basically what happens. Uh, <laughs> Action Comics number 583. This is September 1986 cover date. This is Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow Part 2 by Alan Moore and Kurt Swan. It had turned out that Mr. Mrs. Pitlick had thrown all of Superman's enemies at him out of boredom. Superman realizes he's a danger to the people he loves, so he steps into a room of gold kryptonite, which robs him of his powers forever. This whole story is told in an interview with Lois Lane, who married a familiar-looking blue-collar fellow named Cal Ellis. And they also, in the last panel, we see they have a son that can turn coal into diamond in his hand. Uh-oh. Well. Mm, now we're going to jump into uh, 
the future, or at least the future as it, <laughs> from, as it from stands we're from talking, 1992. Right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're going to The Kingdom, number one, February 1999 cover. Story title is Neverending Slaughter by Mark Wade and Ariel Al- Alavetti. Uh, or Olivetti. Uh, now, dozens of supermen are winding up dead and discovered by Dead Man. It turns out that Gog is killing Superman, then going back in time one day to kill him, ad- kill him again. Oh. And so on and so on. So, uh, sort of a murderous Groundhog's Day. It's very good. I think, yes. <laughs> uh, now, uh, discussing the Golden Age Superman, we're going to talk about Infinite Crisis number seven. This is June 2006. Finale by Jeff Johns and Phil Jimenez. And, like we said, it's the death of the Golden Age slash Earth 2 Superman. That's where he finally eats it, yep. In uh, All-Star Superman number 12, October 2008 cover, this is Superman Excelsis by Grant Morrison and Frank Quitely. The sun has been poisoned, and the only way to save it is to cram it with his solar energy to fly into it. And uh, the maxi-series have been building to this inevitable point anyway, that Superman was going to eat it at the end, and he does, and it's very, uh, it's, it's, it's emotional, you know? It, it does end also with Lois promising he'll come back, kind of a Jesus thing going on but anyway yeah uh in dc universe versus the masters of the universe number two this is december 2013 cover justice denied by keith giffen tony bedard and dexter soy skeletor uses magic to get the justice league to act as his puppets when he-man attacks skeletor convinces superman to battle him it doesn't work out so well for superman as he-man is able to run him through using his magic sword and he naturally did return by the end of the miniseries Sure. We have uh, Justice League 3001, number 6, December 2015. The Storm by Keith Giffen, J.M.D. Mateus, and Colleen Doran. Uh, This is the pompous Superman clone. Uh, If you remember, the the 3001 League is comprised mostly of cloned versions of the real deals. Uh, He gets his head blown off. All right. And he's dead. Uh, we we have uh, Superman, Volume 3, Number 52, July 2016. This is the final days of Superman, Part 8, Do or Die, by Peter J. Tomasi and, we say, Michael Jenin? I say Michael. You know, Jim Michael. says Mickle, but I say Michael. <laughs> Michael works fine. Now, in the time between Convergence and DC Rebirth, the new 52 Superman really put his body through the ringer, oh, yeah. and he was depowered to boot. Um, now, he absorbed apocalyptic energy during the Dark Side War, running in Justice League. He locked himself in a room full of kryptonite in his own books, and had some sort of nonsense reaction to the, the arrival of Rao in the pages of Justice League of America, a story that, if pressed, we couldn't swear has been concluded by now. No, I, I'm not really sure that it has been. <laughs> kind of lingered on for a long time in the pages of JLA. He also got this new solar flare power that takes a lot out of him, and of course he used it just about every issue since his emergence. It's like supposed yeah. to be his like, you know, you know, be last all, dish. end all, last yeah. you know, last ditch power. He uses it constantly. And so he finally succumbs to the compounded trauma along with the readers of the book and dies. <laughs> Luckily, the, the pre-Flashpoint Superman, likely the one we just covered the death of, was waiting in the wings to reclaim the mantle for the post-rebirth DC universe. In the months that followed, the new 52 Superman had been retconned as never having been a separate entity from the real Superman, or at least everybody's memories have been altered to think so, but only sometimes. Anyway. Uh, And of course, we have to mention, I think, for some reason, uh, a big deal. uh, Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. This was a feature film by Warner Brothers in 2016. In this movie, jerk Batman tries to eliminate brooding Superman because he doesn't trust aliens. But they make up and become friends because their mothers share the same name, Martha. Is that is that real? Is that, that really is happened to that? Pretty much. That's not real. just a meme. 
Nope, that is that is actually oh, what happens boy. in the scenes. Uh, Batman, I, I can't. I, I'm almost positive Batman's about to spear Superman with like the spear of destiny or something, <laughs> and he and he's Superman calls out to his mother and says, "Oh, Martha," and then that's when they realize it's something. Anyway, that's as horrible as uh, the memes make it seem. Oh, yeah, okay. Do not. This, this is one you don't have to see, Chris. Believe me, you'll be fine without it. You'll be you'll be fine just thinking the 2008 cartoon stinks. You don't need to uh, paint go. it with this one. <laughs> Immediately after that scene, though, like instantly, it's so so soon after it, Doomsday shows up, and it's like a big, much more giant, crazy-looking Doomsday, and uh, gets pummeled ultimately by Batman and Superman. Uh, Wonder Woman shows up for a minute, too, but Superman gets stabbed with one of Doomsday's bony protrusions and dies. Or does he? And the answer is no, because he's going to no, be in Justice not. League coming in like two weeks. Ah, yes. So these are the times that uh, we dug up for <laughs> Superman's many, many uh, <laughs> deaths, humiliating <laughs> deaths through his life, uh, his career. But you might remember some others. You might have some sure. memories of this uh, moment in comics history or about Superman in general. We're going to be giving our thoughts on this series, but that'll be in the third episode or the last yeah. episode of this thing. Well, we'll talk about our. Uh, Personal. Or maybe even the fourth special episode. Possibly. Could be the, we'll see how long this goes on. But yeah, it'll yep. be when we wrap this up, it'll be our personal thoughts. And, you know, the, Chris has a story, a personal story involved with this time, and I do too. Sure. So, uh, But we want to hear yours, as always. So if you have any, please write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash history. We're on Twitter at CosmicTmail, and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. You'll find our weekly writings at weirdsciencedccomics.com, and Chris has a blog he updates daily called chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, where you review a DC comic every single day of the week, and it could come from any point in DC's history. It could be mm-hmm. really anything, anything from Scooter to Superman to uh, whatever you want in there. So uh, you definitely should crack that open, check that out. Oh, and uh, for our shared blog slash image depository, we have weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com, which is uh, almost up to date. I don't know if I did last week's, but uh, <laughs> it's 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 more up to date than it was. So I, uh... I, I got to get in the background of that and uh, throw some uh, gems in there <laughs> as well. But uh, I think that's all we got from this week, Chris. You got anything else for him? Nope, I think that'll do us. Well, until next week, folks, I want you to keep it on the treadmill. Still you worry that you're not liked How long till you break You're happy cause you smile But how much can you make An ordinary boy An ordinary name But ordinary is just not good Why?
Zen wasn't a ladies' man. He'd just come along and scoop him up under his arm like that. Quick as a cat in the jungle. But Clark Kent, now there was a real gent. He would not be caught Hello and welcome back to Chris and Reggie's no Cosmic Trackle, episode number 64. Part two of our look at the death of Superman event, Funeral nothing. for a Friend. This is where we go back to the past and read a comic book from our yesteryear of publishing. Superman you can find us every Sunday morning at chrisandreggie.podbean.com and pick us up from iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, and at Mortimer's Funeral Home this Sunday from 3 to 5 p.m. and Monday morning from 8 to 10 a.m. Aww. Oh, I know. That was a little tasteless. So, uh, yeah, this is part two of our look at this uh, pretty long to the past. Uh, Sure. What did it go on for like almost a, a flat year, I guess, right? Really, uh, it went on for a good a good six months, yeah. Yeah, it went on for quite a while through through many comics. And uh, last time in the part one, we gave kind of expanded creator bios for the applicable people, and uh, they're basically the same people this time. We're just going to give you much more condensed versions for this episode. So if you want to hear the full one, go back to episode sixty three. Uh, we go a little longer. So uh, we can start with uh, the guy at the top of all of it, Mike Carlin, the editor. Born October 6, 1958, somewhere, presumably in the United States. Attended the High School of Art and Design in New York City. Worked at Marvel Comics as a writer and artist for their humor title Crazy Magazine in 1974. And then was hired by DC on his birthday, October 6, 1986, and eventually became group editor of the Superman line. In the fall of 1992, he would oversee the very story we're about to discuss. And we're also going to go through the comics that, that this will primarily touch upon. Uh, we got Superman the Man of Steel was the fourth ongoing Superman title. Uh, it was launched with a cover date of July 1991. This is generally the lead-off issue of the month that would come out in the first week, usually. Uh, the series would run for 134 issues, not including an issue zero and an issue one million, wrapping up with its March 2003 issue. Yes, and that was written by Louise Simonson, born Mary Louise Alexander on September 26, 1946, in Atlanta, Georgia. Her professional comics career would begin in 1974 at Warren Publishing, where she worked as an editor, and later became senior editor for titles such as Eerie, Creepy, and Vampirella. In 1979, she'd move over to Marvel Comics and become editor for Uncanny X-Men, uh, and then in 1983, started editing the spin-off New Mutants as well. Uh, that very same year, she would try her hand at writing. She created Power Pack, a team of tiny heroes. Uh-huh. <laughs> They're very young folks here, prepubescent. Uh, that book launched in August 1984 and would run for 62 issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, Louise would take over writing duties from Chris Claremont on the title that she once edited. That would be New Mutants. That was with issue numbers 55, September 1987 cover date. In 1992, Louise walked from Marvel alongside, uh, you know, after after Bob Harris sided with the uh, artists for uh, just about all things creative. Pretty much, yeah. Uh, <laughs> she and uh, Chris Claremont would, uh, would skidoo. Uh, her first DC Comics work would be Superman the Man of Steel number one, which a year and a half into it run would take part in the story we're just about to discuss. That's right. And on our duties, we have John Bogdanov, born May 7th, 1958, in Albany, New York, attended the School of Visual Arts, 
first comics work was Alpha Flight number 32, March 1986, for Marvel Comics. Became a regular artist for Louise Simonson, written Power Pack with issue number 22, May 1986 cover, and would stick around for four years. And he started at DC Comics with Superman, The Man of Steel, number one in 1991. Indeed. Uh, another book that this uh, storyline runs through is Superman, without an adjective. Uh, this is the third ongoing Superman title. Uh, it was uh, launched directly out of John Byrne's post-crisis revamp of the character, The Man of Steel, and that ran October through December 1986. That was that weekly series. Uh, now, uh, this book generally would come out the second week of the month. Um, and now... Completely getting ahead of ourselves, this volume would run until issue number 226, which was an Infinite Crisis crossover issue. Uh, writing that one was Dan Jurgens, born June 27, 1959, in Ortonville, Minnesota. Graduated from Minneapolis College of Art and Design in 1981. His first professional comic work was for DC Comics, Penciling the Warlord, number 63, November 1982, cover date. In 1985, Jurgens created the character Booster Gold, first appearing in Booster Gold number one, February 1986 cover. His first work on Superman was as penciler for the Adventures of Superman Annual number one in 1987. And then in 1989, Jurgens began working full time on the Superman character when he took over the writing penciling of the monthly The Adventures of Superman. Jurgens helped writer Louise Simonson and artist John Bogdanov launch a new Superman title, Superman, the Man of Steel, in July 1991, and he assumed the writing penciling of the main Superman comic book, which is the one we're talking about, issue number 57, July 1991. Kind of hard to follow all these, uh, (laughs) you know, but uh, yeah, you got to kind of look at it sideways. Certainly. And before we go to the next one here, uh, that uh, Booster Gold number one, we just re-uploaded that to the archives. Oh, that really? was the first issue, the first episode of uh, oh, Cosmic Oh, three Treadmill. voices, and, that's right. <laughs> yes, it was. Uh, now, getting back into the uh, Death of Superman here, another book it went through was Adventures of Superman. This would be the second ongoing Superman title. Adventures of Superman started its life as just Superman. This is Superman wow. uh, Volume 1, of course, uh, way back in uh, June of 1939, Kava. Uh, we mentioned this book third because it was generally third each month. Uh, Adventures of Superman would run until issue 649. That was April 2006 and an Infinite Crisis crossover before retaking its original name of Superman uh, with issue 650. You know, anybody collecting the thing is going to be like pulling the hair out now. You know, come on, you know, hold it together, yeah. would you? <laughs> it, when you look for, uh, when you're looking through the bins for back issues, it gets a little confusing sometimes. Yeah. Uh, now, on that title, we have Jerry Ordway. He was born November 28, 1957. He attended the Milwaukee Technical High School, where he took a three-year course in commercial art. His first drawing gig was All-Star Squadron, beginning with the insert preview uh, in Justice League of America, issue number 193. That was August 1981 cover. He co-created with Roy Thomas Infinity Incorporated. That was in All-Star Squadron number 25, cover dated September 1983. Ordway inked Superman artist Wayne Boring's pencils for a retelling of the definitive Golden Age Superman origin story written by Roy Thomas that happened in Secret Origins, number one, April 1986 cover, and he considers that one a particular favorite. Uh, he drew Adventures of Superman, written by Marv Wolfman. Uh, this is part of that, you know, that post Seal burn revamp. And that would happen, of course, after Crisis and Infinite Earths. Uh, he would eventually finish this book out as writer and artist. He jumped from Adventures of Superman onto Superman Volume 2, and he wrote and penciled from issue number 34, uh, that was 
August 1989 through issue 55, May 1991. He came back to do covers and co-writing, and he was part of the story we're going to discuss. Look at that. Uh, then you have Tom Grummet. He was born in 1959 in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. He began at DC Comics doing finishes for George Perez on New Titans with uh, issue number 58 of September 1989 cover. His first work on Superman was in Action Comics number 665. That's May 1991 cover. He joined Adventures of Superman with issue number 480, July 1991, and stuck around for the story we're about to discuss today. And I will also run through another comic that is the granddaddy of them all, they say, Action Comics. This was the very first Superman title, launching way back in June 1938. This book was the anchor of the Superman line, shipping at the end of the month, or sometimes the very beginning of the next month. There are five-week months, and if you don't have an event, things can get weird. Uh, Action Comics would initially run until issue 904, October 2011, when its legacy was vamooshed for the new 52. (laughs) Uh, Then that volume two of Action Comics ran for 52 issues from November 2011 to July 2016, and now they've gone back to the numbering of Action Comics volume one. And that's all we'll say about that. (laughs) <laughs> yes. <No. laughs> Writing action comics, we are Roger Stern. He was born uh, September 17, 1950, in Noblesville, Indiana. Uh, by the mid-70s, he worked with Charlton Comics to produce the sanctioned fanzine Charlton Bullseye, and that featured exclusive art and unpublished stories from Charlton Comics. He became the writer for The Spectacular Spider-Man with issue number 43. This is June 1980, cover date. He would co-create uh, West Coast Avengers along with Bob Hall. Uh, in 1987, he got into an argument with editor Mark Mark Grunewald and was fired from the Avengers. Uh, led to him freelancing for DC on Action Comics, where he created someone we're going to discuss uh, a little bit more in the coming weeks, uh, yep. The Eradicator. <laughs> he would also write the novelization of The Death and Life of Superman in 1993, and that would go on to make the New York Times bestseller list. Even. Whoa, all those lists. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and then on the art side, I, I think I mangled this guy's uh, last name last week. Guice? Guice? I say Geis. Geis? I, okay, we'll, we'll accept that. Uh, many apologies. Uh, I'm sorry. But Jackson Geis, uh, originally Jackson Butch Geis, born June 27, 1961 in Chattanooga, Tennessee. His first professional credited work was in the independent title The Crusaders Number 1 in November 1982 cover date. Throughout the 80s, he did lots of Marvel work, including penciling X-Factor and the New Mutants. Over at DC, he was the initial artist for Flash, Volume 2. This is the post-crisis Wally West one. Uh, He hung around for the first 11 issues of that. And after another short stint at Marvel, he came back to DC Comics with Action Comics, number 676, April 1982 cover date. And he would still be there when we were in this event we're going to talk about. Indeed. Now, we went through those four Superman titles, but we're going to start... <laughs> with, with, with the one we didn't mention. <laughs> yes, this is Justice League America, number 70. This is January 1993, cover date. Story title is Grieving, written and drawn by Dan Jurgens. Released November 17th, 1992, the very same day as Superman 75. Wow. Yeah, and it came out for $1.25. Uh, the cover features the Justice League mourning Superman's death. 
Ice has knelt in front, clutching his cape, which means she probably pried it out of Lois Lane's hands. Yeah, uh, I, would, I would like to see that Jerry Springer fight going yes. on. <laughs> you Throwing witch! And everything. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, there's a red overlay that takes up the left half of the cover. It's like a, uh, almost like a construction paper that's uh, folded right. over the back of it. Mm. Now, uh, we do pick up immediately after the events of Superman 75. This is where Ice and Bloodwind just arrived just a moment too late. Uh, Ice is not taking things well. Uh, it's been as long established that she ha- did have a bit of a crush on Superman. Yeah. Uh, now, Superman's cape is flying in that uh, iconic fl- uh, tattered flag scene there, and uh, she removes it from the uh, from the you know stake and drapes it over Superman's body. Oh, yeah. A lot of a lot of good scenes right there, but they will sure. will make a lot more light of uh, Ice's crush as we go into more of this <laughs> funeral. Uh, at a hospital, Booster Gold and Maxima watch the news and find out just what went down. Booster feels horrible. Maxima, not so much. She figures it was a noble way for Superman to kick the bucket, but it's all a front. She really did want to bang him. Uh, well. Mate with it, you know. Yes, he was the he was the perfect mate. Yes. Perfect mate. That's right. She'd been chasing around. Uh, Guy Gardner saunters up, and he's taking the news a bit better than everyone else. <laughs> and he goes, "Did you hear the big news? I wouldn't have figured anything could take out all blue." And he turns over to Maxima. I guess it'll take some time, Maxie. But if you start shopping for a new super bow, keep me in. Well, he gets blasted for that one. Yeah. Booster gets between them before things go nuclear. <laughs> it's worth mentioning here. Guy has a band-aid on his ball cut. Yeah, it's really weird. Like, did it get hurt? <laughs> <laughs> did Doomsday injure his hey, ball like cut? He got a bad, he got a bad cut at the barber. He thought he could uh, heal it. I don't know. <laughs> it is weird. <laughs> Now, later on, a booster visits with Blue Beetle, just as the doctor is sharing a bit of troubling news with Maxwell Lord and Oberon. Turns out that Ted's comatose and really quite dinged up. The doctor can make no promises that he'll ever recover. So it looks like Beetle's off the table. That's right. More than one hero has been felled. And it also turns out, so is Booster. Doomsday shredded his costume, which was where he got all his powers. So there's two down. So uh, three, if we count Superman, which really we should sure. be, I, honestly. It's a, it is kind of about him. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> uh, now, el- elsewhere in the hospital, Fire visits with Ice, and they cry. They console each other. Uh, the Flash runs in for a visit. Along the way, he notices that every flag is currently at half-mast. Aquaman arrives shortly after, and they talk about how nobody showed up to help Superman. Yeah, I mean, we weren't going to bring this up, but since he, <laughs> since you brought it up, Arthur... Where was everybody? You know what I mean? Like, no one really came in to, to do this, and it wasn't like it wasn't being carried on the news or Doomsday, no, Doomsday wasn't carving up the country. You know, this wasn't like a quiet <laughs> event. So, yeah, what happened there, folks? But anyway, uh, right after that, Batman and Robin arrive, and the former suggests they use Superman's death as a force for good. The body isn't even cold yet, Batman. Yeah. Come on. He's already, he's already, you know, parceled it in his mind into just some sort of a thing <laughs> yep. he can use in his ongoing crusade or whatever. Uh, <laughs> soon enough, it's a cavalcade of heroes convening at the, hosp- at the hospital, including Hal Jordan, Hawkman, Starfire, Nightwing, Jay Garrick, Alan Scott, Power Girl, Elongated Man, Wonder Woman, Green Arrow, Black Canary, and Etrigan the Demon. <laughs> Which we got to ask again. Where were these people a few hours ago? You made this, right? Well, like, well, right? You know, I mean, you have to. I assume they were watching, all watching TV, eating chips, and they were like, Superman's got it. 
You know what nope. I mean? Like, he'll, he's fine. He'll be fine. But anyway. He always pulls out. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, Oberon greets the, the arriving heroes, and he hands out some uh, very collectible black armbands. Hey. And they all, they all put them on. Uh, ice creates a giant Superman-shaped ice sculpture outside the hospital. And from atop the hospital, Guy Gardner uses his ring to snag an armband for himself. He wanted to, you know, mourn his own way. Exactly. Uh, and maybe keep one, you know, uh, in plastic. To sell on yeah, the, exactly. <laughs> to sell on eBay in five, ten years. Uh, now, the issue ends with Booster watching over Ted and hoping that he won't be wearing an armband with a beetle on it anytime soon. Yeah, you're about 12 years off from that, don't you worry. You still yeah. have adventures <laughs> together. Uh, now we go into Funeral for a Friend proper. That was sort of a prologue, right? Uh, this sure. is this is number one. Funeral for a Friend was in Adventures of Superman, number 498, January 1993. Uh, Death of a Legend by Jerry Ordway and Tom Grummet. Triangle numbering is the third issue of 1993. And the cover is the instantly iconic Jimmy Olsen photograph of Superman's body. There are copies of the Daily Planet littering the ground with Doomsday Massacre as the headline. It was released November 24th, 1992 for $1.25. We open in the immediate wake of Superman's death in Superman number 75. Lois is on her knees holding Superman's body, and just like in the last issue, Doomsday's body is face down in the rubble. We're really just, just seeing that scene again, but this time drawn by Jerry Ordway. Uh, from a little bit, <laughs> yeah, Grummet, a little bit yeah. of a different angle. Uh, Grummet, I'm sorry. Uh, Metropolis Special Crimes Unit personnel attentively surrounds the fallen beast, and one even pokes it with his gun to make sure he's really dead, which is what I would do. Sounds so, smart. yeah. Uh, <laughs> Double X from Cadmus, and this is where I really start to get happy, folks. Let me tell you. Uh, he's also <laughs> present. He makes an attempt to read Doomsday's mind. That's sort of his thing, Double X. He's telekinetic or telepathic, whatever whatever works. He's uh, all of those. Yeah. He's at everything. <laughs> Basically, uh, instead of finding rage and bloodlust, he finds nothing. Doomsday's dead for now. Uh, and our horn-headed friend, Double X, also then turns his ten- attention towards Superman. And similarly, no dice, Superman really does seem dead for now. Mm-hmm. Now, Lois isn't willing to accept that such a thing could ever happen to Superman. Cat Grant and Jimmy Olsen, who have also been loitering around alongside the rest of Metropolis, run up to, comf- to comfort her. Uh, Maggie Sawyer and the Guardian head up to the body next, and the latter attempts to give the Man of Steel some mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, which, as you might imagine, is quite the daunting task. Mm-hmm. Uh, according, to, according to the Guardian, it's like breathing into a steel tank. Um, Sawyer calls in the EMTs, and they fire up the defibrillator. Terrible Dan Turpin watches from the sidelines and compares the loss of Superman to losing a fellow officer in the line of duty. As he stumbles through the wreckage, he comes across Supergirl's matrixy, putty, protoplasmic-y body. Yeah. Uh, Lex Luthor, <laughs> Lex Luthor the second hops right into the panel and uh, takes her away. Yeah, uh, she looks like the ultimate gross burn victim right here. So. Uh, yes. This is what happens when you she gets caught up in the Doomsday Blast. Uh, back at Superman's body, the EMTs are shocking the stuffing out of the Man of Steel. However, they have to pause uh, lest they melt their tools. The Guardian doesn't, he doesn't like any quitters on this thing, and he pretty much tells them, if your tools melt, they melt, and therefore become useless to everyone, apparently. Uh, (laughs) Cat and Jimmy manage to pull Lois away, but she's still clutching the tattered Superman cape. Uh, She insists they make a call to Dr. Sanchez's Star Labs, and so they do. Then, it happens. Clark suggests that Jimmy call. I mean, Cat suggests that Jimmy call Clark to come get Lois. 
It's at this moment that it seems to set in for Lois If Superman's dead, then Clark is dead too She then wonders if the Kents watch their son die on television Now a WGBS news van pulls up with all the necessary equipment For Cat Grant to perform a live broadcast Which naturally cuts into regularly scheduled programming sure. We would shift scenes here to Cat's apartment Where the, her, you know, the on-again, off-again gangbuster Jose Delgado And Cat's son Adam are watching television the newscast begins, prompting snot-nosed Adam Grant to switch channels to a dime store Ren and Stimpy-style cartoon yeah. that's called Ratatouille. <laughs> uh, it's probably worth mentioning that Adam thinks Superman is pretty lame. Uh, Jose flips out, snatches the remote from the kid, and starts yelling at him. Adam runs away crying. Uh, he actually says, <laughs> you big jerk. <laughs> Jose then goes into his closet to pull out his gangbuster gear. Yeah, he seems to do that quite a lot, just like to take a look at it. Yeah, Yeah, he's like, remember when I used to do this? Uh, On the television, Cat throws it back to the studio where the douchey anchorman suggests, I guess that Superman wasn't so super after all. Pretty ice cold. Yeah, very creative, too. I I can't imagine (laughs) where he came up with that one. Uh, Jose responds the only way he knows how, by hurling his gangbuster helmet through the television screen, so... Cat's not going to like that her TV is busted, but I'm sure she can get another one. Uh, Over in Smallville, Ma and Pa are still watching the news. Pa thinks the whole thing is silly. After all, their boys come back from far worse. Ma wonders if this time might be different. The super parents hug and pray for their son's safety. At LexCorp, Lex and Matrix both express regret for the loss of Superman, though for different reasons. Lex wanted to save him just so he'd owe him one later on, where Matrix is more genuine about it because she's not a horrible... Uh, Well, she's not a human being, but she's not a horrible person. (laughs) Matrix performs a transformation back to a Supergirl uh, look, and it proves to be rather painful for her. It also results in Supergirl's face being covered in bruises, which I thought was a nice touch, you know? She couldn't quite come back to to, uh, 100%. Now, back at the bodies, the head of Cadmus arrives. This is uh, Westfield, I believe his name is. Uh, uh, He claims that they have authorization to claim the bodies of both Doomsday... And Superman. Turpin doesn't care one way or another if they hold off Doomsday's corpse, but will absolutely not allow them to take Superman. And so the head of Cadmus makes some pretty homophobic remarks directed at Maggie Sawyer, which is you know, pretty mature. It's kind yeah. of what you do when you're an executive in the government. Or I guess. Uh, <laughs> now he winds up taking a big old left to the gut, ter- ter- uh, cur- courtesy of the terrible one. At this point, Double X has returned with friends. This is Professor Emil Hamilton and our main man, yeah. Now they've brought with them the most badass of shock paddles this side of the Mississippi. Bibbo insists on being the guy to press them paddles onto the chest of steel. Yeah, he says, I'm gonna do it. Hand me them paddles. I owe it to Superman on account of he was my favorite. Now, it's funny, but it's also pretty sad because he continues. No one's gonna miss a pug like me if things go bad. I think we'd miss him. Yeah, oh, Bibbo, you big lug. And so using one of the weapons expert geeks who cluttered up the sky during the fight with Doomsday and as an energy generator, Hamilton prepares to shock the hell out of Superman. Bibbo pressed the paddles and the entire sky goes white with energy and a half page worth of voom But, like so much sound and thunder, sound and thunder, this shock signified nothing. Believe me, that was supposed to be a great line. Uh, It was. (laughs) The chapter wraps up back at the Delhi Planet, where Jimmy is absolutely going off on all the sensationalism surrounding the story. Hmm, maybe this is a meta commentary on the actual comics market of the day, huh? Mm, yeah, nah. they, they wouldn't do that. Nah. He says, "I mean, 
Why everyone's crawling all over everyone else to be the first to officially pronounce Superman dead. You'd think they were happy he died to save them all from a slow news day. Even Cat Grant's doing it. It makes me want to puke. Uh, Jim, uh, we, we really don't want to be that guy, but uh, you were there too, camera in hand, when the body hit the floor. Yeah. Uh, ju- just saying, pal. S- sort of your picture is the uh, currently iconic <laughs> and boots. Another one will be. Anyway, we'll get to that when we get to that. Uh, also in the office, Lois wraps up her story on the death of Superman and hands it in. Perry assures her, that, uh, assures her should the worst be confirmed about Clark, the Daily Planet will do whatever they can to keep both his and Superman's memories alive. Mm-hmm. The following week, we have Action Comics issue 685, cover dated January 1993, Funeral for a Friend Part 2, Recolon Actions, by Roger Stern and Jackson Geis. This is triangle number four for 1993. The cover's an homage to Action Comics number one, except with Supergirl hoisting the car, the car over her head. The logo actually reads Supergirl in Action Comics. Now, this was released December 1st, 1992, for a buck and a quarter. And I don't, I don't want to break into this too much, but at, at sure. the time, I, I know I did, and, I, and others thought this was going to be how Action Comics was from now on. It was going to be Supergirl's yeah. book. Uh, yep. Anyway, we'll, 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 we'll talk much more about that as we go through it. But, <laughs> yes, but I, remember, I remember getting kind of excited about it and being like, wow, this, what, this is kind of a big change. This will be cool. But anyway, we'll, we'll see what it happens. felt permanent. Yeah. It did. It felt, all yeah. this really did feel like it could be permanent. Certainly. Now we open with a clipping from the Daily Planet. The headline is Superman Dead, Metropolis Marvel Killed in Action by Lois Lane, next to a photo taken by James Olsen. Mm. Now, uh, Superman's body is taken to the city morgue, accompanied by Dan Turpin, Maggie Sawyer, and the Guardian. They are shocked and rather displeased to be met by the head of Cadmus, Mr. Westfield, again. Oh, and a good half dozen Cadmus gods? They make those? You never see them otherwise, but here they are. <laughs> they hold these guards hold them all at gunpoint. Whoa! This has suddenly become mm. a shadowy organization. Uh, Westfield informs <laughs> them that he's out of their jurisdiction. They're just local law enforcement, and he only answers to the feds. He's apparently authorized by Section 12 of the Executive Emergency Act to collect the bodies of any alien descendants. Now, in the real world, Section 12 has something to do with the regulation of transactions in foreign gold or silver. Yeah, but dead alien sounds a lot cooler than that, so... Uh, it it we'll, does, yeah. That's how it is here. And Guardian tells them to lower their weapons, which is, <laughs> puts them in kind of a sticky wicket. He's the head of Cadmus Security. However, he's really not acting uh, as security for Cadmus. He's sort of acting against their best interests. We can see that all the television equipment in the area has been destroyed by the Cadmus goons, news of which gets back to Lex Luthor. The Luther number two. Remember, this is not the mm-hmm. original. This is we're pretending it's his son, but wink, it's, wink. You know, not really. <laughs> uh, he's not pleased and informs Supergirl that this time they call out the dogs. The dogs in question are members of Team Luther, who all descend on the city morgue, and a firefight is on until Supergirl, until Supergirl arrives and tells him to cut it out. And uh, she also nails a lot of them with her psychokinetic blast, which takes takes a lot of the fight out of them, I think. It sure does. Uh, now, Luther arrives on the scene and tells Westfield and company to hit the bricks. Once the Cadmus geeks are gone, Lex delivers a rousing statement regarding the passing of Metropolis's hero. Remember, we're supposed to think he's a good guy. Mm-hmm. This, is, uh, this isn't the kind of guy who would ever steal 40 cakes. Well, that's as many as four tens. That's terrible. That awful. Now, it's also announced here that uh, Superman will be laid to rest in Centennial Park, where a monument to the hero will be erected, on LexCorp's dime, no less. 
back at the Daily Planet, Perry believes Luther's gracious uh, gracious to some being opportunistic. He's uh, he thinks Luther has an ulterior motive. Go mm. figure. Uh, Jimmy notices that Lois still ain't talking to nobody, but she still does have a death grip on that <laughs> torn cape. Uh, staffer Allie asks Lois if she's heard anything about Clark, which causes Lois to almost blurt out the secret. Uh, she does manage to collect herself in time and, and heads home. Back in Smallville, the cancer mourning of the loss of their son. Their phone rings, and on the other end is Lana Lang. She and Pete had been on the road and had just now heard the news. Were they in the road in Alaska? I mean, this is like a major... <laughs> did the, was the radio on anything? I mean, did you have to stop for gas anywhere? Yeah, I, I can't believe you didn't hear about this. But uh, anyway, uh, a montage follows featuring an international assortment of folks Superman has helped over the years, at least the years since the crisis of the Infinite Earth's Man of Steel uh, from 1987. Uh, back in Metropolis, Lex Luthor is introduced to Doomsday's body. He's overcome with emotion, being beat the hell out of the corpse with a wooden chair. Uh, not out of any righteousness, of course. It seems like he's doing it out of anger at Doomsday because, you know, he killed Superman, but he's mad that Doomsday killed Superman before Lex could, you know. So mm. it makes for good PR. It looks like he's, he's <laughs> genuinely <laughs> grieving, but he's actually... Uh, just mad he didn't get to do the job himself. We rejoin Lois as she heads to Clark's apartment, and she just sits there crying for a while. There's another montage. This time we get to see how Superman's rogues gallery is taking the news of his passing. Next we learn that despite the tragedy, Prime refuses to sleep. A jewelry store is robbed by a group of geeks whose escape is blocked by Supergirl, who is kind of in a weird pose right here with some... Yeah. Pretty odd hand placement, you know. Right? Yeah. I don't know if that looks quite kosher, but she mm -hmm. does beat the holy hell out of them, so that's all that matters. Indeed. Now, the issue wraps up with Bibbo closing up his ace of clubs for the evening. He doesn't really feel much like drinking. After booting all the patrons out, he drops to his knees to pray. God, I gotta ask you, why? Why would Superman die when a washed-up old roughneck like me goes on living? It ain't right, God. It just ain't right. It ain't. Now, uh, <laughs> the next week we go to Superman, the Man of Steel, issue number 20. This is February 1993, cover date, Funeral for a Friend, Part 3, Funeral Day, by Louise Simonson and John Bogdanov. It has a triangle number of 5 for 1993. Cover features the heroes of the DC Universe solemnly standing on the site at the site of Superman's death. This was released December 15th, 1992, for a buck and a quarter. Now, Metropolis begins its great rebuild. You know, the city was left in a pretty bad way after the fight. Oh, yeah. We uh, join Lex Luthor as he's wheeling and dealing details on the Superman monument and burial site in Centennial Park, surrounded by Supergirl and a bunch of yes-men. And he also appears to be, at that time, getting a haircut from an extraño of the New Guardians. You know, something, <laughs> right? very, something very spicy for you, senor, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Now, he's pleased that even though he was robbed of the opportunity to kill Superman, he's sure as hell not going to miss the chance to bury him, which sounds pretty reasonable oh, to fair us. Fair enough. <laughs> now, in Smallville, the Kents lament the fact that, according to the rest of the world, they've got no claim to Superman. Even if they do go to Metropolis, there's no chance they'll ever get close enough to the body to get any sort of closure. Nope, that's what a secret identity does, folks. Mm -hmm. At the Daily Planet, there's high fives abound because Jimmy Olsen took the picture that'll send his career to the next level. Perry notices Lois huddled by the phone, waiting for it to his mind any word on Clark. As head of the paper, he has a spot in the funeral procession. He offers Lois the opportunity to go in his stead, but she declines. 
the other planet staffers are completely supportive and understanding about this. Yeah, we got a guy, uh, his name, we find out his name is Dan. He goes, uh, what's Lane's problem? And some lady says, it's not just Superman she's upset about, Dan. She's engaged to Clark Kent, and he's still missing. She seems to be taking it pretty hard. Yeah, but she didn't have to act like he was the last man in the universe. Wow. I mean, this that's really pretty cold. I don't know which one right? of them is worse. Both of them. She's, <laughs> she's you know, taking it pretty hard. Ah, no kidding. God, the man she loves might be dead. Oh, why? But she got to move on. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so Lois leaves, and next we see her. She's standing on the Daily Planet globe, and it's raining. How did she even get up there, and why? I have no idea. <laughs> She's on the globe. She's standing on it. I, maybe, maybe, the, maybe we don't know. There's like a, a ladder on the inside of the globe. Maybe. <laughs> I, but uh, she's only up there for a single panel, which makes it hardly worth the climb. Uh, next we see her. She's knelt at the spot where Superman died. There's been a plaque affixed to the ground to commemorate the site. It reads, In Memoriam, Superman killed on this spot while defending the city. Jimmy finds her, and it's time for the funeral procession, and he saved them a spot up front. A two-page spread follows. Superman's flag-draped casket is being led through the streets of Metropolis by a horse-drawn carriage. The funeral marchers include Booster Gold, Ice, Bloodwind, Guardian, Hal Jordan, Wonder Woman, Wildcat, Power Girl, Green Arrow, Fire, Black Canary, Aquaman, Wally West, Jay Garrick, Guy Gardner, Alan Scott, Captain Marvel, Nightwing, Geoforce, Maxima, Obsidian, Dr. Midnight, Kilowog, Dr. Fate, Starfire, Dr. Light, Oberon, Mr. Miracle, Big Barda, Orion, Light Ray, Wildebeest, Phantasm, Metamorpho, Double X, The Metal Men, and some others we couldn't make out. Yeah, it kind of trails off into a blur. <laughs> some of the faces in the crowd look a bit too specific not to be certain members of the creative teams, right? I would I definitely There's... think. Or people that exist. In the <laughs> that world, they know, yeah. yeah. For sure. Now, there's also Keith and his mother, uh, and other other family Superman helped out. And to remind us just what year it is, one fella has the Superman S shaved (laughs) into the side of his head. That's the most awesome thing. Yeah, he should have been doing breakdancing, too, or something. Anyway, uh, we shift scenes to, well, to somewhere else, where the main man himself just received word of Superman's passing. Yes, we're talking about Lobo, and he goes, Cramden, what do you mean Superman's dead? I didn't get a piece of him. And Cramden says, oh. Lobo puts his fist through one poor dude before approaching Cramden, who's drinking with a fella we're going to assume is named Nerton. <laughs> he goes, so it ain't so. And Nerton says, it ain't so, 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 it ain't so. And Cramden says, hamina, hamina, hamina. Now back at the procession, Batman, who is conspicuously missing from the march, catches a dude who had designs on uh, bombing the event. With a bomb, even. Whoa. Uh, Batman snares him with a bat line from the roof of a nearby building. Yeah, the guy says, Batman! Batman goes, explain the bomb in your coat pocket. Bomb? What bomb? I don't... I'm a patriot. I'm fighting oppression. I... Innocent people would be hurt in a bombing. None are innocent who harbor the monster who... No, don't drop me! I'll turn myself in! Anything, just don't drop me. Don't tempt me. But Metropolis is Superman's town. And for today, I'll play it his way. Any other day, he would have murdered the guy, obviously. Sure, in cold blood. Yeah. Uh, now, Batman literally leaves, leaves the would-be bomber hanging with a sign around his neck that reads, Please arrest me. Help! Arrest me! Hurry! Please! 
Batman might be back. <laughs> and the procession continues over a sewer grate. Underneath live the Underworlders. I thought Doomsday sport them all last week. Not all of them, apparently, Chris. Sorry. Well, better luck next time. <laughs> Outside the Ace of Clubs, <laughs> Bibbo and his pals watch the funeral march. When they're approached by a sleazy-looking fellow who's trying to profit off of Superman's death by selling collectible tchotchkes. Ladies and gentlemen, your friendly neighborhood comic shop guy. Basically. <laughs> uh, Bibbo does take kind of, kindly to this affront and lifts the dude off the ground by his collar. The, the, the sleazy guy goes, get your bag, Daily Planet death issue with commemorative armband. Bibbo says, hey, you, what do you mean trying to cash in on Superman's death? Ain't you got no respect? I was going to include a line here with the sleaze going something about Rob Leefield, but uh, I left that. <laughs> uh, now the salesman reveals that Superman. He's, this is not being done out of any kind of uh, any kind of negative way here. He uh, he was actually saved once by Superman, um, but now he and his family have fallen on some hard times. Bibbo sympathizes with the poor fool and buys all of his wares. Not only that, he gives him a job at the Ace of Clubs. Wow. <laughs> yeah, talk, talk about calling a fellow's bluff, right? Yeah, just, uh, a little copyright infringement goes a long way. Nice. <laughs> yes. Now, the procession finally arrives at Centennial Park. Some goons approach Jimmy Olsen, attempting to buy the rights to that awesome photo he took. That's right. One of the goons says, Hey, kid, Olsen, I got a proposition you can't refuse. You sign over the international licensing rights to that death photo of Superman, and I'll give you, say, 5% of my net. That photo will be everywhere, on mugs and buttons and lunchboxes. I'm going to make you rich. Jimmy turns the offer down flat. Not only that, he backhands the guy for good measure. Yeah, that's kind of overreacting, you know. A little I mean, bit. It was just a question. You could just say no. Uh, the goons draw their pistols, though, but luckily Robin arrives just in time to KO them before they can pull the triggers. A riot breaks out, leading to Wonder Woman and Green Lantern having to do some crowd control. In Smallville, the Kents watch as their son's funeral devolves into a circus sideshow and cry. Once the crowd is quelled, we get a speech from President Bill Clinton, which is probably his first appearance in the role as president. At this point, when the comic came out, he hadn't, he hadn't become president. This uh, comic was released on December 15, 1992. And his inauguration would, of course, be January 20th of 93. So, uh, who knows what, you know, something had happened in between that time would have been interesting. But anyway. It would have been. Now, Lois is so stirred by this speech that uh, she leaves. Whoa. Um, yeah. <laughs> and she goes to finally make that phone call to the Kents. I, I actually picture her calling an operator sitting yeah. next to, like, a, a bay of switchboards and yeah. needing to actually plug the call in. For sure. She's like, she's like give me the Kents in Smallville. How plays, you know. <laughs> One ring. Yeah, it's like their number is five, you know, in Smallville. Uh, Anyway, it's a moot point. Anyway, whatever we think happens at the switchboard, because the Kents are currently out uh, having their own ceremony, a private ceremony. Pod digs a grave in the field where they found Clark's birthing matrix at those all those years before, where they bury some of their son's prized belongings. Now, back in Metropolis, Superman's casket is lowered into a stone crypt, uh, a scene that Lois actually misses because she's still trying to get a hold of her would-be in-laws. Winds up, they finally return home and answer the phone, and they tell her not to worry. They'll be in Metropolis soon. That's right. It's kind of, it is kind of a sweet scene, too. They grab yes. the phone. They're very, very supportive of Lois. Now, Superman Volume 2, number 76, is February 1993. Funeral for a Friend Part 4, Metropolis Mailbag 2 by Dan Jurgens. 
Triangle number was number six of 1993. Cover features the DC hero standing atop the Daily Planet building, with Batman front and center ceremoniously dropping Superman's tattered cape. This was released December 22nd, 1992, for $1.25. It is a rainy Christmas Eve in Metropolis, and DC Comics' heaviest hitters organize atop the Daily Planet building, just like on the cover. They're here mm-hmm. to fill in for Superman's Christmas Eve tradition, where he reads the fan mail and tries to grant some wishes. After getting down to business, however, they share some brief reminiscences of their fallen friend. Of interest, relatively new Robin Trim- Tim Drake feels funny making his feelings known. Yeah, he thinks to himself, I like them too, but I'm afraid if I say anything in front of these guys, I'll sound like an idiot. Now we jump across town where we meet. Well, would you look at that? It's our old friend Mitch. Uh. He feels somewhat responsible for Superman's death, considering he had to go off task to save him and his family. He's come to Metropolis on this rainy night to apologize to Mrs. Superman? Hmm. Well, it didn't take long for the death of Superman to turn into some tabloid freak show, and so it's no surprise to meet a woman who claims to have been married to the Man of Steel. And she's holding a press conference to that effect, even. Uh, This is a press conference being covered by Daily Planet staffers Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen. Awkward. A little awkward, yeah. (laughs) Now, Lois can only take so much of the nonsense and eventually stomps away. As Lois leaves, she passes by our man Mitch. Jimmy notices the strange kid and asks if there's anything he could do for him. Uh, Mitch spills the beans about wanting to apologize to Mrs. Superman, and Jimmy fills him in on the fact that the lady's probably a fraud. Uh, Mitch is disappointed, but figures it might be just as well for him if he could talk to anyone who was close to Superman. Perhaps Superman's pal will fill the bill. Hey, or is is crypto still around? He could talk to the (laughs) crypto anyway. (laughs) Get the bill. Now, uh... Jimmy offers to take him for a bite over at Hobbs Bay Grill, where he's uh, where he's eventually heading to meet up with another one of Superman's buddies, Bibbo. That's right. But first, we, we rejoin Lois as she heads back to Clark's apartment. The panel placement as she enters is cramped and claustrophobic. It's almost like the reader can feel her dread, discomfort, and trepidation. It's really well done. It is, uh, yeah. This feels like the first time Lois has to actually face moving on without Clark. Really, it's her first step in the next stage of life, and she does seem very, like, lost with it, you know? Yeah. She enters the apartment and cries. Her internal monologue is interrupted by a friendly voice. Ma and Pa Kent have arrived in Metropolis, and I guess they had the key. Uh, The trio (laughs) embrace, but are soon interrupted by Lana Lang. So our Superman support group has now has four members. Back in the Daily Planet, the heroes are rooting through the mailroom looking for just the right Superman address missives to follow up on. Guy Gardner seems particularly ornery and, sarca- ornery and sarcastic, but he gets scolded by Wonder Woman. Yeah, Guy goes, what a bunch of dweebs. Bet every one of them asks for something. Of course, my fans know that I got more important things to do than help them change a light bulb. Man, now we'll never know how many Guy Gardners it takes to screw in a light bulb. Dang it. <laughs> now, after Diana yells at him, Guy digs in and grabs a letter. It's from a terminally ill older woman who's estranged from her son. He figures he'll follow up on this one and hopefully find some heads to bust along the way. Uh, Flash and Wonder Woman then dig in and find a letter from, hey, would you look at that, hey. Mrs. Mitch. Well, I'll be. <laughs> well, well, it's actually they're Mrs. Anderson, Ms. Mitch's mom, but I like calling her Mrs. Mitch anyway. Uh, now, this letter is special because it's uh, it's not asking for anything. It's primarily a thank you for saving her family from doomsday. Yeah, he, he sort of gave her everything he had anyway, huh? You, know, you think? <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> now, over in Hobbs Bay, Jimmy, Bibbo, and Mitch share a meal. 
Mitch tells the story of his run-in with Superman in Doomsday and suggests if Superman hadn't taken his eye off the prize, he'd probably still be alive. Bibbo tries to get Mitch to put things into perspective, but the boy ain't having it. He feels guilty for mocking Superman and also feels guilty for glorifying his own father who didn't even care enough to come back when, you know, the family was destroyed. Uh, back at Clark's, the gang discusses how uh, they should approach explaining Clark's disappearance. Lana posits that it might be time for the beans to be spilled. Uh, Ma and Pa give that a big ol' uh-uh. Mm-mm, don't do it. Uh, we rejoin Wonder Woman as she knocks on the door of Mitch's dad's bachelor pad, and he initially thinks he's, she's a singing telegram or something. <laughs> he initially says, yes, I'm your man. What can I, 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 yeah. <laughs> Cue laugh track. Uh, shouldn't take too kindly to that suggestion, though, and fills him in on what happened to the other Andersons. Doesn't Roger own a television set? Hasn't seen right? nobody? All these people need to be filled in on what must be the hugest event, like, since nuclear oh, war this. or something. Yeah. <laughs> Next up is a holiday miracle montage. We have Nightwing and Maxima delivering gifts to a homeless shelter. Guy Gardner forces a mother and child reunion. And Flash and Green Lantern help a team of construction workers rebuild the home of a certain Ohioan family. Back in Metropolis, Mitch and Jimmy pay their respects at the Superman Memorial statue. Mitch is wearing a guns hat, which only makes us wish it read Axl Rose and the band, which would have been, <laughs> been called back to the last uh, week or last month. In Ohio, Roger Anderson returns with his wife and daughter, hopeful that they can be a family again. He doesn't ask where Mitch is, and who can blame him, really? We don't care. Uh, this issue wraps up with Superman's coffin being stolen by... Cadmus! Oh, no. Oh. oh, we move right into Adventures of Superman, issue 499, February 1993, cover date. This is Funeral for a Friend, part 5, Grave Obsession, by Jerry Ordway and Tom Grummet. This has a triangle number of 7 for 1993. The cover features the Superman Memorial statue, which is a clear homage to the iconic Jerry Ordway-drawn cover of uh, Adventures of Superman, number 424. Mm-hmm. That's January 1987 cover. Uh, this would be released December 29th, 1992, for 125. We start with Lex Luthor being awakened by an alarm, indicating that one of his surveillance cameras has been disabled. It's a, uh, it's the one at Superman's tomb. Duh. Uh, yeah. Now, rather than think anyone stole the body, Supergirl's first instinct is to question whether or not Superman might have returned from the dead, mm-hmm. which gives Lex a bit of a pause. Uh, Supergirl heads off to check things out. Her arrival is caught by a skeevy-looking fella on a park bench. He pulls out his cell phone, which was a little hooked a little out of place for this kind of fella. Hey, Zach, he... <laughs> Zach, Zach Morris had one right around the same time. It this could, is true. It could have happened, yeah. It could have, it could have. Now, uh, he calls in that he just saw something super strong by the ventilator shaft by the Superman memorial. Supergirl enters the shaft and weaves her way into Superman's resting place. There's a giant hole in the wall, and hey, Superman's coffin is also missing. <gasps> Uh, outside, Jose Delgado pays his respects. He feels guilty that he was sitting on his butt while Superman was dying. But to be fair, last time he was out in costume rendered him crippled for a time. He's not great yeah. at this gangbuster stuff. <laughs> no, he's not. Uh, Inspector Henderson approaches and suggests the inclement weather might be hell on Jose's back, which gets him a sock right in the mush. And also brings out that skeevy bark bench dweller from a few pa- from a few pages ago. And hey... He's actually an undercover cop, so everything's cleared up pretty quickly. Good. Oof. Yeah. Uh, at Lois's <laughs> place, the Kents are getting ready for bed, but can hear Lois crying in the living room. Elsewhere, Lex Luthor throws a glass of wine at a woman, and Supergirl calls in to report what she hasn't found. 
Mm-hmm. Now, outside, Dan Turpin arrives and meets up with Inspector Henderson and the undercover guy. Turpin decides to head inside to follow up on the super strong thing the undercover fellow saw. Across town, Bibbo busts some skulls. Unfortunately for him, the bad dudes he's chosen to beat up have some armed backup. Ah, uh, but unfortunately for them, gangbusters back in action. Well, unfortunately for Gangbuster, he's still Jose Delgado and gets hit by a car three panels into his return. (laughs) (laughs) It all works out in the end, though. Um, Now, back in the tunnels, we rejoin Supergirl as she has a run-in with the Underworlders. Again? Come on now. I think we're going to see a lot of these guys. I think you're right. Uh, Luckily, Dan Turpin is hot on her heels and proceeds to empty his gun into the fray. Uh, (laughs) The Underworlders, including the rock-looking one that Lois hurt her foot kicking last week, uh, quickly overpower Turpin and Supergirl, until the terrible one notices that one of the Underworlders is wearing a pair of grenades on his belt. So a pin-pulling he will go. Supergirl swoops in to grab Dan before the big boom, and it only costs him his dungarees, because that same Underworlder dropped a grenade in his pants. Which sounds a bit like a euphemism, but we promise you it's not. It's actually what uh, <laughs> Yes. Now, the issue ends with the body of Superman being laid out on a Cadmus operating table. Uh-oh. What will mm-hmm. happen next? Will we ever see Superman again? Well, folks, since we are uh, you know, reading this 25 years later and there are Superman comics now, you can rest assured something did happen. But uh, <laughs> we'll get into the next issue and, and find out. What happened to Superman when he was uh, captured by Cadmus and uh, all the rest of it and actually get through this whole, uh, you know, our many stages of grief right after this quick break. the 1990s, there are few real-life heroes. A lot of times in movies and TV, we tend to focus on heroes like Rocky or Indiana Jones. In an upcoming issue of a comic book, one great hero, Superman, will be killed off. This has a special connection to people in the greater Cleveland area. The creator of Superman was from Cleveland. We're here at the 1992 Mid-Ohio Con Comic Book Convention to talk to some artists and industry insiders to get their opinions. coordinator for Mid-Ohio Con, told us about his involvement with the convention, as well as his views on Superman. Well, I think, you know, just the announcement of the fact that Superman's dying, it's, it's a tragedy, it's, it's a loss. And uh, I, I think uh, we're talking about, you know, an American legend here, uh, a legend that's known all the world over, and it's a very sad situation. I think we're all sorry to see the Man of Steel pass away. 
Tell us all about uh, what's going on today. Well, this is the 13th annual Mid-Ohio Con. It is the, the largest comic book uh, collector show in the state of Ohio. We have uh, currently over 40 uh, celebrity guests joining us, artists, writers, uh, publishers, editors. Uh, we have a, a huge dealer's area here. Over 50 of the leading retailers, nostalgia retailers from around the United States are set up with us. And there's just lots of fun things going on, including a big uh, auction of original art and other collectibles to benefit Ronald McDonald Children's Charities. Roger Stern, a writer for the Superman comic book, told us how the storyline of Superman's death got started. The main reason that, we're, that Superman is dying is that in our story conferences we came up with a story that was too powerful not to do. Uh, Dan Jurgens originally came up with the idea of doing a Death of Superman story, and he also wanted to do a, a new major physical threat for Superman to fight. That threat became Doomsday, and it became part of the Death of Superman story. Now, it was it was purely a, a creative uh, a creative uh, concept. It wasn't you know marketing didn't come to us and say we'll sell a million copies if we kill him off, you know, and then just bring him back the next week. We're not going to do that. You know, we, we, you know, the creative people came up with this. That's the, been the, the, the strength, I think, of the Superman titles since uh, John Byrne re relaunched them in 86, is that they've been creator-driven. You know, the writers and the artists getting together with the editor and coming up with strong, powerful stories. And that's been our strength. John Byrne, who has worked on Superman before, has a different opinion. Well, are they killing off the character? I killed him once. Uh, I just happened to bring him back to life in the same issue. Um, it's, it's, it's just to sell comic books. I mean, I, I can't believe fans are, are even noticing it. I mean, how many, how many times has Spider-Man died? How many times has, has everybody died? It's just a ploy to sell comics. We have a saying in comics, nobody dies forever. You know, nobody, stay, nobody stays dead. And Superman is the second most successfully merchandised character in the world, right after Mickey Mouse. He's not going to stay dead. Jim Shooter, former editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics and creator of Valiant Comics, told us his history with character death in comic books. Well, the, the death of Phoenix uh, came about uh, because of uh, a story uh, point, actually. We, we started off to have her become a, a supervillain, which had never been done before. A hero becomes a bad guy. I mean, I felt that it was, if it evoked such passions with the people in the office, imagine how the, the readers would feel about it, how they would react to it. And sure enough, they did. I mean, it has become one of the seminal events in, in modern comics. And, uh, okay, it doesn't get the, 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 the media play that the death of Superman does because, let's face it, Superman's been around for, what, since 38? You know, and it's in the dictionary. I mean, it's, 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 it's Americana, uh, where Phoenix was known to comic book readers, but not so much to the general populace. So uh, it didn't have exactly the same uh, uh, mass media uh, coverage. But I think among comic readers, it was really kind of, uh, as I said, a, a huge event and, and really, I guess, in a way, opened up the possibility for, for big traumatic things to happen to characters. Uh, James Miller, a comic book vendor, thinks this particular storyline is just a flash in the pan. It's um, benefited me financially and um, really sparked a lot of interest in the character. They're following this up with an eight-part funeral for a friend story dealing with uh, the aftermath and people adjusting to the death of Superman. And then word is, uh, or rumor has it, that uh, he'll be back in some form or fashion come March. Um, 
if they do it and they're able to maintain some dignity and the interest is uh, generated and carries on through with what they do with the, the books and character after that, I think it'll be worth it. If it's just a cheap gimmick to sell a lot of comics, it saddens me. Don Thompson, editor of Comics Buyer's Guide, a trade magazine, gives his thoughts on how the Superman storyline will affect the industry. Well, it's kicked the sales up to about two and a half million uh, copies from about a tenth of that. That's not too bad. Uh, that It's bringing a lot of people into comic stores and it's getting a lot of kids who never tried Superman to try them. I think all these things are great. And uh, do you think they'll bring Superman back like they have with other characters? Well, let's put it this way. He's worth, conservative estimate, half a billion dollars in licensing and other fees. Would you throw him away? Probably not, I don't think. And lastly, this Superman fan told us his feelings about the death of Superman. Being a fan, I'm sad to see it happen. Um, I've been a big Superman fan and a fan of comics since I was very little. And it just seems like a really sad commercial ploy to me. Um, I've collected comics and looked at them since I was little. I learned to draw from them. And uh, to me, the character is something more than just a nine to five job. You know, I, I would say to the creators, I've enjoyed your stories. Uh, I've been there. I've watched it grow. You've done some great stuff. I just don't know if this is the option for slumping sales. So just what will happen to Superman? If enough fans complain, he might make another appearance, much like Bobby Ewing on Dallas, with this entire storyline being only a dream. Only time will tell. And hopefully Superman will come back, in whatever shape and form. But as we say in TV, all good things must come to an end. For Cablevision Spotlight, I'm Mark Smiler. Hey everybody, welcome back. We're going to go through the end of the Funeral of a Friend series right here and find out what happened to Superman on that operating table from before the break. Starting with Action Comics number 686, Funeral for a Friend Part 6, Who's Buried in Superman's Tomb by Roger Stern and Jackson Geis. Triangle numbering is number 8 out of, uh, in 1993. Logo again is Supergirl in Action Comics. Cover features Supergirl standing in a doorway, presumably at the Superman Memorial statue. It was released January 5th, 1993 for a dollar and a quarter. Uh, and it starts with the Guardian chasing down a van full of gun-wielding bums. He's making some very Kirby-esque faces while he's at it. Also. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is, you know, I guess that's, that's the origin. One of them, clearly not the smartest of the bunch, leaps from the van onto Guardian's motorbike, which goes... Just about as well as you might expect, which is to say not very well at all mm. for him. While Guardian turns the geeks over to the police, he receives an urgent telekinetic call from Double X, and he's needed back at Cadmus. As he drives away, he speeds past Lex Luthor's limo. Inside, Lex is chatting with his assistant, Dr. Sidney Happerson, about the possibility that Superman might just be back from the dead. After all, Lex faked his own death not too long ago. Yeah, we've been dancing around this all, but he died <laughs> back in Action Comics number 660 in December 1990, cover date, in an experimental plane crash into the Andes. This was after he received word that he was terminally ill due to a kryptonite ring that he liked to wear on his finger, and he had, like, finger cancer. Uh, <laughs> turns out they were able to save Luther's brain and plop it into the head of an Aussie clone, and that's who we are dealing with here. 
Yes. Now his guardian returns to the project, where he's greeted by some of the former, some of his former newsboy pals turned Cadmus staffers. Uh, Lex and Supergirl meet up with Turpin and the MCU in Centennial Park. The Metropolis police are almost certain that the Underworlders, though annoying, aren't responsible for the grave robbery. Well, we already know that to yeah, be the case. Uh, and uh, further proof comes on the very next page, where Guardian finds Superman laid out on that Cadmus operating table. I don't even know if we need to say this, but he's not very pleased. No. Uh, now, Guardian slams Westfield up against the wall, but he's talked off the ledge by Double X. It's here we learn that Cadmus has designs on cloning Superman. Don't worry, this probably won't lead to anything. No, it's not going to be a big thing at all. So, no, at all. Uh, <laughs> in the tunnels, Supergirl is leading Luther and the police. They happen across an unexploded charge with the Cadmus logo on it, and uh, it was unexploded, but now, boom. Uh, back at Lois's place, she's watching the news. The newscaster lists the names of some notable citizens still missing since the Doomsday Massacre, including baseball Hall of Famer Hank the Hammer Halloran, comedian Morty Beckman, <laughs> and Daily Planet <laughs> reporter Clark Kent. The Kents overhear Lois talking back to the screen. Ma seems concerned, however, but they've got a plane to catch. Underground, Supergirl digs the crew out from the rubble and flooding. When they emerge back into Centennial Park, they find news of Superman's potential resurrection has spread. A group of people Superman's, uh, wearing Superman Snuggies are there to pay their respects. And this is the Superman cult who first appeared back in the Action Comics weekly days. And they're really happy that their man appears to have risen. One of them goes, And I say to you, sisters and brothers, do not despair. Be not afraid. In our hour of greatest need, Superman shall return to us from beyond the grave. Yes, he will return and save us all. Say the name. Say the name and be free. Superman. 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 You get the idea. Uh, the issue wraps up at the airport with the Kents heading back to Smallville. Mm-hmm. Now, Superman the Man of Steel, issue 21, March 1993, cover date. This is uh, Funeral for a Friend, Part 7, Ghosts, by Louise Simonson and John Bogdanoff. Has a triangle number of 9 for 1993. The cover features Jonathan Kent face down in a field. Martha Kent is running towards him. Uh, this was released January 12th, 1993, for uh, back in uh, Lois Lane, uh, we start off where, with uh, Lois delivering a news report while standing on a bridge. Behind her, Superman is caught in a whirlpool, and he's calling out for her. She doesn't immediately react, and by the time she does, it's too late. Then she wakes up. Mm. But she can still hear roaring waters. Say what? Turns out mm. Metropolis is flooding thanks to that Cadmus charge that exploded in the last issue. And the underworld is in shambles, or like more shambly than usual. Kind of always yeah. looks like a bunch of junk, really. Uh, one of them proclaims the underworld to be history. Oh, tell you what, fingers crossed. Oh, poor underworlders. Uh, <laughs> the Kents arrive back to the farm, and Pa heads out to the barn to tend to some chores. While there, he has a touching flashback into a chat he'd had with Clark when he was a boy. Back at Cadmus, the newsboys rush into the room where Superman is being swabbed and whatnot to report that the tunnels are flooding. Speaking of which, Lois takes a cab to follow up on the flood story. Her hair looks kind of weirdly blonde in this scene. Yeah. I uh, don't know what that's about, but 
Uh, also, her cab driver appears to be Arsenio Hall. Like, <laughs> definitely is Arsenio Hall, gums and all, but uh, whatever. Back in Smallville, Ma makes Pa some oatmeal, which leads to another flashback, uh, an oatmeal-based flashback. Yes. Underground, a pair of underworlders, including the hippy-dippy one from last time, enter the mouth of a giant frog and discover that Cadmus was behind the boom. That flooded the underworld. We rejoin Lois as she's trying to get the scoop of the flooding and overhears that there was an explosion under the Superman monument in Centennial Park. We shift scenes over to the Batcave where Batman considers getting rid of his kryptonite ring. Which is a stupid idea, but uh, Superman gave him this ring back in Action Comics issue 654 back in June of 1990. Uh, This was the concluding chapter of Dark Knight over Metropolis. He handed it to him as a symbol of trust, and so Batman could use it on him should he ever be needed to to stop him. Yeah, a nice friendly uh, gesture. I also also just realized that this made he and Lex uh, ring buddies, didn't it? They were like part of a secret ring. uh, Yeah, they were ring twins. (laughs) Ring twins. uh, (laughs) Kryptonite twins activated. Uh, Batman decides against dumping the ring after all. Which is probably wise. Uh, Now, Lois heads to Centennial Park to follow up on the explosion and finds Mackie Sawyer standing guard, though I swear I thought it was Guy Gardner at first. Yeah, from a distance it looked like that. Yeah. Uh, Now, she shoos Lois away, and as she leaves, she's approached by a giant frog. The story took a turn, I'll tell you what. Yes. It's it's her hippy-dippy underworld correspondent. He pops pops out and presents her with the Cadmus charge. And that's proof enough that Cadmus was behind the explosions, and uh, very likely behind the body snatching as well. Uh, Now, back in Smallville, Pa has another flashback. This time to a conversation he actually had with Clark during the Man of Steel number one back in October 1986. Uh, Now we return to Metropolis to find. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Lois dressed like a frogman here. She's she's in this weird scuba gear out of nowhere. Uh, Now she enters the giant frog and takes part of an underworld assault on Cadmus. Hell, by the time they get to Dryland, she's actually leading the charge. Uh, she comes across Superman's body, but is stopped by a doctor who looks a lot like Tiny Lister <laughs> from No Holds Barred. Yep. It turns out this guy's just as talented a grappler as old Zeus. Uh, Lois takes him down pretty quickly. And then the newsboys, who have joined up with Lois and the gang, warn that Double X and Guardian are on their way. So Hippy Dippy snaps a few pics of the body before they beat a hasty retreat. Lois returns to the planet with to write a scathing article, which she may or may not publish. Hmm. Now we wrap up this issue back in Smallville, where Pa just saw the latest Smallville star headline that reads, Tomb Empty, Superman's Body Believed Stolen. At that point, he passes out in Martha's arms. Hmm. And we're going to wrap it up with Superman, Volume 2, Number 77, March 1993, cover date. Funeral for a Friend, Part 8, The End, by Jan Jurgens. Triangle numbering was number 10 for 1993. Cover features Superman flying toward the light. The words, the end, are at the bottom. Released January 19th, 1993 for $1.25. Super sexy Lex Luthor does some kung fu fighting with his trainer. Even clones gotta stay in shape. His training session is interrupted by the arrival of Lois Lane, who might be wearing one of Clark's suits in this scene. Looks something, like it. Something a little misshapen. Yeah. Uh, it was the 90s. Anyway, she's come to personally <laughs> deliver her unpublished news article that Cadmus swiped Superman's body, being as though he's the only guy in Metropolis with the clout to take them down. Back in Smallville, Jonathan Kent has rushed to the emergency room. where, While he lay in bed, his life begins flashing before his eyes. 
in Metropolis, Jimmy Olsen is approached by a Mr. Thornton, who wants to use one of his photos for the cover of the next issue of Newstime, and he wants Jimmy to pick which one they use. So he chooses the shot of Superman's tattered cape. Now, this commemorative edition of Newstime, The Life and Death of the Man of Steel, would actually be published by DC Comics with that very same tattered cape cover. This was in March 1993. They released it for $2.95. It was like four pages, right? It was like a, I don't remember. <laughs> I, I, I do remember. I remember thinking it was cool that it existed, but it wasn't, mm. it wasn't exactly a full magazine with ads and stuff, but uh, you know, it was all right. Now, we, uh, we hop to a locker room where Lex's kung fu trainer, Sasha, gets attacked by an unseen attacker. Hmm. Now, Lois uh, daydreams about Superman returning to her while Supergirl flies her to the snowy clearing that once housed Habitat, which, if you remember, was destroyed in the Doomsday Fracas. Yeah. Uh, once Supergirl leaves, Lois finds herself surrounded by the Outsiders. No, not those outsiders, and uh, not even the ones from First Issue Special. Not even the one from the S.E. Hinton book? Uh, <laughs> nope, this is the motorcycle gang that Jimmy Olsen ran during the opening arc of the Jack Kirby run on Jimmy Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen. Yes, uh, we have a, a fellow named Yango who goes, This area is wild. This area is deadly. To risk dealing with us, your reasons for being here had better be good. Lois says, I thought the habitat area was peaceful. You guys don't look the part. We're outsiders, and you... Look, I'm just passing through my on my way to Cadmus. I have to get inside their installation. You're a saboteur? No. They have Superman's body, and I've come to take it back. And then someone named Voodoo goes, As you should. Take my bike and ride with Yango. <laughs> so, they ride into Cadmus, however... Upon arrival, they see that they've been beaten to the chase by Supergirl. Mm-hmm. Back in Smallville, Jonathan Kent fights for his life. That evening in Metropolis, Superman's body is returned to Centennial Park. Lois says one last farewell. Before leaving, Lex asks for a moment alone with the body, because he, uh, he wants to pray. Wink, wink. Really, he just wants to wait for everyone to leave, so he can ominously grin and say, gotcha. Yeah, he says, so, I win. I knew I'd bury you one day, you sanctimonious, self-righteous pain. I owned this town until you came along. There wasn't a man on earth who could stop me from doing whatever I pleased. And if anyone dared interfere, they were given a one-way ticket to hell. He then reveals that it was he who killed Sasha in the locker room, just to prove that he could. Wow. Okay. Uh, he's, he's, he's actually going to go even further. He's going to pin the deed on an ex-con LexCorp janitor, because why the hell not? Why not? Just to show what a jerk he can be. Yes. Back in Smallville, they're pounding on Pa's chest. From one eye, he sees his wife Martha holding out her hand, and from the other, Superman. He reaches out and takes Superman's hand and flatlines. The and end. That story will continue, right, as we go into the mm -hmm. next part. That's one of the, you know, one of my, I remember that whole journey of Jonathan Kent uh, yep, really well. Adventures 500, yep. Uh, but, you know, this, this was a monumental series for sure. Uh, you know, everyone remembers, thinks about Superman 75. Obviously, that was the big one and the, the money one. But yeah. this, this story teased out uh, I, I, all the stuff, the Cadmus stuff. You know, you know, I love the Newsboy Legion. Sure. The Goofy, the Underworld. They're like they're just like <laughs> they're just embracing all of the the goofier things uh, of Superman. A lot of are, Bronze Age goof. Yeah. yeah, like stuff stuff that had kind of been shoved aside to some mm -hmm. extent uh, after Crisis. And uh, yeah, I think it's 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 
be enjoyable for a funeral. Sure, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great story. It's this is kind of where you know we were both there at the time, but it, this seemed to be where maybe like two or three issues into this, a lot of the excitement was kind of gone. Yeah, it was bit. a pretty rapid decline on the uh, on how how really you know rabid we were for this story. It uh, it was almost tangible. You'd see the piles getting thicker and thicker on the shelf every single week. For sure. Uh, yeah, people did kind of check out a little bit on this. Obviously, collectors had to have all of them, multiple but, copies. Yes, but uh, <laughs> yeah, they they it didn't. But you know, also this is when literally the you know the whole bubble has popped now and things are starting yeah. to deflate rapidly so it's interesting what comes next in the next part was a little as i remember more popular because that sort of deals with potential resurrections but without giving anything sure. away we're going to talk about some other famous comic book funerals and we got to start with uh, one of the fam- most famous dying person in comics. That's uh, Jean Grey. We're going to talk about Uncanny X-Men issue 138 from October 1980. It was actually still X-Men at the time. It did say Uncanny on the cover, but it wasn't officially changed yet. Huh. This is a uh, story called Elegy by, uh, or is that how you say that? Elegy? Elegy. Elegy. <laughs> Elegy. Elegy. <laughs> <laughs> by Chris Claremont and John Byrne. Now, during the Doc Phoenix saga, Phoenix sacrifices herself, lest she be fully controlled by her darker self's hunger. During her funeral, Scott Summers thinks back on the times they shared together. He offers his condolences to Jean's parents, then quits the X-Men, hopeful that one day he'll find another woman who looks exactly like Jean. And he does, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> then, uh, in Identity Crisis number 1, August 2004 cover date, uh, that was by Brad Meltzer and Rags Morales. Sue Dibney dies. She's the wife of Ralph Dibney, the elongated man. And uh, she's seemingly, in this issue, murdered by Dr. Light. And then it's a quickie funeral by the end of the issue that depicts, depicts a famously tortured Ralph Dibney. Oh, it's horrible, it's yeah. Because like, he's all elongated he's and melted, stretchy yeah. and oh. melting. Uh, but for some reason, the autopsy that reveals Sue's real murderer happens after she's buried. Uh, which seems a little like a backwards, but uh, I guess when you got that Justice League, though, you're exhuming a body. It's no big deal. You just put that on the petty cash and no, no thing. And and to and to you know show that we're in the uh, post 2000s here, they had to reveal that, of course, she was pregnant at the time of her murder. Oh, of so. course, of course. <laughs> we gotta we gotta get that in there. Uh, we've got the Martian Manhunters funeral, Final Crisis Requiem number one. The September 2008 cover date by Peter J. Tomasi and, T- and Doug Monkey. Uh, John was killed by Libra and the Secret Society. In his final moments, John telepathically imprinted the history of Mars and the Martians onto his closest friends. Uh, somewhat famously, during the funeral and during Superman's eulogy, rather than do the whole ashes to ashes bit, he prays for a speedy resurrection, which tells me that they're starting to get it. Yeah, they're starting to figure it out. Uh, in V for Vendetta number 10, that was a May 1989 cover date. That was by DC Comics. Uh, part It's called Part 11, Valhalla, by Alan Moore and David Lloyd. It's Part 11 of the Book 3. I think so, yeah. Just get, it's, just get the, the graphic novel. It, it really gets, you know... Uh, it's like each issue is three parts from the Warrior Anthology, so it's, it's well, but, weird. Yeah. By this point, they were actually printing stuff that had never been printed in Warrior, because Warrior... Yes, yeah, Warrior gone. So yeah. the, this, is, this is the first time that we have saw these funeral... Um, but it, it's it's complex, just like I say. Get the graphic novel. Get the trade. Just, yeah. You'll be all right. But uh, <laughs> in this one, basically, V is dead, so E V burns him. That's yeah, basically what's Viking funeral. Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, in Fallen Sun, the death of Captain America number five. Guess who died? It was Captain America. That was August uh, 2007. He's actually already dead. By Jeff Loeb and John Cassidy. So uh, after he's killed during the events of Civil War, Captain America is buried at Arlington Cemetery at the end of this is the last of a special miniseries dealing with the fallout from his death. Yeah, gotta wonder what the holdup was back in Identity Crisis. They buried Sue like ten minutes later. I know. It's like you know, this this was one of those long like Catholic wakes, right? It went on forever. It's just <laughs> he, he lays in he lays in repose in the living room for a week. It's for a week, you know. <laughs> we also have uh, Batman: Dark Knight Returns number four. This is June 1986 by Frank Miller. Batman has a heart attack while battling Superman and apparently dies. Alfred attempts to burn down Wayne Manor and the Batcave to protect Bruce's secret, but has a stroke and dies himself. During Bruce's funeral, Clark Kent pays his respects. It turns out that Batman staged his death by suspending his vital signs. Clark hears Bruce's ticker start to tick again and winks at Robin. Yeah, this is one of the most famous exchanges in comics, I think, where you yeah. see Superman. It's kind of with a beat-up face, too. He has, like, a bruise on his yeah. lip, and he gives a wink, and Carrie looks like... She's just the cat that swallowed the canary or whatever, but anyway. <laughs> uh, in Green Lantern, Volume 3, Number 81, December 1986, by Ron Mars and Daryl Banks, it was Hal Jordan that had to be laid to rest. After sacrificing himself to reignite the sun at the end of the final night, Hal Jordan's friends, enemies, and associates all convene at a construct cathedral to pay their respects. We discussed this in sort of longer form in our, during our coverage of the final night. Uh, this is episode number 59 in the archives. Mm-hmm. In Tales of the Teen Titans Annual Number 3, it's Terror's Funeral. This is uh, July 1984 by Marv Wolfman and George Perez. This is at the very end of the Judas Contract. Titans turned, quote, Terra is buried by rubble. Her funeral is a small gathering of Titans and Outsiders. Uh, Brian Markov, Geoforce of the Outsiders, was actually Terra's brother. Uh, the Titans choose against revealing that she was really one of the bad guys. Yeah, they, you know, figure, what's, what, what could a let do? Right. Uh, now, for our full discussion on the Judas Contract and uh, some other Titans fun, check out episode 25 in the archives. Yeah, it's a very Titans full episode. It's, it's, it is. Uh, yeah, you know, going back to that, too, this is kind of the one time that's a funeral that I, I, I felt a conflict about because I wasn't, as I remember, it was a, it was Garfield. It was a Changeling that couldn't get over Terra, but the rest of you know, yeah. me, I was like, you know, forget her. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> she almost killed everybody. Anyway, uh, and then they're talking about the other time Superman had a funeral. This is Action Comics number 365, July 1968, by Leo Dorfman and Ross Andrew. Superman remembers the events of his life as his coffin draws nearer to the star Flambron. It's going to be, uh, you know, burned, I guess. When he passes the bizarro world, the inhabitants fling red and white kryptonite at him in mourning. And just before the space casket comes within range of the star, he gets a glimpse of Supergirl, Lois Lane, Lana Lang, and Lori Lamaris, whom Supergirl has brought there in a special space capsule for one last look at Superman. And then they turn back and his coffin is engulfed by Flambron's flames. But as we actually talked about last week, in the, re- in the rest of that story, it gets crazier because the white kryptonite <laughs> cures his virus, he goes back to Earth, he finds out that everything's cool, and he's like, all right, anyway, it's, it's very weird. It Silver is. Age fun. So that is it, folks. That is uh, the entire Funeral for a Friend series, plus the Justice League opener, whatever you want to call that. The bridge, yeah. Yeah, the bridge, exactly. Uh, plus a little bit extra, but if you have... Any other instances of superhero or comic book funerals you want to talk about, or if you want to send some uh, condolences for Superman, <laughs> you can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. 
Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cosmic T-mail history. You can uh, find us on Twitter at cosmic T-mail, and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. See our weekly writings over at weirdsciencedccomics.com and see Chris's daily writings at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. And you have definitely been pulling out some Bronze Age goodies yes, so lately, boy. Kind of hooked, yeah. <laughs> oh, boy, I see, I see those uh, covers with dialogue balloons on them. I am all in. I just can't wait to find Absolutely. out what's going on in there. <laughs> so it's spectacular. It's uh, every single day you do a new DC comic or... An, a DC comic that is never yeah. new, actually. Uh, <laughs> I think when you go back maybe a couple of months sometimes, right? That'll be your sure. most recent one. And, yeah, I uh, try to keep them a little older. Great, great commentary. A uh, lot of pictures throughout. If you want to, you can pretty much almost read along the, most of the comic, plus yep. ads at the end. You, you know, if you're not going to check that out on a regular basis, folks, you're missing out. That's Chris is on InfiniteEarths.com. <laughs> Thank you. Give it a look. Uh, we, all, we also have our shared uh, our shared whatever we're calling it. This is weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com where uh, you know we post our show notes. Uh, I've been I've been putting like videos in like where whenever we cite a video or something. Right. So uh, if folks want to check out what we're referencing, it's it's all right there. All right, that's useful. Maybe I can even do that myself sometime. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think that's all we got from this week, Chris. You got anything else for him? No, we're we're saving our uh, we're saving our thoughts for for the end, which is either two weeks from now, I think. Yeah, it looks like this is going to go to f- at least four episodes, but it's going to yeah. be great. The next the next part of this, which I, I know a lot of you know, is uh, Return of the Superman. Uh, is you know one of my most memorable, most favorite parts of it. That's what it's called, right? Am I am I right? Reign of the Reign of the Superman. Sorry, yeah. yes, I was uh, thinking of that old uh, first Superman, right? The uh, that story by Siegel, right? Well, they call yes. It, anyway, Return to Superman. Anyway, uh, blah, blah, blah. So uh, <laughs> that's that's the part that I found most memorable. Although actually going through this, it's, you know, I always say this is when I walked away from comics, but I clearly stuck around for a lot of this. I was really a lot of it's in, A lot of it's sticking out to you, huh? It is, definitely. I was really yep. interested in what was going on with Superman because like we said before, I thought this could be permanent. Uh, sure. You know, there was definitely a part of me you know, I you know we were teenagers, so we weren't like brand new to the world. There was a part of me that was like, no, they wouldn't. Mm. You know, there's going to be something. But as it was to take away an iconic character like that, that's like you know, taking Jesus out of the Bible, right, or something like that. And actually, and actually, halting publication for several months, exactly. which we'll get we'll get deeper into next week. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll talk more about that. So, uh, but anyway, that's for next week. If that's all you got from Chris, then I think I'm going to tell everyone to keep it on the treadmill morbidly. When it's my time I know you'll tailor a new suit for me And buy a new tie So I look this good Boy, you were right You said only the good ones die young Never in my life Did I look this good? Everyone welcome to my funeral Everyone I know better be wasted You know I would pull one up Cause the way I lived it was amazing ooh, ooh, ooh. All of my friends are in the
Tarzan wasn't a ladies' man. He'd just come along and scoop him up under his arm like that. Quick as a cat in the jungle. Clark Kent, now there was a real gent. He would not be caught sitting around in no jungle scheme, dumb as an ape doing nothing. Superman never made any money. Solomon Grundy, and sometimes I despair. The world will never see another man. Hello, and welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, episode number sixty-five, where we go back, back to, the, to past the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on ChrisandReggie.podbean.com and on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, and by encoded Kryptonian radio transmission. We are doing, uh, this is part three of our look at Death of Superman, the uh, 25th anniversary of that DC Comics event, and this one we'll deal with The Reign of the Superman, part one, yes. uh, which happened after a little hiatus that we'll talk about in publishing, but uh, along with some new uh, Superman to reign, we had an all-new creative team. Uh, or teams, or some new creative teams. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we had some. We had some new, uh, some new blood into the fold here. Uh, wait, wait, most wait. of them. Oh, go ahead. Oh, most of them are for the uh, the one shots that we're going to discuss very briefly. But <laughs> but but this is something. This is more evidence to me at the time that they were making a change. You know that that yes. this change might be permanent. Like you know, creator change makes you feel like, oh wait a second, they are actually mm-hmm. doing something here. So anyway, let's let, let's start talking about these fine folk. Absolutely. We'll start with uh we're saying Carl Kiesel. Is that what yep, I'm That's it. That's okay. what I was saying. <laughs> now he was born January seventh, nineteen fifty nine in Victor, New York. Uh, his biggest childhood influences were Jack Kirby and Milton Caniff uh, of Terry of the Pi- and the Pirates fame. Uh, Carl spent uh, time at the Joe Cubitt School for Illustration and Hartford University. Uh, for eight months, he worked as an art director for the for at a Hartford Woman as uh, a magazine for women. Go figure. There you go. In uh, Hartford County, well titled, Connecticut. Yeah. Sure, that's exactly what it says on the tin. Uh, now, he moved to New York City to break into comics, and he was noticed by uh, Sal Amendola at a comics convention. Uh, Sal was one of uh, a lot of artists brought over to D.C. when Dick Giordano was hired as editor back in 1969. Uh, Kiesel's first work for D.C. appeared in New Talent Showcase number 4. This was cover dated April 1984, and in there he was inking Stan Wachs pencils in the story Bobcat. Uh, he also worked on the series Amazing Man and uh, provided inks over the pencils of George Perez's History of the DC Universe and uh, inked over John Byrne on DC Legends and early on in Superman Volume 2. Uh, despite, despite getting plenty of illustration work, Carl always wanted to write comic books. He would send lots of suggestions to his, co- suggestions to his comic writers, essentially uh, pitching some ideas. Uh, notably, John Byrne referred to him as Carl the Kibitza. <laughs> 
John Byrne. Uh, John <laughs> Byrne, speaking Yiddish. Bless your heart. Bless Indeed. Now, with his then-wife, Barbara Kiesel, uh, he co-wrote a Hawk and Dove miniseries in 1988 that uh, we mostly know for uh, introducing us to Rob Liefeld, mm, man. That's right. Now, uh, Kiesel's first work for Marvel Comics was inking a vision story in Avengers Spotlight number 23. This was coveted in October 1989. Uh, not long after that, he began writing The Adventures of Superman, beginning with issue 500 of the Cameo in 500, and we'll be discussing that very shortly. That's right, but uh, we're going to a veteran of the industry here, uh, Walt Simonson, born September 2nd, 1946, in Knoxville, Tennessee. In 64 or 65, Simonson discovered Marvel Comics Thor by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, and he read the title for four years. After graduating from Amherst with a degree in geology, Simonson took a year off and enrolled as an art major at the Rhode Island School of Design, graduating in 1972. Simonson's first professional published comic book work was illustrating writer Len Wein's story Cyrano's Army in DC's Weird War Tales No. 10, January 1973 cover date. Walt began writing and drawing Thor with issue 337, that was November 1983, and beginning with Thor number 367, that was in May 1986, Sal Buscema took over art duties, but Walt continued to write until issue 382, that would be the August 1987 cover date, and this is often his most celebrated work, although this, yes. by no means, we've already glossed over a bunch of other stuff he did. <laughs> Absolutely. These are some compressed biographies here for, the, uh, for space reasons. Uh, Simonson became writer of the Fantastic Four with issue number 334, that was December 1989 cover, and three issues later began penciling and inking as well. For issues 347 to 349, he collaborated with Art Adams, introducing the new Fantastic Four, consisting of Wolverine, Spider-Man, Ghost Rider, and the Hulk. Simonson left the Fantastic Four with issue 354 in July 1991, just in time to memorialize Superman's untimely death. After drawing RoboCop vs. Terminator, that is. Let's not forget that. Mm -hmm. We did a show on that in the archives, too. That's in the archives, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Now, uh, we have Dennis. uh, We're saying Yankee, right? Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you every time we're naming a name. That's fine. (laughs) You know, (laughs) as long as as you and I agree, we decided that's that's all that matters. Yeah. Yeah, so he was born April 13th, 1950, in Cleveland, Ohio. He, he earned his BFA from the Cleveland Institute of Art. Uh, Yankee's first published work was in a, a 19, it was a 1974 illustration in DC Comics' House of Mystery. But his profi- professional career took off a decade later when he was hired to ink Paul Neary on Marvel's Captain America, and he did that for two years. I uh, moved over to DC Comics in 1987 and inked the final nine issues of Electric Warrior over Jim Bikey's pencils. I uh, then inked the four-issue miniseries The Phantom, penciled by Joe Orlando and written by Peter David. Around the same time, he became the regular inker on Adventures of Superman and Superman, mostly inking uh, over Jerry Ordway's pencils. Uh, he then spent nine years as the anchor of Superman: The Man of Steel, which is mostly over John Bogdanov, and that'll be uh, that, that'll be that'll include some issues we're going to discuss. Yeah, bring it right up to the present. Uh, there's also William Mesner Loeb's, born William Francis Loeb's Jr. on September on February 19th, 1949, in Ferndale, Michigan. He's got a lot of names. I know. I really just jamming him in there, <laughs> you know. Uh, William's right arm was amputated above the shoulder in infancy because of a cancerous tumor he writes and draws with his left hand. His first comics work was for Power Comics Company and a Noble Comics Justice Machine with Mike Gustavich in 1981. 
His first ongoing series was Journey, the Adventures of Wolverine McAllister, about a 19th century Michigan frontier life, which he both wrote and illustrated. It was published in 1983 and to 1986 by Aardvark, Vanheim, and then Fanagraphics. In 1988, he began writing The Flash with issue number 15 and continued through number 61. And in 1990, Mesner Loebs became the writer of the Batman newspaper comic strip and wrote the strip until its cancellation the following year. And then he attended a very special uh, event here that we'll be talking mm-hmm. about today. Now, the next guy we're going to talk about is, is a, we, we want to repeat that these are very compressed mm-hmm. bios because uh, we're going to be discussing one of the giants of Superman history. Here. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, this is uh, Mr. Kurt Swan. Uh, Douglas Curtis Swan was born February 17th, 1920, probably on Earth. I'm <laughs> pretty sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, while his comrades in the 34th Division eventually went into combat in North Africa and Italy, Swan spent most of World War II working as an artist for the GI magazine Stars and Stripes. While at Stars and Stripes, Swan met writer France Heron, who uh, eventually directed him to DC Comics. Uh, apart from a few months of night classes at the Pratt Institute under the GI Bill, Swan was entirely self-taught. Wow. Uh, and, yeah, it's crazy. Uh, initially, Swan drew many different features, including Tommy Tomorrow and Gangbusters, uh, but slowly he began gravitating towards the Superman line of books. His first job penciling the iconic character was in Superman number 51. This is volume one, of course, back in March-April 1948. Now, research shows that Swan began penciling the Superboy series with its fifth issue. That was November 1949 cover written by Bill Finger. Uh, He drew the first comics meeting of Batman and Superman in Superman number 76. This is the May-June 1952 issue. Uh, the two issue, the two heroes uh, began teaming on a regular basis in World's Finest Comics, number 71, July-August 1954, in a story that was also drawn by Swan. Yeah, Swan, before that, at that time, you know, World's Finest was a comic that was coming out, but it was two separate stories, Superman, Batman, yes. drawn. Superman would get a story, Batman would get exactly, a story. Exactly, so, so this is when they would meet. So, But for a long time, both characters were essentially drawn by one or two people. So th- mm-hmm. this was really, I think, a, you know, someone else's take on these two characters, I think, was really something, you know, the core characters of DC Comics, obviously. Sure. Uh, anyway, that's just I just wanted to throw out a little note on that. Absolutely. Now, uh, Swan felt that his breakthrough came when he was assigned the art duties on Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen, in 1954. Uh, he would become the definitive artist of Superman in the early 60s with a, quote, new look to the character that replaced Wayne Boring's big chin version, yeah. the, uh, the, the old man-looking Superman. Yeah. Uh, he always looked like an older guy. Exactly. He always looked exactly, that's exactly right. He looked like an older kind of authoritarian mm-hmm. figure, and uh, he could only ever be seen in, like, Three poses, you know. That was, you know, was a kind of, <laughs> in a three-quarter pose, a profile, and now, you know, maybe a, a third one. Yeah, and unless he was smiling, he always looked mean. Always oh, looked uh, angry. <laughs> and, uh, had a very big brow, you know. Yeah, he was. He was. He, he was did. the. Uh, he was the stern but fair dad. You know, that was all. Yes, he was. Now, uh, after uh, DC's uh, 1985 12-issue limited series, Crisis on Infinite Earths, and with the impending 1986 revision of Superman by writer-artist John Byrne, Swan was released from his duties on the Superman comics. His last work would be the non-canonical uh, 1986 story, Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow, written by Alan Moore. After this, Swan continued to do occasional minor projects for DC, including the artwork of what is thought to be one of the rarest Superman comics ever published, called This Island Bradman. This is written by David P. Levin, a comic book that was privately commissioned in 1988 by real estate tycoon Jeffrey Bradman as a bar mitzvah gift for his son. And then he contributed... 
to this thing. Yeah, and without making this too much of a Kurt Swan love fest, you know, because it could be. Yeah. It really could be. I, you know, I really just got to throw out there that we're talking about a guy that essentially defined the look of Superman to this day. People, to this day. people more or less follow his design as far as like facial features and and how you space out the head and. uh I think looking at his art, just compared to what it was today, is today, it might look very plain or whatever. Yeah. You, know, you might think of it as being a mid-century kind of a look. But you talk to anyone from that time, it was like a shift in comic books where suddenly it was like, wow, this is someone drawing realistically instead of mm-hmm. uh, sort of loosely or whatever. This was so. It's the fact that he's self-trained. I think is really a Amazing. fascinating aspect yeah. of him. Yeah, he definitely had a great grasp. Anyway, a couple other people here. We got Trevor Scott, who was raised in Los Angeles, South Bay Area. In 1992, Trevor began his career thanks to advice from fellow artist Art Thibair, Thibair, and from sure. work given by editor Mark Mike Carlin. Uh, this would have been inking the cover to Action Comics 677. That was May 1992 cover date, and he wasn't too far off from what we're going to talk about today. And then there's also June Brigman, born October 25, 1960, in Atlanta, Georgia. June attended Georgia State University and the University of Georgia. She broke into comics with AC Comics in 1983, providing color for the Light Runner trade paperback by Lamar Waldron and Rod Wigman. She then penciled the cover to AmeriComics number no. 2. That was a June 1983 cover date. After being briefly hired by DC, June moved quickly to Marvel, where she co-created the Power Pack with Louise Simonson. First issue of that was Power Pack number no. 1. May 1984 cover. For the next seven years, Brigman worked exclusively for Marvel, mostly on short runs. She also contributed illustrations to the various editions of the official handbook to the Marvel Universe. In 1994, she started drawing Supergirl full-time, and a year before that, she drew Supergirl in one of the books that we'll be discussing today. Mm-hmm. We also have Dennis Rodier. He was born somewhere, sometime, in Canada, we're thinking. Uh, we're we're imagining he's one of those uh, French-speaking Quebecois, uh, yeah, <laughs> from, uh, most, from the looks of it. Most likely. Now, in uh, 1986, uh, Rodier began a career as an illustrator, which would transform which would transform him two years later into a comic book artist. Uh, his first work for DC Comics was a Batman story, published as a bonus book that came with Detective Comics number 589, his August 1988 cover. This was a uh, bonus book number five. For the Love of Ivy by Lewis Clark, Steve Pearsall, and Dean Haspiel, and inked by Rodier. The the bonus books were were tryout books basically yeah. for uh, new creative teams and whatnot. Uh, now Rodier has worked on such world famous characters as Batman, Captain America, and Wonder Woman. It was his work on Superman that garnered Rodier's greatest acclaim, especially on the award winning The Death of Superman story arc. Say that's right where we are right now. How do we <laughs> yes. have that? It always seems to work out that way for us. Uh, but before we jump into the return, let's take a little look at a couple of specials that came out in the in between time because all four Superman titles went on a three month hiatus after Funeral for a Friend that we covered last episode. Which mm-hmm. also, again, Chris, this is more evidence to me. This was something permanent. You know, they were really doing it's a something. Done deal, you know, this yeah. is like this could be so. Uh, yeah, this was to imply that like they were really putting to bed. I, you know, I never. Do, do you know the explanation for why they did this, or did they say we were doing a creative retooling on the fly? Or yeah, but, I think uh, it was just to. Uh, I think they wanted to show what the world would be like without Superman I comics think, in the I, world. That's, really, that's all yeah. it was. Yeah, that they, they were letting you know this could happen, and maybe that could be our moment of silence to reflect on uh, what had happened. Yeah, it's a, but. It's, it felt definitive. It felt something was uh, 
they were doing something purposefully, you know. So, yeah. um, but at that time, we all we did see a few uh, things. We saw Legacy of Superman number one that had a March 1993 cover date that was released February 2nd, 1993, for two dollars and fifty cents. Had a few stories in there. Uh, one of them was the Guardians of Metropolis by Carl Kiesel and Walt Simonson. At Cadmus, the docs try to procure a tissue sample from Superman, while Westfield and Guardian argue, and they do that a lot, that's really all they do, and the newsboys yeah. enter with a disc <laughs> containing Superman's DNA code, and they probably all clambered in the room, you know, like a uh, pack of uh, puppies Like a mob. Yeah. <laughs> Guardian suggests they just clone him. I mean, he's already a clone. Yeah. I don't know what, one, what would happen after that. Probably would have ten eyes or something. Uh, Westfield introduces Guardian to a super soldier, soldier called Auron, who himself is another clone of the original Guardian, Jim Harper. Auron plugs the DNA data disk into the, uh, oop, I jumped ahead, sorry, the Guardians fight, the newsboys, and Westfield gives chase. Auron plugs the DNA disk into a drive in gear, and then destroys the original disk. Claiming that Superman's DNA is too valuable to risk it falling into careless hands. He then takes off for the cosmos with DNA's, Superman's DNA in his wrist or whatever. Yes, and uh, we're, we're happy that he's gone. Um, <laughs> we've got another story here called Sister Act. This is by Roger Stern and Dennis Rodier. This is a Rosenthorn story. Uh, MPD-addled uh, Rosalind Rose Forrest first appeared in Superman's Girlfriend, Lois Lane, number 105, October 1970 cover, created by Robert Kaniger and Ross Andrew. In this story, a VCR is stolen. And recovered. Oh, the pieces are all coming together now. I know. <laughs> We've got a gangbuster of suicide slums. So suicide slum. Uh, <laughs> that is the next story. This is by Jerry Ordway and Dennis Yankee. Uh, gangbuster busts a gang. Hey. Um, but uh, everybody seems to know that it's uh, Delgado under the mask, and uh, since there's no evidence to make his uh, gang busting stick and lead to an arrest. He might get sued by the people he beat up. So, uh, <laughs> such is life for our man Delgado. I know, uh, really. <laughs> Inspector Anderson uh, offers him a bus ticket out of town, and uh, we'll find out very soon if he took him up on that. I, I hope he does, frankly. It really is probably a good idea. but uh, It would be the best. You quit while you're behind. Really? <laughs> I just can't catch a break. They really should, they really should have, like, a, uh, you know, you zoom in on him at the end of every single one. He's just like, has a catchphrase. Ah, I done it again. Anyway. <laughs> uh, two more stories in this issue. There was Funeral Pyres by William Mesner Lobes and Kurt Swan. Lex Luthor sets up a gang called the Terror Masters. Ooh. And also Sinbad and his sister Soraya. Uh, Sinbad, David Nazur, first appeared in Superman Volume 2, number 48, October 1990. And he was pretty lame. Then there's also Vanishing Point by Dan Jurgens and Trevor Scott. At Vanishing Point, this is, you know, where time is ending and being compiled, Wave Rider and the Linear Men visit the Library of Time to relive the death of Superman. They have a hard time getting through it, but take solace in the knowledge that living outside of time, they already know how this will shake out. Uh, they ain't telling. Anyway, uh, for more on these geeks, check out our Weird Comics History coverage of Zero Hour, Crisis in Time, which is episode number 20 in the archives. Mm -hmm. Now, Legacy of Superman wasn't the only special. The other one here, and we're going to talk about this one even briefer, is uh, Supergirl and Team Luther, number one, April 1993 cover date, released March 9th, 1993, for $2.50. Uh, now, Team Luther is 
you know, you kind of could, you could probably figure it out. It's Lex Luthor's uh, security detail. Uh, they first appeared in Superman Volume Two, Number Twenty Eight. This is a February of '89 cover. Uh, they were created by Roger Stern and Kerry Gamble. Uh, now, the first story is called The Future of Metropolis by Roger Stern and June Brigman. Uh, in it, Lex Luthor II attempts to get his team the same special authority Superman had from the city of, of, of Metropolis. Basically, he wants them to be looked at as a uh, yeah. as an authority figure and uh, be above the law at the same time. Sure. Uh, the second story, Shelter, by Louise Simonson and Dennis Rodier. Is about the underworlders. Uh, they they're fleeing the flood and they're looking for shelter, and uh, that's all the people need to know. You just don't like the underworlders. That's all there hate is them. to it. I, I hated it when Marvel had them and they called them the Morlocks. Uh, it's <laughs> not my favorite. What about the mole? What about the moloids? There are the underworlders. Anyway, you don't like any of the, anything that lives underground. You don't want to know about any. And I just want to again, especially if they have red curly hair. We're going to be talking a little bit more about you know our um, memories of this event uh, after. Toward the end of the episode, but this was another thing. Plus, the fact that before this, the two issues of Action Comics were Supergirl and Action Comics. Mm. I remember I didn't really think Supergirl was going to replace Superman. I figured they'd have to maintain some sort of a Superman for reasons. But I wondered if Supergirl sure. would become the main, the one in front. But anyway, uh, it was all it was all all mysteries to be solved, folks, at the time. Indeed. So in uh, previews, uh, Diamond previews for February 1993, this would have been volume three, number two, for books to ship in April 1993. This ship with a black embossed cover featuring Superman. Uh, the headline reads, he's back, but how? Ooh. And there's a, a, an interview with Mike Carlin inside that we're not going to try to uh, impugn Mr. Carlin by doing his voice, but we are going to trade. <laughs> we are going to trade them back and forth. <laughs> um so, previews asked, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the next Superman storyline? As far as we can gather, various heroes, either familiar or not, decide to impersonate the Man of Steel. But our readers will probably have heard of all sorts of crazy theories by the time they read this. Yes, uh, Mike responds with, come April, four people will show up in Metropolis, all claiming to be Superman. The story lies in finding out which, if any, is the real thing. They may be pieces of the real Superman. Then again, Superman may have nothing to do with any of them. Could any of these four Supermen actually be a familiar character? Sure, that's very possible. The preview's hot take is that this all goes back to Cadmus, to which Mike says... Actually, that's one rumor among many. Cadmus will factor into the new storyline, though not exclusively. Have you heard from John Byrne at all? He keeps asking me when I'm going to call him to bring Superman back. Laughter. We're still friends. Uh, he did a great stint on the book, and we've been building on the on his stuff right from the start. How do you deal with your more outspoken critics? For example, Peter David, in a, re in a recent comic buyer's guide column, genuinely seemed disgusted by what he called DC's chop-looking joy over all the attention generated by the death of Superman. That kind of sentiment has been around since the day we announced our intentions. You know, the whole, well, they're only doing this to sell more comic books kind of attitude. Well, maybe I'm wrong, but I always thought that's, that that's exactly what we're in the business to do. I just don't understand what the problem is. If you're interested in the story, good, buy it. If not, then don't. And he continues and says, I can honestly say that Peter David wasn't at the meeting where this whole thing was hatched. I was. Here's a simplified version of how it went. Dan Jurgens said, hey, why don't we kill Superman? And so Doomsday was born. Then somebody said, okay, what comes next? 
So we created a funeral for a friend. But not once did anybody say, oh boy, let's do something that'll make us all millions of dollars. Yeah, they only said tens of thousands. Anyway, uh, previews that asks, (laughs) uh, what do you think of the whole media circus surrounding the story? Quite a few people have complained about all the hype. But if anything, we spent more time trying to keep our plans as quiet as possible. We're happy to be in the spotlight if it shines on us at the right time. In other words, publicity is great. But publicity a year in advance of your book hitting the stands is virtually worthless. I mean, at the point where you finally do publish, who's going to care? We don't regret the attention, but there's absolutely no way any company can generate this much hype on command again. Though, I don't understand what's so wrong about wanting to sell your wares. If you're a shoemaker, you want people to buy shoes. How long before the Superman titles return to a regular continuity? Now, this one actually brought me back, because I had forgotten about this little uh, this snippet here. Uh, Mike says, here's how it works. Adventures of Superman ships around the 15th. Two weeks later, all four titles featuring the Reign of the Superman storyline will ship on the same day. I forgot all about that. Which, which actually uh, probably explains the three-month hiatus also by itself. It could be, time. sure. Uh, he continues to say, uh, two weeks after that, the Superman books will return to their regular dovetailed continuity. And then they wrapped up with uh, previews asking, do you miss Superman? Do I miss him? No, not really. Why? Because I know where he is. Boing! And that was it. (laughs) Uh, Very good. So uh, here's the solicit for Adventures of Superman number 500 by various folks. This solicit reads, hey kids, he's back, sort of. The Superman line of titles returns this month, beginning with this oversized landmark issue. Superman is still dead, and Pa Ken lies in a coma. Somewhere on the other plane of existence, father and adopted son meet, drawn to the light at the end of a long tunnel. Together, they join forces to save each other from passing on to the other side. But while Pa's will to live suddenly brings him back to consciousness... What became of Superman? In the end, we are teased with four four-page sightings of Superman, leading to this month's ongoing Superman titles. This collector's edition contains an eight-page section exclusive to the direct market, including an all-new splash page and no ads. The cover to this issue features a uniquely enhanced, removable, translucent, translucent cover panel of a painted image by Jerry Ordway. And also worth noting in that same uh, edition of previews, DC had us listed for the fourth printing of Superman number 75. But uh, this is clearly when this copy was written for the retailers and not for the buyers, yeah. right? You can tell. I mean, the whole, they, give, they give away the whole issue right here, but there's a reason. And there's more about the technical you know, uh, sure, sale, the side of it, you know, uh, it's and funny. I left, uh, there was like another paragraph of all the, we're, we're going to read all the, the solicits coming right. up here. And, uh, I left a, a paragraph off where it would, where it goes into detail on the variant covers and whatnot. So I didn't think we needed to go through that. No, we're going to be talking about but that. It anyway. shows that, you know, now you read the solicit, it's like a par- it's like a, a bland paragraph that may or may not have to do with the actual comic you're <laughs> yes. reading, you know, but this is like down to the ending of the book is right there, you know? Anyway. <laughs> yes. Now, uh, we've introduced it, so now let's talk about it. Adventures of Superman number 500. Stories called Life After Death by Jerry Ordway and Tom Grummet. This has a triangle number of 11 for 1993. And there were two versions released, or three if we do the platinum, but we're not going to do that. Uh, we have the, the white-bagged collectible version. This is, a, you know, the opposite of the black bag. Uh, the S on this one is not bleeding. Now, this features, uh, if you were to open it up, it would feature a sort of vellum, ethereal Superman reaching toward the reader. But uh, he's really reaching toward the hand of Jonathan Kent. 
the newsstand edition is Superman and Pa back to back, surrounded by all sorts of ghastly bad guys. Uh, now it's a green cover too. You'll know it if you see it. Uh, this book was released April 13th, 1993 for $2.50 for the newsstand because it is an oversized issue and $2.95 for the deluxe edition. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the uh, the newsstand cover was the trade paperback cover for this, at least for, I don't know if it still is, but it was for uh, one time. At, at a time, yeah. Yeah, so that's where, that's where I can really remember it in my mind. But uh, anyway, story picks up right where we left off three months ago. Jonathan Kent had just flatlined. However, in the afterlife, he has just clasped hands with his son Clark he's not there to join his super son however he's there to stop him from going toward the light the superman ghost compels Jonathan to return to the land of the living he says go back rejoin the living Jonathan Kent the voices whisper that your time has not yet come Superman turns his back to Jonathan and joins a pair of cloaked individuals. It would it really seems that Jonathan sees them as these those burn style Kryptonians with the ruffles mm. around their uh yeah. black <laughs> cloak, whatever that is. Uh, uh Clark walks into the light and that's not gonna stop Pa. He too flies toward the light. Now back in Smallville, Jonathan has just been injected with lidocaine, which breaks the flatline into intermittent intermittent blip blips. Uh a nurse is able to pull Martha away for a cup of coffee so the doctors can you know, get to work. Sure. Uh, outside the exam room, uh, she's surprised to see that Lois has arrived from Metropolis to check in. Speaking of Metropolis, let's go there and meet up with Gangbuster, who breaks up a drug deal. <laughs> or does he? Nope. Not really. No, actually, he, he, he breaks up an undercover cop sting, attempting to bust a big-time dealer. <laughs> and such is life for Jose Delgado. Yeah, the cop says, well, hot shot, we've been setting that dealer up for weeks. He was going to introduce us to his bosses. And Gangbuster replies with, how was I supposed to know? Look, let me just leave. You can cover this somehow. No deal. Didn't you know there was a warrant out for your arrest? Now, never one to quit while he's behind. Gangbuster then starts cop busting. He judo throws an officer to the ground and hops onto a fire escape to, uh, Escape firing guns. Hey, that worked well for me. <laughs> Being as though he's, this is still Jose Delgado, he does take a bullet to the bicep during his escape. I mean, he's, he's lucky uh, the fire escape didn't just clatter and fall off the right? bicep, frankly. There's <laughs> <laughs> always something wrong. <laughs> no, an officer gives chase, which forces Jose to leap off the building and into the conveniently located Metropolis Harbor. Just think of all that bacteria getting into his bullet wound. <laughs> now the first cop goes, what in heck made him jump like that? Second cop says, I don't know, suicidal tendencies? Let's get some divers here to search for a body. Now back in heaven, maybe? I don't know. Uh, pa is dressed like Sergeant Rock's grandfather, and he's stomping through a war zone, bayonet in hand. He stumbles in onto a battlefield where his entire unit lie dead. Yeah, he says into a radio, Mission Command, do you read? Over! And he thinks to himself, Radio's dead. Everything dead. Death is all around me. But I'm alive! Jonathan makes his way through the battlefield and into some brush. Passing into a clearing, he spots a hut that is burning. He rushes inside to find a young man who looks a lot like his brother Harry. Whoa. Because, uh, well, it is. Uh, it's, well, a near-death manifestation of him, anyway. Pa says, Harry! Harry! What in heaven's name are you doing in Korea? John, don't you remember? I fell under the thresher machine back on Pa's farm. 
I'm dead, Johnny. We're all dead here. Well, that's pretty downright grisly. I got to see. It's like a Stephen King novel all of a sudden. <laughs> uh, Jonathan lifts his brother up. Go get him. The boy don't belong, Johnny. And then a wild Kami approaches. Yes, he goes, you, you do not belong, Jonathan Kent. The flyer does. Damn your lion eyes. You go straight to hell. And with that, he punches the red's head. Yeah, boom. Wow, that's a little that World War II grit will take him out any time. In Metropolis, back in Metropolis, Cat Grant gets her butt pinched by Vincent Edge. Vincent Edge is the father of Morgan Edge. Uh, he's also tied up with Dark Side and Apocalypse, so he's he's a bad guy. Uh, he made his first appearance in Superman Volume Two, Number Thirty Five, September nineteen eighty nine, and was created by Jerry Ordway and Kerry Gamble. And you know, while we're introducing people, Cat Grant made her first appearance right at the very start of the post-crisis Superman era in Adventures of Superman Number Four Hundred Twenty Four, January nineteen eighty seven cover. She was created by Marv Wolfman and Jerry Ordway. And hey, while we're here, Gangbuster made his first appearance in Adventures of Superman 428, May 1987, and was also created by Marv and Jerry. So back to the story. Yeah, just butt-pinched Cat says, Vincent Edge, this is the 90s. I could press sexual harassment charges against you. <laughs> you can press yourself up against me, Catherine. I may be old, but I'm not dead. Smooth. Uh, we learn he's a sweet-talking Ms. Grant because he needs a favor. You see, Jimmy Olsen hasn't shown up for the last two weeks' worth of Turtle Boy tapings. He also asked about her love life. Who, who does he think he is, Tommy Wiseau? Yeah, really. How you doing, Catherine? How is your love life? How is your love life? Now, <laughs> she reveals that she and Jose are on the outs because he is Jose Delgado. And uh, she starts sobbing. Smelling blood. Well, at least we hope that it's bloody smelling. Yes. Vinny decides to ch- to ask Cat out on a date, and she accepts. What? <laughs> he says, "You shouldn't be alone tonight. Why don't you bring your son, and we'll all have dinner together." <laughs> I, I I don't know. Oh, oh, what's wrong with me? We'd be happy to accept your invitation. Now, excuse me. I've got to redo my mascara. The Superman creative team in no way endorses the use of butt pinching as a way to get dates, by the way. That's no, uh, only no, no. he'll get his. We want to make end. that clear. Yeah. Speaking of Turtle Boy, over in the prison, the trickster's cellmate is watching a rerun on his teeny tiny television and laughing like an addle brain methane gas producing jackass. The trickster, he paints with words. Yes, he goes, What is so funny? And the jackass says, <laughs> It's called Turtle Boy, and it's the baddest new show. I mean, it's so bad, but, like, the producers are so... I don't know, it's, it's you know, very 90s. You know, just in case we forgot what decade the story happens no, really. <laughs> uh, Some of the uh, outfits would clue you into that. <laughs> right, and hairstyles. Yeah, definitely the hairstyles. Uh, <laughs> the trickster pours water into the teeny tiny television to put an end to the turtling. Good one. The, speaking of Turtle Boy, again, the, is this issue really about Turtle Boy, I think, actually? It might be. Uh, we next back to a pilot. <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> we next join Jimmy Olsen at the Daily Planet building where he is given an assignment. While there, he's approached by Ron Troop, or Troupe. Ron Troop is going to be the guy to get the Clark Kent gig while he's missing. He first appeared in Adventure Superman 480 in July 1991 cover and was created by Dan Jurgens and Jerry Ordway. Troop has some Turtle Boy related phone messages for Jim, who makes it pretty clear that his days on the half shell are behind him. Mm-hmm. Now back in Smallville, Lois conf- uh, she comforts Ma Kent, 
by telling her that she doesn't believe that there's an afterlife that uh, that she'll see Jonathan in when she passes on. I mean, there's a time and a place for this. This woman just lost her son and potentially her husband, right? Come on. Suddenly, suddenly Lois thinks it's Thanksgiving dinner. I don't it's, know. It's actually it's time, time to get existential <laughs> about it. You know? now, speaking of the afterlife, Jonathan Kent is still trudging through Korea. Uh, he steps on a rotten plank and falls into a pit. A man approaches the hole and tosses him a rope, a man John believes to be his own paw. Well, it's not Pa's paw at all. <laughs> Instead, it's just a demonic monster. In the background, we can see Blaze sitting on a throne made of skulls. This is a nice touch. Yeah, I think you get them from Wayfair. Um, now, Blaze is the daughter of the Wizard Shazam and the sister of Satanus. Uh, her first appearance was Action Comics number 655, July 1990, created by Roger Stern and Bob McCloud. She offers him a deal. Devils always seem to do that kind of That's thing. That's kind of their motif, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll bet she wants Jonathan and Martha Kent's marriage, though, right? No, no, this is actually pretty boilerplate. She, you know, she wants his soul. Then what's going to happen to Aunt May in the end? I mean, without how the deal works. <laughs> <laughs> no, Jonathan decides that, uh, screw it, I'll just try my luck in the pit. And he lets go of the line he was holding. Uh, he continues to fall until everything goes white. He suddenly finds himself floating before Kismet. And Kismet, uh, basically think Marvel's Eternity character... Mm but with boobs. Yep. Uh, she first appeared in Adventures of Superman number 494 just a few months earlier in September 1992 cover and was created by Jerry Ordway and Tom Grummet. She sets him on the right path, perhaps to save the Airman. Mm, which is to say she sends him to the world of Krypton. And we just re-uploaded that, didn't we, Chris? <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's Cosmic Treadmill, episode four in the archives, and you should be able to find it because it is uh, recently uploaded. Right on the top. <laughs> yeah. Now, when Pa gets his bearings, he sees his boy being carried by a gaggle of Kryptonians in a sedan. Yeah, he rushes over in an attempt to wake Superman, but he's cut off by the Kryptons. He says, open your eyes, boy. They're taking you the wrong way. Yeah, to which a Kryptonian, in quotes, cleric says, You are an outsider with no respect to things Kryptonian. Your legacy beckons Kal-El. Now we slip on back to Metropolis where Gangbuster pulls himself out of the drink. Uh, well, a fellow named High Pockets actually pulls him out. Uh, he suggests they head over to Bibbo's, but Jose's got to stop by the bus station first. Speaking of Bibbo, uh, he first, Bibbo Bibowski is his full name, and he first appeared in Adventures of Superman number 428 in May 1987, cover date, and was created by Marv Wolfman and Jerry Ordway, and is based on a friend of Ordway's named Jojo Kaminsky. Mm-hmm. I guess uh, Ordway's parents owned a, a, like a tavern or something when he was growing up, and I there was a. I seem to recall something like that. Maybe, yeah. maybe even it was lighter than that, like a soda, a convenience store, a candy store, something like that. Whatever something it was. Like that. Yeah. And there was a like a salty old sailor that would come in, come in <laughs> and Bibbo, <laughs> all in the is. corner. Uh, now back in the afterlife, Pa continues to shout at Superman, and it finally seems like he's getting through. Superman looks at his Kryptonian compatriots and sees them for what they truly are. Monsters. Demons, even. Superman pummels the baddies, like in a page, very quickly. (laughs) Now, Pa suggests that maybe Superman can't really die. And the only reason that he's going through the motions here is due to the fact that he was raised by mortals, 
and was, you know, was bred with the concept of mortality, hmm. which is a food for thought that we won't go into here. No, it, it, but it is something <laughs> to think about it. It's all. It is very, it's very, uh, it's very uh, food thoughty. Yeah. Uh, then the, <laughs> now the pair approach a black hole amid the light, and considering, you know, the white light brings it to the afterlife, maybe the black hole bring it back. So they fly <laughs> toward it. When, uh-oh, the Ozman cometh. Whoa. And that, uh, that's Jor-El to the non-rebirth among us. I know. You really pulled out a very recent uh, call mm-hmm. out there. Bless your heart. I'm Cause, dating uh, this, this, this <laughs> episode. <laughs> I'm, sure that, I'm sure that the uh, Jor-El as Oz storyline will go on for years and years to come, Chris. Don't worry. Uh, <laughs> Paz says, what? No, we're too close. Superman turns and goes, Jor-El, my true father? Jor-El says, you belong with your mother and me in the light. Can't you see that it has to be this way? And then it, it, it's amazing here. Pa manifests a shovel. Yeah. I mean, he was just carrying a bayonet. That's his superpower. <laughs> he, he manifests a shovel and smashes Jor-El in the face with it. Nice! <laughs> and then he and Superman fly to the black hole. And back in Smallville, Pa sits up. Ma is right there and she goes, Thank the Lord. Pa! I brought Clark back to his ma! Pa, oh Pa, you just lie back and tell me all about it. Clark is back! Is he? Now, I, you know, I, I love Ma and Pa. I think they're an integral part of the Superman deal here, but uh, isn't it weird when they refer to each other it, as Ma it and Pa? Really is. If you, you see that too, like sometimes <laughs> highfalutin fancy couples, you know, mother, you know. Hello, I, mother. Yes. I, can't, I can't deal with that. It's too weird. <laughs> no. Now, we join Lois, who's on her return flight from Smallville to Metropolis, when suddenly a red and blue blur buzzes the plane. Lois says, what's everyone looking at? All I see is a red blur. She thinks to herself, could it? Lois Lane, get a hold of yourself. There are hundreds of superpowered beings in this world. And when the plane touches down, it seems everywhere Lois goes, all anyone can talk about is Superman. Like, they've seen him. People Whoa. have seen him. He's back. Hey, what's going on? Yeah. On the news, various eyewitnesses are interviewed. A reporter goes, can you describe your encounter, Cindy? And Cindy says, I drew a soup picture of the man who got my kitty out of the tree. He said his name was Superman. Oh, and he smelled kind of funny, too. Hmm. Another scene, the reporter goes, In Centennial Park, a stolen cab was prevented from running down a jogger. Jogger says, I mean, like, these creeps are trying to turn me into roadkill. And then suddenly he's there. He was, like, not as big as I thought he'd be, but he was gorgeous. Oh, yeah, it was him. You know, Superman. In Suicide Slum, a tenement fire could have been worse. My husband and I got my boy Eldon out, but the baby's room was... Look, no one could get in there. It was flaming and stuff. But he saved my baby. That's Superman. The story wasn't much different at the North Point Nuclear Power Plant. Foreman says, Hey, I don't care who he was. We were ten seconds from China Syndrome when he showed up and sealed the containment tank. And finally, a Metropolis woman who was attacked in the laundry room of her apartment building. This used to be a safe building. I was doing my wash when this guy grabbed me. Suddenly, he crashes through the wall and, well, kept that sneeze from hurting me. I'm not sorry my attacker's dead. He sure won't threaten anyone ever again. The attacker's dead? Mm, That's Mm. weird. 
Right. Uh, we wrap up with Lois at the Centennial Park Memorial with Inspector Henderson. With all the sightings, she's just got to know. So they enter, and... Lois says, he's gone. To which Henderson replies, not really. I'd say from the look of things that he's back. Superman's back. And that's the end of the story, but not the end of the issue. Whoa, yeah, that's why we got four cameos at the end, which will... Uh, the reason why there are four of them will become evident very soon. <laughs> very quickly. Uh, cameo number one by Louise Simonson and John Bogdanov. A pair of gangs fight over some oversized guns called Toastmasters. The woman known as the White Rabbit looks on, pleased with that with Superman out of the way, Metropolis is hers for the taking, and this is her first appearance. Uh, by the way, but we'll see a lot more of her in the future if you keep reading Superman. Uh, the police drive up and the gangs disperse. And from the rubble of one of the buildings destroyed during the Doomsday Massacre, a man rises. And he says, Doomsday. Gotta stop Doomsday. It's a very large, bald black man, but we're not telling you anything you don't already know if you're looking at it. It doesn't look like him, but it sure sounds like Superman. Hmm. Our second cameo is by Roger Stern and Jackson Geis. A would-be carjacker is stopped. By a man in a cape and visor. Yeah, he says, she's firing. The guy goes, huh? Hey, don't go sneaking up on me, man. It ain't safe. <laughs> nice cape. Who are you supposed to be? Zorro? You would have stolen that man's car. You tried to kill him. That makes you my enemy. Now the dude opens fire into the cape man's chest, illuminating it just enough to make out a very familiar logo. Yeah. When, when he sees it, the bum attempts to flee, but our mystery man gives chase, finally descending on him, looking very much like... Superman? Uh-huh. In the Ooh. third cameo by Carl Kiesel and Tom Grummet, over at Cadmus Labs, the Guardian rushes toward Lab 13, where an explosion just de- jammed the door shut. A soldier named Silvestri tries to gently nudge the door with a bazooka. Sure. Uh, once inside, they find an empty pod with what looks like Superman's torn cape caught on the broken glass. Guardian notices a Dr. Picard hanging from the ceiling wrapped in piping. And he goes, It's their fault, all right. They're clones, at least. Oh, 13 gave me some trouble. Started suddenly fighting off the input like a man possessed. Then those newsboys broke him loose. He reveals that the newsboys and this. Number 13 escaped through the air ducts. At that moment, the five newsboys and a guest pop out the other end of the ducts. Number 13 says, Thanks. To which Tommy goes, No problem. I mean, us newsboys kind of belong at the project. But you? Quill. Not like you need it, but good luck, Superboy. Hey, don't ever call me Superboy. Hey, look, it's Superboy. And then we have our final cameo by Dan Jurgens. It's morning in Metropolis, and the sun rises over the shimmery skyline. A family of tourists is walking down Broadway or whatever block the Daily Planet building's on uh, when their son notices the Superman memorial plaque commemorating the very spot he died on while saving the city. Now, this isn't the original plaque, is it? No, no, actually, it's not. The original read, In memoriam, Superman killed on this spot while defending the city— while this one reads, in memory of Superman, killed on this spot while defending Metropolis. First one had to be made out of copper, probably, and turned green, right? Got patina, yeah. Yeah, yeah and we know that that's not one of Superman's favorite colors. That's true. Uh, now, anyway, the, uh, while the family admires the plaque, Superman arrives. He picks up the plaque and incinerates it. 
Uh, you know, if you ain't dead, I guess they don't need it anymore. No, they're, they're, they're memorialized. Yes, now these panels are kind of like Austin powering the left side of Superman's face. And when we finally do get a good look at him, well, hell, he's a cyborg. And now uh, he was that's even, the end of the issue. Yeah, he was even... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, that's it. That's it. <laughs> I will also worth mentioning, sorry, this issue is Jerry Ordway's last. And what a time to leave these books, right, when everything was changing over again. Mm -hmm. More evidence, you know, to to some people. Uh, Previews asked, uh, they interviewed Jerry Ordway, and they asked him, given all the exciting stories currently happening in the Superman titles, this must be a tough time for you to leave. Yeah, Jerry answers with, oh, yeah, but I made my decision about six months ago, long after we planned the death of Superman. I'm leaving because I don't have the same emotional commitment to just writing Superman than I did when I was writing and drawing it. I wrote and drew it for a long time, and it really makes sense for me to leave on a high note. And we are going to pause on a high note, I hope. We're <laughs> finding it to be a high note. Uh, when we come back, we're going to read those four uh, intro issues that all came out on the same day, as we just mm-hmm. found out, uh, which will you know, clarify more of what we've gotten hints of in these uh, epilogues or whatever we call them. What do we call these things? <laughs> Cameos? Cameos, that's fun, yeah. <laughs> the sightings. That's yes. right, these little, these little, yeah, the, the uh, Superman sightings. So we'll be back after a short break, and we'll, we'll go through all those comics. You know, I've been thinking about farewell parties, command performances, going away performances, uh, like the Rolling Stones. Uh, they've had, you know, 93 farewell performances. There used to be some old guy in vaudeville. I can't think of his name right off, and it'll come to me later. He used to have uh, a farewell concert every, I don't know, every three or four weeks. Uh, the, oh, you're going to love this. Florence Foster Jenkins. Remember that name? She was, a, she was a woman who used to sing in New York years and years ago. She had a voice like a seagull getting an enema. She really couldn't sing, but people loved to go to her concerts because one of the reasons uh, was that she would come out on the stage with a basket full of roses, and she would fling them to to the audience as she sang the bell song from Lacme, and the audience would gather them up and fling them back at her again, and then she would fling them out again. And the reason I guess I've been thinking about going away parties and farewells and that sort of thing is the death of Superman. Oh, the death of Superman. Yes, DC Comics killed Superman, and it's not as if they hadn't killed Superman before. Uh, let, me, let me show you this. Uh, this is the current magazine. The Death of Superman. It costs $1.25 in this version. Uh, if you buy this bagged version over here, it'll cost you $2.50 for the same magazine. But uh, uh, at the end of it, here we see Superman being held by Lois Lane, lamenting that she will not actually get to uh, go to bed with Superman. They haven't yet been married. And here is the fold-out, and it says, The Death of a Legend. Well, uh, the media really went for it. They really bit on it. They really thought that DC Comics was going to kill off its biggest moneymaker. Yeah, sure. And I also believe in the Tooth Fairy, and I also believe if you're in a 747 at 30,000 feet, you're going to hit a pig. Folks, here is a comic book that I pulled out of my collection. My collection? Oh, yes, I am a comic book collector. I bought my first comic in 1939. I've been buying comics all my life. I think in many ways they're America's literature. This comic is dated... December 1983, and on the cover, it says, One angry burst of superpowers, and I killed my best friend. And there's Superman lying dead. But that's not the first time, 1983. Here's an issue of uh, the Comic Buyer's Guide Price Guide. And they did an article called The Death of Superman. Hasn't this been done before? Here is a list. Here is a list of just the ones in the 60s and 70s and 80s of the death of Superman. Folks, DC Comics killed off Superman three times a year. So what's all the noise? Well, the noise is hype. The noise is, let's make some money. Now, if it were 10 cents a comic, 
like when I bought comics, it'd be a different matter. But they're not. It's a dollar and a quarter. It's two fifty. It's five dollars. And if you think, oh, I'm going to be a collector and I'm going to collect this wonderful comic and it's going to be worth money, folks, they made up two and a half to three million copies of this. If you bought a hundred copies of this ten years from now, they're going to be less than the cover price. And if you think collecting them and putting them in these wonderful little poly bags is going to mean that you're going to make any money, remember that this are all the comics you would have to buy to get a complete run of that doomsday set. And Doomsday, he was going to be a galactic maniac who comes and kills Superman. But the American Society for Looney Tunes, or crazy people, said, oh no, you can't have it be a, a man uh, escape from an insane asylum. That'll give a bad idea, a bad name. To who? The loonies in the loony bits? Well, now you've got eight issues of Superman bashing Doomsday, and Doomsday bashing him, and nothing else happens. It's just one big stupid fight. And you went for it. And the media went for it. My God, how gullible you are. Don't you ever learn? Hey, everybody. Welcome back. We are diving now into the actual comics that comprise the return of the Supermen? Question the mark. The, well, the, the actual <laughs> thing is the reign of the Supermen. Is that, is that just for the collected editions, or was this actually called that? I can't think of it. Was, it was actually called that, uh, yeah. There was no banner. There was a banner on top, right, or something yeah. like this. Uh, yeah, so this is the reign of the Supermen. Boing, anyway, sorry. I guess I guess the uh, mystery is lost now. The there's no more tension in that. So twenty five years will do that. Yeah, exactly. People people know the deal. So we'll just dive right in, starting with Action Comics number six eighty seven. This is titled "Born Again" by Roger Stern and Jackson Goose Goose. Goose. Yes, we did it last time, and Geis. I forgot already. Guys, sorry. There we go. Triangle number uh, number twelve out of nineteen ninety three comes with two covers, a deluxe. Die-cut cardstock cover featuring a pretty standard Superman S with the phrase, The last son of Krypton is back. And then the newsstand version has an energy-based embryonic Superman in the fetal position. This went on sale April 27, 1993 for $1.50 on the newsstand, and then the uh, die-cut deluxe issue was $1.95. Solicit reads, The last son of Krypton returns to action, and this Superman has no qualms about taking a human life. So long as it's the right thing to do. Also, Pa Kent reacts to Superman's tougher approach to crime fighting. Now we open up in Antarctica, where a couple of researchers are watching a particularly intense Aurora Borealis and wondering just why it might be acting up. They consider for a moment that perhaps there's something buried in the ice. And wouldn't you know it, at that very moment, deep below the ice, several Helixy robots yeah. are pumping energy into a great glowing glow the there. Great glowing orb. Uh, inside of this orb is a humanoid form. It says, I, I, I am, but where am I? I remember a battle. He steps out of the light. I, I know this place. This is my fortress. But how did I get here? He reaches out to a Kila, uh, to the Kelex bot, and his hand phases right through it. He's directed to a monitor where he can tune in on a satellite transmission that'll fill him in on everything that he's missed. The monitor, but not that monitor, no, says... <laughs> Following a cross-country chase, Superman has faced off against Doomsday in the very heart of Metropolis. Superman has reportedly been seriously injured. And then the scene shifts over. Superman was declared dead at approximately 6.23 p.m. The solemn drum beats as the world's great heroes march along in tribute, following their gallant leader one last time. Dead? Our red man ain't digging the sound of that. 
And so he rushes out from the fortress, hopeful that there might still be some power left in his flesh-and-blood body. And so, at Centennial Park, the wraith of a man attempts to bond with his body, and uh, from the looks of it, it was a success. The cape! I, I can touch it! Hold it! I am alive again! Alive! He steps out from the memorial and finds that the sun is a little too much for his eyes to take. Hmm. Now we shift scenes to check in. Check in on our main man, Bibbo. He's still talking Superman's pa- He's taking Superman's passing pretty badly. He looks at a newspaper clipping of them attempting to jumpstart the Man of Steel's heart, and this happened in The Adventures of Superman 498. Over the. What? Sorry. Over the radio, he hears that there's a violent crime wave running through Metropolis. And, well, if his favorite ain't around to take care of business. I know I'm not man enough to fill your boots, but I'm still going to give it my best shot. And so Bibbo tucks a Superman sweatshirt into a pair of old boxing trunks, which he's wearing over a pair of track pants, which uh, endears him to me because it means that he's a pre-Flashpoint kind of guy. That's right. <laughs> now back at the fortress. Yeah, the mysterious uh, man we will know as the Eradicator says, Bless Krypton and the House of El. And he's also wearing his uh, that that stylish wraparound visor yeah. at this point. See it on see it on him and grandmas in Florida everywhere. There's a <laughs> yes. big amber visor. <laughs> <laughs> no, on his monitors he sees all the turmoil going on around the world, and so and, and also he sees that the Superman Snuggie cult is around, proclaiming that he will rise, and so he suits up and heads to Metropolis where he kills that attacker from the sighting cameo in Adventures 500. Oh, right. That was the uh, Metropolis woman. She says, No, I'm not sorry my attacker's dead. He sure won't threaten anyone ever again. Remember her, huh? Now, uh, meanwhile at LexCorp, Lex is pretty ticked at the fact that Superman's body is missing. He says, I swear, Superman's as much trouble to me dead as alive. Supergirl enters despite him not wanting to be disturbed. Uh, yeah, there really isn't anybody going to hold Supergirl back, no. even though they, they do try. Uh, she's pretty annoyed herself uh, because Lex didn't tell her that her cousin's body vanished. Out on the streets of Metropolis, it's just a regular day. You know, planes falling out of the sky and stuff. Sure, a man on the street yells, Look, up in the sky! Hey, it's Superman in shades! Indeed. Lois Lane conveniently pulls up to the scene in a cab. Hey, you with the cape, hold it right there, buster. And she barges into the crowd. Yeah, one guy says, Superman, let me touch you. Another goes, please help my child. We need to talk. Get us out of here. And so he picks her up, and they fly away. Superman, come back! Who the was that? Yeah, how come she rates? Now Lois instructs Superman to place her down on a nearby roof, and notes that while he looks an awful lot like Clark, he has a distinct coldness about him. She also doesn't care much for his new look. Yeah, some other people felt that way reading the book too, but uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Superman never hid his face, and he didn't wear black like an executioner. Oh yeah, we didn't make it clear, but his costume now does have some black in it. Superman, question mark, replies, no, not before, but I have been through much. I have changed. Lois replies, if you're really Superman, tell me who I am, or don't you know me? You? 
Yes, I know you, your Lois Lane, a reporter. Before my passing, you were an important part of my life. You were the first to write about me. Well, he's not entirely wrong, but yeah. Lois is looking for something a little bit more than that. Yeah, maybe it's something about the being married. <laughs> I know that we were more than friends. You were engaged to marry Clark Kent. Kent loved you very much. He trusted you completely, even with the secret of his double life. Then you are... I am. I am sorry. I grieve for your loss, Ms. Lane. Now this Superman tells Lois that only he's returned. Clark ain't coming back. Mm. And then he leaves her stranded on the roof. Hey, who says chivalry's dead, huh? Right? I, I really think we should try to compile a list of all the times Lois is left stranded on the I, roof. It, it, many, many times. It's got to be Constantly. a long list, yeah. <laughs> now, uh, as she is alone on the roof, she's also alone with her thoughts. And in her, to her mind, it comes down to two possibilities. A, this is really Superman, and the Clark half is going to remain buried. Or B, this ain't Superman at all, and somebody figured out that Clark is Superman. <gasps> Okay. Yes. <laughs> that leads us to our next issue. Actually, these are all these these don't lead into one another, but uh No. Because they do all come out the same day. But we will talk next about Superman, the Man of Steel number twenty-two. Title is Steel by Louise Simonson and John Bogdanov. Has a triangle number of thirteen for nineteen ninety-three. This deluxe cover features a metallic Superman S with The Man of Steel is back written below it. The newsstand has a uh, version has John Henry Irons swinging a hammer. Uh, of course, on sale April 27th, 1993, for a buck fifty newsstand, a buck ninety-five deluxe. Our solicitation reads: The Man of Steel returns to Metropolis to rid Suicide Slum of the latest crime wave led by a new ruthless crime lord. Jeb Stewart is also back in town and comes to see Lois Lane in the wake of Clark Kent's disappearance. I want to correct Diamond Previews there. It's actually <laughs> Jeb Friedman who returns uh, to town, though Jeb Stewart might have been a little bit more interesting considering that he's, you know, a haunted tank. Yeah, uh, that would have really added a lot to the story. <laughs> but uh, at least it does keep to the story, unlike a lot of solicits today, where they have sure. often no bearing on the comic that actually comes up. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, now we open this up with Shaquille O'Neal dropping some homespun wisdom on the neighborhood kids. That's not Shaq. I mean... Come on, Chris, look at him. And he's holding a basketball. All right, maybe it is. So he tells the tots, including Keith and one named Zoid, the story of John Henry and how he would use 20-pound hammers to race a steam-driven steel drill to see who could drill more holes back at the factory. And legend has it, which, by the way, is not actually the legend, but anyway, <laughs> uh, legend has it, he won. The story wraps, and the kids disperse right into a drive-by shooting. Zoid takes a Toastmaster blast to the gut. Mr. Johnson, the shack-looking storyteller, rushes into the seat and saves the remaining kids. One kid goes, Zoid! Another kid, Take out Zoid! It's probably too soon for a you bastards, right? Yeah, well, I mean, the kid's skeleton is smoldering in the street. Probably this wouldn't be the time. Uh, Johnson leaps onto the gunner's car and grabs at the Toastmaster. One of the passengers goes, it's impossible, man. No, that's that fantastic Thor bad guy who pops everything. Oh, I like he blips, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, the passenger continues, he's breaking the gun. Peel him off, man. You got it, bro. And the driver then sideswipes a wall, smearing Mr. Johnson's blood all along the way. Later, at the hospital, Henry Johnson. 
Hey, that's John Henry backwards. Say, he's visited by Myra. This is Keith's guardian. You remember Keith, right? He's the kid that promised not to spray paint the subway right before he spray painted the subway. Oh, yes, him. But it was all, on, it was to help uh, Superman. Hello. Um, Myra <laughs> Allen, no relation, first appeared in Superman, The A Man of Steel, number two, August 1991, and was created by Louise Simonson and John Bogdanoff. Kid O'Keefe made his first appearance in Superman The Man of Steel number 1, July 1991 cover, and was also created by Louise and John. Now, Keith hops onto Henry's bed and laments the fact that Superman's dead. He feels that if Superman were still alive, maybe Zoid could have been saved. Oh, man. Only his brother Noid made it, unfortunately. (laughs) I know. (laughs) We all avoid him, so anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Henry Henry then shares with him the time that Superman saved his own life. Uh, Henry was uh, attempting to save a falling construction worker up in the steel, and his line gave out. Superman grabbed him, and if the art is to be believed, something of a mental connection between the two men happened just as they touched hands. He then shares his experience from the Doomsday Massacre. Henry was in one of those buildings that Superman and Doomsday tore through, but we already knew that. Once he's released from the hospital, uh, Henry returns home. Uh, I, uh, if, if, if he lives in a fortune teller's basement, anyway. Well, I mean, she's got one hell of a f- fireplace down there. That sounds like a euphemism. Uh, never mind. Um, now, we watch as Henry Johnson, John Henry, Shaquille O'Neal, you know, that guy. We watch him as he forges a steel helmet in the fire. Yeah, he thinks to himself... John Henry fought the machine and won. What I'm fighting is a deadlier kind of machine. What I help put in motion. What I'm gonna stop, even if it kills me. Just then, a firebomb hits the fortune teller's building and uh, makes me wonder, did, did she see that coming? Yeah, but you can't stop the future from happening. Anyway, uh, Steel <laughs> busts through the wall and rescues her. And she goes, who? You're the psychic. You tell me. She tells Steele that uh, she does drop a little knowledge on him. She says she wasn't alone in the building, so he's got to go back and pull some more folks to safety. Now we meet up with Lois Lane, who has just noticed that her old intergang informant, Jeb Friedman, has come to town. Jeb first appeared in Superman The Man of Steel number 4, October 1991 cover, and was created by Louise and John, and he has a crush on Lois ever since. He's quite the skeevy-looking individual. He goes... I heard about Clark. I'm sorry, sweetie. He was an okay guy. (laughs) He then suggests that he take her away from all this. She says no to splitting town, but agrees to a cup of joe. Now Lex Luthor does what he does best, which is watch a wall full of television screens. If you got it, if you got it, flaunt it, right? Of course. (laughs) On one of these screens, the psychic lady from earlier suggests that Superman's spirit has entered the body of this brand new Man of Steel. Lex ain't entirely tickled by the thought, uh, and he's also worried that this suicide slum savior might screw up his super weapons plan. Now back with Steel, he busts in on a shady super weapons deal and takes a Toastmaster load to his chest for his trouble. He then realizes that this is a weapon that he designed. He feels as though every life taken with them is on his head. He gets up and rivets a gangbanger to a wall and begins to interrogate him. Out of view, the white rabbit's on the scene, and she has Steel's head in her crosshairs. Before reconsidering and blowing the brains out of the head of her own man, who was just about to start singing like a canary. Now back at the Daily Planet, Lois is going through all the new Superman headlines and finally arrives at one talking about Steel. She called him a walk-in spirit. Can something like that actually be possible? Our man Jeb's nearby and he replies, 
It's not possible, Lois. How can it be possible? Come here, listen to me. Superman dead. Clark's dead. But I'm alive and so are you. Right now, you need someone to take care of you. Grabby jacket. We'll talk more about it over dinner. Yeah, I hate this guy already. Any of the worst? What a creep. Uh, this issue wraps up with Jonathan Kent in his hospital bed catching a bit of news about this Man of Steel on the TV. Luther is, of course, also watching <laughs> probably one of his many TVs <laughs> and wonders what it might be like if he could finally have a Man of Steel in his pocket. Mm-hmm. Now, next issue we'll talk about is Superman Volume 2, number 78, titled Alive by Dan Jurgens, Triangle number 14 of 1993. This also had two covers, just like the other uh, we're talking about. And the fourth one will likely also, also. have a thing for covers. <laughs> of course, the first one was a deluxe die cut featuring a sort of shiny Superman S with the phrase, The Man of Tomorrow is back. Standard cover has the cyborg Superman chaining Doomsday up. Uh, on sale April 27th, 1993 for $1.50 on the newsstand. $1.95 special die cut deluxe version. Solicit reads, Superman returns, rebuilt for the future. And he makes it his business to dispose of Doomsday permanently. Also, Lois comes face to face with this man of tomorrow, and she is horrified by what has happened to him. We open with Lois Lane following up on on a Superman sighting at LexCorp. A Dr. Meyer lets her in and even produces a well-shadowed photo of Superman in action. And by well-shadowed, we mean we can only get a really good look at the area around his right eye, you know. But that area does look just like (laughs) Superman. Just like it. Uh, Speaking of Superman, he's currently rattling some cages over at Star Labs. He wants to know where Doomsday's body is. Now, Lois hops back in her car and prepares for an extended stay in gridlock purgatory. She flips on her police scanner and hears the news that Superman was just raising some hell at Star. She phones Jimmy to confirm the story. Why, is is Jimmy some kind of authority on this now? Right? I know. (laughs) Jimmy does know something. He says that they just got the word from Mayor Berkowitz that this indeed did just go down. So next stop, Cadmus, where Westfield and the Geeks are alerted that they have a very powerful and persistent prowler. As the Weapon Masters, or whatever we were calling them, you know, those, <laughs> those flying guys, right. as they get into position, into position, a red blur blows right by them. Uh, worth mentioning, we still have not seen this Superman's face just yet. And then the Guardian arrives and stands around. Did he uh, argue with Westfield at least? He's, it's coming. It's very soon. Okay, uh, okay. Westfield orders the onboard blasters to shoot to kill, but it doesn't turn out all that well. No, our man goes, your weapons can't hurt me. Give me what I want and I'll leave. Westfield says, damn, turn the lights back on so I can see who I'm up against. Lights go on with a ka didn't she marry Maury Povich? Oh, I miss her. She was good. <laughs> the R man goes, there's no way you're going to stop me. I've come for doomsday. It can't be. And we finally see him. Cyborg Superman in an oddly Shakespearean pose. It's as though he's beckoning, beckoning for Juliet to come to the balcony or something. It's just really strange. It really is. It's unusual. It's not what you expect. You, uh, hands on hips would be the typical yeah. Superman. Thing, but, uh, <laughs> the Guardian says, this has got to be some kind of sick joke. I watched you die with my own eyes. I was there when they buried you. I've come back, Harper. I'm different due to the damage. But it's me. I am Superman. 
The Cadmus boys are in no hurry to tell this odd Terminator 2 extra where they've got Doomsday stashed, but no worries. Superman can rely on his own powers to find him. And he does. Burrowing deep below Cadmus to a high security vault, Superman faces his killer. Westfield says, You're breaking a whole slew of federal laws, mister. And not even the real Superman was powerful enough to open that vault. I'm more than I used to be, Westfield. I'm part machine. And just like that, he lifts his robotic wrist, revealing a mess of cyberlock pickiness kind of folding out of it, and uh, after a few moments, grants him access to the vault. Yes, he sees Doomsday and goes, Destroyer, berserker, murderer. They never even bothered to wash my blood off, you butcher. Even in death, you wear it like a badge of honor. Superman grabs Doomsday, chains, pipes, tubes, and all, and flies out of Cadmus. Somewhat, all right, but totally conveniently, Lois Lane is right outside wallowing in the rain, and she catches what she believes to be her fiancé flying off with Doomsday stuffed under his arm. Once they reach space, Doomsday ties, Superman ties Doomsday's body to a chunk of space rock and hurls it into the infinite void. Isn't that that David Foster Wallace novel that nobody ever finished? I believe, suddenly, into the, into the something <laughs> or other, I don't know. Now, uh, back on Earth, Lois is still standing in the rain. Get yourself together, girl. It couldn't have been him. It must have been, had to be, someone else. You are Lois Lane, the one who first named me. Oh! And the two chat for a time. Superman admits that he's missing a lot of his memory, though he can remember Kansas and the name Kent. Lois suggests they pay a visit to Emil Hamilton to verify the cyborg's claims. Uh, Emil Hamilton, by the way, first appeared back in Adventures of Superman number 424. This is January 1987 cover, and he was created by Marv Wolfman and Jerry Ordway. At Hamilton's lab, he confirms that the biological half of this Superman matches the originals down to the T. Not even the slightest bit of deviation. Which definitely had me thinking. Lois says, Mm -hmm. what is it, Professor? What are you telling me here? I'm telling you that with all my tests and data have me thoroughly convinced. I I would say with great probability that this is Superman come back to life. But that's not the end of the issue. The issue actually ends in deep space. Caption reads, It has been said that in space, no one can hear you scream. True. But if we could bend the laws of science and assume that we could hear... For just a few seconds, we would hear laughter. Of course, that's Doomsday. Right, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the final of our four issues here is Adventures of Superman number 501. Title is dot, 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 When He Was a Boy by Carl Kiesel and Tom Grummet. This one comes with a triangle number of 15 for 1993. The die-cut cover features a sort of denim-looking Superman S with the phrase, The Metropolis Kid is Back. The newsstand version has a very attitudinal super... Bo- uh, the, well, mm, Conel, we'll yeah, say. Be careful. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to get hit. Uh, <laughs> he's standing next to some graffiti that he just tagged with his smoky finger. Uh, it reads, Truth and Justice, My Way. Now, this one on sale, like every other issue, April 27th, 1993, for a buck fifty newsstand, a buck ninety-five die cut deluxe. The solicit reads: Superman revels in his return to the skies, and the gauntlet he runs on the first day just about does him in. Also, young WGBS reporter Tana Moon steals the attention of the Man of Steel from Lois Lane. 
We open the story with a group of uh, nerdy punks driving a stolen taxi, shooting at the Superman memorial statue. Uh, one of them looks a lot like our man Mitch, but it isn't. Yeah, but enough that we hate him already. Yes. Uh, the goofballs <laughs> then notice a jogger who we met briefly back in Adventures 500. This is when the reporter was talking to all those people, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they decide to chase her down for a business opportunity. Normally, we'd assume what, that what they mean by that, but with these guys, who knows? Yeah, the, uh, the guy who looks like Mitch goes, Yo, crew! I see us a killer business opportunity. And then a guy in uh, John Lennon glasses, uh, Lennon glasses guy says, Word that! I think I'm going to add word that to my everyday vernacular. I think that might be the name of the first hit single from Axl Rose in the band, right? Word that, it sounds like. (laughs) Taxi driver says, She got some prime assets, man. Get it? Call invest in what she's selling. And that's where the analogy kind of falls apart. I don't know what he's talking about. Went too far with that. Uh, just as they're about to run her over, Super uh, Man revive, arrives on the scene. And he stops the taxi with one hand. Lennon Glasses guy says, oh, oh, man. And then our Super Boy Man says, that's Man of Steel to you, punks. And the jogger, who's still there, says, you... <laughs> You can't be. Superman? Well, now, let's see. Big red S on the chest? Check. Fly? Like a bird or even a plane, lucky for you. Super strong? No doubt about it. And then he grabs the Lennon glasses off that one geek. Thankfully, this is the last that we see of him. Otherwise, otherwise we have to think up a new name, and there's not really a lot yeah. to say about him. You know, guy without Lennon glasses. Yeah. Keeps to mind. Former, former Lennon glasses <laughs> exactly. owner. <laughs> Meanwhile, over in Suicide Slum, uh, Super Dude, that's Bibbo, by the way, is delivering sandwiches to the poverty-stricken slumites. And they're a bit incredulous. Yeah, one slumite goes, These things safe, man? I mean, somebody stapled this plastic wrap. Fellow named Deke says, Bibbo ain't forcing it down your throat, kid. And Bibbo says, That's okay, Deke. I know Superman would have done it better. I'm just doing what I can, trying to help out like he would have wanted. And the slumite goes, Man, is it supposed to smell this way? Before we could find just, out, just how that uh, sandwich was supposed to smell, the little group hears an old woman crying. She's tied three puppies in a bag and tossed it into the bay. She couldn't afford to feed them and didn't want them to suffer. So, drown them? Is that the right? best? Is that the best way to ease suffering, Chris? I don't think so. <laughs> uh, Bibbo hops into the drink, but it looks like he was too late. Well, maybe not. One puppy survived. The dog killing old lady decides to let him keep it since she was gonna, <laughs> she was gonna drown it anyway. You know, she's like, hey, well, I drowned too. That's good enough." Uh, he names the pup Krypton. And it's just too bad that dog name tags in Metropolis can only fit six letters. Yeah, that's one of the weirdest city ordinances uh, <laughs> uh, in, in Metropolis, yeah. But uh, at the Daily Planet, Lois Lane f- finds a very interesting visitor sitting at her desk. Yes, it's our boy. He goes, Lois, 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 I thought we had a deal. You know, I save the world, you write it up. We both end up on page one. But no, I get page six. No byline. Right under Hammer Hobble's home. You know, I would have gotten rid of Doomsday, too. I was getting around to it. It's worth mentioning there's a newspaper clipping on Lois's desk that reads, Ordway to sponsor Batson Expedition, which was the next yes. thing he worked on, right? The OGN. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did the OGN and then into uh, and then Power of Shazam. Right, yeah. Power of Shazam out of that. Uh, sorry, Lois Late says, 
you can't be Superman. The one and only. Contrary to current... Re- wow, my death really aged you, huh, Lois? Jimmy's... Yeah, really. <laughs> Don't ever say that to a lady, folks. Uh, then you asked her how much she weighed. Whether you're super or not, that's a very bad idea. Uh, <laughs> Jimmy scoffs at the thought that this kid was really is really Superman. Even used the verboten Superboy word. He'll, he pays for it pretty quickly. The kid yeah. then reveals his secret origin. He's a clone of Superman, which we already knew, but it is news to Lois, or would be if she was buying any of it. Now, the kid tries to figure out a way to convince her, but suddenly his attention is now focused on newcomer Tana Moon. Now, just as Lois is about to refer to him as Clark, the kid bugs out after the new girl. He takes her to a nearby roof, which, you know, kind of fits the Real Steel Deal's M.O. Yeah. Uh, He decides to give her the exclusive scoop on his super-secret origin, which he shares with her on a TV news program. You'll never guess who is watching this TV program. (laughs) (laughs) It's our favorite couch potato, Lex Luthor, who's in a wheelchair, and I don't remember why. Yeah, probably Um, probably from sitting inertly watching television for too long. Constantly. Yeah. (laughs) Now, he's pretty ticked off to learn that what they've been up to at Cadmus, and at this point, nobody really knows that they used his DNA to make the soup a soup. Over at WGBS, the switchboards are lit up, and everyone loves Super uh, the Kid. The Metropolis kid. (laughs) Tana goes, he doesn't like being called Superboy. Vincent Ed says, you can call a Beppo the Super Monkey for all I care, Tana. I just want that kid on the air as much as possible. Beppo the Super Monkey, by the way, was a Kryptonian test animal used by Jor-El when he was testing the rocket that he'd eventually send Kal-El to Earth in. Uh, Beppo stowed away when Krypton went boom, and the little guy first appeared in Superboy number 76, his October 1959 cover, and he was created by Otto Binder and George Papp, though neither would probably admit to that. No, one of the Legion of Super Pets, along with some other great Yes, indeed. Now, uh, one of the news execs questions the wisdom of focusing on just this Superman and not all four, then he don't see a problem. Uh, He decides that they're going to have to, quote, create a legend and ask for some suggestions on a a surefire way for young Superman to prove himself. One exec comments that intergang boss Steelhand has been lurking in Suicide Slum. Now, Steelhand was actually Mr. Miracle's first foe. He appeared in Mr. Miracle number one back in April 1971, created by Jack Kirby, and has only appeared like twice since. Yeah, so he was right. Real just, deep cut. Exactly. Just yank <laughs> him out a, uh, you know, paste him in there. WGBS drops the kid in Suicide Slum, where he's immediately surrounded by a group of bad guys from Double Dragon. Uh, he beats the hell out of them pretty quickly. Then, punk rock women with semi-automatic weapons pop up, probably from the video game Narc, and they start firing. <laughs> yes. Luckily, the kid's bulletproof, and he pounds the ground, sends the ladies flying. Then, a bus with spiked bumper with spiked bumper ramps him into a nearby building, and that only ticks him off. Oh, that was his only jacket. Yeah, he goes, okay, trying to kill me is one thing, but that was my only jacket. See? This means war. He then bursts into Steel Hand's hidey hole and punches him in the face. Man, he must have really liked that jacket. There's only one, you know, it's a yeah. kind. Now we, we rejoin Lois as she tries to get some answers from the Kents. Uh, Martha assures Lois that Clark at 15 was nothing like this boy. But then again, this super kid wasn't raised by the Kents. Mm-hmm. That's, the, that's the wrinkle, folks. Mm-hmm. The kid meets up with fellow Cadmus guy, the Guardian, and by now is wearing a brand new and fresh jacket, complete with the Superman logo on the back. 
Imagine the uh, butt kicking you get if you wore one of those to school. Oh, really? Well, at least it would hide the uh, death of Superman armband that we got That's already true. beaten up for. <laughs> That's true. Back at WGBS, Tana meets with creepy old Vinny. He tells her that she's the new Cat Grant, and you can take that however you like. Uh, <laughs> a lot of gross ways to do that. Mm-hmm. They plan Superboy's next televised Super Feet, and the issue in the week of Super Returns wraps up with the hobbled Lex Luthor numero dos interrogating Packard from Cadmus. He was under the impression that Superman couldn't be cloned. Well, you know what they say about making assumptions, right, Chris? It's mm-hmm. uh, going to make an arse of you and me. Indeed. But that that does conclude the reign of the Superman, you know, the, the four issues that... The opening salvo. Right, of this uh, thing. And, and I remember reading these very well. I may not have gotten much mm-hmm. further than this, but I definitely read these four issues. Uh, and it was it was crazy, you know. Um, like like I've been kind of hinting the entire time going through, all these little hints were sort of suggesting that maybe they really weren't going to bring back Clark Kent Superman. Yeah. Right. Uh, or I, at I, least keep him off the table for a bit longer. Uh, you know, I, I I really did a lot of thinking about this. I mean, we were also dealing with it with a situation where Barry Allen had died and stayed dead. Stayed dead, uh, which was not expected at all. I, everyone was like, "Ah, he'll be back in a year," you know. And, he, mm-hmm. and Supergirl uh, too. Supergirl also. That's true. Even though mm-hmm. they had like fake Supergirl, but yeah, yeah. The, Kara, Kara never came back. Even though other things did come back, like the Legion. But uh, people felt like there might be a finality to it. And while even, I mean, I guess when this came out, I was sixteen or seventeen, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I was definitely old enough to know that they weren't going to get rid of the intellectual. The brand, saleable yeah. property known as Superman, and I knew that it was going to have to look like Superman. They weren't going to change all the bed sheets and toy. You know what I mean? It was going to have to look similar to him. Um, there were candidates here. You know what I mean? Sure. So for me, I remember. I remember reading it with that eye. I looked at it like it wasn't going to be Steel because he's is a guy no. in a steel suit, and it wasn't likely to be the cyborg Superman. Because yeah, he, had, he just looked evil. He looked evil, and half his face is missing, and that's not going to work yeah. for. Uh, you know, to, for plush toys. The, and, you know, the, yeah, the, the lunchbox. Make the cartoon look very strange. Uh, even though, like I said, that DNA thing did set my mind to work. Like, sure. What is that about? Uh, but to me, I, I think I, I think I came out of it thinking it would be the Eradicator. I, I'm the same exact um, way. Yeah. Even, even though I also saw a scenario where the, uh, you know, Metropolis kid, the uh, boy of tomorrow, whatever they called him in this, mm. that he could have been like artificially aged. That could, you know, a lot of comic booky ways sure. to make that work. But yeah, they really, did that with Impulse just a little while after this, so that's true. he was aged yeah. really quickly, so it could definitely have happened. It's It definitely was something I, I, I could have seen happening, but I really looked at it like Eradicator already looked like him, and what they were going to bring in was essentially a meaner Superman, which I thought was sort of in keeping. A grim and gritty 1990s right. extreme Superman, uh, yeah. Which actually would become a, a common theme throughout the rest of the decade, but... Uh, yeah, that's definitely where I where I came out of it thinking, I was like, wow, I guess this will probably might be the new Superman. Um, that's not what happened, as we know now. No. But uh, no, yeah. I was not invested in the character so much. Uh, the, like the death was my first Superman story, so I was kind of hoping that it was going to be the cyborg. Wow, I I, I didn't think it was going to be him, but I thought because I mean that one little corner of face he has looks a lot like or looks exactly like Superman, right? <laughs> and, uh, and it just seemed like it's like okay, well, I guess they could move forward with this. They can always 
they can always, you know, fix his, the rest of his face. Put a latex face, you know, fl- yeah. a Floronic man sprays a fake skin on himself. Just sure. shoot that on Superman's face. And, uh, and I mean, and what, Terminator came, uh, 2 came out when? Not not too far before this, right? Uh, I think 1992, exactly. Yeah, the, yeah so right in, right in this wheelhouse. There, there was definitely some synergy there, I'll tell you. There's no question in my <laughs> definitely. mind. Yeah, they definitely were like, oh, that did very well. Uh, <laughs> you know, you, you make a good point. There are ways to get around it. That also could have been a thing where, you know, when he gets hit, that can get scraped off, and you know that can like always cable. be exactly, yeah. precisely like if there can be a freaky reveal that he's a robot underneath. But uh, I just didn't see it because of the the look. But you're right; they could have worked around that. Um, sure, I didn't think it was going to happen, but it, it definitely could have if they decided to to go down that road. I mean, I'd like to say that I, I there was a lot of buzz at the comic shop, but at this point, I really was talking to no one about comics. But I was getting these comics. Uh, something I'd forgotten years later. Like mm. I remember being a teenager. Reading them and thinking about it and being like, which one is this going to be? Uh, I also want to say that when you first said you wanted to do this 25th anniversary thing, yeah, my first thing was like, fine, but I want to concentrate on the uh, Metropolis kid, you know, the the Superboy yeah, one. Superboy. That's because, but at the time, I want to make it clear, I did hate it because I was a teenager <laughs> myself, and, and we can smell our own, you know what I mean? And yep. it was it was totally pandering to. An idea of, you know, of like, you know, mouthy teenagers or whatever. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't want you to think I loved it from the beginning, but. Yeah, as like a, the sunny, the sunny D kids, you know, with the purple stuff. The whole, I mean, the whole thing, it's just like another type of Mitch, another one. There's, there's all these yeah. like phony adolescents in the, in comics all the time. Uh, I've just come to love it more as an adult because it's so Absolutely. over the top and silly. And uh, I had a great time reading that issue and all the issues we did today, but. We do have more to tell the people, as always. We do, we do. We're going to tie it all together by discussing other replacement, but not legacy, heroes. So these are the stand-ins, but this isn't the uh, this isn't the the sidekick stepping into the role. It isn't. No. We're not going to be talking about flashes here. Yeah, no, no, uh, no sons or daughters or whatever. Yeah, and we're only going to talk about one Green Lantern too, because he was initially a stand-in. Right. But we're going to start. By talking about Thor and his, you know, uh, stand-in, the man we now know is Thunderstrike. Uh, Eric Masterson first appeared in Thor number 391. This is May 1988 cover, created by Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends. He was initially a side character in the book, and he would eventually merge with Thor. And that happened in Thor number 408, October 1989. He would then eventually take over as Thor, and that was Thor 432, May 1991, and that was the issue that celebrated Thor's 350th appearance. Wow. Uh, which tells me that we celebrated some of the silliest stuff back then. I in know, the really. Any, any old milestone will do. Why yeah, not? So let, let's, throw a, let's throw something, uh, an inventory story from the drawer in there and charge him a couple bucks more. <laughs> uh, now, he would remain as Thor for a couple of years uh, until issue 459, this is February 1993, and that's when the real deal returned, leaving Eric to settle into the Thunderstrike persona uh, instead of the, you know, or whatever it is, he would wield a mace. Sure. Uh, his self-titled series would run for 24 issues, running from June 1993 through September 1995. Writer-creator Tom DeFalco had famously claimed that at the time of cancellation, Thunderstrike was outselling Thor and the Avengers combined. Uh, I gotta tell you, Tom must be one heck of a guy because nobody seems to have really crunched those numbers yeah, to throw it back at. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, it's like <laughs> whatever you say, Mister DeFalco. That's fine. You got it, sir. Uh, 
We got War Machine, who stood in for Iron Man. This was Jim Rody Rhodes, who first appeared in Iron Man number 118, January 1979, cover date, and was created by Dave Michelini and John Byrne. He would take over for Tony Stark as Iron Man while he was dealing with his addiction to alcohol. That was in Iron Man number 170, uh, May 1983, cover date. As Iron Man, Rhodey would take part in Secret Wars, uh, which was sort of a weird switcheroo over there. Uh, check out episode 9 of Weird Comics History for a long-form discussion on that. And he was also a founding mem- member of the West Coast Avengers. Tony would eventually come back, and not a moment too soon, Rhodey was experiencing terrible headaches from the cybernetics and the Iron Man armor. In Iron Man number 284, that was September 1992, cover dates, Tony Stark died. Yeah, we know, we know. Leaving CEO as, uh, Rhodes as CEO of Stark Enterprises. Back into the armor, he went as well, but this time it was that War Machine armor. When Tony revealed that, ta-da, I'm not dead after all, Rhodes was rightly ticked off and severed their friendship, but he'd eventually get over it, and between then and now, probably died and returned a few times to boot. As, as is the case. Yeah. Um, now we're going to talk about John Walker. He stood in for Captain America. We know him better as U.S. Agent. He first appeared in Captain America number 323, November 1986 cover. Uh, this was the Marvel Comics 25th anniversary issue. It was the, the headshot surrounded by like a like a garland of heroes. Oh, right. That they had. Uh, that was a very odd, uh, you know. Big deal, 25th anniversary thing, but what are you going to do? Now, he first made the scene as the Super Patriot, who, if we're being honest, is basically a right-wing straw man character. Uh, Created by Mark Grunewald and Paul Neary. Uh, In Captain America 332, August 1987, Captain America is ordered via the Pentagon that he must become an official entity of the United States government. Mm. This would later be revealed to be a Red Skull plot. But... You know, we didn't know that then, and neither did Cap, so he quit. The following month, in Captain America number 333, the September 1987 cover, the U.S. government approaches the Super Patriot about taking over as Captain America. And he does! And, uh, for, and as an incentive, he gets three Buckies. Uh, two of the Buckies, later known as Right Winger and Left Winger, mm-hmm. reveal Walker's secret identity which causes New Cap's parents to be murdered. Uh, Steve Rogers returns to the role in Captain America 339, March 1988. John Walker is thought to be assassinated in Captain America 351, March 1989. But it was all a ruse to set up his new superhero persona, U.S. Agent. That was in Captain America 354, June 1989. Uh, From here, he's joined several teams, and like the rest of the Marvel Universe, probably spent some time with dot 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 Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. as a last name. Oh, I'm sure he has. Yeah, everyone has. Mm -hmm. But that's not the only time that Captain America had to have a stand-in. Falcon also stood in for him. Uh, That's a Harlem orphan Sam Snap Wilson first appeared in Captain America number 117, September 1969. By Stan Lee and Gene Colan. He was a criminal given the power to talk to birds after being exposed to the Cosmic Cube. Uh, inspired by Cap, with the help of a flying harness given to him by the Black Panther, he becomes the hero Falcon, who has a sidekick hawk named Red Wing. Uh, now, way, way in the future, that was 1969. Yes. <laughs> uh, now, in uh, Captain America Volume 7, number 21, August 2014, uh, he had the Steve Rogers had the Super Soldier Serum sucked out of him by, I think, Iron Nail or something like this. 
Uh, Steve Rogers becomes prematurely old and cannot perform his heroing Captain America's duties. So in issue number 25, December 2014 cover date, he asks Sam to take up the role of Captain America and gives him the shield. Sam ultimately wears kind of a hybrid costume that's like a white cap outfit, but with wings. Mm-hmm. Sort of like a Falcon meets the Captain America. They blended in. Actually, didn't look didn't look terrible, but looks pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was actually Captain America for quite a while. He uh, Sam mm-hmm. returned the shield to Steve in Secret Empire number ten, which just happened October twenty seventeen cover by Nick Spencer and many artists. So mm. you know, he held on to it for three years there. Yeah, is he, is he back to the Falcon now? Or two years, I guess. Uh, yeah, he's as far as okay. I know. Actually. I, I don't want to misspeak. I don't know that. Yeah, I don't but either. I know Steve he might Rogers, still be a cap. <laughs> I know that Steve Rogers and not an evil Hydra-controlled Steve Rogers is in, is Captain America, so we'll find out. I don't know. I, uh, yeah, maybe we will. I don't know. <laughs> I don't uh, know. <laughs> now we, we advertise we're going to talk about one Green Lantern, and that Green Lantern is John Stewart. He first appeared in Green Lantern Volume 2, number 87. This is December 1971 cover. He was created by Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams. Uh, Stewart was chosen as Hal Jordan's backup Green Lantern, and the decision to make him black came from a discussion between Adams and editor Julius Schwartz. Adams said, We ought to have a black Green Lantern, not because we're liberals, but because it just makes sense. And I gotta wonder, did it just make sense to have everyone refer to him as Black Lantern for the first decade that he was around? No, yeah, you know, sometimes they try, they try hard. They try, it was earnest, yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, he would eventually take over for Hal in Green Lantern Volume 2, number 182. This is November 1984 cover date, after Hal threw one of his famous tissy fits uh, at the Guardians of the issue prior. Now, John would serve as Green Lantern during Crisis on Infinite Earths. And Hal would eventually resume his role as 2814's main man in Green Lantern Volume 2, number 199. That was April 1986 cover. Uh, John would still be a Green Lantern, just, you know, not not the main one. He's not the lunchbox lantern just yet. Right. Uh, in the meantime, Guy Gardner came out of his coma and also became a Green Lantern. Sure, everyone a Green Lantern. <laughs> Now, for more on that, you can check out our extensive coverage on Crisis on Infinite Earths in the archives. It's, was it five episodes? It's five episodes, 50 to 55, right? But yeah, it's, it's, it's a be. biggie. Yeah, or 50 to uh, 54, maybe, something like that. Yes. Now, John would eventually marry fellow Lantern Kat Matui until her untimely death at the hands of the Star Sapphire in Action Comics Weekly number 601 in May 1988. Uh, he would also fail to save the planet Zanshi from the anti-life equation during Cosmic Odyssey, and that was a failure that would shape his character for many years to come. For follow. many years, yeah, that was a big thing for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, following the Mosaic storyline in the relaunch in, in the relaunch Green Lantern title, John was chosen to oversee the Patchwork Mosaic planet as its sole protector in Green Lantern. Green Lantern Mosaic would run for 18 issues between June 1992 and November 1993, and it was one trippy-as-hell series. Mm-hmm. It ended with Stewart's ascension as the first mortal guardian of the universe. The cancellation was not without controversy, per artist Cully Hemner said, uh, As I was told at the time, it didn't fit with DC Editorial's vision, whatever that means. Said sales didn't matter, fan support didn't matter. The first issue sold about 210,000 copies, Yikes. and my last issue sold about 70,000. So there was plenty of support for the book. It was marked for cancellation when issue 5 came out, and they allowed Jerry Jones a year to wrap it up. But there was no doubt that it was being canceled because somebody upstairs just didn't care for it. He goes on to be crippled. This is John goes on to be crippled during an outing with the Dark Stars, some malady that was cured by Parallax. Check out our coverage of the final night in the archives for more on that. And the Green Lantern Corps would eventually come back, and John is back in the ranks. And in fact, 
he leads the ranks of the Green Lantern mm-hmm. Corps right now, despite it being in a comic titled Hal Jordan and the Green Lantern Corps. So yeah. we, don't know, we don't know what that's about, but he is around, folks. He sure is. He looms large. Um, someone who kind of doesn't anymore is uh, John Paul Valley, Asriel. He stepped in for Batman in, in 1993. A Bat-centric event uh, called Nightfall began with Batman number 492, his May 1993 cover, uh, and that ran throughout Batman and Detective Comics for eight months. A new villain named Bane, an experimental steroids-infused giant in a luchador ma- mask, endeavors to break the bat. Now, these experimental steroids are actually a drug called Venom, a drug that Bruce himself was actually addicted to during Legends of the Dark Knight storyline of the same name. This ran from issues 16 through 20, March through July 1991. But that's a whole other story. A good story, though. It was. It was indeed. (laughs) Uh, Now, at the end of a long gauntlet of Batman's rogues gallery, Bane finally breaks Batman's back. Uh, While Bruce Wayne uh, recuperates, Asriel takes over the Cape and Cowl and protects Gotham City. Uh, Now, Asriel was introduced just before Nightfall in a a story called Batman Sword of Asriel, number one, October 1992, by Denny O'Neill and Joe Quesada. And yeah, it's that same Marvel, Joe Quesada. The Joe Quesada. Yes. Wow. And And to be fair, it's also the... Danny O'Neill. That's right. He ain't no slouch either. (laughs) He is indeed. Uh, Or he isn't indeed, actually. Uh, Now, Asriel was the uh, Manchurian candidate sleeper assassin role for John Paul Valley, a computer science student at Gotham U, who had been brainwashed by the shadowy religious group, the Order of St. Dumas. Now, Batman has been trying to cure him of his programming that was called The System since they met. And now he thinks Asriel's good enough to be the Bat. So, beginning in Batman 489, February 1993, he goes with it. Over the course of the few issues, however, the system starts to take over again, and he adds on to the classic Batman costume until it's unrecognizable. That's right. Uh, This is a... uh, this is like Cable stumbled into the Batcave. Basically, yeah. It's like a ni- very 1990s thing. He shoots these little bat discs out. It's very crazy. Yeah, and I think it was purposely done like that to, was, uh, yeah. Yeah, to make it to make it extreme. It was sort of an, uh, it was sort of an, an commentary on some of the costumes. On what's going on. Time, yeah. Right? Now, this costume was designed by the same Joe Quesada, and he will very happily tell you That's that. That's right, often, ask. and whenever he gets a chance, yeah. But uh, he didn't He didn't create Deadpool. That was another guy I can't remember right now. Uh, something, Lee something, I don't remember. I think, yeah, Lee, Lee, Lee Fields did it, yeah. Now, eventually, Bruce Wayne recovers from his broken back and snatches that cowl right back. Yeah, everything's fine. Don't, it's nothing to recover from a broken back. Nah. It's no big deal. Uh, now, Commissioner Gordon also stepped in for Batman. We're going to assume you know who Commissioner Gordon is because we don't have aid. <laughs> he showed up in the very first issue of Detective Comics number 27. That was 1938, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the new 52 concluded in Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo's Batman with issue number 40. April 2015 covered eight. This was the final issue of the story arc Batman Ed Game. In this issue, the Joker and Batman appear to die together. After a two-month hiatus which contained the regrettable and forgettable DC Comics event Convergence, as well as a move from the offices of New York to Burbank, DC began its equally forgettable marketing campaign, (laughs) DCYOU. This really will be, I mean, someday people will never talk about this. Uh, (laughs) This included a mysteriously depowered Superman in a t-shirt, Hal Jordan as a wanted criminal in the Green Lantern Corps shifted to another dimension, and... Commissioner Gordon in a robot suit to replace Batman's patrols in Gotham City. Started in Batman number 41 with an August 2015 cover date in an arcs titled 
Super Heavy. Seems the suit was created by Powers International, created and represented by CEO Jerry Powers. And the suit sort of looks like a blue Robotech suit uh, with big radar ears that caused many to call the suit Bat Bunny. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gordon's attempts to get used to the suit, which he ditches at every chance, instead preferring this lithe, kind of form-fitting body glove suit that he wears within the armor, uh, throughout Detective Comics as well, but this time is maybe mercifully very short, as Bruce Wayne is back on the scene by issue number 44, so. Yeah, and I, I always thought that uh, that Gordon without his mustache, the way they drew him without That's the mustache, right. he looked, he looked kind of like Metamorpho. <laughs> In a way, you know, he definitely, his head was very boxy, and it also yeah, it it didn't, very strange. It didn't really make him look much younger. It made him look very, like, sickly, I thought, almost. Yeah, uh, he was ill. Yeah. Having read this, though, and I definitely would not tell you to run and read this arc, but they started mm. it, interestingly, it was a lot about Commissioner Gordon's internal thoughts about uh, policing. You know, it was yeah. a lot of internal stuff. But they ditched it really fast. They just didn't even. They didn't even go anywhere with it. They didn't explore. They didn't do. They didn't flesh it out like it could have no, been. No, they, they pretty much went in a little bit and then they ran away. That that uh, seemed to be the theme of DCYOU. It, it sure starts was. out really strong and then just like, eh, maybe not. They were like, ah, oh, we're gonna back off. So yeah, that uh, <laughs> that was that. Now we got another stand-in. This is uh, this time it's for Wonder Woman and it's Artemis standing in. Now finding she's unworthy of the title and because Hippolyta had visions of Diana dying. Artemis, who first appeared in Wonder Woman Volume 2, Number 90, September 1994 cover, takes over for Diana as Wonder Woman. This happens in Wonder Woman Volume 2, Numbers 94 through 100, written by William Messner Loeb's with art by Mike Diodato. Uh, Artemis turns out to be a much more lethal, uh, you know, vigilante character like Asriel before her. Right. And is eventually has to be put down by Diana. Uh, still, Volume Three of Wonder Woman begins with Donna Troy in the role. So, who really knows what's happening? I, it's I a don't. I very uh, nebulous role. <laughs> Uh, the last one we're going to talk about, and this one's very briefly, br- very brief because it's uh, it's confusing and it's uh, annoying. It only lasted. It only lasted like eight, I, seven, I, or eight I, issues too. It I sneezed and I missed it. It wasn't anything. <laughs> we're going to talk about Tim Drake becoming Batman Beyond. Now, the confusing events of the weekly DC event, Future's End, result in Tim Drake being sent into the future to become Batman Beyond, taking over for the dead Terry McGinnis. Right. And this begins with a volume five of Batman Beyond that uh, is another DC YOU book, July 2015. And uh, really, a such a such a downer ending for uh, Futures End. There, it's seemed to be building to something, and then all of a sudden they 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 zigged when I thought they were going to zag. They, and it's, they oh, really it's, it's all about the plug. this. Yeah, it was really yeah. silly. The ending of Brother Eyes sending Tim Drake into the future. Uh, yeah. There was Futures End might be something you might have to unpack here because it had a lot of concepts in it I liked, and then clearly something went off rails towards the end. They, of it. Like they decided that rebirth was going to happen or something, or they decided or that the convergence. DC, what, yeah. Something like that. Yeah, they 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 changed the uh, the tone of it. So uh, big time. But that would be a big one since that is like I don't know, that's a year's worth or something. A lot of issues. I think so. it went forty eight issues. Forty eight yeah. issues. So maybe someday we'll folks. get there. <laughs> not not right away. You know, not We're, today. Not this, soon, yeah. uh, we've found that this uh, event right here is plenty to unpack. But uh, <laughs> if you are, could think of any other great uh, stand-ins for superheroes, or you want to talk about the any of the four. Supermen that came out and what your thoughts were at the time or really anything you feel like talking about you can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com find us on facebook at facebook.com slash cosmic t history 
We're on Twitter at Cosmic T-Mill, and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. Find our weekly writings at WeirdScienceDCComics.com, and I always tell you every week you got to go check out Chris's personal blog. Chris is on InfiniteEarths.com, where he reviews a new DC comic every day of the week, and you have definitely been ping-ponging around the uh, times this week, as I recall. Mm-hmm. You know, I seem to recall there was some Bronze Age action, some more modern action. You reviewed some a new fifty-two. Yeah, I reviewed a comic. I was like, oh, it's too bad he had to review that one. <laughs> uh, I forgot about the new fifty. What was the new fifty-two one? It was. Uh... Uh, it was the uh, though that one I actually liked, but there was another one. That, it was the uh, the DCYOU uh, action comics with the uh, t-shirt. Oh Superman. yes, it was yes. Just uh, I was not, like, not, uh, not my not my favorite. Uh, well, you know, it it gets worse from there. Because uh, <laughs> uh, as it came out, it teased kind of a mystery where you're like, why did he lose the powers? You you really don't find out until like for months, and uh, yeah, that was the time that they were. By the time running. it doesn't matter. They were running Action Superman, and wasn't there another super title? There was Action Superman, Superman Batman, and Superman Wonder Woman. That's what it was, exactly. Yeah. So they were running the story in all four comics, which you're like, wow, this will move at a good clip. It moved, nope. it moved glacially. But anyway, Even slower. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't listen to me. Go, go to Chris and Infinite Earths <laughs> for that kind of uh, commentary on these comics. This is not where we uh, trying to pick them apart too much. Uh, we also have our own uh, blog here for the show, uh, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com, where uh, I think I, I think I'm up to date. So uh, there's a lot of old stuff missing, but the newest stuff is up there, so that's good. I'd like to also just start dumping things I like in there too. You know, sometimes yeah, like, you know, works, a page yeah. of you know something, uh, something. You know, we'll we'll figure more stuff out. Maybe even linking to other people's small reviews could be a stuff, thing. Yes, but uh, I think that's all I got from this week. Chris, got anything else for him? Nope, that'll do it. Well, until next time, folks, I want you to keep it on the treadmill and don't call me Superboy. Happy Thanksgiving.
not be caught sitting around in no jungle scheme. Dumb as an ape doing nothing. Superman never made any money. Saving the world from Solomon Grundy. Hello and welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill episode number 66 where we go back to the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. This is part four of our Death of Superman series looking at the uh, 25th anniversary of the Death of Superman and this one's all about Reign of the Superman part two and the after party. Mm -hmm. Uh, What happened to all the characters later on. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podmean.com or pick us up from iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, and from beyond the eternal curtain of death. Uh, we have a few new creators here because we are juggling a lot of issues, right, Chris? There are. Yes, sir. We are talking about many, many a comic book. We are going to go through all of the issues included in the return of Superman, including all of the new Superman that uh, you know, arrived last uh, episode and all that. So uh, let's just dive right into it and talk about some of these guys in brief, because, boy, there are a lot of them. Uh, we got Gerard Jones, born July 10th, 1957, in Cutbank, Montana. From 1983 to 1988, Jones was a regular contributor to National Lampoon magazine. He wrote the comic book Heroes from the Silver Age to the Present for Crown Publishing in 1985. And he wrote Green Lantern Mosaic from June 1992 to, to November of 1993. Lasted 18 issues, primarily drawn by Kali Hamner. This was uh, cities from around the galaxy uprooted and stuck on Oa. And then they have to deal with each other. It was sort of an mm-hmm. interesting story arc. And uh, the series was canceled prematurely, as we have, I think we have discussed this in other episodes. Last, day, last episode, yeah. Oh, okay, well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, and then he wrote for Superman's Comeback Trail. Here we are. <laughs> yes, he was the uh, Green Lantern writer, and uh, we're going to be talking a Green Lantern issue oh, yeah. here. Uh, on the other side of the table, we have M.D. Bright. This is Mark D. Doc Bright. He was born in 1955. He grew up in Montclair, New Jersey, receiving a BFA from the, the Pratt Institute in 1974. His work in comics began in 1978 with a three-page story in House of Mystery number 257, his April 78 cover date. His first regular work was providing the art for the Falcon miniseries for Marvel. There's four issues from November 1983 to February 1984. Uh, his major running comics series include Solo Avengers, Iron Man, G.I. Joe, Green Lantern, and Action Comics. And I know him from uh, Quantum and Woody. Uh, <laughs> and he also threw in on the Green Lantern book we'll be discussing a little bit later on. Now we're talking about Lee Motor. He's a fellow that lives in Pittsburgh and draws comics and variant covers sometimes. Not a ton of information about him nope. floating on the internet. <laughs> However, we do know that he broke into the industry not long before the Superman death business happened. His first published work was Legion, L-E-G-I-O-N, uh, number 38. That was April 92, cover date. Then he did Arrow number 1, October 92. Wonder Woman 72 and 73, that was March and April 1993. And then, of course, Newstime number 1, May 1993, The Life and Death of the Man of Steel. And he would go on to co-create along with Def John's Courtney Whitmore, who's the new Star-Spangled Kid, later known as Star Girl, which probably is his most known contribution. But uh, he's still, I would imagine so. He's yeah. still around out there somewhere. Now we're going to be talking about Jeff Loeb. Why? I, I always thought his name was Jeffrey, but it's not. It's, it's actually Joseph. Joseph yeah. 
Joseph Jeff Loeb III was born January 29th, 1958 in Stamford, Connecticut. Uh, he began collecting comic books during the summer of 1970. He attended Columbia University and graduated with a Bachelor of Arts and a Master's Degree in Film. His first professional work was his collaboration with Matthew Wiseman in authoring the script for the movie Teen Wolf, and that came out in 1985. Loeb continued to script for uh, film and television throughout the 80s and was working on a script for The Flash as a feature with uh, Warner Brothers in 1989. Now, while that script deal did fall through, Loeb met with publisher Jeanette Kahn, who asked Loeb to write a comic for DC Comics. And so, his first comic work was Challenges of the Unknown, Volume 2, Issues 1 through 8. This is May through October 1991. And this was this would be the first of his many collaborations with artist Tim Sale. Uh, he also contributed the Challenges of the Unknown bio for Who's Who in the DC Universe Number 1. This was the August 1990 edition. Uh, with Tim Sale, he wrote Legends of the Dark Knight Halloween special, December 1993. And he co-wrote a story for Action Comics that we will be discussing shortly. And I, I don't know much more about this guy. Did he do anything in comics after this? I don't know. Maybe, he might have done a couple of things here and there. Maybe. And he maybe worked in television a little bit, but I think he's pretty much living under a bridge by now or something. I think so, yeah. Who, who could tell? Who knows? Uh, so, <laughs> Eddie Newell, he was born 1960, 1957, possibly in Michigan, I think. Studied, studied visual communication at the Art Institute of Pittsburgh. His first published work was for the Twilight Zone, November 1990, for Now Comics. And that contributed to Hero Alliance number 15, May 1991, cover for Innovation Comics, which was a division of Now Comics, or an imprint, or whatever you want to call it. Lost in Space number 1, August 1991, cover, and the Lost in Space Annual, 1992, for Innovation. Green Hornet 3 and 4, November, December 1991, covers for Now Comics. Twilight Zone number one, and then Twilight Zone number five. These were anthologies, so he only contributed to these, uh, mm. Twilight Zone and a couple of these other ones. That was November 91 and March 1992, respectively. That was for Now Comics. And then Weird Tales Illustrated number one, January 1992, for Millennium Publications. And The Justice Machine number two, November 1992, for Comic Co. So you see, it really is like you're seeing a progression from... Things we've never heard of to wait. Now I'm starting to recognize <laughs> yep. some of these publishers. Uh, and and an issue of Superman, The Man of Steel, that we'll discuss today. He's best known, I think, for a run on Black Lightning from 1995 to 96. And yeah. he has stayed busy his whole life. He he still does work now, covers. He's working on a graphic novel of his own right now. Of his own life, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, he's, he's not uh, hurting for work and... With no, and, and he's he's a really good artist too. We can we can include his website in the show notes. He's a sure, yeah. he does a lot of really good black and white uh, work. It's some really uh, haunting faces. I looked at some of his like commission work, and it seemed to be all black and white, and it was really yeah. really good stuff. Certainly. Uh, next guy we're going to talk about Ed Hannigan. He was born August sixth, nineteen fifty one. In America. Probably. Uh, we think. <laughs> <laughs> he was cited as American, so we'll say so. Uh, now, his first credited work was as writer for Marvel's licensed Planet of the Apes. This is issue number five, February 1975 cover. Uh, he wrote and or drew issues of Marvel's Defenders from issues 67 through 91. This is January of 79 through January of 81. Uh, while drawing Spectacular Spider-Man, he co-created the characters Cloak and Dagger along with Bill Mantlo. Uh, over at DC, he gave Brainiac a bit of a facelift. That's right. He, yeah, he had a run drawing covers for Batman between 83 and 85. Didn't he create uh, that uh, Brainiac ship, too, or no? 
He might have. I know Perez, that might have been the cybernetic Perez. one. Yeah. It might have been Perez. Yeah, but he he did do the more cybernetic y uh, brainy. That was him. Yeah, he's like the the you know robot skeleton. The robot yeah. one. Yeah. Uh, now he provided interior art for the for much of the first two years of the Mike Grell run on Green Arrow, which is where I know him from. Mm. Um, and then uh, jumping way ahead in 2010, the Hero Initiative put out Ed Hannigan colon covered, uh, where several comics creators pitched in to assist as a benefit to help cover medical expenses due to Ed's multiple sclerosis. Well, that's nice. Uh, last fella we'll talk about in these bios is David Lapham. Born in 1970, Lapham began his professional career in 1990 at Valiant Comics. He would follow editor Jim Shooter to Defiant Comics, where they would co-create the Warriors of Plasm in 1993. And he's perhaps best known as the creator of Stray Bullets, an independent comic published under his own El Capitan books, which still comes out to this day. It does. Now, right into the comics here. We have Action Action Comics, issue 688. This is July 1993 cover date. An Eye for an Eye by Roger Stern and Jackson Geis. $1.50. It was triangle number 16 for the year 1993. Guy Gardner reads all about these strange new visitors, all claiming to be the Man of Steel, and decides to investigate. The Eradicator stops a bank robbery in brutal fashion by breaking the would-be robber's hands. Uh, Lois visits the robber in the hospital to follow up for a story and sees someone she believes for a moment to be Clark Kent. Inspector Henderson is promoted to commissioner of the Metropolis Police, and his first official act is to promote Maggie Sawyer to inspector and put her on this weird Superman case. Guy Gardner meets up with the Eradicator, and they beat the hell out of each other for a little while. Seems Guy likes the cut of this new Superman's jib. Uh, he gives him his full backing, which doesn't really sit well with the last son of Krypton. Mm. That's not the endorsement you want. No, well, some people might want it, but not a, not somebody <laughs> trying to be a hero. Uh, so then we got Superman, the Man of Steel, number 23, July 1993, cover date. Ambush by Louise Simonson and John Bogdanoff. That's $1.50 cover price, seventeen triangle number 17 of 1993. This is the Steel one, where Steel beats up some gangbangers armed with Toastmasters. Uh, you got to listen to the last issues to understand what that <laughs> sentence meant. But uh, uh, to, he's unable to learn the whereabouts of White Rabbit. A loose-lipped gang member is killed before he can spill the beans. Sure happens a lot, doesn't it? It's a common thing, it seems, in, uh, not just in comics, to movies and certain gangster <laughs> novels. Uh, Lex Luthor is able to procure footage from the fight and deduces that the loose-lipped gang member was about to say, Spire. So maybe she's at the Metro Spire Hotel. That's good enough. Good a theory as any, I guess. You know, we're using the uh, old Adam West uh, Batman uh, deduction here. (laughs) Lois Lane watches a gang fight from a helicopter, hopeful to check in on Steel. And then Showboat Superboy arrives and attracts some gunfire. And some ladies. No, I'm sorry. Uh, (laughs) Lois' helicopter is hit, and she bails out right into the waiting arms of Steel. She asks if Superman, and if he's Superman, he says... That's not a claim he'd ever made. <laughs> you are wearing a big S on your chest, sir. Uh, after su- setting her, settling her down, Steel lectures Superboy on acting a fool and tells him what he did caused a helicopter pilot his life. Lex Luthor Deuce informs Steel that White Rabbit is at the Metro Spire and shares that intel in hopes that Steel might agree to be sponsored by WLEX. Iron says, no, nah, I don't think so. Nah. Uh, during the raid, Superboy winds up saving Steel's life, and Steel admits they're actually at—they're equally at fault in the helicopter pilot's death, since John Henry created the Toastmaster. 
to begin with. So uh, Lois considers what she would what she should think about this new thing. Blah, blah. Lois considers what she should think about this new Man of Steel, and she feels as though he obviously looks the least like Superman, but appears to have his soul. Mm-hmm. Maybe he is a uh, visitor, like the uh, psychic lady could said. Could be, could be. Yeah. A body inhabitant, or whatever. Right. It was. Now we're gonna jump over to Superman Volume Two, Number Seventy Nine, uh, also July nineteen ninety three cover. Prove it by Dan Jurgens for one dollar fifty. Triangle number eighteen for nineteen ninety three. Ron Troop, if you remember, he's the uh, fellow who's stepping in for uh, Clark while right. he's away. He travels to Washington D.C. to find out if the cyborg Superman is the real steel deal. Before he's able to meet with the president, Karaki, that's Quiraki, mm-hmm. uh, terrorist attack. Uh, it's an assassination attempt on President Clinton. Uh, Cyborg arrives on the scene to take them out. And in so doing, he also triggers the White House defense system. Uh, so he fights the White House for a little while. Sure. Uh, via a retinal scanner, Cyborg is able to prove to Troop that he is the real deal. President Clinton personally thanks Cyborg and acknowledges him as the one and only true Superman. Perry White reads, reads Troop's tripe and uh, realizes that he should have no problem filling Clark's shoes. You know, it's like, yeah, really, what have you done for us lately, Clark? Die? Sheesh, you know what I mean? Clark who? You know, whatever. <laughs> this, is a, this is a newspaper biz. Now, amazingly, mm-hmm. because of the time that it hit, uh, there was a uh, crossover, a, a annual event that happened during a fifth week in uh, this year called Bloodlines. Uh, we've actually talked about this few times. A few times in our, in our time. And this is sort of the uh, series that uh, brought Chris and I, myself together. It is. But just because it, Superman's got his own problems doesn't mean he doesn't have to deal also with what's going on in Bloodline. So we'll talk about the issues that touch there. It was Superman, the Man of Steel, Annual Number 2, Cutting Edge by Louise Simonson and Eddie Newell, uh, introducing Thomas Edge O'Brien, friend of John Henry Irons. His body becomes covered with spikes. And that's about as lame as it sounds. It was pretty late, pretty weak. Yeah. Uh, Superman Volume 2 Annual Number 5, Myriad by Dan Jurgens and David Laffel. This reintroduces Sasha Myriad Green. This is Lex Luthor's karate trainer, who he right. killed a few months back. You remember her? Yeah. Uh, just to show he, he could do it, you know, just because. Yes. So to prove he was still evil, you know. <laughs> he was still he was still an evil fellow. Uh, now she gets the meta gene juice treatment here, and. Uh, if Laugham's art's to be believed, it looks like she hit menopause a while ago, too. She uh, has aged quite a bit here. Is that a superpower? I don't know. Uh, Action Comics Annual Number 5, Loose Cannon by Jeff Loeb and Lee Motor. Uh, introducing Officer Eddie Loose Cannon Walker, a crippled ex-police officer who changed into a hornless dollar store blue devil. Mm-hmm. Finally, Adventures of Superman Annual Number 5, Blood Relations by Carl Kiesel, Tom Grummet, and Ed Hannigan. This introduces Donna Carroll, DC, Sparks Force, who could become a being of pure, en- pure energy, which, uh, you know, is a thing. We sure have heard a lot from her since, haven't we? Oh, All yeah, these great, great characters, memorable great characters coming from Bloodlines. Mm-hmm. All right, so that so that uh, that uh, release date. I'm glad we spent all that time on those new creators. Huh? Oh, really? Yeah, really. <laughs> they sure. That was it, folks. We don't we don't see them again. Uh, so, Adventures of Superman number five hundred two, July nineteen ninety three. Boy meets girl by Carl Kiesel and Tom Grummet. That was a dollar fifty, and it was triangle number nineteen of nineteen ninety three. While saving some teenagers from crashing their car, Superboy meets Supergirl, and the hormonal clone that he is. It's kind of awkward. 
Mm -hmm. uh, she invites him to meet with her main man, Lex Ladadus. We know him. Vincent Edge hires Rex Leach as something of an agent for Superboy. He'll play prominently in Superboy's own ongoing series. Remember when Bibbo saved that puppy, the one named Krypton that could only fit Crypto on his uh, collar or his, his tag? Well, he gets a name tag engraved for the pup, and like we said, uh, it's on Metropolis dog tags only have six characters, so his name is Crypto, very conveniently. Yes. During dinner, Superboy agrees to join Team Luther, and after all, he'll they'll be able to, he'll be able to work with Supergirl. Anything to get in proximity of a chick is all he needs. And after dinner, he also agrees to go exclusive with WGBS. To be fair, Rex Leach's daughter Roxy was all over him, and don't forget, Tana Moon comes with a deal as well. So wherever the ladies are, that's where Superboy wants to be at. That's what we that's, that's what we know right. here. <laughs> now we're going to hop over to Action Comics issues 689, July 1993 cover. Who is the True Hero by Stern and Geis? This is dollar 50. It is triangle number 20 for 1993. Uh, a regeneration matrix inside the Fortress of Solitude opens. Out walks Superman. Mm. He heads over to a bank of monitors where he sees the four supermen in action and realizes he's going to have to intervene. Lex Luthor is uh, annoyed that he, uh, when he learns that Superboy signed on with WGBS. Uh, speaking of not being happy, Jonathan Kent is annoyed at the phony Superman and uh, might want to say something about it. Yeah. I'm not sure if he ever gets around to it. Uh, the Eradicator and Steel... They do what uh, most uh, heroes do when they meet. They fight. Uh -huh. <laughs> Lo Lois busts in to tell them that they're both disgracing the symbol. Uh, we learn that Rex Leach has trademarked the Superman name. Damn, who's signed the back of the check at that time? I, I know, was, right? Uh, Siegel and Schuster? <laughs> D I don't know. Does DC have that? And, and in so doing, he also serves the Eradicator and Steel with cease and desist papers. <laughs> The two supermen take their fight west to Coast City. And later to the courthouse. Yes. Uh, I remember this, too, where Lex, Lex is really mad that he thinks, you know, that his exclusivity agreement has been, you know, dismissed yep. by Superboy. And it's like, Superboy's a clone, and plus he's like a teenager. Like, nothing, yep. he, nothing he signed is legally binding. <laughs> uh, you know, it's like, believe me, that this is not an uh, ironclad contract here. Anyway, uh... <laughs> Superman, The Man of Steel, number 24, August 1993. This is Impact by Simonson and Bogdanov. $1.50 cover price, number 21 of 1993 in the triangle numeral thing. Eradicator and Steel <laughs> yes. briefly fight. <laughs> uh, Lex, Luthor and the, Lex Luthor, the sequel, strikes a deal with White Rabbit to deliver her steel, or deliver to her steel the, the character, not just steal the raw metal. Yes. Uh, and so Steel is offered a free ride back to Metropolis where he finds himself on the business end of a whole lot of gunfire. Steel's taken by White Rabbit to a factory where the Toastmasters are assembled. She intends to blow up the factory with him in it, but it doesn't quite go down that way. The bomb goes off, trapping her, but Steel is able to escape. Yeah, why would you ever uh, accept a free ride back to Metropolis? I know, really. From Lex Luthor, of all people. All right. <laughs> We're going to go to Superman, Volume 2, Number 80. This is August 93, Cover Date. Deadly Alliance by Dan Jurgens. This is $1.50. It's triangle number 22 for 1993. Satellites have picked up on the fact that there's a giant spacecraft approaching the Earth. More specifically, Coast City. Yeah, Mongol says, Destroy it! We want them to know it. Little of us is possible. And so, a nearby satellite is blasted. One that belonged to Lex Luthor, in fact. And he's annoyed that his feed was cut. Luckily, all he has to do is turn his head, and he's got several more televisions to watch. 
uh, they all appear to be on the same network. Well, what are you going to do? I mean, it really seems a little ostentatious. Like, he's bragging you can watch the same channel on several TVs. And we mean, like, dozens of TVs. Yeah. <laughs> Can't say I wouldn't do the same thing if I could. I'd just have sure. a TV and the same thing kind of, kind of show people how little I care. But anyway, uh, <laughs> the Eradicator is still there and currently helping out put out a fire at Ferris Aircraft. He decides he'll stay to help out with the possible, possible invasion as well. Yeah, so a guy from Ferris goes, uh, we just got a flash alert from NASA that reports an alien craft headed this way. Eradicator says, looks like I'll be staying. Glad to hear it, Superman. Green Lantern isn't around these days, and we'll take whatever protection we can get. This fellow seems referring to the events of DC Universe Trinity from 1993, where Hal, the Dark Stars, and the L-E-G-I-O-N Legion have a cosmic adventure, and they're off-planet mm-hmm. for a time. White House contacts their Superman, the cyborg one, to advise him of the pending Coast City situation. And I can't do a Bill Clinton impression, so I'll just <laughs> do it straight. Uh, someone from the White House goes, uh, White House security Superman, White House security Superman. Superman here? How can I be of service? So casual, you know, you almost expect them to ask if he wants fries with Yeah, that, a little know. too casual, perhaps, mm-hmm. huh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> As this is going down, the giant spacecraft arrives and hovers over Coast City. And it releases a load of orbs or globes. Yeah. These uh, glowy things. Uh, now, the Eradicator heads in to investigate, and he, but he finds himself blasted by... The Cyborg Superman. Uh-oh. Cyborg claims that the Eradicator will be blamed for what's about to happen. Your first and last mistake. I don't know who or what you are, but as you go to your grave, there's one thing you should know. You'll be blamed for the death of millions. We jump right on board the ship where one of the lackeys goes, All the globes have been landed, sir. Your orders? Detonate them, fool! I want all 77,000 of them detonated now! By your command. And so, a caption reads, It sounds like a million thunderstorms rolled into one. 77,000 explosive devices erupt as one, and the world is changed forever. As it said, the orbs ignite, and Coast City is atomized. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. In seconds, a series of 77,000 individual explosions, each one powerful enough to topple the building, coalesces into one massive blast capable of wiping out an entire metropolitan area. Every office, every home, every school and hospital is atomized. The West Coast and its entire ecosystem is instantaneously shattered, and more than 7 million men women and children that once called the Coast City area home die. The craft then drops mechanical seeds from which a new city will grow. And they're basically smaller, darker globes than we just saw. Uh, Now the Eradicator is left in an energy form. Have to get inside to the fortress before my existence comes to an end. Again. And then the White House calls again. They say, White House to Superman, White House to Superman. Great, Scott, if you can hear me, you've got to answer. Please. I can barely hear you, White House. There's a lot of debris in the atmosphere. Tell me what you found. The smoke and ash are so thick that our satellites can't see through it. We can't raise anyone in Coast City, either. I mean, tell me that this isn't really... It is. I did everything possible to prevent it, but Coast City is gone. Everything is gone. At the fortress, we hear a voice from within a Kryptonian battlesuit. 
Finally, with this suit, I will survive. Oh, that's a really. It looks like the Eradicator made it at least. Well, who says that's the Eradicator? Oh. Oh. And we close out with Cyborg boarding the giant ship and learning who its master is. It's totally Mongol, which we've already spoiled. This was supposed to be a surprise, though. Yes, and uh, maybe this is a surprise, but Mongol kneels before the cyborg and kisses his hand. Yeah, cyborg says, Earth will be doomed. Yes, master. Your dreams and wishes will be fulfilled. I have reshaped Coast City to my desire, and Metropolis is next. Uh Uh-oh. We we jump immediately to Adventures of Superman number 503, August 1993 cover date. Line of Fire by Kiesel and Grummet. $1.50, 23 of 1993. Cyborg is still pretending to be a good guy, and he's claiming that another one of the Supermen was behind the destruction of Coast City. We're talking about the Eradicator, of course. Superboy is sent in to assist the cyborg in checking out the smoldering crater, and as you might imagine, it doesn't really work out too well for the kid. Uh, We can see that the Mongols' uh, mechanical seats have already blossomed into a new engine-like city. He must have used Miracle Grow. I think so. So, uh, Action Comics number 690, August 1993 cover date. That's Lies and Revelations by Stern and Geis, $1.50 covered. Triangle number 24 of 1993. Superboy wakes up, a captive of Mongol and Cyborg, Superman's engine city. The Cyborg tricks the Justice League task force into chasing the rogue Eradicator. Mongol unwittingly informs Superboy that the Cyborg plans to destroy Metropolis next. The Eradicator realizes that he's not really Superman, and in a Kryptolian battlesuit so slowly makes its way toward Metropolis. Mm-hmm. Now, Superman, the man is still number 25. We're not going to tell you, we don't tell you what the covers show, especially not this one, because no. it ruins what's inside. <laughs> uh, this is another uh, this is September 1993 cover date. The title is The Return by Simonson and Bogdanov. This is a dollar fifty and triangle number 25 of 1993. It's convenient. Man is still 25, triangle number 25. Hey. Yeah, it happens once every thousand years. <laughs> Um, <laughs> now, Superboy manages to escape from Engine City using his strange form of telekinesis that uh, Superman doesn't have. I don't seem to recall him having. Maybe in the uh, Silver Age he had a couple issues, but it got wiped <laughs> away. Yeah. Yes. Now, he heads to Metropolis to warn them that they are next on Mongol and the Cyborg's intergalactic hit list. Uh-oh. Jeb Friedman, you remember him? He continues to creep on Lois, but she ain't feeling it. Uh, she plans to head to Coast City to investigate, despite editor Perry White saying, no, don't do that. That's a bad idea. Which literally is like demanding that she should do it is, based, is the result. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, totally, you totally don't want to do that. Right. <laughs> uh, now, Supergirl is also planning to go to Coast City, uh, even though Lex insists she remain in Metropolis. Because, uh, you know, there is a giant Kryptonian battlesuit headed their way, and uh, he fears it might be another case of the doomsdays. That's right. Uh, it's it's walking so, through the ocean and everything, right? It it's, it's totally just unstoppable. Mm-hmm. And so Supergirl is on the battle suitcase now. At the airport, Lois and Steel chat about the Coast City disaster, and they share a few theories. Supergirl rushes by, heading directly for the robot rising from the bay. Steel pitches in, beating the bot with his hammer. Then Superboy returns, and he pitches in too. Superboy warns John Henry that the cyborg and Mongol plan on decimating Metropolis next. And then the robot opens, revealing, as if the cover didn't spoil it, Superman. Yeah, I mean, this might be one of the most tepid reveals 
right. right here because of the cover and because like we've already by process of elimination and we know it's not the eradicator uh, right now. We know it's not certain that we it's like we know what's what was going to happen here uh the nature of his you know getting his powers back is like a little unknown but it pretty much uh took the air out of that sale Basically. or whatever but anyway uh Keep marching on, Superman, Volume 2, number 81, September 1993, cover date. Resurrections by Jurgens, $1.50 cover, triangle number 26 of 1993. This new and depowered Superman who just emerged from the Kryptonian battlesuit pleads his case as being the real deal. He shares some things with Lois that only the real Clark would or should know. Back in Engine City, we learn that Cyborg Superman is actually Hank Henshaw. That's a character first appeared in Adventures of Superman number 466 in May 1990 and was created by Dan Jurgens. He's basically the Reed Richards of a doomed space shuttle trip. Uh, this was the LexCorp shuttle Excalibur, which crashed after being nailed with a solar flare. Upon return, Hank's body began to decay, but before death, his consciousness shifted into a, shifted into a robotic body and then somehow into the Kal-El's Kryptonian birthing matrix, because sure. Uh, must, must have been on the internet. Must have been on like, mm -hmm. one of those old, uh, you know, 12 odd modems. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Blaming Superman for the Excalibur disaster, he vows to commit atrocities while wearing his face. Superman borrows some Team <laughs> Luther rocket boots and heads off to Engine City to dole out some justice alongside his stand-ins. We hop over to Adventures of Superman number 504, September 1993, cover date. Assault on Engine City by Kiesel and Grummet. Dollar fifty cover, triangle number 27 for 93. Uh, the super folks make their way to Engine City, and they're attacked. Superman, the real one, arms himself, so if you ever wanted to see Superman doing his best cable cosplay... Mm -hmm. Boy, howdy, this is the issue for you. <laughs> uh... <laughs> Cyborg launches a, a rocket toward Metropolis, and Superboy, what's that movie where they ride a rocket or oh, a missile or something? Is that how I how it learns to love the bomb or something like, something like that? Something like that, yeah. So Superboy does that. He rides this bomb back, and he manages to pull it skyward just before it hits the Daily Planet building, and then it explodes. Superboy is feared dead, and let me tell you, with the real Superman back... Why not, right? Yeah, I mean, none of these characters... It's a heroic death. It was so... Now that Superman's back, none of these other four characters seemed integral at all. They, none nope. of them... You know, we went from thinking one of them might stick around to like, oh, they all could go away and nothing's... You know, we'll be back to status quo. Uh, mm -hmm. We'll talk about that more later. First, we have more, more comics to discuss, and that's Action Comics, number 691, September 1993, cover date. Secret Weapon by Stern and Geis. That was a $1.50 cover. Triangle number 28 of 1993. Superboy survived, don't worry, but is too wiped out by the blast to return to Engine City. Supergirl acts as Superman's secret weapon to take out some troops. Cyborg Superman realizes that Superman is back now, and Mongolf reveals that the Engine City is powered by Kryptonite. Over at the Fortress of Solitude, the Eradicator repowers himself to rejoin the fight. Mm-hmm. Superman, the Man of Steel, number 26, October 1993. Blast Off by Simonson and Bogdanov. $1.50, number 29 of 1993. Cyborg helps Steel shut down the kryptonite-powered engine. Uh, he hasn't turned good on us. He's just ticked off at Mongol. Yeah. Uh, the engine is destroyed, but the kryptonite remains. A depowered Superman gets his clock cleaned by Mongol. And on the horizon, <laughs> a wild Hal Jordan approaches. Oh, no. You better use, uh, you know... Fuzz, I don't know, I don't yes. play enough Pokemon Something sorry. yellow, I don't know uh, <laughs> Green Lantern, Volume 3, Number 46, October 1993 This is that one Green Lantern issue we were talking about 
Death City by Gerard Jones and M.D. Bright, doll 25 cover date. Hal arrives and takes on Mongol, but gets his ass handed to him. He uses his ring to construct a suit of armor and smashes Mongol with Steel's hammer. Superman does some battle with Cyborg Superman. When the dust settles, Hal considers using his ring to bring Coast City back. That never mm, happened, yeah, right? Nothing ever comes of that, I'm pretty sure. Never ever. Interesting. No, never goes away real quick. Right. Uh, now, that's the issue that I I don't know. I misremembered it in my head here. I thought all the Engine City, the Coast City explosion stuff happened in that issue. So I was uh, very underwhelmed when I got to it and realized it was kind of just an ancillary issue. It was just sort of a wrap-up, but it, it obviously yeah. leads into big, big changes big for Hal Jordan going indeed. on. Yeah. Now we're going to hop into Superman Volume 2, number 82, October 1993 cover date, Back for Good by Jurgens. It's $1.50 and number 30 from 1993. Superman continues to battle the cyborg as the Eradicator returns to the scene. Cyborg manages to burn Superman's chest with his whatever approximation of heat vision is. Sure. Uh, he then opens Steel's armor up as though he were a can opener, yep. which takes him out of the <laughs> takes oh, him yeah. out of the proceedings. Or like a lobster or something. Like cracks <laughs> him open. He's just peeled and cracked, yep. Now, it looks as though a cyborg is intermingling into the engine city's machinery. Uh, he reveals to Superman that he is actually Hank Henshaw, and he gives a very skewed recollection of what actually happened in their history together. Yeah, very uh, Hank Henshaw pro recollection. Mm, yeah. Uh, very positive towards him. Anyway, the Eradicator reveals that he was behind the real Superman's restoration. Yeah, Superman goes, you mean you can restore life? Eradicator replies, not quite. Though the conditions were ideal and your Kryptonian body in Earth's environment was uniquely suited to the recuperative process, you had nearly extinguished your massive store of solar energies in your battle with Doomsday. Only by getting to you quickly and administering the healing baths of the Matrix Chamber could I help? Mm, and the two supermen arrive at the Engine City's glass-encased kryptonite core. Cyborg smashes the glass case, releasing its radioactive greenness. Superman claims that while kryptonite is deadly for him, it can also kill humans, so back off. Yeah. Uh, Gives as him he cancer, says apparently, as we know. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> now, as he says this, this, the green glow draws Superboy Steel and Supergirl to the core as well. But they find themselves at a dead end. Superman punches Henshaw's cybernetic jaw clean off, which makes him look like he's going. Cyborg retaliates by firing a kryptonite hose, which the eradicator dives in front of. Uh, Cyborg continues to pummel the twosome with kryptonite, and the uh, the eradicator is turned into some uh, beef jerky from the looks of it. Um, Outside, Hal Jordan flies up to meet Steel, Superboy, and Supergirl, and uh, they're still at that dead end, so Hal bashes through that wall with his uh, willpower, and it releases, uh, you know, a, a lot of kryptonite dust, yeah. so he protects the, uh, the now foursome in a green bubble. When the kryptonite dust settles, we see Cyborg Superman standing over Eradicator's beefy, spicy corpse. <laughs> but he's not alone. In the background, Superman reclaims his cape and proceeds to beat the holy hell out of the bad guy. He actually punches right through the cyborg, impaling him on his arm, holds him aloft, then vibrates his arm, shattering the cyborg into a whole lot of itty-bitty pieces. It's pretty hardcore. Yeah. Uh, 
At this point, we wrap up the issue with Superman use, Supergirl using her hoodoo to repair Superman's costume. And the Kid of Steel finally admits that there's only one Superman, and it, it's not him. It's it's the real guy. So he'll be named Super Dude from now on. Yes. Uh, I, this one I remember well because it was very satisfying to see this happening to Cyborg Superman because he's, yes. he's the most obviously duplicitous, and I really... Oh, yeah. Really rubbed me the wrong way, and uh, you know, it's nice to see a guy like that get his comeuppance even in a fiction comic book. Uh, <laughs> Adventures of Superman number 505, October 1993, cover date Reign of the Superman by Kiesel and Grummet, Duck Triangle number 31 of 1993. This had a $1.50 standard cover, $2.50 foil cover. Also came in a half black bag variation pack with a numbered postcard featuring the cover of Superman number one for $1.50. Mm-hmm. Uh, Superman flies back to Metropolis and taps on Lois Lane's window. Sounds like a euphemism. Uh, they all sound like that to me. Anyway, uh, <laughs> we close out with a mid-air makeout session. We later join Clark coming out of the shower, and Lo- Lois is recalling the events of the past several months. Clark tells her none of this ever happened. It all must have just been a dream. So there seems like maybe a little Dallas in our Superman comics all of a sudden. So. Uh, you know, where's Patrick Duffy? Is he coming mm-hmm. out of the woodwork here? Uh, the fiance is engaged in a tickle fight before another reality sets in. How do they explain Clark Kent's miraculous return? No time for that right now, though. Superman senses trouble. Elsewhere, the super team arrives back in Metropolis. Steel is somehow back in his armor, and the Eradicator is looking far more alive than he had last issue as well. We join Superman as he takes down a fantastic foursome of criminals mm-hmm. at a bank. Uh, Lex Luthor watches this unfold, though oddly, not on a bank of television screens, just from his window. Uh, he vows to destroy him. Before, on the, assume on the television screens, though, that is what's being shown. So if he, sure. turn, if he turns around, he can watch it just as well. Uh, he vows to destroy him, blah, blah, same old Lex Luthor thing. Uh, we get some touching reunions, Superman and Jimmy, and then Superman and Bibbo. And everyone's happy that their favorite is back. Superman saves a family from under a building, to which Jimmy suggests perhaps Clark Kent is also stuck under a building. Eh? Hmm. Fixes in, folks. I think so. Yeah. We're going to jump over to Action Comics number 692. It's October 1993. Story is called And Who, disguised as Clark Kent, by Roger Stern, Carl Kiesel, and Jackson Geis. $1.50, and this is triangle number 32 for 1993. Just like Jimmy said, Superman saves Clark Kent. Jimmy takes a photo of Lois hugging both Superman and Clark at the rescue scene because Clark was totally being played by Supergirl. Duh. Right. Well, she is that protoplasm that can reform itself, so that's how that worked, right? Basically, was that she was able to fake it. Certainly. Now we're going to wrap up the epic with an epilogue. This is Superman Volume 2, number 83, November 1993. This is Funeral for a Friend Epilogue on the Edge by Dan Jurgens. It was $1.50, and it was number 34 for the year 1993. We open with Superman in Gotham City talking to Commissioner Gordon and the bat signals on. It's eventually answered by a uh, an armored Batman. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Now, Superman wants Batman to come along to help take care of Engine City with the rest of the Justice League, but uh, this Batman ain't too keen on playing with a team. Uh, Superman does threaten to use his X-ray vision, but, uh, you know, doesn't doesn't do it. Uh, now, the League uh, clears up the Engine City debris, uh, leaving only a green-lit flame to commemorate the once-great Coast City. The story and epic finally ends with Clark Kent returning to Metropolis, and asking Jimmy Olsen if they could be roommates for a little while. Jimmy says, 
This is great, Clark. We'll have a monster time hanging out. Let's crank some Van Halen to celebrate. And I what, wish it was Axl Rose in the band, but... What better music to celebrate? <laughs> the return of Superman, the return of Clark Kent. That was very exciting. Uh, you might as well jump. That's right, exactly. Well, back then, you might as well... Uh, Okay, not drive 55, I think. There you think. go. <laughs> but uh, we're going to wrap up the bios of the core uh, creators, uh, people that worked on the Superman titles and this uh, event, and then we'll, we'll talk about our feelings about it. But, of course, the man that orchestrated the whole thing, Mr. Mike Carlin in 2000, said, A lot of people criticized us for doing something commercial. They thought we only did it for commercial reasons. But every single story that we've plotted, and I guarantee you it was the same with every editor and writer before us, was designed to hook a new reader. The problem, as time goes on and we're living in the 80s and 90s, is that a lot of people have decided that Superman is corny. They've decided that they saw a movie or a cartoon and it wasn't what they expected. It was our intention to get them to read the comic. If they didn't like it, that's cool, but at least try what we're doing, as opposed to being influenced by an old movie or serials. At the same time, the extent we had to go to try and get people to read the comics seemed very drastic and calculated. The bottom line is that we just wanted to tell the story of the world that took Superman for granted. After 50 years, a lot of kids didn't want their father's superhero. They were on their own like Ninja Turtles. They were onto their own like Ninja Turtles, who wanted to illustrate that Superman offered something pertinent for the world of the 90s and beyond. To do that, we had to show how cruddy it would be if he wasn't alive that you don't know what you have until it's gone. And that was the whole motivation of the story. Wow. So mm -hmm. there you go. Uh, that He laid it out, folks. That's why they did it. Now, from 1996 to 2002, he was an executive editor at DC Comics, and as of 2014, Mike Carlin was DC Entertainment's director of animation. He won an Eisner Award in 1994 for Best Editor for the Superman titles, won the 1994 Inkpot Award, and Mike Carlin has been featured two times within comics. Uh, one time in Batman Adventures number 13, October 1993 cover by Kelly Puckett and Mike Parabek. Batman faces a trio of screwball supervillains based on important contributors to the Dark Knight. So there was the Mastermind, which was Mike Carlin, the Professor, Denny O'Neill, and Mr. Nice, which was Archie Goodwin. Then in Superman, The Man of Steel, number 75, January 1998, by Louise Simonson and John Bogdanov. A throwback to Superman, number 75. Mr. Mizius Pitlick creates a second doomsday to kill Superman, who then is, who is then promptly revived by the supreme being, who is Mike Carlin, or looks just like him. Uh, he was also referenced on Lois and Clark, uh, The New Adventures of Superman, both in the last name of Lex Luthor's ex-wife, Ariana Carlin, and it's the name of a restaurant referenced in the first episode, Carlini's. Mm -hmm. The entire Death of Superman creative team was features on Lois and Clark as extras, which I didn't know. They were. Yes, they were in a crowd scene, yeah, where Superman was uh, coming down to land. And they, uh, they all pointed up to him. And the amount of money they made as an extra that day exceeded their <laughs> yearly salary. Their uh... <laughs> decadely salary. <laughs> <laughs> we'll wrap up a little bit more Louise Simonson here. Uh, Louise returned to Marvel in 1999 to write Warlock. This was the M-Tech one, which was uh, yeah. uh, nine issues, October 1999 through June 2000. Uh, of course, this was featuring the uh, character she co-created in The New Mutants. Right. She wrote uh, Galactus the Devourer, six issues from September of 99 to March 2000. Galactus dies for a little while in this one. In 2005, she wrote stories featuring Magnus Robot Fighter for the publisher iBooks Incorporated. 
In 2007, she wrote a one-shot starring Magic of the New Mutants as part of a four-issue event known as Mystic Arcana. Uh, in 2008 through 2009, she wrote several issues of Marvel Adventures. This is the uh, line of one-shot comics that were aimed at the younger readers. Uh, she also co-wrote the comic World of Warcraft for Wildstorm, also a manga story based on the Warcraft universe for Tokyo Pop. Uh, she'd win the Eagle Award for Power Pack, the Comics Buyer's Guide Award for The Death of Superman, and the Ink Pot Award for Outstanding Achievement in Comic Arts in 1992. Yeah, all three of them in 1992, so mm-hmm. nice job. A little more on Job Bogdanov. After leaving the Superman Man of Steel title, Bogdanov drew two intercompany crossovers for DC Comics. One was Superman and Savage Dragon, Metropolis, November 1999. Sorry, co-published with Image Comics. And then Superman Aliens 2, God War, that was May 2002 to November 2002, co-published with Dark Horse Comics. John often works creating DC character style guides and commercial art for Warner Brothers. In 2011, Bogdanov teamed again with Simonson for a new Superman one-shot, which was Superman Retroactive 1990s. People don't remember this retroactive thing. Yeah, it's uh, happened during Flashpoint. It was like it was during Flashpoint, and yeah. you know, on the cusp of 52, it totally gets shoved aside. Uh, wasn't great. I'm not gonna lie to you, no, but you know, it was. Were, it's, yeah, it's cool. You know, it's all right. Sure. You know, believe in hindsight, uh, considering you can get them for a quarter a piece, it's not. It's, there are worse things you can get in the world. There are very worse things. Uh, <laughs> in 2012, <laughs> in addition to his comics work, Bogdanov animated an upcoming video game. Mongolian Beef, created with his son. Bogdanov mm. has participated with his son, which we mentioned is named Kalel Bogdanov, on assorted film projects, including Hansel and Gretel in 2006. And he received an Inkpot Award at the San Diego Comic Con International in 2013. A little bit more on Dan Jurgens. Uh, Jurgens would write and draw Justice League America from issues 61 through 77. This is April of 92 through July of 93. He penciled a four-issue Metal Men series in 1993 as well. Uh, he wrote and penciled the crossover. Uh, it's a one of those crisis crossovers called Zero Hour, and uh, we discussed that one long form somewhere in the archives. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> he also uh, he also did a Superman Doomsday Hunter Prey miniseries. It's a uh, it was three prestige formats. Those were both in 1994. Uh, Jurgen scripted and provided layout art for the Superman vs. Aliens miniseries that was co-published by Dark Horse Comics in DC in 1995. In uh, 1996, Jurgen's and Italian artist Claudio Castellini worked on the high, highly publicized crossover Marvel vs. DC, which I currently I just recently reread and uh, <laughs> it's well, no great shakes. It was highly publicized. Uh, we didn't say it was highly lauded. No, yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, in 1997, Dan developed the Tangent Comics imprint, uh, Elseworlds annual thing. Big. Uh, <laughs> it's about the size of it, huh? Yeah. In, uh, and actually, we're going to be uh, re-uploading uh, an episode where we talk about that this coming Tuesday. Nice. Uh, now, in January of 1996, Jurgens was writer and penciler of the Sensational Spider-Man, which uh, was the repurposed web of Spider-Man over right. at Marvel Comics. He would write and pencil Teen Titans Volume 2 for its entire two-year, 24-issue run. This was October 1996 through September of 1998. Uh, George Perez, the co-creator of the new Teen Titans, served as anchor for the series' first 15 issues. Which must have been mind-blowing, I think, to Jurgens himself. Uh, I'm sure. would have been like, wow. Anyway, uh, after 
ten years of working on Superman characters, Surrogans ended his run as writer with Superman Volume 2, number 150, November 1999 cover date. Also in the same year, Jurgens was writer and layout artist for the tabloid-sized graphic novel Superman Fantastic Four, with finished art by his former The Adventures of Superman inker Art Thibir. Jurgens worked with Marvel Comics as writer on Thor Volume 2 with penciling by John Romita Jr. and as writer-artist on Captain America Volume 3. In 1995, he was a writer-penciler on Solar, fifth for, number 46, from Valiant Comics, with inker Dick Giordano, and Dan stuck around on that comic for a while. Penciler Tom Kreinberg joined for, in for issues number 51 to 54, after Jurgens relinquished penciler duties with issue 50. Jurgens was the debut writer of The Tomb Raider, the series comic book in 1999, licensed to Top Cow Productions and Image Comics. And the debut issue of Tomb Raider was the number one selling comic book of that year. Wild. I know. Every time we say it, it comes up yeah. every now and again. I'm just like, wow, what a weird year that would have been. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jurgens was writer of the series until issue 21. In 2000, Dan was the writer and provided layouts for the four-issue prestige miniseries Titans, Legion of Superheroes, Colon Universe Ablaze, with finishes provided by Phil Jimenez. Jurgens wrote Aquaman Volume 3 from issue 63, January 2000 cover, until its cancellation with issue number 75, January 2001 cover date. In November 2002, he wrote and penciled the four-issue weekly miniseries Superman Day of Doom, January 2003. It marked the 10-year anniversary of the Death of Superman event from 1992. Mm-hmm. In 2005, Jurgens moved into the world of book publishing to write and illustrate the You Can Draw Marvel Characters book for Dorling Kindersley Publishing. Uh, DC, uh, Dan would return to DC Comics, providing layouts for the lead story in the Infinite Crisis Secret Files 2006 special that was cover dated April of that year. He also provided art for the weekly series 52 and of the six-issue limited series Crisis Aftermath, The Battle for Bloodhaven, written by Jimmy Palmiotti and Justin Gray. Uh, Jurgens collaborated with writer-creator Marv Wolfman on the Nightwing series for issues 125 through 128. On Metamorpho Year One, Jurgens was writer and penciler for the first two issues. Uh, Mike Norton would draw issues three through six. Jurgens was writer and artist of the History of the Multiverse backup stories in the weekly Countdown, which appeared in issues 49 through 38. At the Los Angeles Comic-Con in March 2007, DC announced a new ongoing Booster Gold series, which would be written by Jeff Johns and penciled by Jurgens and inked by Norm Rapmund. That began shortly at the end of uh, the Weekly 52 series. Um, he was writer of Tangent, Superman's Reign Limited series in 2008, which revisited those Tangent characters. He wrote and illustrated an issue of Brave and the Bold, Volume 2, Number 23, July 2009 cover, which featured Booster Gold and Magog. Part of DC Comics' New 52 relaunch in 2011, becoming writer of the new Justice League International series with artist Aaron Lepresti. Dan was the artist of the new Green Arrow series with writer J.T. Krull and inker George Perez, initially. And then he became co-writer of Green Arrow with Keith Giffen on issues 3 through 6, and George Perez had vanished by then for reasons that we're not going to get into here. Mm-hmm. Jurgens would return to Superman, writing and co- drawing and co-writing with Keith G- Giffen. Uh, their first issue was number seven in May 2012. During 2012 to 2013, Jurgens was writer and artist of Fury of the Firestorms, The Nuclear Man, from issues 13 to 20. Then it was canceled with Mercy. In 2014, he and Giffen, together with Jeff Lemire and Brian Azzarella, co-wrote the weekly series, The New 52, Future's End. 
which did not miss a week. Uh, no. Jurgens became the writer for Batman Beyond, starting with issue number one in issue 2015. And he was the writer for the two-issue miniseries Convergence Superman in 2015. And was the writer for Superman Lois and Clark, which grew out of that event from 2015 to 2016. Which actually is pretty good until the very... Very end because that's when it the rug to, got pulled out exactly. Yeah. It had to turn into rebirth. But uh, of all the things coming out of convergence, that was a very positive thing. I, I recommend people sure. get a look if they have the uh, time and pocket change. As part of the DC rebirth launch of 2016, Jurgens is writing action comics. In 2017, he drew the Commandy Challenge number seven, written by Marguerite Bennett, and he's married with two children. Yeah, he's still writing mm-hmm. action comics. Yes, this moment, yeah. Yeah, and I think he, he was posting art on his Twitter, so I think he is doing some uh, some art coming up, too. That would be great. I mean, he actually shows up um, now and again, uh, you know, on hmm. annual or he'll uh, con- contributing to an anthology. Uh, he is such a—I I really love—you know, we love his writing, but— Sure. Kind of love his art too. You know, I wish I wish he could do everything because he's just a classic, <laughs> great comic artist. But anyway, enough. We've done enough <laughs> on uh, Jurgens now. We have. We're gonna do a little bit more on Jerry Ordway. Uh, now Ordway has noted that inking is a weird job because as much as you put into it, the page still belongs to the penciler. And uh, I totally get that. Yeah. Uh, he co-created the character Wildstar with Al Gordon. And this is in Wildstar, colon, Sky Zero, number one, March 1993. Ordway inked the second of DC's continuity redefining events in 1994 by inking over the fellow we just talked about, Dan Jurgens' pencils on Crisis Hour. Um, crisis Hour. Zero, zero, zero in hour. time. <laughs> zero in time. Zero hour crisis in time. Available in the archive. Uh, in 1994, Ordway masterminded the return of the original Captain Marvel to the DC Universe with the 96-page hardcover graphic novel The Power of Shazam, which he both wrote and painted. This was followed by an ongoing monthly series also titled The Power of Shazam, which ran between 1995 and 1999. Uh, Or we would write and provide amazing painted covers for this entire run of the series, uh, as well as uh, illustrating fill-in issues between series regular artist Peter Krause and Mike Manley. Uh, Toward the end of the series run, he again took the dual role as writer and artist. He wrote and illustrated a three-issue arc of The Avengers. This is Volume 3, The Hero's Return uh, run. This is issues 16 through 18, May through July 1999, covering for uh, Kurt Busiek and George Perez. Uh, Ordway published his creator-owned one-shot, The Messenger, that came out through Image Comics in July of 2000. In uh, 2001, he drew the one-shot, Just Imagine, dot, 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 Stan Lee with Jerry Ordway creating the JLA. Uh, The alternate versions of DC Comics characters already trumped up by Stan Lee form an alternative version of the Justice League. Go figure. Uh, (laughs) He inked uh, the last year, as is May 2002 through May 2003, of the Batman title, Asriel, Agent of the Bat. This is issues 88 through 100. Ordway also provided the artwork for a six-issue story arc in Wonder Woman. That was Volume 2, Issues 189 to 194, with writer Walt Simonson in 2003. In 2004, Ordway was inker on JLA Issues 94 to 99. This is the 10th Circle story arc, which reunited former Uncanny X-Men-created team of writer Chris Claremont and artist John Byrne, and rebooted the Doom Patrol again. Yeah. Uh, to not the best version of it. Uh, in 2003 <laughs> to 2008... He provided new covers to the Superman The Man of Steel series of six trade paperbacks. 
Ordway provided the artwork for the flashback scene set on Earth 2 for Infinite Crisis. That was December 2005 to June 2006, including a recreation of the cover to the Action Comics number 1, which he cites as another favorite piece of his. He inked Dan Jurgens' pencils once again in the history of the multiverse backup stories in the weekly comic book Countdown, issues number 39 and number 38, chapters 11 and 12, October 2007 cover. Jerry penciled three issues of The Brave and the Bold, Volume 2, number 11 through 13, May through July 2008, with writer Mark Wade. He provided pencils for the Justice Society of America Annual Number 1, September 2008 cover, alongside some interior artwork for the ongoing Justice Society of America series during late 2008. In 2012, Ordway worked on a Challenge of the Unknown storyline for DC's Universe Presents with DC co-publisher Dan DiDio. Later that same year, he drew a Human Bomb limited series, which was written by Justin Gray and Jimmy Palmiotti. Ordway and artist Steve Rude produced a Superman story for DC's Adventures of Superman digital series in 2014. Ordway received an Inkpot Award in 1994, and then in 2017, he was awarded the Inkwell Awards, Joe Sinnott Hall of Fame Award for being for an inking career in American comic books of outstanding accomplishment. Good job. And Jerry is married to Peggy May Ordway, who I assume was not originally named Peggy May Ordway, but there I hope not. There we have it. Yeah, really. <laughs> we don't know. Well, that was all of our creators, but uh, what about all these new characters we oh, just yeah. met? Yeah, you know, we yeah, have, this kind of deserves a little Animal House-style wrap-up, doesn't it? You know, the, it does. Where all the characters we, are now. We need a little where are they now, so we're going to start with Doomsday. Now, Doomsday's true origin was revealed during Superman slash Doomsday colon Hunter slash Prey. Uh, he would be uh, revealed to be created on Krypton in the distant past by a scientist named Bertrand, who was looking to create what he considered to be the ultimate life form. Now, each time Doomsday died, his remains were harvested and reused to create a stronger version. Over several decades of cloning and genetic engineering, the creature would become the doomsday that we know. Uh, he'd escape Krypton and beat up a whole lot of people across the galaxy. Uh, also during Hunter Prey, Doomsday defeated Darkseid. Because that's how uh, we established tough characters in the 90s. We <laughs> gave him decisive wins over already established tough guys. Um, <laughs> he would ultimately be left at the end of time by Wave Rider. Entropy being the only thing that Doomsday wouldn't be able to adapt to defeat. And we never saw him. Just kidding. Uh, during <laughs> our Worlds at War, Doomsday was used by President, Lex's President Lex Luthor's Suicide Squad to fight off Imperiax. Imperial X wins, which tells us that 90s world we just mentioned continued on to early 2000s. Uh, toward the end of the pre-Flashpoint DCU, Doomsday struck again, actually closing out the original volume of Action Comics. In the new 52, Doomsday might have killed Superman, maybe, mm -hmm. when it was convenient to mention. Uh, yeah. There was that... Yeah. Five-year dealing? Yeah, oh. some five-year. Also, he ended up being a virus uh, later on. <laughs> uh, in DC Rebirth, Superman and Doomsday faced off again. Uh, Superman <laughs> won the day, but Mr. Oz swiped Doomsday's body, and uh, I believe he's free, broken free now, but we don't know where he is in the DC, in the universe right at the moment, I believe. Indeed. Now we're going to talk about... Mitch. <laughs> After being the annoying jerk in the Death of Superman storyline, Mitch discovered 
that he had a metahuman power, something about magnets. Uh, he took Superman's example and took the superhero identity of Outburst, and he would go on to lead the Supermen of America. We're going to talk about Cyborg Superman. After his cyborg Superman body was destroyed by Superman, Henshaw transferred his consciousness into a device he had planted on Doomsday before sending him into that infinite void last time. Uh, Doomsday's body was brought to Apocalypse, and there, Henshaw hopped into the body of an Apocalyptian trooper. Uh, he, this is when he turned like he was red and he had longer hair. Now, he attempted to take over Apocalypse during Hunter Prey, but was uh, ultimately destroyed by Darkseid's Omega Beam which somehow shifted Hentro's consciousness into an Omega Orb. Why not? He was, he was briefly shifted into the Marvel Universe, where he did battle with Silver Surfer. Uh, he, you know, that was a one-shot. He was eventually uh, tracked to the edge of the universe by Hal Jordan. You can check out our coverage of that in the uh, Final Night episode, uh, where Hal and him have their, quote, final face-off. See, the problem with uploading your consciousness into a device or into, the, uh, you know, the computer or something is then it basically becomes, like, a, something that can just be moved around at will, you know? It's like yes. any kind of, like, a toaster or something, like, and then it ended up over here, you know, then it ended up in my grandma's attic for five weeks. The curing, but yeah. <laughs> uh, Henshaw popped up again in Sector 3601, home of the Manhunters. Hmm. He became their new Grandmaster, eventually captured by the Guardians of the Universe and held on Oa. He's freed by Superboy Prime when he does that pow, that punch, right? And yeah. brought to Quar to kick off the Sinestro Core War. Joined up with hopes uh, that the Anti-Monitor could reward him with a final death. That didn't work out for him. <laughs> Speaking of which, during Blackest Night, Henshaw tried to get Necron to, to kill him for keeps. Uh, Necron didn't even care enough about him to give him a second look, unfortunately. The guy just wants to die for <laughs> crying out loud. Then New 52 stuff happened where he claimed to be Supergirl's father, Zor-El. That was a lie. There was also an army of cyborg <laughs> supermen. I don't know what that was about. Yep. In DC's Rebirth universe, Henshaw again appeared to be a thorn in Superman's side. Uh, we think he's currently hanging out in the Phantom Zone. But I, I think so. I wouldn't... I wouldn't bet a dime on it. Testify to that. (laughs) Now, the other fellow we're going to talk about, the Eradicator. Now, this Kryptonian artifact first appeared in Action Comics Annual number two. This is May 1989, and it was created by Roger Stern. Uh, Following the reign of the Superman, the Eradicator essence merged with the body of a Dr. David Connor over at Star Labs. Now more heroic, the merged Eradicator joins the Outsiders. Many years later, the, the Eradicator would try to kill Crypto, something that would get him thrown in suspended animation by the Man of Steel. He, he saw Crypto as a, some sort of a uh, slight on Kryptonians or I something. See. Okay. Uh, now, he would eventually return in some very John Byrne-inspired Kryptonian garb to point out Anomalies and whatnot. It's what he became. Because <laughs> so we had a, like Mr. Majestic came over from Wildstorm and he's like, he's an anomaly. That was his whole gimmick. There you go. Uh, <laughs> wow. He, yes. He would be injured and rendered comatose by an OMAC. During, not, not the you know, Mohawk fellow, but the, the robots. Right. Uh, a new eradicator would show up during the new Krypton arc, and in DC's Rebirth era, he showed up to try to kill the impure half Kryptonian, Jonathan Kent. And we believe he's currently keeping Henshaw company in the Phantom Zone. It's definitely getting full in the Phantom Zone, as I understand. It is. It's a lot of people. I know Rick Flagg's in there. A lot of people are hanging out in there. <laughs> uh, we'll talk about Superboy, who we now know as Con L. 
Superboy moved to Hawaii with the Leeches and Double X. Khan's first ongoing series, Superboy Volume 4, would run 100 issues, not including Zero Hour and the 1 million issue, between October 1994 and November 2002. He'd briefly hang out with the Legion of Superheroes. Uh, this Superboy tom- team was knockout against the female Furies, formed a super team, the Ravers. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. Superboy and the Ravers ran 19 issues, unbelievably, with us. Uh, right. Between September 1986 <laughs> and March 1998. Wow, all right. Co-founded Young Justice alongside Impulse and Robin, the Tim Drake Robin, that is. Eventually joined the reformed Teen Titans along with Impulse, Robin, and Wonder Girl. Takes the civilian identity of Connor Kent, who lives in Smallville with Ma and Pa Kent. He learned that the human who makes up uh, 50% of his DNA is Lex Luthor. So, of Ooh. course, he shaves his head and briefly turns evil, because that's what you do when you're a Luthor. Mm-hmm. Uh, during Infinite Crisis, he's killed by Superboy Prime, but he returns from the dead after, during the revived Adventure Comics series. Khan's second ongoing, Superboy Volume 5, would run 11 issues from January to October 2011. Then... The New 52, wow, and <laughs> Superboy Volume 6 ran for 35 issues from November 2011 to October 2014. He also wasn't the only Superboy running around in the New 52. I know it. <laughs> uh, it got crazy. They brought Mark Wolfman in to fix it. He couldn't do it. It was crazy. Nope. Uh, it appears He appears to have been away from continuity completely during Superman Reborn. Or was he? Dun, dun, dun. Could see his hand reaching up out of the water now, you know. <laughs> We're going to talk about our fourth Superman. We have Steel. Now, he moved home to Washington, D.C. following the reign of the Superman. He had an ongoing series that ran 52 issues between February of 1994 and July of 1998. It's worth mentioning that there was a feature film based on the character in 1997 starring Shaquille O'Neal in the title role. Had a $16 million budget and grossed $1.7 million at the box office. Hey, whoopsie. Whoopsie. Uh, it didn't work out too well. <laughs> now, after, back in the comics, after a stop in New Jersey, he returned back to Metropolis. He built Superman a new fortress of solitude that was in Superman the Man of Steel number 100, May 2000 uh, cover date. He was killed during Our Worlds at War, but brought back... Basically immediately. Uh, He retired from the hero game, and his niece Natasha became the New Steel. Uh, He would take over as Superman's tech guy, a position previously held by Emil Hamilton. Uh, He returned to the Steel role during the 52 Weekly Maxi series, during which time he discovered the corpse of a Lex Luthor from an alternate Earth, which exonerated the real Lex from a lot of his recent evil doings. Uh, Then... The new 52, uh, where he's now dating Lana Lang, and I think he's like 20 years younger than he was. He, he's he definitely younger than he used to be, but yeah, he's still got Natasha as his niece, so yeah. he's in that then, he's uh, in 30s, I would say, somewhere, early 30s, maybe. And then Rebirth, he uh, currently appears in Superwoman, right? Yeah, that's where Lana yeah. Lang is super-powered, and he's sort of her boyfriend, and uh, his niece is there, and there's a whole bunch of characters that... I don't know why we were talking about it this much, frankly. <laughs> Lex Luthor II. Lois Lane eventually discovered that Lex II had killed the trainer who would become Myriad and framed an innocent janitor for the crime. So that little one-off scene turned out to really bite him in the butt later on. Digging a bit deeper, she discovered that Lex faked his death and was actually posing as his son. Lex would enact a plan that would begin the fall of Metropolis just as his clone body was deteriorating to the point where he became a captive of it. During Underworld Unleashed, the demon Neron gave him his old body back, and Luther would go on to be a philanthropist, providing aid during the final night 
purchasing the Daily Planet when it was on the brink and revitalizing a post-no-man's-land Gotham City. Such acts led to him being elected the 43rd president of the United States, and a lot more would happen to Lex, but we will probably cover that at another more Lex Luthor-specific time. I would imagine, yes. Uh, We have the Matrix Supergirl. Now, Matrix first appeared back in Superman Volume 2, Number 16. She was created by John Byrne. She was initially a pocket universe stand-in for Lana Lang. In the pocket universe, Lana had died, and so her lover, pocket universe Lex Luthor, made the protoplasmic Matrix putty into her form. So she was Lana Lang and also Supergirl. Sure. Uh, during a Superman self-imposed exile, briefly, you know, followed that about a year later after he killed the uh, Phantom Zone uh, criminals, uh, Matrix, now known as May, played the part of Superman. Uh, believing herself to be unstable and therefore dangerous to be around, she would eventually flee to space herself. When she returned, she'd fall in with the new Lex Luthor. Uh, Following the reign, uh, she would briefly join the New Titans. She would become merged with a dying woman named Linda Danvers, and her ongoing series, which was Supergirl Volume 4, would run 80 issues between September 1996 and May 2003. There was also a 1 million issue in there as well. Uh, She would sort of kind of go on to star in Peter David's Fallen Angel, but it gets pretty muddy That gets very tricky, yeah. (laughs) Frankly, even her, you know, assimilation with Danvers, it is a little weird when it happens, but uh, you got to run with it when you see it, that's all. Yeah. (laughs) Now, finally, Finally, Jeb Friedman. Yes. Now, during a brief time following the return in which Lois and Clark had called off their engagement, Jeb struck again. However, in Superman, the Man of Steel number 55, April 1996, Jeb was shot and killed. Oh, we we hardly knew ye, and I mean that literally. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Now, those are all the characters, but we have a very philosophical question that we uh, we mentioned last week, but didn't uh, didn't go deep into it here. Yeah. Pa Kent had mentioned something. He said that uh, maybe Superman can't die. Maybe his death was simply him going through the mortal motions because he was raised by mortals with, you know, co- the concept of mortality. Well, you know, so, that made me think of when Byrne was doing Man of Steel. There's, I don't remember what issue it is, but he's talking about how he, he has given up breathing. That remember that it was sort of a habit that he had developed as thinking he was a human. They never really needed to do. This was all to establish that, at least for Burns' time, he he could fly through space uh, without you know a mask or whatever. Um, and yet, I wonder how much of you know what he does is him just not knowing Krypton, you know, Kryptonian sure. physiology. Uh, I think it's definitely an interesting question. Can he die? It is. Uh, you know, they, they, they show, there definitely are stories of him being super old and his hair going gray. Yeah. But never dying, the future stories. But what are your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, like you're saying, with, uh, with the way Byrne did it here, I mean, we've we've seen him many times say, you know, that he only eats because it's a habit. Right. You know, he doesn't need to eat. It's like, oh, now, but like when he was depowered, I mean, this is probably the absolute worst thing to cite, but during that uh, DCYOU thing where he was un, where he was depowered yeah. and wearing the T-shirt, he was talking about having to eat and having to adjust to needing sustenance. Yeah. So uh, There was also the uh, the uh, Dark Side War where he was taken over by one of them and he couldn't stop yep. eating pie. Eating he pie. Like, he demanded pie. pie. I mean, I mean part, part, of, part, part of the problem is here is that the continuity of Superman, a little loosey-goosey as we go around. Sure. You know, different writers have decided, because also they had him wearing uh, masks in space sometimes, sometimes not. Mm-hmm. Sometimes he can go underwater and definitely sometimes he can't. Uh, but assuming that it's, you know, 
this post-crisis post-crisis yeah. superman uh and then and then it really it brings into question so what is he a kryptonian yeah. can die on krypton all right we, yeah. we know that um but then so when they get under the yellow sun are we basically looking at god yeah, is this an immortal god? You know, this is it becomes like something of like Greek mythological legend all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I don't like the idea that he can't die because that just removes a lot of the right. lot of the drama from it. But uh, it is a uh, very and it was such a left field question where and it was never brought up again, which no. is a shame because I, I don't think anybody would want to tackle it because. Yeah, you'll, you'll just start stammering like we are now, and it's like, well, where, where do you go from there? Well, I mean, for the pur- for the purposes of DC Comics, they would like you to say yes, he can die. Otherwise, you'll, sure. you'll stop purchasing the comic, you know. But <laughs> yes, uh, <laughs> yeah, as a character, it's definitely something to turn over in your mind. Uh, you know, I I think he'll always be presented as someone that death it could happen. Although sure. there are, there's plenty, you know, for Superman threatening his the people he loves or even his, his family, planet his is as is as bad or worse than threatening his life he's the first one as we showed in crisis and so many other stories mm-hmm. to i mean he's almost like adamant about sacrificing himself and almost near suicidal about like wanting to be the first yep. one out there uh and maybe part of that is because he knows he can't die maybe that's why he's so gung-ho about putting himself in the middle of things so uh I'd love to hear other people's thoughts Absolutely. on that. Uh, Absolutely. You know, see what they think about Superman. And, you know, this would be considering whatever era of Superman that you, that you want to look at, you know, if you want to talk about pre-crisis or post-crisis or post-post-crisis, post-crisis, mm-hmm. crisis, whatever you like. But uh, <laughs> New 52, New 74, New 112. <laughs> whatever you like. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, definitely. But we want to, before we wrap it up, we want to talk about our personal recollections of this uh, series, the death of Superman leading into the rebirth of Superman. Uh, for Chris, it was kind of your first foray into DC. It was. Uh, it was indeed. But for me, and this is something I've said on the show for a long time, that this happened, that in my my recollection was that when Superman 75 came out, I got that issue, and I said, all right, goodbye. I'll, I won't be buying comics <laughs> for a while. Uh, I did. I know I, I did stick around for Nightfall and then No Man's Land, so I, I basically hung around for Batman, but I pretty much had walked away from, uh, in my mind, from, you know, all the other comics I've been reading, but it's not true. Having gone through this series again, I realized I did read these comics. I was interested enough to take it through Funeral for a Friend, at least those core issues. I definitely didn't go into the, uh, a, a lot of the external. I might not have even read all of it, but I definitely read uh, the four Reign of Superman issues up to, mm-hmm. up to this, up to what we're talking about here. I think I read all this stuff, or most of it. You know, I remember Coast City. I remember, you know, I remember, like, it's the kind of thing where I remember, like, lying on my bed, you know, kind of, like, yep. visions of doing it, looking at the comic and having the comic and even getting them. Uh, I was really interested in this. I really thought it was more than just for the gimmick of it. I was interested in what's going to happen to Superman. I, I was like, uh, you know, this is like a Mickey Mouse you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, how, how can you remove Superman from the equation? This is a 20th century American icon. Uh, mm-hmm. Why don't you, before I, you know, talk so much, my mouth falls <laughs> off. Tell them, tell them about your experience. Well, I've mentioned this on other shows, and uh, some people might be groaning now as I'll say it again. Uh, <laughs> I was uh, I was one of those uh, frontline uh, Newsday newspaper boys when this uh, story broke. So, uh 
for a brief second, I was the you know first guy in my neighborhood to know that it was going to happen. Wow. So uh, I d- drove around like the the world's geekiest Paul Revere, you know, saying <laughs> what was about to happen, and, yeah. and going to my you know pushing off delivering the papers to go talk to my friends and say, hey, we'll check this out. And then uh, going to the comic store and bothering the Rob Leefield guy, uh, <laughs> thinking that he might have more information than us, which he didn't. Did not. No. Uh, <laughs> but. Uh, this was uh, my first foray into uh, DC. It was definitely my first, uh, and I might have owned some DC comics before, but I never really made a point of getting them. Yeah, um, and in succession, you know what I mean? Like of to, course. To follow yeah. along, right? And uh, like Mike Carlin said uh, in the quote earlier, uh, people thought Superman was corny. I was definitely of that mind. Oh, yeah. Uh, not only was Superman corny, but his his villains were just the worst. You know, it was, uh, and that's something that, uh, that I think either Dan or Jerry Ordway said uh, something about like a legion of guys in suits is how he referred to uh, Superman's uh, rogues gallery. And uh, that's how I saw it. And I had no reason to follow, you know, Superman fighting a little bald businessman yeah. when I could <laughs> when I could see uh, Spider-Man fighting Venom or the, the X-Men fighting Magneto. That's where I was going to go. But uh, this brought me in. Uh, I went every week because I couldn't afford the little pre <laughs> the little gimmick uh, pre-purchase of, uh, that my local guy had. So I was there every week. And, uh, and it was, uh, it was strange because uh, we talk about nowadays with a crossover appeal and mainstreaming. And uh, we talk about things like movies and TV shows like now, you know, the, the watchword now is justice league. And, uh, and before that was Thor, Ragnarok, sure. a couple of weeks ago. Right. That we didn't have that in the '90s. The crossover was actually the comic book, mm-hmm. which we we wouldn't imagine today, unless Marvel spoils that someone's going to die in USA today, the day that a book's going to come out. Um, that's just we don't have crossover appeal as it re- as it pertains to the actual, you know, paper comic books right. and. Uh, Back in 1992, we did. Um, you know, uh, family members asked me what a doomsday was or who a doomsday was. If I knew what was going on, it was just such a strange, almost cultural uh, feeling that 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 this kind of took over. It was huge. I mean, I mean, it's, yeah. it's bigger than a lot of the stuff we've seen happen in media lately. It's bigger than any of it. You know, bigger than sure. the new 52s breaking. It's bigger than Captain America losing his shield or whatever the hell that was. But all uh, that was, yeah. I mean, like I say, Superman, this is a bedrock 20th mm-hmm. century icon that now generations have grown up with. You go around the world, you go to like some of the remotest corners of the world, you know, they don't know who, that who President Trump is or who even yeah. America is, but they know who Superman, Batman. They know the couple, Superman logo. A couple, yep. couple of core people there. They'll, they'll know these things, and it's, like, so pervasive. Uh, and, and the crazy thing is, and I think a lot of people have the same feeling, is I really thought this might be permanent. It sounds insane to say now. I, <laughs> you know, it really does. I mean, you know, I really look at it. The other thing is, like, uh, we talked about this a little bit last week when we looked at the new Supermen. And we're like, all right, well, one of these could be the new Superman. So mm-hmm. let's look at it logically. You know, we know they're not going to want to change the look too much because, like I say, like I wasn't a little kid. You weren't a very little kid. You were like no. 12 or 13 12, or something. Yeah. And I was like 17, 18. So I, I'm pretty much an adult reading these and looking at it like, all right, well, they're not going to want to change the bed sheets and the mugs and whatever. It's not going to be steel. So that's, that's, <laughs> so that's what I'm saying. And, and it's funny because nowadays 
It could totally, you know what I mean? To making making yep. a major hero a different <laughs> color or different sex, that's that's par for the course. That's that's everyday mm-hmm. stuff. Then I looked at it like logically, like that's not going to be him. No. Uh, but I really, I really did think this could be permanent while still having. You know, some reservations, obviously. You know, we, sure. we're not all brand new to the world. This wouldn't be the first time a character died and came back uh, <laughs> unceremoniously. But again, like Flash, Barry Allen seemed, seemed to be staying away. Gone. Yep. And uh, they had all these other options that seemed viable. You pointed out how, I, you know, Cyborg Superman, who I dismissed, oh, they could have easily just sprayed some fake skin on his face. And, yeah. Uh, and the other guys, you know, Superboy could have been... Uh, prematurely aged and maybe eradicator and i definitely saw the i, I think i i think in my mind eradicator was most likely but also because he's, he's kind of a 90s version of superman uh, yeah, he's a super, bit more extreme yeah. superman that will kill and also the superman without any boring human trappings you know what i mean uh yeah doesn't give a doesn't give a hang for jimmy lois <laughs> uh jimmy olsen or lois lane so i think that's where my mind went but the point is that I believed it. Whereas now, uh, you know, if a superhero dies, I'm just like, when? When do you bring him back? You know, and yeah, then, it's already solicited. And that, yeah, nowadays, it'll be like three months or two months mm-hmm. later. They, this, this at least, there was a year, uh, mm-hmm. quite yeah. a long time before he came back. Um, so it, it, it was uh, kind of interesting that the comeback, though, especially now going through it again this time, was probably the weakest part of the whole series. <laughs> Uh, his yeah. rebirth, his coming out of that battle suit, it was like, yeah, we know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, it was a letdown. Yeah. Even when the battle suit started moving, I, we all had an idea. Like, if the other four guys are already accounted for, yeah. Who who could this? Who do you think this? It ain't Bibbo in there, so uh, <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't smell funny in there, does it? <laughs> uh, but you know, it was it was sort of sort of a letdown. I can't deny it. It's so it's it sounds even words coming out of my mouth because. I do like Superman, and uh, mm-hmm. I was a huge fan of John Byrne's six issues, The Man of Steel, as a, as a rebirth, both because I was just a big fan of his artwork, but I like where they were. he was laying down some ground rules for, for finally, you know what I mean? This is what we're going to have, this is what we're going to be. I love that super, that Bizarro issue will always stand out to me mm-hmm. uh, with, with where he shatters, and they, so he has a Bizarro, but they kind of have a different take on him. Uh, so I, I, I do like the character, but uh, it's the kind of guy that you do take for granted, you know? Sure, and I sure. think that's that's where the character was when they came up with this death of Superman, and it gave it a shot in the arm. But they didn't come back with a reason, a compelling reason to read Superman. That was the biggest failing, I think, in the end. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, a lot came out of it that was cool, but the Superman was arguably the least cool thing that came out of it. <laughs> that's the problem, yeah. Because I, I, I was thinking, like, uh, it. You know, it's weird because at the same time, they, I consider this a success on several fronts here. You know, it did raise sales. It did raise awareness. Yeah. Um, it did freshen up the character a bit, even though what came after was lackluster yeah. and even the return was lackluster. Uh, it was because I, I didn't make it through this the first time. I stopped about halfway through the rain. It just got to be too much. It was a lot. Um, it was a lot to have, yeah. I mean, and, and if I'm being honest, even rereading it now, it was a little bit of a slog. Well, as, um, I, as I remember, like, I like at a certain point, I didn't want to read the Eradicator stuff anymore. I was just bored yeah, by him. I was yeah. just like, I, well, I don't want to read that. I don't want. And it's like you couldn't know, you couldn't pick and choose. You kind of had to be. No, in, you had to go up, through the know? whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 this was uh, 1993, so it was the 30th anniversary of the X-Men and the Avengers. So I'm sure my money was going elsewhere anyway. But uh, it was just uh, I, I couldn't muster the. 
interest to as I was I wasn't really in all in on the DC universe at this point. Yeah. And it was just like too much. It was too much. <laughs> and I I dropped. Uh, I think maybe two months in I probably dropped it. Um but yeah, and like I said, even rereading it now, it was it, parts of it are kind of rough. Do you remember um, when you came back to it? Would that be in like the early two thousands when you did? Go I came, yeah, I came hard? back. I came back around the time that uh, like the the Eddie Berganza era started. As uh-huh. un, unfashionable as that is to say now. Um, <laughs> this is when like Jeff Loeb was on a book. It was Jeff Loeb, Stephen Siegel, Joe Kelly, and Joe Casey were the four Superman writers. Okay. And. Uh, they were the, or, or it might have been Mark Schultz on uh, Man of Steel, but uh, those were that was like the core, and uh, it was right as the triangle numbering was starting to go away, uh-huh. and uh, that's kind of where all I right. all so in. that was even like late '90s, early 2000s. I was thinking like 2002, yeah. but I think it was even earlier than that. Might have been, uh, yeah, because because yeah. I know it was before 9/11, because because uh, yeah. a lot of the uh, like Superman's the S in Superman's uh, on his chest changed to black around that time for right. a brief time, but. Uh, yeah, I was gone. I, I, you know, I might have looked at Electric Blue, but uh, didn't really pay it much mind. It just seemed like, it just seemed like just stories that that didn't matter. It felt like the way I look at pre-crisis stories, or the way I used to look at pre-crisis stories, where they were interchangeable and of very little consequence. Mm-hmm. That's how I look at late '90s Superman, which I think is it's, where... it's, it's accurate for a lot of pre-crisis stories. You know, I mean, yeah. you're, not, you're not wrong about that. Uh, <laughs> there's no cumulative story going on in a lot of cases, no. even, even going into the Bronze Age. But uh, yeah, you know, that's the same thing. You know, after so you know, pretty much after this is when I did stop reading comics, except for the except for Batman. But I was aware enough to know that they did the Red and Blue Superman. Yeah. Uh, they had the Electric Superman, and like, and elsewhere in DC Universe, you had Kyle Rayner, who was a character I wasn't really looking to jump on with. You know what I mean? I wasn't looking to take on any new characters. Wally West was a character I never really like accepted, uh, mm. being just, just literally just being, you know, the this slightly older comic reader, you know, and uh, so it was not hard for me to stay away from Superman at this point. <laughs> but also, like, what I was seeing, I saw nothing compelling going on where I was yeah. like, nothing like the death of Superman, which really. Really dragged me in and actually got like a teenage me to spend money because this would have been a time, you know, after I was getting a, a lot of comics. Um, in my mind, when I think back to this, even though I know they happened really about almost a year apart or kind of like the groundwork for Nightfall was being laid when Superman died. Yeah. But, uh, you know, in my mind, they really happened like kind of a year apart. The backbreaking between, you know, between Superman's death and the backbreaking was, I don't know, 10 months or something like that. I think so. Uh, and I, but I always connect them in my mind as <laughs> being <too>. like the <laughs> same, the same thing done twice. Even though they're not the same, because Bruce Wayne doesn't die; he just dies a figurative death. And uh, yeah. but he gets a stand-in, and that stand-in turns out to suck. And you know he's got to come <laughs> back and yank it back from him. And Doomsday is like to me at the time, and it's funny to say considering we just did a wrap up on Doomsday, showing that he's still around today. But I thought we might never see Doomsday again, for real. Yeah, yeah. Like I was like, oh wow, that's it, and that's cool. They just made him once, and he's just like the one, one time only. How naive we can be, you know? It's just amazing. <laughs> we're, how, we're, how, we're some of the most gullible folks. We really are the most adorable, gullible <laughs> guys you ever saw. Uh, and I thought this was the same thing of Bane at the time. Like, oh, this is sure. a one time thing. No, but you can't get enough Bane now. You got the Bane Squad, the Bane League, whatever. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, it's just it's just funny I could I connect in my mind. There's really nothing connecting them except for being sort of 
happening roughly around the same time, but they are really two different stories. And sure, uh, come up with, but it wasn't like they, the death of Superman came up and then Warner Brothers told Denny O'Neill, who would have been the Batman editor at the time, now nah, you got to kill Batman. It just had kind of happened simultaneously. Although, you know, in a way, in the 90s, comics were getting crueler, right? So it was mm-hmm. kind of like, where else, can, what's the ultimate in cruelty? Where else can you go? Well, you know, disfigure people and murder them. That's pretty much as far as we're going to go. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I, I'll say, and, and I think we, we proved it, just talking about the one Green Lantern issue, this whole thing had a much bigger impact on Hal Jordan <laughs> and the Green Lantern Corps and the Green Lantern yeah. titles than Superman. I mean, huger, you know what I mean? It changed sure. everything and everything that followed, like, to this day, there's more of an impact from this story on the Green Lantern titles than on Superman. You know what I mean? Like, yep. uh, Such know, an odd byproduct. I mean, now Doomsday and Superman are like bu- buddies almost. You know, you, mm-hmm. I, I think they see each other at the bus stop and they're, you know, <laughs> ask how the wife and kids are and stuff. But uh, Hal Jordan's still wrestling with Coast City and, you know, all that stuff. Coast City's rebuilt and he's still wrestling with Coast City. Uh, all that, you know, he's still like, still people feel funny about him. He got punched in the face by Batman. Uh mm-hmm. Kyle, Kyle Rayner's ex- oh, so many things happen, and we've yeah. talked about a lot of it uh, on past episodes. But uh, I would, I would almost be inclined to say that this is a Green Lantern story. Ultimately, <laughs> I, I, I seriously, you know, like uh, it's like it's Superman, but by way of of what happened to Superman, it it had a much bigger impact on Green Lanterns, and mm-hmm. that's all I got to say about it, Chris. You, you you let us know what you got to say. <laughs> I, I I agree that this did have a huge effect on 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 Green Lantern. It's uh, I, I think maybe maybe they're equal in yeah. <laughs> between the two. Um, I, another thing that uh, another part of this that is uh, successful to me um, is that it really added to Superman's lore and fleshed out his rogues gallery to include more than people in suits. Right. Um, the, the cyborg Superman. I, I love the design of him. Um, I, I'm not too keen on his gimmick of shifting consciousness because that feels like a cop out. But yeah, uh, but, but yeah. just the look is cool. Uh, <laughs> it kind and, of freaked uh, me out a little bit. And again, I was like 17. Yeah. I wasn't like yeah. a little kid, but I was like, oh man. And and he was being good in the beginning, you know. Yeah. And I was yeah. like, but so is it my is it my bigotry against skull faces, you know? Or that it might be. Uh, it turned out he was bad. <laughs> he was bad anyway. So never trust a man with an exposed yes. jawbone. That's Occam's razor. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it also it also added to the uh, to the cast of uh, you know the good characters. You know, Superboy, Steel. Sure. It was a. Uh, it really fleshed out the family and uh, made it. Fe- and, and it didn't break like the burn rules. It didn't break the. Uh, you know, Superman is still the only Kryptonian. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, he there is a Supergirl, but she's not Kryptonian. There's a Superboy, he's a clone. There's a you know Steel, who's not related at all. There's a Crypto, but it's just a dog that didn't drown. You know, it's yeah. a was the Eradicator, but he's sort of like an energy. He's a Kryptonian artifact. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's not really. He wasn't really set by Rocket or whatever. Yeah. So it's just uh, I I really dig that they were able to to add so much without breaking some of the rules, it's... which uh, it's so easy to do now. That's very true. I mean, two of my favorite characters came out of this: Connell, and uh, who at first I hated, but I, I came to enjoy. You have to. Yeah. And Steel. I really, <laughs> yep. I love, I love Steel. I loved him in this. I love a lot of iterations after him. One of the more depressing. You like things, the movie, right? Uh, I have some love. I can say good <laughs> things about the movie, but you know, definitely not something you watch for its uh, great filming. Um, it. Uh, 
one of the things my you know we talked about steals and superwoman right now and i review that title for weird science and uh one of my most disappointing things is that he just stands around and doesn't really do anything you know gets yelled mm-hmm. at by lana and uh, they don't know what to do with him i'm like this is such a good character just let him yeah just let him be let him like be who he is and and that's just like a supremely self-sacrificing good guy when lois says he has superman's soul that's so such a good way to put it because he's like all of the elements of superman without being yep. indestructible you know what mm-hmm. i mean but always totally. always the first in the fray always there to like stop the building from falling on the kitten or whatever uh i, I wish i wish there was a better use for him currently in comics but there are a lot of for great sure. a lot of great uses for him and uh, he became one of my big favorites and superboy just became kind of a fun goof and I, on Young Justice, he was great. You know, by the time he mm-hmm. got to that point, where he was more of a fleshed-out, like adultish character, it was, yep. it was a lot more interesting. So, uh, a lot of good came out of this. Mm-hmm. But again, absolutely, S- Superman, arguably being the least. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was just—it was just back, and it was another another day at the office. That's right. There we are, back. Oh, and Clark's back too. Everything is tickety boo, folks. Yep, plus is... Clark, plus long hair. Back to the back to the way we want to be. So, and he had a ponytail sometimes, which mm-hmm. was okay in the '90s, folks. That was okay yes. back then. Don't forget, we had uh, what was that pocket full of kryptonite? The Spin Doctors. Yes. Any era that could support that, anything goes with the hairstyles. But and the, uh, and the Jimmy Olsen Blues was another song of that. That's what they were. They actually were big uh, <laughs> Superman fans. Uh, but yeah, so I had a good time with this. So yeah. going back into it and really picking it apart this much, besides having the amazing recollection that I'd read it all once before, because <laughs> uh, I actually don't have all these uh, issues. I don't know if I mentioned <laughs> here. I, I have the trade. I have an older uh, omnibus that actually is less complete than the current yeah. trades, and I did get the I did get them as we go through the run, and I got the newer trades. But it's not like I had these issues sitting around. I've been rereading them, rereading them. I I just bought them at the time, or at least some of them at the time, and read them, and probably you know chucked them or whatever, let them fall to the floor. So uh, that was really cool for me was to. Uh, kind of go back and say, oh, wait, I did like comics for like another year longer than I thought I did. You stuck around, dude. <laughs> I did. Uh, but of course, we want to know what you think, and especially about that question, uh, yes. do you think Superman can die? Is Superman immortal, or is he just going through the motions? And mm. uh, one place you can tell us what you think about that is over at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash history. We're on Twitter at Cosmic T Mill, and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. We have weekly writings over at WeirdScienceDCComics.com, where I do review Superwoman, among other books. And of course, every week I tell you to check this a website every day. Chris is on InfiniteEarth.com. That's Chris's personal blog where he reviews a new DC comic every single day. And boy, you have been ping ponging lately. Oh, you know, cool. you were yes. just—you got my head spinning. You know, you got Legion <laughs> lost up there. I see a Bronze Age action car. I, you know, it's—it's—it's it's, it's, anything goes, folks. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's a lot of times though. It does act as a corollary to what we're doing here. So it's mm-hmm. if you're enjoying this podcast and you haven't read that website, it's—it's it's worth it to put your eyes over there. You'll probably find uh, more than one article uh, related to what we're talking about here. And uh, sure. if, if you're reading that website and not listening to the podcast, then you can't hear what I'm telling you right now, so it doesn't matter. No, they can't hear it. Uh, 
<laughs> Another blog that you should uh, make sure to check out is our uh, our shared uh, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com, where uh, we upload show notes, and that's yeah. <laughs> that's about it. Have you been putting have you been putting scripts up there? I don't know. Maybe we shouldn't talk about this on the uh, on the broadcast, but that's that's one thing we could end up doing. Oh, we uh, could put some we of these up there. Scripts. Just yeah. I, I've always wanted, you know, I, if anyone is interested in our weird process, process. that we <laughs> it's funny we've developed it over time. You know, uh, yep. this whole thing it, it began with you and I saying, let's do something simple. We don't have to do a lot of work for our plan, <laughs> right? It was we were going to open a comic and just read it, and we. The first issue we found out we couldn't do that. Booster so gold number one. That's right. Uh, over time, we found we've we've come to a different way that we do things. And uh, if anyone's interested to see that, just let us know. We're really happy to share something. Maybe put it over there at uh, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com. But uh, I think that's all we got from this week, Chris. Got anything else for him? That'll do us. Well, until next time, folks. I want you to keep it on the treadmill, superbly. Did you ride your helm? Doing everything I can Holding on to what I am Pretending I'm a superman I'm trying to keep The ground on my feet It seems the world's falling down around me The nights are all wrong I'm singing the song To try and make the answers Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill episode number 75 where we go back, back to, the, to past the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com and pick us up on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio and heard playing in the parlor of a neighborhood home while out for a pleasant stroll. Hmm. Wouldn't that be nice? Walking by to hear our podcast wafting from the a front room of a, uh, a craftsman home. <laughs> well, what book are we giving these people today? Well, in honor of our 75th episode, uh, we uh, when you, when I think of 75 and Superman, I think of a pretty bad day in his life. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and this will be no different. We're going to be discussing Superman Grounded. Now, this arc ran 
with a few fill-ins uh, between uh, Superman number 700 and the final issue of Superman Volume 1, 714. It's ran from June 2010 all the way to August of 2011. Written by J. Michael Straczynski, Chris Robertson, and G. Willow Wilson. Penciled mostly by Eddie Barrows. Uh, issue 700, as you might imagine, was a little oversized, so that was $4.99. And every every issue after that was Two ninety nine, because that's where DC drew the line. They drew that line. That's right. Then they let the line go. Then they pulled the line back. <laughs> they did. You know, they play with that a lot line. Of line play. Yeah. <laughs> now they're kind of they're kind of stand on both sides of the line. Now you notice that they kind of hang they out. They are. I like on that line. They are. But, uh, Prestige things are coming in too. What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so of course we're going to tell you some of the author bios or the creator bios, or as best we can. Start with the fella J. Michael Straczynski, uh, a.k.a. Joseph Michael Straczynski, born July 17, 1954, in Patterson, New Jersey. He was raised by his father, Charles, and mother, Evelyn, and was moved around quite a bit uh, during his youth. He says, I grew up in Jersey, California, Illinois, Texas, that sort of thing. He graduated from Chula Vista High School and attended San Diego State University, where after six years, he graduated with a B.A. in psychology and sociology. Though he always knew he'd become a writer, his minors were in philosophy and writing. So when you get that philosophy uh, minor, let me tell you, you know you've got a... Uh, you know what you're doing. Yeah, you're life. teaching philosophy or you're writing. Or you're writing, yeah. Uh, <laughs> while attending university, JMS wrote for the student newspaper, The Daily Aztec, and was so prolific, the paper would be just jokingly referred to as The Daily Joe. Professionally, JMS's career began with his, with his writing plays for Southwestern College, uh, Chula Vista, California, as well as SDSU. During the late 1970s, while still in college, he would become a reviewer for radio station KSDO, 102.9 on your FM dial, which is now KLQV, a Spanish-language station, so you won't find uh, J, JMS on there. <laughs> he would write radio plays and would eventually be hired to script the radio drama Alien Worlds. This was a syndicated show created by radio personality voice actor Lee Hansen, which ran for 26 episodes between 1978 and 1980. His first television project was the teleplay Marty Sprinkle on KPBS-TV. Be very careful if you, if you decide to Google that, though. Make sure you spell it right. Marty yeah, Sprinkle. Marty has a T. Yes, <laughs> yes. Don't go the other way. Uh, the teleplay would air just before JMS graduated college, and he would also work on Disaster Peace Theater for XETV. And as a Southern California journalist, JMS would contribute to the Los Angeles Times, San Diego Magazine, the San Diego Reader, the Los Angeles Herald Examiner, the Los Angeles Reader, TV Cable Week, and People Magazine. So uh, pretty lazy, right? Not very busy. Yeah, he, he let the grass grow under his feet. <laughs> Definitely. Now, now, in addition to his journalism, he would write the complete book of script writing for Writer's Digest, and that's a text that's now used in intro to screenwriting classes. Uh, 1984, JMS, a big fan of He-Man and the Masters of the, Masters of the Universe, sent a script he'd written for the series directly to Filmation, and they bought it. Wow. He would, yeah, he would sell several more scripts and be hired as a staff story editor for both He-Man and She-Ra, Princess of Power series. Uh, he would leave Filmation. He would leave when Filmation refused to give him an on-screen credit for his work. So he and associate Larry Dettillo would uh, next find work at Deke. You know that uh, that company with that creepy closing video with the kid in bed and it would like go out the yeah. window Deke. and. 
I, I always think of them as the Inspector Gadget guys. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> now, while at peak, they would work on Jace and the Wheeled Warriors. There's a cartoon that ran a single season of 65 episodes, the first of which aired on September 16th, 1985. Now, while working on Jace, uh, Straczynski joined up with Len Jansen and Chuck Menville to create the real Ghostbusters. That's not the one with the ape. Right. Uh, now, after a successful first season, ABC TV took notice and decided to try and enact a little bit of creative control. JMS remembers, they proposed, to my mind, some really offensive things. They wanted to make Janine a mommy character instead of the strong female character she'd been in the movie and in the series. They wanted to make Winston, the only black character in the show, just a driver, which I thought was profoundly racist. They wanted to meddle, even though in the beginning, it was ABC's number one rated show. I don't know if that's number one rated kids show. I'm assuming it is. I would have to think so, yeah. Yeah, I don't think this was beating whatever. Full house or whatever, yeah. Yeah. Uh, And so, he left. Yeah, and then the show and its resultant huge toy line tanked, I'm sure. Uh, (laughs) On to live action. Didn't just do the cartoons, folks. He did live action television. Uh, Straczynski freelanced in the TV biz, including writing for The Twilight Zone. Shelley Duvall's Nightmare Classics. Uh, What's your favorite episode of that, Chris? Probably the one that JMS wrote. Oh, yeah, right. That's my favorite one, too. (laughs) Uh, And Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future. This was toy company Mattel trying to get a bit too involved in Captain Power. And so, like with Ghostbusters before it, JMS left. Uh, getting the feeling that Straczynski doesn't take kindly to having his work edited. I wonder how that'll serve him when he gets to comics. Mm. Yeah, you know, you never hear about any uh, arguments with editorial in never. comics, so I'm sure it'll never. be fine. Uh, Straczynski would pitch first, Jake and the Fat Man, and was hired on as a story editor. He didn't stick around long, choosing to quit when writers Jerry Taylor and David Messenger left the show. Messenger would move on to write Murder, She Wrote, and JMS was offered a position as co-producer. He'd stick around on Murder, She Wrote, for two seasons, writing seven episodes. These seasons were wildly successful, making the program a top-ten show. In 1991, Straczynski was contacted by Warner Brothers to produce Babylon 5 as a flagship program for the Primetime Entertainment Network. A potential fifth television network, as after CBS, NBC, Fox, and ABC, which would only last from January 20th, 1993 to October 27th, 1997, when it was re-replaced with the WB and UPN, who would eventually merge to become the CW in 2006. Uh, Babylon 5 was sort of an evolution from Captain Power, and Straczynski would write 92 of the 110 episodes of Babylon 5, a series which, over its five seasons, would win two Emmy Awards and two Hugo Awards, among other awards. Now, for what we come here to talk about, we're going to move on to comics. Yeah. In 1998, Straczynski started his own imprint at Top Cow, which is itself an imprint of Image Comics. Yeah. His imprint was called Joe's Comics. That's not that unusual, though, the imprint within an imprint. You know, that's basically yeah, especially at Image. Jim Lee's yeah. uh, shell game in a, right there. <laughs> now, notable tiles, titles from Joe's Comics include Midnight Nations, which was 12 issues plus a Wizard one-half issue, ran from October 2000 to July 2002 with artist Gary Frank, as well as Rising Stars, which ran 24 issues from August 1999 through March 2005. Sounds like there were a few delays in there. Now, Straczynski signed on as a Marvel-exclusive writer, and he would remain there from 2001 through 2007. 
His first work at Marvel was the rather daunting task of rescuing Spider-Man from the Burn Mackey reboot, wow. which uh, one of these days we'll have to talk about. Yeah. Uh, now, the first issue that he wrote was Amazing Spider-Man Volume 2, Number 30. This was June 2001 cover date. Now, his run with Spidey is among the more lauded in recent memory and introduced such things as... Uh, the spider totem. Uh, and uh, the question of whether or not the spider that bit him might have chose him specifically. Oh. Yeah. yeah it's a, it's an interesting question. It's not as interesting to read. But, uh, <laughs> but it was it was better than what we were getting before. Now, he also reunited Peter and Mary Jane after an extended estrangement left over from that horrendous reboot. Um, also, Aunt May found out about Peter's dual identity. Whoa. Yeah. Key stories included Spider-Man the Other. Back in Black, the Civil War tie-in, the War at Home, and One More Day, which more or less undid everything he put into place over his nearly seven-year run. And if we're being honest, 15 years of worth of runs before that. Yeah, he shouldn't take it personally. It actually got undid <laughs> almost everything that had happened since yes. about 1988 or something like that. 87, 87, 88, yeah. Uh, Shuzinski says, there's a lot I don't agree with, and I made this very clear to everybody within shouting distance at Marvel, especially Joe Quesada. There was a point where I made the decision and told Joe that I was going to take my name off the last two issues of the OMD arc. Eventually, Joe talked to me out of that decision because at the end of the day, I don't want to sabotage Joe or Marvel. And I have a lot of respect for both of those. Casada maintains that Trzinski was on board with the dissolution of the Parker marriage and only disagreed with the methodology of the thing, which actually is what everyone disagrees with. So I don't yeah. blame him for that. <laughs> uh, worth noting, JMS wrote the black-covered Amazing Spider-Man Volume 2, number 36, which was written as a response to the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Caught a bit of guff for portraying Dr. Doom as sympathetic to the plight of New Yorkers, even having him shed a tear as he sees the towers fall, which I think is perfectly reasonable, really. Uh, <laughs> other notable Marvel work included runs on Supreme Power for the Max line, Strange, which was a Doctor Strange six-issue limited series, Civil War-era Fantastic Four, where he replaced Sue and Reed with Storm and Black Panther, and a post-Civil War relaunch of Thor. In 2007, just as his contract was winding down, JMS began writing a 12-issue limited series called The Twelve, which looked at Marvel Timely's Golden Age heroes, who would be put on hold intermittently and wouldn't release its final issue until April 2012. When his Marvel-exclusive contract expired, and with the One More Day debacle still fresh, it was announced he would be making the jump to DC Comics, where his first work would be writing a relaunch Brave and the Bold. He'd write numbers 27 through 35. He would be the writer for the first of the Earth-1 line of original graphic novels, Superman Earth-1, and he would simultaneously take over monthly duties in the ongoing Wonder Woman and Superman titles, one of which we have the duty to discuss today. Mm-hmm. Now, across the table, Eddie Barrows. Eduardo Barrows was born in Belém de Paro, Para, Brazil, on a day at some point during the mid to late 20th century. Okay. <laughs> now, he was introduced to comics when his mother brought home an issue of Terma de Monica, which uh, in English is Monica's Gang. It's a Brazilian children's comic by Mauricio de Souza. And that's a book that still comes out to this day and one that, uh, if interviews are to be believed, Barrows still reads. Wow. Yeah, now his first professional work was for Chaos Comics, penciling six issues of their lauded Stone Cold Steve <laughs> Austin comic book. Awesome. 
<laughs> now, in 2003, he would do some work on that nostalgic relaunch of G.I. Joe back when, like, everything, when, when we all realized how cool it was that we all grew up in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, after doing a bit of work for Avatar Comics, he would send a few test pages to DC and got himself hired. At DC, he provided art for various comics, including Birds of Prey, the weekly series 52, All New Adam, Countdown to Adventure, Teen Titans, Action Comics, and eventually a certain sore-footed arc on Superman. Yeah, but there's one more person to talk about who shows up later in this uh, very long arc of Superman. (laughs) Uh, Chris Roberson, born August 25th, 1970, and grew up near Dallas, Texas. He graduated from the University of Texas, Austin, with a degree in English literature, and while in college, he viewed himself as a postmodernist writer who was unfortunately not depressed enough to stick the landing. And so he started to write science fiction, and his work would receive positive reviews in many of the sci-fi magazines. Joined a writer's collective known as Clockwork Storybook, along with fellow comics pros Bill Willingham and Matthew Sturges. He wrote and published several short stories and novels. However, the Clockwork Collective was short-lived. It was announced at the 2008 San Diego Comic-Con that Roberson will be writing the Fables spinoff Cinderella from Fabletown with Love, which came out January to June 2010 cover dates. He would eventually be selected to finish a particularly unfortunate Superman story that, hey, that's the one we're talking about today, right here. Yes. (laughs) Uh, One he described as having odds of failure that are freaking immense. Hmm. What does that mean? All right. I don't know. Well, let's uh, let's talk about something that led into that here. Uh, in a 2010 in USA Today, DC and Straczynski announced the basic premise for this grounded storyline. And if you lived not too far off Superman's beaten path, within 50 miles, you could write an essay. A very strange. We have we've got a minimum of 75 words and a wow. maximum of 1,000 words. <laughs> That's a <laughs> so uh, you know either a few sentences or a page, whatever you like, whatever you comes yeah. to your mind. <laughs> now your essay is going to describe your town and basically pitch for Superman to come by and make a pit stop. Now the Superman Across America Initiative stated that nine writer, nine winners would have their towns included on Superman's walking tour, and also those winners would receive signed copies of their issue. Couldn't find all that much on the winners, other than uh, one fellow by the name of Ryan Doman of Ogden, Utah, and that's Superman's stop in issue 710. Ryan says, I just wrote an essay saying what Ogden really is, is really, and it has a lot of things going for it, but it also has a lot of bad things going on sometimes, so we could use Superman to drop by. I guess it worked. I have a feeling that was probably the tenor of all the winning essays, or... No one else actually won this contest, which is, which is strangely like it, it, it came out and then it kind of withered away. It just uh, went away. We thought maybe it was like a Mandela effect. Like we both remembered it, but right. didn't know if it actually I was, happened. We didn't, I forgot like all the details too. I was like, was it about yeah. which cities or so get your face drawn in? I don't remember what the thing was. But anyway, that was that. So we'll jump right into these comics because there's plenty of them to talk about today. Starting with Superman number 700 with an August 2010 cover. Uh, titled Grounded Prologue, The Slap Heard Round the World by Straczynski and Barrows. And this really is just one of the stories featured in a giant size anniversary issue. Uh, features a pretty creepy Gary Frank cover from his Heroin Chic and Christopher Reeve collection. Mm-hmm. 
Now, Superman has returned from an extended absence. And, of course, this is in the wake of the new Krypton boondoggle. Uh, His loyalties have been called into question, uh, something that the news media is more than happy to run with. During a press conference, Superman is approached by a woman who greets him with a slap across the face. You see, she blames him for the death of her husband. She says, I know that will cause you pain. I know I can't hurt you, but I wanted you to feel that. Assuming you can still feel. If this is about New Krypton... I don't care about New Krypton, or orbiting satellites, or intergalactic whatever the hell you're doing. And she presents a photo. This is my husband, Richard. We got married right out of high school. I've never loved anybody else. We have two children. He worked hard every day of his life, but always made time for us. He died of a brain tumor four days ago. Inoperable, they said. Inoperable for them. But you could have seen it with your x-ray vision. You could have killed the tumor with your heat vision without harming the surrounding tissue. But you weren't there. I called anyone who might know how to contact you. I even contacted the Daily Planet, since they seemed to be your mouthpiece. They said you were in space, a new Krypton, trying to prevent some interstellar crisis. They said you were doing something important. You know, that sucks and all, but I I don't know about you. Stopping an interstellar crisis sounds pretty important, and... uh... If he didn't, maybe the rest of the world would have, uh, you know. I mean, he, he could have cut out the tumor in your in your husband's head, and then you all would have been destroyed by, like, a meteor shower. So Sure. <laughs> uh, you got to look at it like that way. But uh, she hands Superman the photo, and he makes pouty faces at it. Yeah, dude standing by goes, look, lady, it's not like he's, I mean, he's been running around the solar system saving planets, and even you realize that Superman can't be everywhere at once. Which essentially right there is the end of the argument. But That's anyway. the end of the argument. But <laughs> the, the woman's <laughs> rebuttal is, you're right, he can be everywhere at once, but you would know where. You were out there, not here, where you would need it. And my husband died, and I'll never see him again. Never get to tell him that I love him. Never. How you work for the blue skins, on how you on a planet someplace you help the orange skins, and you've done considerable for the purple skins. I feels I like we're, we heard I this know. before. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Superman doesn't contest this in the slightest. Instead, he simply flies off, pretty much lending credence to the lady's ridiculous claims. He, he doesn't <laughs> seems not to care. But over the next few pages, Superman checks in with Batman and the Flash to see if they've lost sight of the little people. Uh, it's also where a bit of a running gag about red kryptonite kicks into gear. But there's no such thing as red kryptonite, right? JMS could have any K he wants. <laughs> Superman flies into space where he can get a good look at Earth as a whole and thinks of that slap, at the f- slap in the face as something of a wake-up call. So yeah, Superman, forget about saving the entire planet. Just go around saving one person at a time. Screw the Earth and its longevity. You're going to give him a bad idea. Ah, too late. Oh, and so Superman lands and begins to walk. Strap on those comfy sneakers, folks. We're going to Superman. It's number 701, (laughs) September 2010 cover, Grounded, part run by Straczynski and Barrows. The walking tour begins in South Philadelphia, born and raised on a playground. No, 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 no. Okay. Uh, Where some neighborhood guys are huddled around (laughs) an open hood of a pickup truck. They know there's something wrong with the ride, but can't figure out exactly what. A random passerby pops his head in and suggests. It's the fuel line. Great, more help. Um, Jimmy, maybe you want... And just what makes you so sure, it's the freaking fuel line. 
It's Superman who looked in, and his eyes are glowing. He goes, trust me, I'm sure. Now with the cross-country walk underway, Superman finds himself surrounded by members of the press. It would seem nobody has any idea of why he would just walk. Yeah, tell us about it. Uh, now we get some more red kryptonite gags. Yeah, I mean, this is post-crisis, right? I don't really understand, uh, unless they're, they're talking about that crimson kryptonite, Mr. Mrs. Pitlick created for that, that one story 15 years before this story came out. Yeah, probably not. I doubt Straczynski read much of probably that. Uh, he probably just saw these little gags as cute. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, Superman walks into a group of reporters, one of whom is portly and uh, looks not unlike Tom Brevoort without his hat. Uh, <laughs> this Brevoort fella approaches Superman with an accusation. Yeah, he says, I think you've lost your powers. No. I don't think you can fly. I can. For this moment, I simply choose not to. Then I simply choose to call you a liar. I don't lie. Everybody lies. You're no different. Would you like to repeat that at 10,000 feet? Sure. I'll call you a bluff. Hi. And so Superman grabs the fatty and flies him 10,000 feet into the sky. Wow, you uh, sure showed that reporter human being Superman. Yeah, I, I get that, that Straczynski's trying to make Superman relatable, but uh, maybe not so much likable, because really, he's kind of a jerk. Not really Superman-ish, but all right. No. Uh, <laughs> after flopping the reporter back on the ground, he continues his walk, and he's joined by Lois, and oh boy, another Red K joke. Well, it was so funny the first few times, it'll, I can't hold it against never, him. It'll never stop being funny <laughs> for the rest of the series. Uh, she asks what he's planning, and he doesn't doesn't really get much of an answer to her. Then she asks how she'll, she'll, she'll explain Clark's absence, and still doesn't give her an answer. Uh, she does leave out a few important questions, for example. Didn't you just get back from New Krypton? Or maybe, are you really leaving me alone for another year? Or possibly, are we still married? <laughs> you know, those those kind of questions uh, might have <laughs> right. come up, yeah. They might be important. Uh, now, we're going to go ahead two hours later as we, we join Superman at a diner. And I think we get a cameo from Peter Parker. I think so, too. It uh, looks sort of reminiscent. It's got to be, yeah. yeah. And I think that's just to remind us that, hey, Straczynski wrote Spider-Man for yeah. a while. Yeah, and Peter's on the phone, and he says, What's he doing? He's not doing anything. He's having lunch in a diner. No, I don't know what he's having. This is nuts. You can't make a story about a guy walking down a street. Little meta-commentary, I presume? Well, we're about to learn he's not wrong. <laughs> not at all. Now, inside that diner, Superman would like to order a Philly cheesesteak. But he's not carrying enough money for one. <laughs> How long is he planning to walk with only a dollar in his pocket cape? Oh, what is he, 11? You know what I mean? right? He should have at least had an ATM card. It's ridiculous. Sure. Like, come on, buddy. Now, the waitress tells him his money's no good there and offers it up for free. Superman insists he pay. And so he organizes their stockroom in exchange for the meal. And does so with lightning quickness to, uh, you know, make him relatable to the common folk. Uh, That's what I would have done, sure. Exactly. Now, day turns to night, and (laughs) Superman Superman finds himself running into some drug dealers. Yeah, one of them named Charlie says, Yo, dude, what you doing here? You buying or selling? Because if you buying, then you a lot cooler than I heard. If you selling, you got to pick another block, brah, because we got this one. <laughs> a fellow who's not Charlie goes, you go, Charlie. Tell him. Got to tell you, S, that is one sad monkey suit. 
Looks better on TV. Got that old Project Runway vibe about it, you know. Now, as the drug dealer continues to run Superman's fashion sense and lack of authority down, the Man of Steel glances around the neighborhood. You listening to me? I hear you. So what you looking at if you ain't looking at me? I was using those eye beams to look inside all the houses up and down the street, finding all of your stashes. Yeah, so? Go tell that one to a judge. That ain't admissible. Still don't give you the right to go inside. You're right. It doesn't. But you should all go back inside. Quickly. Looks like someone set your stashes on fire. All of them. And Charlie and company make a mad dash for their homes in hope of saving their stashes. Doesn't look likely, though, considering most of the neighborhood is currently up in flames. Yes, seriously, Superman just burned down a neighborhood. Right? That really <laughs> happened. Like, what? And, uh, and this isn't a good area of town. He, he burns down a neighborhood. He burned it, and now it's fine. It'd be great now. Now no one has anywhere to live. And uh, <laughs> if that's not bad enough, here comes the real kicker, folks. Okay, so now a young boy approaches Superman and offers him a piece of candy to thank him for sticking it to the drug dealers. And Superman asks this very young child to deliver a message to those angry drug dealers. A, a child that would offer candy as a reward. Like, think about it, like a, a like yeah. eight-year-old or so, nine-year-old. I was going to say, single-digit age yeah. child. Very young. The kid says, candy? Thanks. When they come out, will you give them a message for me? Sure. Tell them, tell them that I plan to come back every few weeks. I'll do it again and again until they leave. Okay. But you know they're just going to set up somewhere else over there. Yes, but they won't be here anymore. And that's a step in the right direction. The hell? And the kid has a better has better sense of it. Yeah. He's like, he, the kid can see the future here. It's like, he, they're just going to go somewhere else. You're but just, Superman's like, eh, not my problem. That's for them over there to worry about. We're worried about <laughs> over here. It's like, did you move in? Is this, is this, where, is this your new neighborhood, Superman? This gentrification. Uh, you know, it's Superman destroying thousands of dollars worth of drugs and very nearly burning down a neighborhood in the process. Then he asks a child to deliver a threat to these very angry and very armed drug dealers. And it's so not something he would do. He would How? Yeah. take these drug dealers to prison. Right? And they would and the, the police would accept them because he's Superman. Because he's Superman. This isn't inadmissible because he used his X-ray vision. I, mean, I don't Superman. understand. Like, are we still in the DCU? Is that part of this? We got to another universe where they don't know who he is. And, and you know the way the drug dealers act, be like, "Oh, yo, that S looks." You know who this is. This is Superman. You know, like, right? You know, coming in with some ugly-looking duds. Like, what the hell's wrong with you? You know, you got an ugly ass cape, super, super whatever. You know, like, what? Are you, what is this? Super whatever you call yourself. <laughs> oh, it's so bad. Uh, but we're not done with this this Philadelphia walk yet. No, because Superman continues his walk. It's a big, big city, Philly. Let me tell right? you. Right? It's, it's grown. <laughs> uh, now, along the way, he keeps a car full of college students from running a red light and suggests an old man visit a doctor to have his heart looked at. Because, you know, it's uh, to relate to the to the normal folks, I, I usually listen into people's heartbeats from across the street, too. Yeah, that wouldn't, that wouldn't make me feel weird as hell at all, you know, right? somebody can hear my heartbeat, but... I, I, I'm going to go do that today. I, to, I'm going to go to just some, somebody's house and be like, hey, you need to get your heart checked out. At least it'll be a story they can tell. I think instead of, I think instead of checking people, shaking people's hands, you should check their pulse. 
That's the way to do it. You're like, oh, your heart sounds healthy. All right, good. Can I have a drink of water? Uh, now here's the other scene that this issue is somewhat notorious for, the jumper. Uh, he sees a building surrounded by officers and onlookers and decides to check it out and flies up to find a young woman sitting on a ledge, sobbing. Yes, he goes, hello, Felicity. Thought we might talk for a bit. I understand you've been going through a lot lately, and... Don't you dare touch me! That's what you want, isn't it? Wait until I drop my guard, and then you grab me and take me back down there by force. Because you can. Because you're stronger than me. Because you know I can't stop you. Let's play this one out. Yeah. Now, if he wanted you on the ground, you'd already be there. Right. Uh, Whether or not you drop your guard is kind of moot. This is, again, Superman. You can punch him right in the face and the the junk, and nothing's (laughs) not going to affect anything. Yeah, you'll you'll still be on the ground. Right. Uh, Now... I'm also getting a vibe here that Straczynski feels like Superman needs to apologize for being powerful, which begs the question, why the hell is he writing this character? He doesn't, he obviously doesn't understand that Superman... Or has any kind of interest. I mean, he doesn't, like, exploit his power for, to, like, you know, pick up people, usually, except for this (laughs) Until here. (laughs) Okay, now we jump back into the ridiculousness. Somebody said when you gave your word, you'd never break it. Is this true? Is it? Yes. Well, I'll just believe that somebody then. That I want your word. I want your promise that you won't try to take me down by force. And that if I jump, if I choose to jump, because it's my choice, you won't stop me. If you do that, I'll talk to you. I give my word. I won't stop you, and I won't take you back down against your will. And worst of all, he really means it, folks. It's not just saying this. (laughs) Such an inspiration, right? Yeah. Uh, Felicity starts spilling her guts We mean telling her story She doesn't actually fall on the ground no. uh, And uh, it, it's all very quarter life crisis She's her mother who died She lost her job It's a bad scene Works in a cubicle, yeah. man It's gotta be more than life to this That kind of thing mm. Now Superman's words of wisdom uh, Come down to more or less Life's tough That's what my mom used to tell me right? Felicity <laughs> says It's not fair None of it's fair And don't you dare tell me it is I won't, because you're right. It's not fair. John Lennon is dead, and Muammar Gaddafi is still alive. JFK is dead, and Castro's alive. Gandhi's dead, but Manson keeps hanging in there. It's not fair. But it's not unfair, either. It just is. Wow, three for three. What a difference a decade makes, huh? Yeah, while on that subject, hey, Superman, where were you on the following dates? Uh, October 20th, 2011, November 25th, 2016, and November 19th, 2017. Yeah, uh, those fellas are all gone now. Uh, I've never wanted to punch Superman in the face before, but here we are. You just wait, because it's about to get worse. Yikes. Still in Philly, day turns to night again, and Superman just floats next to Felicity until he gets bored enough to suggest... If you honestly believe in your heart of hearts that you will never, ever have another happy day, then step out into the air. I'll keep my promise. I won't stop you. Did Superman just suggest this girl kill herself? Right? I mean, I mean you don't call that bluff, right? I mean, you pretty much, except on the internet, you know, a 12-year-old on the Twitter might say that, but I don't, <laughs> I don't expect uh, Superman to do that. If I don't get 20 more followers... Exactly. Then... <laughs> Superman continues. But if you think there's a chance, no matter how small, that there might be just one more happy day out there, then take my hand 
I'm glad she waited for him to come to the second part of that frame. Right. She might have just been like, later! <laughs> Peace! <laughs> and she decides to choose life and embraces Superman. Back on the ground, she's taken to a hospital, and Superman is approached by one of the officers. The officer goes, hey, question for you. Did you really let her fall? And after a moment of silence, Superman replies, Good night, officer. God, so bad. Yikes. Uh, We wrap up this monumental issue with uh, the most face-punchable utterance from Superman. The worst one. Probably ever. uh, As he's approached by a man who's out walking his dog. Yeah, he says, Well, there he is. I saw it on the news, but I couldn't believe it. Out for a freaking walk. World's going to hell, and you're on a walk. I mean, shouldn't you be out saving the world or something? You're a hero, right? Isn't that what heroes do? To be a hero, and I'm not saying I am one, I'm just saying is to live your life in a small cell whose bars are the principles and rules that define what you will and won't accept. Injustice, cruelty, murder. On the night they threw Henry Thoreau in jail for civil disobedience, a friend came to see him, saying, Henry, what are you doing in there? Thoreau said, no, the question is, what are you doing out there? If I am lucky enough, privileged enough, to live in that cell, to serve in that box with the word hero written on it, then I say to you, from somewhere deep inside that box, what are you doing out there? I mean, this feels like a prank, right? Like, I feel like they're going to say that yeah. he's under the control of the psycho pirate the whole time. So. Like, is this an April Fool's issue? <laughs> what is happening? Uh, it's worth noting, though, that uh, Henry David Thoreau was in prison for exactly one night for failing to pay his taxes. Hmm. His aunt would pay the bill the next morning, and he'd be released. So that's a hell of a dude to quote. Good job there. Yeah, he's an inspiration, right? Uh, that's right. Very, very inspiring. So... Of all the issues, I'd say we're going to go through the rest of them, obviously, right now. We're still, we've got a lot to go, but this is like the water, you know, this is this the bombshell issue. issue with the so many insane scenes, the drug dealer. Everything he does in this issue is unbelievable, you know, and it's like, yeah. it's so, I mean, you know, we'll, we'll talk more about it in the wrap-up, but, you know, on the face of it, the idea of humanizing Superman, bringing him back to a... Earth, you know, a, a protector of Earth level after he did spend a long time kind of Away. messing around with the big new yeah. Krypton thing. Uh, that makes sense. And even even in a broad way, going on a walkabout could make sense. But this, sure. I don't understand what's happening. Like, he wouldn't do any of this. It, it's insane. No. It's insane. But like we say, we got many more to go. We do, we do. It's, I, I don't, he's just megalomaniacal here. It's just yeah. like, it's just so nuts. And, uh, not too long, either before or after. I think it was before this. Didn't uh, in All Star Superman? Didn't Grant Morrison write a like a jumper scene that was? Oh like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, the yeah, opposite yeah. of this. Yeah, absolutely I mean, opposite. I mean, it's, you know, Superman is supposed to instill hope. You know, right? he's not supposed to be resigned to another person's individual right to die. Yeah, and that's just not his thing. And there are heroes that would be more resigned to that, and that it would sure. make sense for them to behave that way, and he's not that one. You he know? is the last one that you'd he's the, expect he's for that. Probably the, I'd expect a Wonder Woman to be more like, well, you know, the, we'll have to travel yeah. the river sticks someday, so, you know. <laughs> no, because I read an issue of Action Comics from, uh, I want to say, 1999 or 2000, where Nightwing guest starred, and it started with Nightwing diving off a building. 
She goes, Nightwing can do that. Yeah. And Superman just sees him out of the corner of his eye and he saves him without even right, thinking right, right. twice. Yeah. So it's like, that's Superman. This is not. I Very don't know weird. what this is. Oh, boy. Okay, let's let's move on here before <laughs> we both you know, pop our brain cells here. Uh, Superman 702, cover dated October 2010. Grounded, part two by Straczynski and Barrows. We're in Detroit now, and Superman is walking down a street. Uh, he decides to throw in on a pickup game of basketball. Yeah, Detroit, right adjacent to Philadelphia. Um, right next door, right next door. There's a nerdy b-ball kid named Marky G among them who's basically there to be the butt of all their jokes. But of course, Superman allows Marky G to steal the ball from him. Yeah, Superman goes, not bad, guys, not bad. Gotta go. Yeah, you going now that we smoked you. After Marky G pick your pocket... Marky G, dude, you are the man. Yo, over here, everybody. Marky G smokes Superman. Now, Superman continues his walk and comes across a man raking his lawn. Superman is instantly suspicious and, like, gets right in the guy's face. almost Right in his face. Very antagonistically. Totally. Uh, he claims that he hears the man's breathing through his gills rather than lungs, and we can't understa- understate how aggressive he is with this guy about it. Yeah, Superman from the curb goes to this to this random dude raking his leaves. Do you hear something unusual? Right. No, I. Not that the average person would. It's almost subsonic, a vibration. No, no, I can't say that I. I also hear the sound you make when you talk, a breathy sigh behind your voice, the sort you'd make if you had a layer of gills inside your chest instead of lungs. But what are the odds of that, right? After a pause. Do you want me to look inside your chest? Yo, you should not really, right? dude. Uh, Come on. I guess he can't really stop you, but okay. Uh, <laughs> the man finally comes clean, brings Superman inside his house. Turns out that he's actually a man, uh, an alien. <laughs> uh, Superman's attacked by a giant, like, robot warsuit thing. One of them's wearing this, like, super warsuit. Gives us a couple of pages of action that were desperately needed. Uh, when the dust settles, we learn that this is a house full of alien scientists, fresh from the delicious Nutella galaxy, who fled to Earth to escape tyranny. Natala. What? The, the planet Natala. I think I think that's more almond-based than hazelnut. All right, close enough. Yeah. So it's quickly revealed that uh, why we're getting this story, it, it allows for JMS to make some pithy illegal immigration remarks. And Superman goes, you can't just come here from an alien world. You did. I was an infant. Oh, so it's good enough for you, but not good enough for us? Sent from an exploding planet? Death would be better than tyranny. Then under his breath, Superman goes, Could you possibly have picked a worse time to immigrate here illegally? I wish I could grow fists on top of my fists. Yeah, this is bad. Uh, Superman asked what they could offer to Earth, and their idea is, get this, (laughs) they're pretty good at finding lost pets. Hey, that's great. That's nice. But Superman suggests they aim higher, and then he leaves. But not before threatening that he hasn't yet decided what to do about them. Thanks for stopping by, Superman. Perhaps we'll see you again sometime. That very well may happen. Because I still haven't decided what to do about you. This isn't over. I just need to think for a while. Oh. Yeah, nothing too ominous there, right? Uh, Superman continues his walk and comes across an elderly man who is employed as a security guard. He watches over all the abandoned machine shops in his neck of Detroit. They have a 
a pleasant enough chat, and when Superman goes to take his leave, the man doubles over Coffin. Superman returns, swoops him up, takes him back to the alien house from, you know, like 10 seconds ago. Right, yep. <laughs> and while there, he convinces them to load him into a machine and heal him. So, these aliens had, like, a healing pod machine thing in their basement, but they led with, we can find lost pets? Yep. They really were shooting pretty low. I got it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we wrap this. Out. <laughs> we wrap this up with Superman <laughs> suggesting the aliens take over some of the abandoned plants and warehouses and heal people. They've also stockpiled a bunch of gold, which is used to be worthless on their planet. <laughs> but you remember that was their thing. Uh, this, for some reason, reason annoys several local CEOs. Probably just uh, Straczynski grinding his axe. I don't know what that was about. Yeah, it's, it's, he seems a lot of his a lot of things are very pointed here. Yeah. Now, uh, in a rare win-win-win, the plants now have new occupants. All the laid-off auto workers are now back to work, and you know we got healing pods. Hey, that's... <laughs> it's, that's great. Uh, Alan Charlie, who's that coughing man from earlier, he is hired on full time. We wrap up this issue with Superman. Walking, and we can see that Batman has an eye on him. Uh oh, sounds like a world finest team up in the mix in the mm-hmm. making, if you ask me. And uh, that's exactly what we're gonna see in Superman, well, in its way, in Superman <laughs> number 703, November 2010 cover, Grounded Part 3 by Straczynski and Barrows. Be open with Superman holding a stalker upside down, and he forces the ta- stalker to call him Sir. That really doesn't feel like Superman. Has any of this felt like Superman? Fair enough, fair enough. Uh, Superman goes, and you don't want to go back to prison again, do you? No! No, sir. No, sir! Jesus. (laughs) Now, after this, uh, Batman decides to engage his super pal. Uh, Worth mentioning, this is Dick Grayson in the Batsuit, by the way. Right, this this is falling out of Morrison's run on Batman, which we may look at some other day. Certainly. Now, before breaking away, Superman forces the stalker to repeat never going back for an hour and a half. 32 minutes later, never going back. Swear to God, never going back. Keep saying it for another hour. I'll know if you stop. Jeez, dude. What are you are? Right? It's like a, what a bully, you know? What is totally. happening? Uh, by the way, we're in Cincinnati, Ohio, and yeah. Batman believes Superman's in the midst of an emotional breakdown, which... I gotta say, it's probably the best theory going. It's definitely better than Red Kryptonite, uh, right. in my mind. <laughs> now Superman goes, I expected you'd say that, given how out of touch you and Bruce became over the years. What's that supposed to mean? Alone in the cave? On rooftops? In back alleys and dark corners? Where in all that does the voice of the average guy reach your ears? Apples and oranges. What we fight is a lot bigger and more dangerous. The average guy isn't our problem. No. And then he wins Batman over by citing Joe Chill as just an average guy. Well, when you can't win an argument with logic, you might as well hit him where it hurts. Mm-hmm. Uh, Superman continues to lecture Batman until he hops back in the Batmobile and leaves, which I guess works. He, he actually just walks away. Yeah, He's like, I, okay, I'm I, done. I'm I would, too. I mean, Superman just goes on and right. on and on, like a later dad. Oh, you know? lordy. <laughs> <laughs> now, we hop back to Metropolis, and word has reached the Daily Planet that some debris from New Krypton has landed on Earth. And so Lois informs Superman and suggests that he head to Danville, Ohio, which is fictional but nearby, uh, <laughs> to check on it. Now, it turns out that two children found the shard and brought it to their Fundamentals of Science 101 teacher, Lisa Jennings. These kids look to be around like 10, and they're in a 101 class. 
Right? I, 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 is JMS done school? I, I don't know. know. Well, Cincinnati might have a hell of a public education system. They so might. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> now, at this point, Ms. Jennings' eyes begin to glow, and it's worth mentioning that Superman is walking past the building as this happens. Mm. Um, and so she heads to she has to head to a local dive bar to chat up the town drunk Willie Trask. Sure. Which is a great idea under any circumstances. <laughs> I don't know why more people don't do it. Uh, she flirts with him a bit and then touches his hand, which somehow transfers this new Krypton power into him, rendering him invulnerable. And also chomping for a fight, it Ooh, seems. He's a mean drunk, that guy, yeah. He is. Uh, lucky for him, Superman is in town, and he's chatting up a female officer about the missing debris. Willie Trask says, Who the hell invited you here? The officer says to Superman, Ignore him. That's Willie Trask, town drunken bully. Likes to run his mouth. It's okay. I just want to be sure because some of the footprints I saw belong to kids. Kids play in that area all the time. Doesn't mean they... Don't you ignore me. Don't you disrespect me. Trask, do you know who you're talking to? Like I give a damn. Listen, friend. I ain't your friend. I know you don't want any trouble. That's where you're wrong. With that, Trask socks soups with a wham. And the fight goes on for a few pages and ends with Superman tweaking and breaking what? Willie's nose. What, what happened? Uh, and neighborhood gets destroyed too, so there's also that. I don't think, um, he, ever, I don't think he ever broke now, Mongol's nose. You know? Right? <laughs> It's. I mean, it, it took it took several issues for him to get to the point where he broke the little stalactites off of Doomsday's uh, right. Yeah, yeah. Knee. Do, do that. <laughs> but he breaks Willie's nose in a minute oh, uh, and destroys his neighborhood. So also there. Right. Uh, now the issue wraps with Ms. Jennings, that science teacher from earlier, delivering a scathing and insanely rambly message to CVN News. She says, "This is entirely Superman's fault." If he hadn't been out of the open drawing attention, drawing an attack like this, it would never have happened. So I guess there's a larger question here. Superman lost his first world, abandoned his second, and we all saw his third world get blown up. That's two worlds destroyed and one world betrayed. Maybe he needs to face facts. Maybe he needs to let go of the idea of ever having a world to call his own. Not that he doesn't deserve one. I'm not saying that at all. But you have to ask, do we really want to see the score turn into three worlds destroyed? Is he just bad luck? Is he? I mean, if I was a reporter, I'd have walked away from her like 30 seconds really? ago, I mean, right? This is the kind of person well, you just like, thank you, and you don't use that footage. Yeah, we, we're not using that clip. That's going in the garbage. Uh, and again, worth mentioning, this is right after New Krypton exploded, so mm -hmm. that's the third world they're talking about. We, we might uh, have to do that someday, too, the uh, New Krypton stuff. We'll see. It's 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 interesting, but it's long. It's really uh, long, and it doesn't <laughs> doesn't end great, but it's, uh, it's all right. No. Now, uh, we hop into the, the next issue here, Superman 704. is December 2010 uh, publishing uh, what was it, cover date. Yeah. Uh, this is called The Road Least Traveled, comma, A Grounded Interlude. Hey! <laughs> now, this is by G. Willow Wilson and Leandro Oliveira. So three issues in, and we've already got a fill-in. Let me tell you, folks, if you buy comics regularly, you know that that is what we call a bad sign. <laughs> yes, for sure. Now, in this issue, Lois Lane fiz visits her fictional hometown of Rushmark, Indiana and meets up with an old boyfriend of hers named Brian. 
who invites her to din- to have dinner with him and his wife and his family. And so she goes, and she sees the kind of life that she might have had. Starts off syrupy sweet, but the veneer <laughs> cracks pretty quick. Uh, Brian and his wife eventually begin to bicker and complain about who's taking the kids where and who's spending time with the kids, so... Lois becomes uncomfortable and leaves. Uh, as she leaves, Superman swoops her up. They make nice in the sky. And he drops her off back in Metropolis before resuming his walk. Okay. And it was almost a breath of fresh air in its own way, even though that right? is Right. Kinda... It wasn't a great story, but no. it was so much better than what we... It's because Superman wasn't in it, which is the worst. <laughs> it's a horrible thing to say, but it's true. <laughs> uh, but he's back in Superman number 705, January 2011, cover date. Titled Grounded Part 4, Visitation Rights by Straczynski, Barrows, and Wellington Diaz. Welcome to Mount Prospect, Illinois, and if the cover doesn't tip you off, just a picture of a boy with a black eye, we're going to be discussing domestic abuse in this one. We join Superman as he walks down a busy Chicago street, and the average folk he's trying to get in touch with are rather displeased that he is, he, he is there. Yeah, so further to further hammer this point home, he walks past a newspaper rack that references the destruction he left in Danville just a couple issues back. He heads to the park and watches the children play. Yeah, some woman says, You shouldn't be here. There are children playing here. If something goes wrong, if there's some kind of trouble... There won't be. Are you sure? Can you be sure? And then a guy says, Look, we can understand why you'd want to see the country. It's natural. Last summer, Becky and I drove from Chicago to Las Vegas. Difference is, nobody got killed. Nobody got their house blown up. If a man walked into a park, into this park with a gun, everybody'd be nervous. You get that, right? Of course. Well, then what you need to understand is the way we see it, you are a gun. Now, if there's one hero in the DC universe, hell, all of comics that people should have no reason to fear, it's probably Superman. Yeah, I this mean, is like the this is the big blue Boy Scout, right? This is yeah. like again, I'd be more afraid of Wonder Woman walking into the park than yes. him, you know. <laughs> and, and, and she's a nice hero too. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, and they're treating us like the Incredible Hulk is visiting the elementary school yeah. that kids, your kids attend. It's just, I mean, there, there's going to be a workaround for this later on, but it is very, very flimsy. Very. But, yeah, uh, remember this, yeah, boy. For what we get, it's just, oh, so bad. Um, now, either way, Superman, a man who has saved the planet, the universe, everything and everyone on it more times than we can count, slumps his head into his shoulders and walks away. <laughs> He walks over to Lois Lane, who's conveniently hanging out on a nearby park bench. I guess she's following the story of Superman's ridiculous stroll. But so is Clark Kent. Right? I, I, it's like, it's I, the husband and wife who are just going to take off across I the guess, country. Well, I mean, you, you also forgot to mention that every other reporter pulled out when he went to that diner because they felt it was too boring. Yep. Which, by the way, is moronic since reporters follow, like... People on chess tournaments, you know what I mean? Like, it's, 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 oh, this is too boring. Let's go, let's go find the dog that pisses on a high, you know, hydrant. But yeah, but the Daily Planet sends their two top reporters on that. The one. two top reporters in the country, yeah. yeah. That's fine. So that night, Superman has a nightmare where he is powerless to stop a beast from destroying Metropolis. Meanwhile, in Mount Prospect, that kid from the cover has his black eye. His mother applies makeup to cover it while he wonders aloud why his father hates him. Daddy Dearest does arrive and is quite displeased at the quality of coffee that his wife brewed, and so he slaps her around a little bit. The kid tries to intervene but gets tossed down to the basement stairs for his trouble. 
And as luck would have it, Superman just happened to be walking by. He, he x-ray peeps on the kid and retrieves him from the basement, takes him to Child Protective Services, and gives him a phone number to call every day to keep him updated. He threatens his abusive dad slash husband, too. There will be consequences. Yeah, the CPS officer says, Good thing you came along, Superman. Otherwise, we might never have known about any of this. It needed you to get to the bottom of it. No, it didn't. All it needed, all it really needed, was someone. Anyone with a pair of eyes, a voice, a phone, and ten cents worth of compassion. The hell does any of that mean? I don't, yeah, is right? It, is he saying CPS is at fault or the system? Who, who's bad here? What is what is his problem? What well, is his beef? Who well, is it with? He, sa- he says you needed a pair of eyes. Well, yours happened to have x-ray vision, sir. <laughs> that, that was the key difference in this case that really turned the tide. Okay. Uh, and and uh, the other thing is ten, a phone and ten cents. Like, come on, the phone hasn't been ten cents for a long time. Uh, yeah, I JMS, give me a break here. But uh, yeah, I, also, I mean, frankly, see, now here's the thing: like, if you or I found uh, this situation, we would contact CPS because we mm-hmm. are people. You know what I mean? We we do not have the resources. We're powerless. Yes. Exactly. I, we can't fly a kid to an orphanage and like use our the fact that we're Superman to grease the, you know what I mean? But he is Superman. Mm-hmm. Yep. What the hell's going on? <laughs> it's like I, I can't threaten an abusive father with my heat vision because I don't have you heat don't vision. don't have heat vision, but he can. Uh, and, you know, this is this is highlights the, the thing that in the very, not even the first issue, but the intro to the story, the answer is why doesn't Superman save everybody all the time? This is why he, he, so he, he can't. Has, He's supposed yeah. to do this all day. He'd be doing this all day. You know what I mean? Yeah. Scanning every basement with his X-ray vision, <laughs> grabbing every abused kid, and and chastising the local CPS. Like that would be <laughs> that would be what he did. Oh, that would there would be no other hero heroism whatsoever. That would be his only job. Good God. <laughs> And I, I thought that they, uh, I thought maybe they were going to throw us a curveball here the first time I read it. I thought maybe it was going to be that the mother was abusive. It seemed like they might, it might get, you know, like, ooh, we're going to, we're going to twist it here because she's applying the makeup to the kid's face. And, yeah. and the kids, the kid doesn't ask, why does that hit me? He asks, why does that hate me? So it's like, I wonder, I, I wondered the first time through if like they were going to like throw a curveball and be, have the mother be the one who's taken out her frustration on the kid. But, uh, might have been interest a little more interesting, it, but no. it would have been something. <laughs> But what we get is exactly what we think. And I mean, the abusive father is right out of like the abusive father casting call. Let me tell you, folks. I mean, this guy. Does he couldn't be anything else? He's uh, just a no. Kind of that's yeah. He's not, get, gross, he's not a leading you know? man. No, this guy. He's he's there to hit kids and be a carnival barker, and that's about that's it. it. So uh, ooh, we are we are coming close to the uh, halfway point here. Buddy. Almost. We're gonna march on here to uh, Superman number seven oh six. February 2011 cover day. Breaking news, a grounded interlude by Wilson and Amilcar Pinna. That's right. We made it one whole issue before another fill-in. Woohoo! Yeesh. Uh, So this is Daily Planet-centric story, which hints hints at there being an unprofessional relationship between Lois Lane and Superman. Really one of those things a writer shouldn't direct attention to, if you ask me. That's a tough thing to walk back. But as we'll find out, it's not really that important in the long run. Uh, The ending is convenient and involves Photoshop. 
Yeah. Uh, best thing about this issue is Perry White's utterance of "Great Caesar's goiter," which yeah. I'm definitely working into my uh, vernacular. No, everyday problem. vernacular for sure. <laughs> I, I I hate it when they do this when they draw attention to Lois and and Superman being close because it's like we're not supposed to see that. Exactly. We only know it because that's the story. You know, it, the people in Metropolis shouldn't see that. It's a worm that once let out of the can, you can't put back in. You know what I mean? No. Like this, uh, the, I guess the only way to do it would be like. One more day style mind wipes, yeah. or you know what I mean. No one wants that. So, uh, same kind of thing with like people figuring out that you know Bruce Wayne is Batman or X. You know, yeah. or, it's like you can't you can't put that back in the jar. So use no. that very sparingly. But mm-hmm. like, I, like I say, in a few months, it's not going to matter. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> We're going to go right on into Superman number seven oh seven, March two thousand eleven cover date. Grounded Part 5 by Straczynski, Chris Robertson, and Alan Goldman. So, welcome to the welcome to the team, Chris Robertson. I hope you're not expecting this to become more readable right away, folks, because it's, it's a little rough at start. Superman's in Des Moines, Iowa, where he's really rather busy saving the day, including halting a freight train when a little girl wandered onto the track to chase a runaway balloon. What isn't clear is that 45 workers on board the train all lost their lives. Okay, that didn't really happen. No, no. (laughs) The the crux of this issue is that a chemical plant explodes, and after performing the rescue, Superman learns that the plant is actually contaminating the groundwater with chloride, which in Superman's own words, isn't exactly good for the environment, but it isn't killing anybody either. Christ, who is this guy? What is going on? Now, as luck would have it, Lois Lane is also there reporting on this event, by the way. Now, the workers there beg Superman not to go public. Don't report this to the authorities because then the plant would be shut down and everyone would lose their jobs. And when Lois sees Superman begin to waffle, she will chime in. Mm-hmm. We have a worker go, I feel bad for them fishes, but I got a family to feed. Another guy says, Please don't let him shut us down, Superman. Then Superman gets that hangdog look on his face he's had for this entire arc so far. Lois says, You can't be seriously considering this, can you? I don't know. It's not all black and white. In the distance, we can see that science teacher, Ms. Jennings, looking on. We'll expect more of her and hanging around. Yeah. Lois says, Are you serious? Moral ambiguity from you? What about the truth? Doesn't the public have the right to know? What good is the truth, Ms. Lane, if it just causes suffering? Like, you know, chloride in the groundwater. Anyway, uh, Superman (laughs) tells the workers that he'll keep it all the down low so long as they try to get the situation under control. And as has become custom, threatens to pop in from time to time to make sure. (laughs) Lois is, as you may imagine, really ticked off. She's still unsure whether or not she'll agree to not to run the story until... Superman says, I'm afraid you can't run that story. What? You know what? Never mind. I'm going to finish my story, and you and I can talk about this later. I don't think you heard me. I said you can't run it. Who is this guy? It's unbelievable. I mean, you know, and when when that line came, I thought it was going to be like, you, you know, you you, you, pen, you used your pencil backwards or something, you know what I mean? Like, but no, he's literally threatening his wife. He's threatening yes. his wife not to run a story or he'll, uh, I guess... Break. About poisoned groundwater. I guess he'll, he'll kill her. Is that the idea? I mean, what's going to happen? 
He's gonna hang her upside down and make her repeat yeah, something for ninety minutes. Sir. <laughs> uh, yeah, and not even in a good way. Anyway, so <laughs> after the dust settles, Superman attempts to call Lois, but he gets her voicemail, and uh, <laughs> I'm not surprised he leaves a minute. Right. Uh, we wrap this up with Superman being greeted by the Superman Squad. Uh, this is a concept not unlike the Superman of America, but in the future. They have only appeared to this point in DC 1 million and All-Star Superman, both by Grant Morrison. They assemble because they were inspired by Superman's heroic acts. So they're the Legion of Superheroes? Uh, well, they're uh, sort of. Mm-hmm. So Superman no. 708, uh, <laughs> April 2011 cover date, titled Grounded in Part 6 by Straczynski, Roberson, or Robertson and Barrows. Uh, Superman squad take Hangdog Superman to the Fortress of Solidarity, sort of the clubhouse uh, headquarters for the Superman squad. And uh, they warn him to get his act together because he's in danger of losing himself. Not to mention all of his readers. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's here that it's suggested that Superman is suffering from depression, which will become the driving theme for the rest of this arc, and unfortunately, the rest of this volume. Uh, now, the squad drops him in Lincoln, Nebraska, and tells him that they're doing so in order for him to inspire a certain woman. If the cover didn't tip you off, they might be talking about Wonder Woman, <laughs> or at least that's what they want us to think. More on that later. Now, here's where things get hinky. In Wonder Woman's own book, also written by Straczynski, she's basically been erased from everyone's memory. So, when Superman sees her, he doesn't recognize her. Fair play, though, she doesn't recognize him either. Hey, just like those drug dealers uh, in Ohio. No one knows who right? that was. <laughs> now, not that the book is any help here. If, you, if you're just reading Superman, you've got no idea what's going on. <laughs> and you wouldn't get the clarification until a letters page a few issues later... That just happened to be full of confused Confused letters from fans saying, what's going on? Not the best way to get the information out there, folks. Uh, Together, Superman and Wonder Woman stop a tornado from tearing up the town. And Ms. Jennings shows up again and is very annoyed that Wonder Woman aided Superman. Wonder Woman nails her with a solid right hand, but it doesn't knock her down. Mm, More than meets the eye to Ms. Jennings there. Mm -hmm. Takes us right into Superman number 709. It's May 2011 cover date. Grounded Part 7 by Straczynski. I don't know if it's Robertson or Roberson. I think Roberson is probably right. Uh, Either Barrows one. And, R-O-B-E-R-S-O-N. How about that? That's him. It's Robertson without the T. Uh, <laughs> that's why I'm saying Robertson. Uh, now it's Straczynski, Roberson, Barrows, and Goldman. We open in Colorado. And Superman is finishing up a superhero team-up with a fellow by the name of Super Chief. This is a native character who can tap into the powers of the Manitou Stone, or Manitou Stone. Several years earlier, there were a couple of characters on the JLA with similar powers. They were called Manitou Dawn and Manitou Raven. Yeah. Uh, We follow Superman into Boulder, and all the while he's trying to get a hold of Lois, who still ain't answering. I mean, would you? Nope, I don't blame her at all. Nope. Suddenly, the streets are transformed into Krypton. Hmm. Turns out the Flash is uncontrollably running through town and using Kryptonian hallucinations in order to get Superman's attention, and it works. Hey. Uh, There might have been other ways to do it, but that's fine. When Superman (laughs) finally catches the Flash, he sees that he's wearing an odd crown, and he removes it. Everything goes back to normal. Now, together, they head to a diner. Basically, so Superman can kvetch. Uh, Superman wonders if he's done the right thing in leaving his legacy behind. Uh, what? Do we miss? Do we miss an issue somewhere? Where? Yeah. I mean, I thought he was just walking around. He still got the costume. 
Right? right? I, I don't know. He's even using his powers. He's he's actually in a roundabout effed up way, he's helping things, but you know, not in the way we think he should. But yeah, unless he's talking about his legacy as Clark Kent, which I don't think he is. I don't I mean, think so. I don't see I don't see the the the, the Clark Kent squad from the future. Kind of. <laughs> uh, now we uh, we get to see a flashback here of young Clark Kent in detention. You see, he did something heroic, which caused him to miss class, and he couldn't exactly cop to what it was, so he got stuck in detention. Now, the coolest part of this scene is the fact that he's reading an Iron Monroe comic book, which has the same back cover ad as Action Comics number one, which is pretty cool. He's eventually joined by young Lex Luthor, who's in detention probably for being a little jerk. He probably Uh, probably just blew up a uh, chemical bomb or something. (laughs) He killed 17 people with him in detention. (laughs) He killed 17 people and a frog. With a robot, Uh, you know, that was all. (laughs) Yes. Uh, And uh, Lex, you know, Lex says, why are you inside the cage? No. No. Either way, Lex walks out of detention and lets Clark serve his term. Uh, Back in the present, Barry tells Superman that he enjoys having a legacy of speedsters to pass on because it makes him feel like no matter whatever happens to him, there'll always be a flash. Yeah, so he can screw up all he likes. Uh, Mm -hmm. So Superman 710, (laughs) June 2011, cover date. This is Grounded Part 8 by Straczynski, Roberson, and Barrows. In Ogden, Utah, Superman saves the life of an archaeologist named Helen Phelps. You know, just doing those average guy things that everyone we do all the time. Yeah, I mean, I, I must have saved four lives before breakfast this morning. Oh, you must have been sleepy. Uh, so I, I was. Yeah, I woke up late. <laughs> well, while they chat, <laughs> Superman sees this sim- his symbol in the sky and heads over to see what's up. He finds, if the cover didn't make it clear, Batman. And this is now Bruce in the suit, by the way, after... Life After Death, right? That's what the arc was called, something like that? Yeah, Bat- was it uh, The Return uh, of Bruce Wayne? Return or... of Bruce Wayne, yeah. that's right. Uh, went through time. Batman Incorporated time. That's here. right, exactly. So uh, they talk, it leads to a flashback of Bruce and Clark as younger men working together in Butron, and it's pretty boring. After the flashback, Batman tells Superman a bit about Bat- the Batman Inc. project and suggests that Clark might just be suffering from depression. They part as friends with Batman telling Superman he's got the shadows covered. Because he's needed out in the light. He also calls him Smallville, which uh, just seems I just seems weird, Chris. I mean, right? isn't that what Lois calls him? That's Lois's line. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know what. And he's got this creepy smile on his face yeah, when he I calls him Smallville. I didn't like that at all. I was like, yeesh. Did not. <laughs> no, and uh, and so I, I guess uh, that that letter the 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 essayist from earlier was right about Ogden, Utah. It's it's a good place to go, but there are some bad things. Some happen, bad things and Batman. You know, archaeologists fall into holes and stuff. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> We hop into Superman 711. This is July 2011 cover date. Grounded Part 9 by Straczynski, Roberson, and Barrows. We start in Provo, Utah, where Superman is being given the key to the city. Oh, more than average guy stuff. No big thing. Yeah, yeah if, I, if I had to keep track of all the storage lockers I had to rent to keep all my keys to various cities, there's, I don't know what I'd do. You can't put them on a key ring because they're gigantic. That's the problem. They are. They are. They look really funny in my pocket, too. <laughs> So suddenly he hears Jimmy Olsen's signal watch start to Z, Z, Z. And this takes him over to Las Vegas where Livewire is running amok. Yeah, Superman tosses his key to the city to Jimmy so he can take care of business. Okay, now Livewire is an electric villain here, right. in case that's not clear. And isn't a key what Ben Franklin used to attract lightning? Hmm, 
yeah. he's throwing this to Jimmy? I mean, I, I, Jimmy, think, you I think he might be looking at killing two birds with one stone here. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho, <laughs> Superman takes the fight to Livewire, and if we're not mistaken, it looks like Bob Hope's nephew, Superhip, might be playing in Vegas. I, really, mm-hmm. I think it's got to be him, but it's got to be. Uh, it might be the kind of thing we see everywhere, but not really. <laughs> yeah, only people like us see it. <laughs> really, you know. <laughs> Any, any guy in a shaggy top must be super. Uh, we see that among the civilians caught up in this mess are Iron, Iron Monroe, and of course, Ms. Jennings is there too. There's a brief struggle, and Monroe somehow gets his hands on that Kryptonian debris she's been carrying around with her. It's a sunstone, and that's what we'll be calling it from this point on. Uh, when he touches it, he sees all of these very disappointing. The depressing recent Superman scenes, including uh, you know Jonathan Kent's funeral, Superman crying, the rain, you uh, know, sad stuff. Yeah, cure Very songs. Very sad stuff. Yeah, no. <laughs> yes, you know, a, a dog in a cast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Jennings quickly snatches the stone back because you know. Monroe's on the verge of tears. Uh, Now, after a bit more fighting, Superman realizes that Livewire can't control her powers. And it's as though she's about to overload. Well, just so happens he had something very similar happen to him back in the day. And so he zips up to the Fortress of Solitude and procures his electric blue costume. He takes it to Star Labs for some resizing and then gives it to Livewire. Hey! And everything's cool! Perfect! She does do a little bit of alterations. She changes the S to an L, which looks really lame, on the costume, and she promises to be good, and Superman takes her for her word. Now, this ending, I liked it in a way because it was very Silver Agey. Yes. The idea that he would go and do, like, quick, quick alterations, you know, like, <laughs> a, yep. his, his super sewing you know, skills, but uh, <laughs> it was it was also ridiculous. Uh, so, <laughs> Superman number 712, August 2011, cover date. A lost crypto story to make up for time. Lost Boy by Kurt Busiek and Rick Leonardi, which we won't be discussing. It actually nope. wasn't even included in my trade that I got. Ah. Uh, editor's note, it said, sorry for the grounded delay, but in the meantime, please enjoy this lost classic. Set shortly after Superboy died in Infinite Crisis and Superman went missing. More on why they did this in just a second. Mm-hmm. Literally. Yep. It was Superman's, Superman number 713, September 2011, cover date. Grounded Part 11 mm. by Straczynski, Roberson, and Barrows. Now, if you're if you're keenly listening here, you're probably thinking, Part 11? What the hell happened to Part 10? Yeah. Well, we're going to introduce you to a fellow by the name of Super Muslim. Or... <laughs> I don't know. Super Muslim? Uh, it's, it's spelled Muslim. They spelled it Muslim. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think is is uh, maybe Roberson's. Uh, no, I don't think he's he's not British, but I don't know. Uh, <laughs> either way, Superman seven twelve was supposed to introduce a superpowered character called Sharif, which means protector. Now Sharif would be the grown up version of Sinbad, who first appeared in Superman volume two number forty eight, way back in October nineteen ninety. Now, he would wear a costume similar to Superman's. It's actually, from the pictures, it looks more similar to the Keenan Kong new Superman costume. Oh, yeah. Oh. yeah, only the shield would have an Arabic S, not a, you know, S. Right, a letter S, yeah. Yeah. Now, this issue was all set to run, and DC even showed the cover in the letters page in Superman 711. According to Roberson, the script went through almost a half dozen revisions before editorial would even touch it. Where was editorial when JMS was turning in the garbage that he wrote? 
I don't know. I mean, well, it's they, they snapped to it for this, so what happened? <laughs> the three issues of this went by that were garbage. Right? Now, apparently, at the end of the day, the idea of a super-powered Muslim was still too hot to handle, so DC ultimately decided not to run it. Well, well, what might have been, but we will what go on. What might have been? The story proper here, we're in Newburgh, Oregon, and Superman is joined by Superboy and Supergirl. He takes them to a remote location and begins to strip off his costume. Wait, what? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, he tells them <laughs> that he will continue fighting for truth, justice, and the American way, but not as Superman. Yes, he says, I've been searching for an answer to a question. Must there be a Superman? And the answer, I've realized, is no. Supergirl says, what? And Superboy says, I don't get it. What's the gag? I'm serious. We do a lot of good, but I've decided it isn't worth the cost. So what? You're just going to stop helping people? Oh, no. I'll still be helping people. I just won't be doing it out in the open, and I'd recommend that the two of you do the same. You're kidding, right? Supergirl says, Cal, I know you've been depressed, but... I have been depressed, but that's not what this is about. Now he's changing to his civilian Clark Kent duds and heads off to the Sun Dollar Coffee Shop to write in public. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. There he meets Oregon's biggest Superman fan. Now, if JMS was still the driving force behind this book, I'd swear this dude was made to lampoon every comic fan on the internet. I mean, it's like the Simpsons comic book guy come to life. He's unkempt, greasy, wearing a Superman sweatshirt. The barristers suggest Clark talk to him because... Nobody knows more about Superman than him. This, of course, leads to West Coast Bibbo telling Clark Kent that he doesn't know anything about Superman. <laughs> there's there's got to be at least a little meta commentary yes, here, right? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Now, the uh, superfan tells Kent that he enjoyed Under a Yellow Sun, which was the novel that Clark had written. It's also a prestige format comic book published by DC in 1994 by Clark Kent with John Francis Moore. Ooh. Anywho, he takes Clark on a walk around town to see how folks really feel about the Man of Steel. First, they ask a kid on a bike. Yeah, the super super fan points to the Superman S on his sweatshirt and goes, Hey, kid, hang on a second. Are you afraid of the guy this stands for? And the kid says, Are you kidding? It stands for Superman. Who'd be afraid of him? Superman's the best. He's stronger than anyone else. And tougher and faster. Nothing could stop Superman. Not even dying. And then they go to talk to a woman. Excuse me, ma'am. Quick question for you. Do you fear or distrust Superman? What? Well, no. I don't know that there's anyone I trust more than Superman. If you ask me, he's all about the truth. And then they go to talk to a dude. Excuse me, sir. Do you think that Superman harms or even kills the villains he captures? Superman? Kill a dude? No way. Yeah, he just chucks him into the Phantom Zoo. Uh, we don't want to talk about that, <laughs> yeah. Uh, then they go to talk to a family. Excuse me, folks. We're doing a quick survey, and I was wondering if we could ask you a question. Do you resent the fact that Superman has superpowers and you don't? The young girl says, Superman is my favorite. And her mom says, Resent him? We thank heaven every day he can do the things we cannot do. Finally, it appears as though Clark is convinced the world might just need a Superman. <laughs> this comes because, to a head. Because of this informal poll around town. <laughs> this is what highly scientific. What's going on? 
<laughs> they're sending the findings to uh, the, yeah. the APA right now. <laughs> now, this all comes to a head when they notice a group huddled around a tablet watching a live feed from Seattle where Ms. Jennings has taken Lois Lane captive. Uh-oh, and we can hear Uh-oh. her. So we can hear her say, You hear me, Superman? Show yourself or I will kill Lois Lane. Well, she must have seen the playbook. She knows what to do. Yeah. Uh, now, this takes us to the final issue of this of this arc and the final issue of like the third or fourth longest running comic book ever uh, <laughs> Superman number 714 October 2011 cover date story title is Grounded comma finale by Straczynski Roberson and Jamal Eichel I guess uh, I'm, I'm guessing Barrows might have had some new 52 stuff on his agenda at this yeah. point now we're in Seattle and Ms. Jennings is holding Lois captive, and just like we said 15 seconds ago, she's threatening to kill her. Superman arrives in the nick of time and swoops Lois to the relative safety of Redmond, Washington, the home of uh, Nintendo USA. Yeah, and apparently the bicycle capital of the Northwest. Yeah. How about that? Uh, after returning to Seattle, he and Jennings fight. Yeah, Superman goes, do you mind telling me who you are? I am your shadow. I am all of the doubts and fears you've been afraid to face. I am the answer to the question you never wanted to ask. What you are is annoying. Which is probably the first thing he said in this entire arc that we agree with. Right? Yeah. (laughs) He continues, what is it you want from me? I want you to suffer, Superman, like you made me suffer. Now, to avoid their battle destroying Seattle, for the first time, uh, Superman worries about that. Right, yeah. He, uh, he calls for the lightning door to open, and that's a reference to the Superman squad and how they travel. Uh, and so, a door opens, and Superman forces Jennings inside. They emerge in what's called the still zone, which is basically just a white background. Oh, so that's where the early image books take place, in the still zone. Ah, now that it makes, makes sense. Makes sense, yeah. <laughs> now Superman is finally able to get Jennings to spill the beans. My name is Lisa Jennings. I teach high school science in Danville, Ohio. At least that's who I was until I touched this. <laughs> Those were not high school kids that gave her the sunstone. <laughs> <Nope>. uh, now, <laughs> she produces the sunstone from her very stylish messenger bag. It's a really good thing that it didn't get knocked off in this, like, battle with Superman. Oh, see, she wore it, you know, over the shoulders. Over the shoulder, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Superman sees the sunstone and goes, A Kryptonian sunstone? An interrogation device? Two of my students found it in a field. They thought it was a meteorite and brought it to me. But you were passing by just then, in the middle of your sad Superman walk across America. Sing it, sister. Yeah. (laughs) And I touched the sudden stone just as you passed by a few yards away. My head was suddenly filled with all these thoughts and feelings. With all your thoughts and feelings, Superman. All of your grief and your sadness and your doubt. It all came pouring into my mind. It filled my head. She goes on to explain how she used her newfound powers to alter Superman's dreams and also to affect the way he perceived things around him. What? And uh, if you remember from before, we're going to flash back to that park from earlier, and, and instead of the woman saying, you are a gun to Superman, she was really saying, you are our hero. So what she was saying is, you know, if someone walked into a park with a gun... We'd be afraid you, you are our understand hero. that you are our hero. That's without okay. That that's yeah. Seems, you need you need to leave right now because you are our hero. That sounds very likely and also very flimsy. Indeed. 
Uh, at this point, Superman knows the answer to that question he'd asked himself during the second half of this arc. Must there be a Superman? He's uh, he's decided to change his answer to yes. Yeah, he's, he's, he asked, can I change my answer? Uh, just in case it wasn't <laughs> obvious. Uh, Superman grabs the sunstone, but Jennings doesn't let go. It shatters, nearly killing her. He scoops her up and calls out to the Superman squad. Those of you in the Fortress of Solidarity, if you're listening. Like they have anything better to do. Yeah. I know the answer to the question now. Must there be a Superman? Yes. And there always will be. And with that, he steps back through the lightning door. He heads home and makes good with Lois. Turns out she wrote the article anyway. <laughs> Got him. <laughs> now from here, Superman decides to form his own Superman Incorporated of sorts and delivers signal watches to some of his pals, including Super Chief and Steel. Iron Monroe, Livewire, Superboy. Supergirl and... Lisa Jennings. Hey. Unfortunately, Sharif was not on the list. No. Uh, he probably would have been, but he isn't. Yeah. Now, the issue, arc, and volume of Superman ends with the Superman squad watching the Man of Steel and Lois. And they're sad that eventually Lois is going to have to die, which, <laughs> really? let me tell you, is a hell of a high note to end on. Like just realizing, ah, oh, he's going to outlive her. Ah, oh, well, you know, <laughs> one of the guys says, Superman and his wife are back together then? And the young girl in the super squad goes, But I thought that she eventually, well, you know. And a woman says, Superman did say that not even death could keep them apart, didn't he? They may have been separated from time to time, but they always found their way back to one another and lived happily ever after. And together, they fought that never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way. And this woman is uh, Lisa Jennings, by the way, who uh, we find out Superman inspired her. Oh. Not Wonder Woman, her. Wow. And she was the one who delivered Superman to, to inspire her. Uh, now, the last thing we see in this entire volume of Superman is him winking at the reader, which is... Apropos. Yeah, a very, a very Fleischer ending, but uh, yeah. there was no good ending for this, you know. It, no, no, there wasn't. You know, uh, it's also, like we said, the next month began the new 52, so this whole yep. super team family is irrelevant. None of this. Yep. It all gets wiped away. No one cares. <laughs> uh, never been referenced. Of all the things they've referenced and past continuity since the beginning of the new 52, this has never been one of them. You notice that? Nope. So, uh yeah, there's a reason for that, folks. Yeah, but, uh, and I'm surprised we didn't see Lisa Jennings again. I, I thought, I mean, she's a, it's a, she's a black woman, uh, and uh, she's super-powered. I, I'll be honest, this in just the Superman Incorporated idea isn't horrible. I wouldn't mind it's seeing not. some no. of this stuff happen. It, it would all obviously depend on its execution. But obviously, since like some of these characters, Superboy like vanished when New 52 began, and yep. Supergirl became someone else totally and got de-aged. Steel was de-aged. Steel, and... So there was nothing There was nothing to do there, I guess. But, uh, oh well, what could have been, you know, to be mm. honest, even though there are some nuggets in here, some good ideas, probably best we just let's put this away. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. just try to, try to forget that this ever happened. Uh, we'll wrap up on Straczynski here. He would continue working at DC Comics on the Earth One line of original graphic novels. He did a volume two of that Superman, as well as the Before Watchmen project. Joe's Comics imprint was revived in 2013 and is still pumping out work today. 
In addition, in addition, uh, JMS would write for Dynamite Comics' Twilight Zone comic book from 2013 to 2015. Along with the Wachowskis, uh, Trzinski sold the sci-fi series Sense8 to Netflix. He won a bunch of awards. Uh, 1994 won the Inkpot Award. 1996, the Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation in Babylon 5. 1997, another of the same award for Babylon 5. In 1999, he won the Bradbury Award for Outstanding Dramatic Presentation, also for Babylon 5. Uh, 2002, he got the Eisner Award for Best Serialized Story in Amazing Spider-Man, and 2005 Eagle Award for Favorite Comics Writer. 2008, he won the Christopher Award for Feature Films for the movie Changeling. In 2013, he won the International Icon Award, and in 2016, Glad Media Award for Outstanding Drama Series for Sense8. Uh, not exactly an award, but he has an asteroid discovered in 1992 named after him. It's 8379 Straczynski, discovered by the Kitt Peak National Observatory. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Um, now, uh, Eddie Barrows here. Having survived Superman Grounded, Barrows has remained in the employ of DC Comics ever since. Mm-hmm. Since the New 52, he's had runs on Nightwing, Teen Titans, Justice League of America, Superman slash Wonder Woman, Earth 2 World's End, Martian Manhunter, and is currently working on Detective Comics and maybe Suicide Squad. Uh, not at the second, but he did. He did some backups. He, he did Suicide Squad earlier. You know, yeah, he did uh, some, some stuff earlier Post on Post-Rebirth, yeah. Often, often when suddenly the art changes for the, for the much better on a series, you find out yes. that he is involved. Because <laughs> he's very, very good. Uh, he's really good, yeah. This this series does look good, but if you heard what we read, you'd know it's crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Chris Roberson shifted from DC proper to Vertigo, where he would co-create iZombie. He left DC over a disagreement with how they handled the Siegel-Schuster lawsuit, as well as their use of the Watchmen characters for the Before Watchmen project. He said, My reasons for no longer wanting to be associated with DC don't stem from anything to do with my personal experiences there but from watching the way that the company has treated and continues to treat other creators and heirs. The countersuit against the Siegel estate and the announcement of the Watchmen prequels were the specific incidents that crystallized my feelings on this matter. He wrote Stan Lee's Starborn for Boom Studios and along with his wife Allison Baker, Roberson is currently the publisher for Monkey Brain Books. They live in Austin, Texas with their daughter, Georgia. Now, we got a little bit of controversy and a little bit of fallout to discuss here. Uh, we're going to start. We don't usually cite other people's reviews, but this one is a uh, rather notorious review for a rather notorious book. Uh, the Comics Alliance ranked the opening chapter of Superman Grounded as the worst comic of 2010 and among the worst of the decade. Jason Michalich? Michalich? Yeah, I, I don't know. Jason M. said that <laughs> he wrote that Superman 701, quote, reads like a mini thesis of its own, and it has a very clear message. Anyone who criticizes this comic is stupid and shallow and should shut the hell up. I feel like they're talking right to us. Right. I'm he goes on to put it shallow. There's no question there. <laughs> <laughs> now, he, he also describes it as, quote, defensive from the get go. Obsessed with boxing out its inevitable critics by devoting four full pages and parts of three others to condescending, to belittling, or humiliating reader stand-ins who dare to question the wisdom of the story Straczynski has chosen to write. In the first issue, too, by the way. This is the, just at 701, in yeah. The, in the arc, he's already coming yeah. out swinging, and I gotta say, like we, we don't usually do reviews, but I'm right there with Jason M. I think he's uh, yeah. on the money here. On the uh, money. On taking over for, for, from Straczynski, Chris Roberson said, 
So when I signed on in October of last year, they gave me a one-page, you know, you can charitably call it an outline, written by Straczynski, where he saw the remaining issues going. I think it was drafted at a point where he had assumed he would be writing them. So this is what he is giving DC Editorial to draft solicitation copy. Draft solicitation copy. copy. So that's what the editorial was doing. Yeah, they probably had to d- d- discover it like ancient runes or something, what the hell, what he was trying to do with this story. Because <laughs> they, sure, they sure weren't giving any guidance or editorial. Nope, uh, not <laughs> at all. Uh, Robeson continues. He says, apparently at some point soon after that, before Superman Earth 1 has come out, Super- Straczynski decides that the monthly comic books don't matter anymore because he knows there's a relaunch coming, so he can comfortably quit and let somebody else finish the story for him. Sounds uh, crazy, but true. Yeah, uh, and not very nice. Not very nice at all. That's that's leaving someone with the bag right there. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, now, just how much of of uh, this outline did Roberson keep? He explained in a 2011 interview with Comic Book News, CosmicBookNews.com, that basically everything in his issues was his. From the JMS outline, he would keep, of course, the city to city walk because that's. The thing, right? <laughs> and of course, uh, he also guest appearances from Flash and Wonder Woman. He claims he wasn't able to make sense out of some of Straczynski's uh, stories, including a guest appearance from Dead Man, who at this time was coming out was not was not even dead. Nope. Uh, it was during Brightest Day, and there's no way JMS would know about that, right? I mean, it was only like DC's core editorial direction at the time. Like, like eighty percent of DC's books had Brightest Day on the cover. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but uh, I guess I, I guess we can't expect them to read any, you know, any of DC's output because it's pretty clear he hasn't read a page of Superman since the what the fifties. Ever? I don't 60s, think. I don't think he ever, ever. even read the comic yeah. strip or even saw the Christopher Reeve movie. I mean, good God, oh, Lordy. Uh, there was also a story that was supposed to occur in Los Angeles where Superman gets in the middle of a gang war, <laughs> where two bullets are fired and he can only stop one. Roberson jokes because as we all know from Superman's credo that he's exactly as fast as one speeding bullet. (laughs) (laughs) Roberson Roberson describes the outline he was given as, quote, dreary, which uh, from what we did get is putting it very kindly. He says it's filled with all the things Superman can't do, all the things Superman is limited by, and how real-world problems are beyond his ability to affect, which, folks, is why we don't do stories like this. So bad. It's really bad. Uh, It beggars belief. Yeah, uh, now even Marvel creators and editors got in on the act here. JMS was feeling a little cocky and shared a graph via his Facebook fan page that illustrated that sales on Amazing Spider-Man had dropped since he left. Uh, we also got to mention that it also, when he after he left, Spider-Man also went like three times monthly. Right. And uh, it was part of Brand actually. New Day. People were nervous. That's pretty much when Slot picked it up, right? He was one of the brain trust, yeah. Okay. Because uh, they 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 jumped around every uh, every three or four issues with a different creator until they evened everything out. Um, now, due to this, he began an internet slap fight with the likes of Mark Wade and Steve Wacker. You know, uh, two notable oh yeah comic crap heels themselves. <laughs> wherein, uh, who, who, who definitely yeah. had no problem that back then being on the internet Smack fighting. Back, I'll tell you yeah. what, yeah. Now, uh, during this little slap fight, the quality level of JMS's Superman work was called into question. I think Wacker said something like, hey, you're not writing it anymore? I guess I can read it now. And uh, (laughs) they also mentioned uh, the rapidly dropping sales, which... 
give the devil his due wasn't JMS's fault. Everybody knew that the new 52 right. was coming, and everybody was jumping shit. I it was mean, a lame duck run halfway yeah, through. Yeah, all the, all the comics in... Definitely from like July and August, right before the new yeah. you had just absolutely tanked. There was no hope tanked. for them. Uh, not that this would have done well, even in the best of circumstances, but no. it was people had really jumped ship by that point. But yeah. uh, he he did add about I think because like the issue before he came on, I think it was something like thirty thousand sold, and when he came on, it was like fifty four thousand sold. So he almost doubled the sales for the oh, first wow. two or three yeah. issues. But I think a lot of that was curiosity, um, and I think a lot of that was people reading it, saying how bad it was, and then a lot of other people going out to buy it to see just how bad it was. I, that seven hundred one is almost a so bad you. Have have to see it to believe it like you know but yeah i just yeah. hate i just hate to think of a human person paying money paying money but yeah. if, if you could find it or steal it or you know <laughs> it, it is one of these things you have to almost see it to believe it and uh you know chris knows i didn't read this before the, yeah I, this this is a run that i've heard of and basically said to myself i'm not reading that you know nope. <laughs> <It's> ridiculous <laughs> uh but I, I had heard about it and now having read it i gotta say i'm really no better for it it is truly <laughs> Truly bad. It's uh, it's just not close to Superman. And you know, no. I don't think you or I, either of us, are such sticklers about Superman or any one character that they can't be interpreted a couple sure. of ways. As a matter of fact, part of this Superman coming back to Earth, it reminds me of like that old the, the thing between you know John Byrne saying that Superman should never say "Great Row," he should say good God, or, you know, he's, oh, oh my God, he's, yeah. he's, and even though he's from Krypton, he's an earthling, you know, raised, and that's the, that's the Superman I like, prefer better also, mm -hmm. I like the more, uh, ground-based Superman, this, whatever this is, I don't like this at all, I don't know what this is about, no, this was, I mean, we, we, we talked back and forth over the past couple of weeks, this is a cruel yeah, Superman, he's like a bully, he's like a mean, he's a, a bully. mean person, yeah. He's just not. He has. There's nothing likable about him. And I mean, they they do, uh, you know, Deus Ex Machina it out with the whole. Oh well, you were just seeing what we wanted you to see. But so much of that doesn't line up. But yeah. I, and I, I get that. That was Roberson really trying to save this. Yeah. And uh, you know, it's it's kind of like, you know, you know, like when you when you when you when you put an orange peel in the garbage can, like you have that brief like instant where it's like, ah, oh, it doesn't smell quite as bad anymore. Right, right. But then, but then you like... look down and you realize it's still garbage. <laughs> you know, that's, that's what I'm getting here. It's like, <laughs> there's a little bit of freshness. turns, you know? Yes. It's a little bit of freshness, but at the same time, it's still grounded. Yeah. It's, uh, it's definitely, I, I can't recommend it, folks. But like I say, that's, no. that's 701. If you need, if you need a laugh, if you need to see 701, yeah, one of, the, one of the worst comics I've ever read. I'm just saying that right now. It's up one there. Of the worst it's comics ever. I really, I'd have to get a list going, but I think this would be in the top five. And I, and I have read some real garbage, and I know that you, you have too, Chris. Yeah, it's. I was trying to figure out. I was racking my brain thinking about because I mean, there have been thousands of Superman comic books, and a lot of bad ones too. I mean, it just stands to reason that there's going to be bad ones. I cannot think of a single Superman story worse than this. Well, I got got news for you. We have an amazing hook for the episode. It's a list. Yes. Of the Superman stories that are worse than Superman Grounded. And if you'd like to contact the show, you can find us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Find us on facebook.com slash cosmic t-mail history. We're on Twitter at cosmic t-mail, and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. You can see our weekly writings at weirdsciencedccomics.com and Chris's daily DC Comics reviews on chrisisuninfiniteearths.com. 
where he reviews a different DC comic every day. It's been uh, definitely, you know, I, I almost feel like we can tell how your week is going by what, you, <laughs> by what you're reviewing, and I definitely got the impression you've been a little, a little under the gun this week. A little bit. It's been a little all, all over the place, but <clears throat> excuse me, it's uh, it's great. You always have a, a ton of pictures from the book, great insights on the ads at the end. I love, and they they can run from any time, any time period. You got them from sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties, up till today. So, including uh, uh, Superman seven hundred one. If anybody wants to go take a look at that, I've always said that your reading your <laughs> website, an issue on your website, is the next mm-hmm. best thing to read in the comics. So that might be the best way to do it. Yeah, because it's you. free. It is free and <laughs> no cover judge. And Chris definitely showed the best parts or the best worst parts. <laughs> the like, best of the worst. The yes. best way to put it. So uh, yeah, Chris is on infiniteearth.com. You got to check that out. Uh, also, we have our show blog, uh, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com, uh, which I mean, I think uh, I think you can go there and hear crickets. So, I mean, there's, there's <laughs> oh. that. So if you ever want to hear crickets, you go over there, and we got crickets. Oh, I, I will do. I promise. I, I'll put <laughs> something on this on this thing. I got it. I I, always, I think about it at the worst times. I'm just you me know, too. I, me too. You got to be there. To, and then when I sit down at the computer, I forget. Yeah, I'm sitting in the car going like, oh, I should do that. Exactly. Nah, 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 exactly. Or like, <laughs> I'm so I'm like on the train, you know, thinking yep. about it. But uh, it is there. And if, if nothing else, it has every uh, pre-crisis appearance of the monitor still. So that's uh, that's the claim to fame. <laughs> That's it's the claim true. of fame. If you, that's the only place on the internet you can find that. <laughs> but uh, I think we have covered a lot of ground here today, Chris. <laughs> uh, and I think that's all we got for him. You got anything else for him? Fortunately, I think we're done. Well, folks, I want you to keep it on the treadmill over here. Someone else will have to worry about that treadmill over there. Since you can't remember you never taken my advice It's always been the same for you Decide that once and don't think twice No one can expect too much too soon to tell to one too young A B C only is ways one who's waiting to be stuck Round.